Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Is there anyone here that are from the Ghana Nation? All right, my name is Christine I'm a descendant of the Ewan people of New South Wales, South Coast. And before we start our meeting, I would like everyone to acknowledge and honour the Ghana people whose land we are meeting on today. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Bob and I am alcoholic. And only through the grace of a God that I was afraid to believe in, that I've accessed and maintained in my life through the process in this book, good sponsorship and ability to remain sponsorable, and a persistent and consistent effort in this altruistic movement of our primary purpose to help others. I haven't had a drink or any mind or emotion altering substance since October 31st, 1978. And that is the most important day of my life, the day that I stopped dying. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. I want to thank George and all the members of the committee for all their hard work. I've been on a lot of committees over the years. And it's, it's really a labor of love, and they've put a lot of energy into putting this weekend together. And uh, I want to thank them for that. I'm, I'm curious, uh, before we start, let's, I'd like to open with a prayer. If you'd indulge me with a moment of silence. Lord, help me to set aside everything I think I know about you, everything I think I know about myself, everything I think I know about others, and everything I think I know about this program recovery, all for a new experience in you, Lord, a new experience in myself, a new experience in other people, and a much-needed new experience in this program of recovery. Amen. Who's here? That's what I'm curious about. How many people here are in their first year of absolute abstinence? Don't be embarrassed. All right, great. Oh, I'm really glad you guys are here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Anybody here in their first 30 days? Oh, welcome, welcome. All right, cool, very cool. Anybody in their last 30 days? I always want to check. Catch you on the way out. Um, the people that are new, I hope you hear something here that will drive you to get with your sponsor. There's nothing going to occur this weekend that's going to change your life, but there may be some things that occur this weekend that will lift a veil and you will see uh, a path that you didn't see before. Maybe you'll, a fire will be put under you to drive you to do this thing that changes lives. Uh, one of the things, uh, that prayer we opened with has been an important part of my, my recovery for about 30 years now, I suppose. Uh, 
I got it. It's an extrapolation of a prayer I got from a guy in Colorado who's been dead for a few years. It was a dear friend named Don Pritz. And the reason it's so it's such a great prayer for me is that my ego is that part of me that thinks it knows stuff, right? That blocks out learning anything new. It's that thing, that little part of you that that, that feel the smug part, the part that you can't tell anything to, the part that already knows, the part that that only can listen to see how people are wrong. That part and. Uh, that is the enemy. The, the Buddhists uh, often uh, teach by story. And one of their stories that depicts uh, what they believe is, is enlightenment, when you get to the point where you know the most important thing you'd ever know, is a story about a, an old Chinese farmer who exists uh, on this meager piece of land with his son. And they, they're very, very poor. And they don't own the land. Uh, a lord owns the land and allows them to live there and work hard in the field. And they have to tithe most of their crop to the lord. They get to make a meager living. They don't own the house. They don't own the tools that they toil the fields with. Uh, they own only one thing. It's their whole estate. And that is a horse. And they're very proud to own this horse. Um, one day, the horse runs off, and they virtually have lost everything they owned. And all their friends and neighbors and families come over to console them, to tell them how horrible this is. And this little old wise Chinese farmer just looks at them, and as they're telling him how terrible this is, he's lost everything. And he shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know if it's terrible. Maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. And they look at him like he's... He's out of his mind. A couple days later, the horse returns, and it runs right into the corral as the sun stands there holding the gate, with a, leading a whole herd of wild horses. And, it, and it, all of a sudden, this guy is the richest man in the valley. He's hit the frickin' horse lottery. I mean, like, oh my God. And now his friends and neighbors and family come over to celebrate, to tell him how wonderful this is. And he... He says, I don't know if it's wonderful. Maybe it is. And maybe it isn't. And they they think, this guy must be smoking something. You just hit the horse lottery and you don't even think it's good? And he just goes, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. And about a week later, his only son is uh, trying to break one of the wild horses and he's thrown and he's crippled up pretty good and his leg is all mangled up and broken badly. And he can't walk and he can't work and of course, his loved ones and his friends and his family come over to console him, to tell him how horrible this is, that his only son has been mangled up pretty badly. And he looks at them and he just shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know if it's bad. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't. And they look at him like he's crazy. This is your only son and he's been crippled up and he's got a terribly badly broken leg and you don't even think that's bad and he says i don't know maybe it is and maybe it isn't a week later the chinese army came through the valley and they would force all the young men to go and fight in the battle where none of them could survive and they couldn't take the son because of his leg 
See, the old man knew the most important thing he would ever, ever know. What true enlightenment is, is that he doesn't know. It is the ego that supposes. It is the ego that assumes. It is the ego that judges. It is the ego that is my enemy. And uh, the worst thing I can carry uh, into today's recovery is the stuff that has come from yesterday. Because it limits me here. And, and it, I think sometimes some of us puff ourselves up with how many years we have or our accomplishments in AA. And it really blocks us from having legitimately new experience today. And today's the only day I got. I want to talk some, and I know there's a lot of new people here, so this is very important. Uh, I want to talk some about what what step one has been in my experience. I'm not I'm not an academic guy, even though we will talk about some things in the book. But I've discovered over the years that the most important thing that we have to give each other is our experience, not our opinions, not our beliefs, but our actual experience. You can argue with my opinions because you may not be your opinions. But you can't argue with my experience. It may not be your experience, but it's my experience. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. And, and that's, you're going to get a lot of that today. And, and, and the great thing in Alcoholics Anonymous is that we connect with each other through our, the genuineness of our experience. That, and, and I know everybody in this room has had that experience sitting in a room and someone is opening up and talking genuinely about themselves. Maybe some things are hard to talk about. And you're sitting there and something is happening between you and that person. There's a resonating thing inside of you. Some of you may have also had the experience of sitting in a meeting and listening to a man or woman share something that intellectually you know you've never heard that. And yet it is it hits you with such a rightness as, as if you always knew it. And you never heard it before. And, and that has always been the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not in what we know, it's in our experience. I was baffled uh, by step one. I, I think step one is the hardest thing we ever do. It, it is so difficult, it kills most alcoholics because they can't do it. When it says in the beginning of chapter 3 that most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics, oh my God, that's so, that is such a universal thing. I, I bet you there's people in this room that sitting here today know beyond a shadow of a doubt you're an alcoholic. Yet you can look back in your life to a point that you can see now you were alcoholic that 10 years ago, but you didn't know it, did you? You would have bet anything you weren't alcoholic back then. We don't want to be alcoholic. I'd rather be, I'd rather be a mental health case. I'd rather be a drug addict. I'd rather be anything, but not an, I don't know, what is that about a, I mean, about alcoholic, we don't want to be alcoholics. Uh, but I am. And I didn't know it. And very slowly, uh, over years of failure, uh, trying to control and enjoy my drinking, I, I started to to get it down in here. In chapter three, it talks about step one differently than than it does on the than it does here. 
Here it says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I, I could do that and not mean it and think I meant it. You know, I could, you get me in a treatment center, I'm in a bunch of people looking at me in a group, I'll admit just about anything. Just, I don't want any, I don't want any problems here. You know, I don't want conflict. I don't want, I don't want the counselor jumping me after the meeting. Yeah, I'm alcoholic. But that doesn't mean that in my innermost self that I believe it. And that's what it says in, in chapter three. It says we learned, which implies that this is a little bit of a process, that an evolution, a learning. That we learned that we had to fully concede. Fully concede. That's like complete. Fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. There is a place in every single one of us, I believe, where you know stuff. It's not chatter up here. There's no conversation in your head debating about it. You just know it like you know you need your next breath. And that's where this stuff has to occur. My grand sponsor was a guy named Chuck Chamberlain, and he used to say that this is an inside job. And because of, because of this place that we have to do this in here, uh, and the reason it has to happen in here, I think it exemplifies the great failure of intellectual approaches to the treatment of alcoholism. Treatment centers will try in 30 days to give you a, a, the equivalent of a doctorate degree in alcoholism. Uh, I, I've watched, I watched, we have a, a big, very fancy treatment center in the U.S. called Betty Ford. And I would sit in meetings, and people who just got out of Betty Ford, they're, they're sober about six weeks, would come to meetings and announce that they had, they just graduated from Betty Ford, and they had the new information here, uh, as if they, 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 they said it as if they'd graduated from Harvard or Oxford or something, you know? I wanted to say, it's a detox. <laughs> It's not some kind of, but they, you get, they, they come out of there with a head full of information. And how often, that's a setup. And how often those people drink again. Because it has to happen in here. Well, how do you do that? I think I think there's a thing that happens. It, it involves God's grace, whether you're con- whether you believe in God or not. There's something inside of us that has to happen, and you can't manufacture it. It's a coming together of our own bitter experience, coupled with the experience of others and the information in this book, where all of a sudden stuff moves from up here down into here, down into the heart where you start to get stuff. Um, One of the great contributors to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't think any of us would be here without him, was a man by the name of uh, William G. Silkworth. And Dr. Silkworth was a psychiatrist who had devoted his life to us. And he wasn't an alcoholic. 
and he was a remarkable man. And he made inroads and he had insights and intuitive insights into this disease that were remarkable. That, that decades later have been proven absolutely scientifically accurate by research. But he just came to these conclusions from observation over and over and over again of us. And on, on, in the big book on page XXVIII, Silkworth starts to talk about these things that he's come to know. And, and this is important information for me. If I'm going to understand at a gut level what it is to, to be powerless over alcohol. In the first full paragraph on that page, Silky says, We believe and suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class. What class? Chronic alcoholics. Limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff in those, those couple lines. The first thing he says <clears throat> that is meaningful to me is he's talking about a type of alcoholic, a chronic alcoholic. I am a chronic alcoholic. I have come to believe over the years <clears throat> through observation that there's also acute alcoholics. And it's a big, it's a world of difference between the two positions. Yet when the acute alcoholic drinks and the chronic alcoholic drinks, we appear to be the same. If, if a chronic alcoholic that has been drinking and a, an acute alcoholic that's been drinking will end up in the office of a therapist or a doctor or a clergy member, that both of them will be easily diagnosed as alcoholic. But there is a very major difference between the two. And it is important to know which one you are because the whole course of your life depends upon knowing that. And your whole recovery is different. The recovery of a chronic alcoholic is different than the recovery of an acute alcoholic. On page 20 and 21 of the book, it talks about the two differences. It, it talks about uh, the first, on the very, very bottom of page 20, it talks about what could be considered an acute alcoholic. It, it, they call him the hard drinker. I've, I've, heard other, I've heard therapists, I've heard doctors refer to it that are sober in AA as the problem drinker. And it says we have a certain type of hard drinker. Now, listen to the symptomology of this guy. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. This is not good. First of all, he's, he's drinking habitually to the point of mental and physical impairment. Most people would diagnose this guy as an alcoholic. Uh, it says it may cause him to die a few years before his time. It's, it's shaving, the more, longer he drinks, it's shaving years off his life. This is horrid. This is a, a life-threatening disease. And then, and then here's the difference between him as an acute alcoholic and me as a chronic alcoholic. And I bet you every chronic alcoholic in here has known people like this. Maybe you grew up with people like this. Maybe you went to church with people like this or worked with people like this. It says if a sufficiently strong reason 
ill health. The doctor says, hey, you've got, you got some liver problems and some pancreas problems. You keep drinking, you're going to die a horrible death. Falling in love. Oh, you meet that perfect person and they don't want to put up with your drinking and they give you an ultimatum and you just, okay, and you stop. Change of environment, warning of a doctor, warning of a judge, warning of a boss. These things become operative. This person, this person who look is drinking horridly, can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. If he's been drinking every day, he could even need detoxed. He might even have a little bit of tremors when he stops drinking. But within him is the ability to do one of two things. And there's two types of acute alcoholics. There's the type that can stop, and there's the type that can stop and moderate. I've I've bet you I've had the experience at least eight times where I'll be I'll be somewhere maybe I'll be on a plane sitting next to someone or I'll be in a restaurant. I, I when I had my corporation I used to put on a lot of social events and I'd meet people and they'd find out I was an AA and they'd say Oh I used to be an alcoholic. <laughs> really Oh yeah when I was in the Navy Oh my God I was in the brig I was it was terrible. But I see you're drinking a beer. Oh, I learned my lesson. I just have a couple once in a while. He don't have what I had. If I could do that, I'm telling you, I'd be doing it. <laughs> I'm not sober because it's a moral issue here. I, you know, you kidding me? Or, or you? I grew up with guy. I grew up with a guy. He was the first time guy I ever knew. I never even knew what DTs were. And he had, first guy ever, he had DTs in high school. Ended up in a mental hospital in high school from drinking because he, oh, he just, he couldn't stop once he started. And he, he'd gotten in a lot of trouble. He got a DUI. He had his license taken away from him. Lost jobs. And then he fell in love. And this girl he fell in love with uh, just said, you know, I'm not going to have it. And he said he thought to himself, "Man, I really I, I don't want to lose her." And he put the plug in the jug, and thirty some years later, he's still sober and he's happy and, and he's comfortable. And he, what happens to him when he quits drinking is his problem is solved. But the chronic alcoholic, like I am, when I quit drinking, my problem. In a vague way, I can't put my finger on. In a, it, right below the surface, where I can't really see it, my problem starts. And it's baffling to me. Uh, I, I'm not that guy. I, w- I used to want to be that guy, because I had sightseeing guys that could make up their mind to quit drinking, and they did, and they were fine. There, there's people in AA like that. That are sober 30 years with the benefit of step none. And they're happy, joyous, and free. I mean, their, their, their alcoholism ended when they quit drinking. And they come to AA because it's, 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 it fills the social gap that used to be filled by going to the pubs. AA to them is like the sober elks or something. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's a social support group. And that's all they need. 
And as long as they don't pick up the first drink, their alcoholism is over. But mine isn't. See, I'm the guy. I'm not like them. They're, they're kind of cool people when they quit drinking. They're nice people. Friendly, able, <laughs> kind. I, I'm, I'd like to be that way. But when I quit drinking, I just, I really see how stupid people are. <laughs> you know, I just see it. I just see the idiots. I mean, it's a gift. It's a gift. What can I say? I just see how stupid everybody is. I'm restless. Silkworth says, the bottom of the page, he says, when we get sober, we're restless, we're irritable, and we're discontented. What does that look like? What's this? What do they mean by restless? Every chronic alcoholic, whoever's quit drinking, knows what that means. That, that vague, undefinable feeling that wherever you are, it's not really where you need to be. Now, I don't know where I need to be. It's just not here. You know, did you ever watch a dog circle a living room looking for its spot to lay down? I'm a dog that can't find its spot. You know, I'm just, there's an aimlessness. I, I, I spend my whole life running from one thing to another as if this is the thing and it's not the thing. And this, she's the one and she's not the one. And that's the job and it's not the job. And it, I can't get settled anywhere, really. I'm restless. The next symptomology that Silkworth says to, to the, this, and these are the things that make me so sick, sober, it drives me back to drinking. Restless, and the second thing is irritable. And people rub me the wrong way. It, 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 but see, I don't know that. See, what it looks like to me is now that my mind's clearing, because I ain't drinking, I can just see, oh my God, you're really messed up. <laughs> Oh my God! I, this, you know, when I was drinking, this was a nice place to work, but now, oh my God, they're doing it wrong. They're they're idiots. And it's it's that it's my ego puffing up. I, I don't know um, that what I really am is I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. And that what that means, it's not so much I'm a piece of whale crap, I'm a very special piece of whale crap. <laughs> I, I, don't, I loathe myself, I have no self-esteem, and yet at the same time think I'm better and smarter than everybody else. That's crazy. It's almost a contradiction. But I've always been that way when I get sober. And, and so constant, consequently, I, I get angst up. Because life just seems to irritate me. And, and because people are doing it wrong, I don't, I can't forgive them until they're properly ashamed of themselves. <laughs> so I keep score because nobody's really properly ashamed of themselves. So I keep score. And until I feel like I'm going to blow up. Until it's, I'm overwhelmed with all these judgments and these conflicts inside of me. Until I'm just about insane. My sponsor says it best. He says it's, he says he gets sober time and time again. And after a while, it was like some hideous force put a spring in the pit of his stomach and life just started tightening it up every day a little bit more. 
a little bit more. And the, and the kids don't. Why are they making so much noise? And, you know, and the tax, look how much taxes I'm paying. And the boss, he's such an idiot. And the traffic has gotten worse. And, my God, it's raining all week. And, and just until you feel like your head's going to blow up. Um, so I'm restless and I'm irritable. And then the last thing is goes goes deep down within me and discontented. Alcoholism is a disease of chronic malcontent. That, and it's independent of reality. Do you know that the same feelings of, of dissatisfaction and disillusionment occur in the alcoholics living in $10 million homes just as much as in, in a couple hundred dollar a month flats? Because it's, it's a misinterpreted yearning. Um, Carl, Carl Jung, the great psychiatrist who was influential indirectly, he didn't realize it, in the forming of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's the psychiatrist that talks about in our big book when it talks about the guy who went to Switzerland, the, the, the rich businessman. He went to see Carl Jung and he spent a year in, in treatment with Jung. His name was Roland Hazard. And, um, Roland drank again, and Carl told him the truth. Carl said, "Oh, you're an. I didn't. I was hoping you weren't a real chronic alcoholic, but you're a chronic alcoholic, and there is no help anywhere on this planet for you. And your only hope is to make some kind of spiritual conversion to have some kind of connection." And he thought he could find it in church. And Young said, going to church may be nice, but it hardly will provide the vital spiritual experience you need. And Roland felt like the doors of hell were closed on him. And Young continued to work with alcoholics. He was fascinated by them. And in a letter in the early 60s to Bill Wilson, our, our co-founder, Young said something to Bill that is so right on to me. He said, after working with Roland and countless other alcoholics, he said, I came to the conclusion that the alcoholic's thirst for alcohol is not really a thirst for alcohol. He says, I believe it is a thirst of the alcoholic's being for unity, for connectedness, or if you're more religiously minded, a union with God. That something deep within me yearns for a homecoming. Yearns to connect to that from which I came. But Jung also says that this is a misinterpreted yearning. And, and so consequently, the, the unaided in our culture and society, this misinterpreted yearning will take guys like me down constant roads to perdition. To hell. And yet I'm driven by the yearning. And never knew it. And never once was conscious of it. I have never been on my way to, to obtain any kind of self-gratification that later I'm going to regret. Whether it's going to a bar, a liquor store, a drug dealer's house, going to have sex with someone I really don't even want to have lunch with. Uh, I mean, any, or go spend money I really can't afford to spend. Or do anything, self, 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 where I'm clamoring for some kind of relief and gratification on my way to the drug dealer's house or the bar or the pub. It, I never once have stopped and thought to myself, 
This is a misinterpreted yearning for God. <laughs> never, it never comes on the radar for me. And yet, when I read that, I thought, my God, I think that's it. I think that's it. Um, so Soki says, uh, with this, I always return to drinking. This chronic malcontent. And, and if you're like me, uh, this, this vacancy drives me. Unconsciously drives me. I don't know that it's driving me, but it's all, it's like I always got my antenna out. I always got my radar turned on looking for stuff that might make me feel better. Uh, if, if I'm in a relationship, immediately I start noticing better people. If I have a good job, I automatically see better jobs. Uh, I, I, I acquire things because I'm going to acquire. I, I, I think I've been driven by some sort of delusion that I can fill my vac vacancies by acquisition. If I bring enough of the right stuff and people into my life, surely then my vacancies will be filled. And I spend my whole life going, Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh come here, oh no, 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 oh, oh, oh yeah, oh, wrong again, you know, and, and there's a tremendous depression that settles in after every time, it's just this depression, because I, I don't I don't realize I was I was over ten years sober and I'm talking to a guy I'm sponsoring and he said something and the light went on and I realized what where the what the malcontent was. Is that I, I get sober and I'm vacant and I, I, I get I get the job. The jo I get that job. I mean the job the, the own a boat, buy a house and have a Harley Davidson kind of money job. I mean the job. And I'm not even at the job six weeks, and it just sort of just starts to look bad. You know, it's just, it's just the, the shine wears off of it so quickly for me. I get the girl. The, the, oh, I remember there's this girl I was infatuated with her for such a long time. I finally hooked up. She fell in love with me, which is, is not good, because if you love me, you're automatically below my standards. I mean, I, I want someone who has taste. Uh, <laughs> But but when she it's when she's I finally had what I wanted and the shine just started wearing off on it, and this guy said something to me and the light went on and he and what I realized is unconsciously now I was never conscious of this, but on an emotional level unconsciously I would compare what it feels like to have that job, to what it felt like to drink four shots of tequila. And the job sucks. I compare what it feels like to be loved by her to what it felt like to drink a pint of whiskey. And I don't like her anymore. Now, nothing's changed with the job. Nothing's changed with her. The problem is within me. See, alcohol spoils us. It ruins us, really. Those of us, no, normal drinkers never understand this because they never have had the spiritual experience from drinking that we had. They just get drunk. 
But it does something more for me than it does for them. And if you've ever watched a non-alcoholic drink, it's, it's a baffling thing to watch. My sister is a, not an alcoholic. I've sat, uh, my sister and I are very close. We, we have dinner together quite often. And my sister will have a drink or two. Um, I don't, I don't think she's ever, I think she might have been drunk once in her life and doesn't ever want to do that again. But my sister, well, first of all, it takes her a half hour to drink one drink. I mean, the ice is melting. It's like, this is alcohol abuse, if you know what I'm talking about. This is like, I mean, it's evaporating right before my eyes. She just, she, she forgets her drink is there. You have to remind, I remind her. Oh, do I? <laughs> hey, I paid for that. Um, she'll order a second drink in the second half hour of the evening and drink about two-thirds of it and then leave it on the table. And if I ask her about it, I say, aren't you going to finish that? You know what she'll say? She'll say the, the weirdest thing you ever. She'll say, no, I'm starting to feel it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're quitting now? You're, you're five minutes from heaven. What are you quitting now for? But my sister, when she feels the effect of alcohol, when that feeling starts to come over her, she likes a little bit of that feeling, just a little bit. But she gets this sense, and it's really a sane sense, that if she drinks more, she's going to lose control. And so she goes, whoa. But there's something wrong with me that I get to the same point where my sister gets to where she's starting to feel the effect of alcohol and gets a sense that if she goes further, she's going to get drunk and lose control. I don't get that. I get a feeling like I'm about to get control. I get a feeling like, oh my God, come on, come on, come on. And... and. I don't have the same reason. I don't have the same relationship. So when my sister and my parents and, and the women that I lived with and tried to love me, when they would see me build my life back up again sober and then tear it down one more time, they were baffled why I would do that. They would, they were baffled why when I start to drink, I just can't get a little high. I have to get whacked. Why I have to go so far? Why? Have you ever been? If you ever drank with a non-alcoholic, they'll say things to you. Don't you think it's time to stop? Don't you think you've had enough? Has anybody in here? Have you ever had enough? Have you ever sat in a bar and thought, "No, this is good." I mean, it's never. I'm a chronic alcoholic. It's one more, one more. Now I may stop to prove a point, or if I'm with you and you're on my back about my drinking, I'll show you. I'll quit and then I'll sneak out somewhere later on. Uh, but I, I have a different relationship to alcohol than these people. And so what happens to me is I quit drinking and it just starts to wear on me. This restlessness that I can't really put my finger on. I remember... And this, and the, and the irritability and discontent. I had a counselor one time. I, because I'm, a, I get depressed after I'm sober for a little while. I just sink into these depressions because, life, my my life pales. 
what I yearn for and what's so depressing is I'm not back to where I was when I was 18 years old and getting high like that. That's that's depressing. And this counselor said to me one time, he said, because I looked like I was depressed. He later sent me to a psychiatrist to get medication. And he said to me, he says, Bob, what's wrong? And I remember sitting there and I thought, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'd like to tell you. I really would like to know. By this time, I'd been to a dozen psychiatrists probably. I'd been in and out of treatment centers. I'd talked to so many people. I don't know. It's not that there's anything wrong. And that's the baffling part. It's just that nothing is right. It's just that there's something terribly missing here. And I don't know what it is, and I do today. It's the, it's the, the uplifting spiritual effect of alcohol is what was missing. I'd have given anything in my periods of abstinence if I could have drank and got the effect that I'd gotten when I was 18 years old. I'd given anything. So what happens, Silkworth says it best. He says, we succumb to the desire again, as so many of us do. We pick up a drink, hoping. And the phenomenon of craving develops. We pass through the well-known stages of a spree to end up somewhere swearing to myself again. I ain't ever going to do this again. Just to start the whole cycle of progressive, restless, irritable discontent until it's backed me into a corner, until I pick up a drink, or maybe I switch to something else. And it starts the cycle over in the book. Silkworth says this is repeated over and over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. This thing about relapse is so bad, was so baffling to me. How this could happen to me? I, I remember, I even, I, it, it, I, I've always secretly believed that knowledge was power. That if I could get enough information, so I, I went and studied and uh, took a lot of courses and, and uh, seminars and stuff. And I became, when I was just a kid in my early 20s, I became certified uh, drug and alcohol abuse counselor. Because I believed that if I, my God, if I was working in that field and I had the information, I was a professional, surely then I'll beat this thing. And I was a great counselor right up to the day I lost my job for being drunk on the job. Um, but it, it was baffling to me that the, the thing that happens to me in my mind that would drive me so insane that, that I'm the guy who knows. I know. I just can't, and I've made up my mind. Never touch it again. And I, and I keep going back to it. And you know what it's like? It's, it's, if you ever, have you ever had a biology course where you work with live frogs? It's very, if you've ever, if you can imagine trying to boil a frog that's alive, it's very hard to do. If you take a pot of boiling water about this deep and you throw a frog in there to boil him, his hind legs are very strong. He gets out of the pot. Now, he'll get scalded like hell, but he'll get out of the pot. So what you have to do in order to boil the frog is you have to set him in a pot of room temperature water. And he just settles in gets comfortable. And if you turn the heat up slowly enough, 
The frog never realizes what's happening and he never jumps out of the pond. And he will sit there until he's dead. And alcoholism is very much like that. In my own emotional juices, it cooks me. And when you think about it, if I, I'm just curious, how, how many people in here have ever gotten to a point where they seriously said to themselves, I'm never doing this again, and they did it after that? Anybody? Most of the room. Okay. If three days before you picked up the first drink that was going to end up in your demise where you're almost wishing you were dead, if three days before you picked up the drink you knew you were about to burn your life to the ground, you would have jumped out of the pot. But you didn't know. Because alcoholism works us so slowly on the inside. It cooks us slowly in our own emotional juices, in my own restlessness, in my own irritability, in my own discontent. Until it just drives me insane. Insane like running down the street with your hair on fire? No, it's a, it's a, it's a more hideous, smoldering, secret insanity. The insanity that just all of a sudden has me walking into a bar. The insan when I swore to myself and I understood I should never ever can ever do this again. The insanity that has me walk into a liquor store. And the day before, I would have given you a lecture about how I'm never going to drink again, how grateful I am. The day before. Because my frog hadn't been cooked quite yet. And this is repeated over and over and over again. And, and so, the real problem with alcoholism in this twofold fork that I'm impaled on um, is, is not so much the phenomenon of craving. And the reason that that is not the business at hand is because there's nothing we can do to change that. There is no medical way, there is no, there is nothing that you can do. If you have alcoholism, which is the, the litmus test is, do you have the allergic reaction to alcohol? There's a, there's a test in the book. Because a lot of people nowadays come here, I work with a lot of guys, they're not so sure. You know, I actually probably did more drugs than alcohol. Well, that's not the issue here. We want to find out if you have this terminal illness that encompasses everything. This, this this hideous disease called alcoholism. And Silkworth came up with a litmus test. Um, the phenomenon of craving. And the book says, here's how you can find out. Chapter 3, it says, if you don't think you're an alcoholic, here, you can check it out. Go over to the nearest pub. Go in there and have try some controlled drinking. Now, you may need to do this a couple days in a row to get a good view of it. But go in, let's go in there and you're going to have two drinks and two strong drinks if you want. And then you got to shut her down and go home. Now you can't drink nothing later. You can't smoke nothing. You can't take nothing. No pills, nothing. Two drinks, that's it. Well, if you're like me, you have the mind I got. I'm going to go into the pub and I'm going to, I'm going to see if these AAs are full of crap. I don't think I'm alcoholic. I know I'm in trouble, but I don't think I got that thing. Let's see. I'm going to have two drinks, I'm going to shut her down and go home. About halfway through that second drink, it becomes very evident to me that this is not a good test day. 
Uh, I didn't realize that that game was on TV. Oh my God, that game's on. I can't leave now, not with that game on. Or she, or she would walk into the bar. You know, she's always there. You know, the girl. I mean, oh my God, it's, it's her. I gotta have a drink with her. She might be the one. Gotta have a drink with her. Joe would come in. Joe's got good stuff to smoke. I gotta have a drink with Joe. Tomorrow would be a better test day. And then tomorrow I go in to take the test. And isn't it odd how this disease uses my own mind against me? Halfway through the second drink, as the feeling of the alcohol hits me, my mind starts shifting any way it has to, to make me think that the next drink and the reason this isn't a good test day is my idea. And I never, ever once glimpsed what was driving the shift in my thinking, which was an allergic reaction to alcohol that I have no power over at all. I never have. And, and sometimes it takes different forms. I, I, like a lot of people in my day and age, uh, I had about a year and a half where I, uh, I was had so much trouble from drinking that I switched to drugs. And I, I'll tell you, if you do enough heroin, you can beat an alcohol problem for a little while. But I always eventually went back to the drinking. And I got out of a treatment center. And I was in there. You could have put me in a lie detector. I just said, I'm not alcoholic. I'm, I'm a heroin addict. There was a little panache in being a heroin addict at that time. I mean, Lenny Bruce was a heroin addict. Billy Holiday. I mean, there was. And I came out of there, and I, I would have sworn to you, I'm not an alcoholic. I could have, maybe, if I would have been able to get honest, tell you how I'd been an alcoholic at one time, but I'm not anymore. I don't drink anymore. That's not my drug of choice. Whatever that means. And I got out of there and I wanted to, I hadn't, hadn't had sex in a long time. And I got out of this treatment center. I'm freshly out of there. And I, there was a girl that I knew that hang, hung out at this bar, the Regency Hotel. And I knew if I went down there and talked to her, there's a good possibility she's going to invite me to her apartment. And I, you know how you are when, you, when you're newly sober, you got this vacancy. You're looking for something. You're looking for something to make you feel better, right? And I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go down there and talk to her. Went in there. She's sitting there at the end of the bar. I went and sat down next to her. Started talking. She says, uh, can I buy you a drink? And I said, yeah, I'm not really a drinker. When I, the couple of years I did drugs, we used to look down on the drinkers, you know, that, which is, that's about as pathetic as you can get, really. Um, I'm not really a drinker. I'm just a, but, but she said, I, oh, you do drugs. Are you doing drugs? No, I'm not doing anything. I just got out of treatment. Oh, do you have a problem with alcohol? No, I don't have a problem with alcohol. I'm not a drinker. She said, well, we're going to be here for a while. Let me buy you a drink. All right, give me a rum and Coke. She gets me a rum and Coke. Well, I drink quickly. I've always, I don't know, I think evaporation is a childhood issue or something. <laughs> drink quickly. I killed that rum and Coke like that. She's still drinking the same one she had when I came in there. She said, let me buy you another one. I went into my spiel a little bit, a little not, not as fervent as I was before. You know, I'm not really a drinker. She says, well, we're going to be here. Let me buy you one. All right, give me another one. I kill that second one. She's finished hers. And she says, let's go up to my apartment. The words I came in there to hear. And I, now the alcohol's hit me. And I said, hold that thought. <laughs> 
and I ran across town and banged on a guy's door because I had two drinks of alcohol and I had an allergic reaction to the alcohol that manifested in a phenomenon of craving for more. More what? Whatever is on the radar doesn't matter. Do you have the allergic reaction to alcohol? You know, we saw after in the States after the Vietnam War, we had literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming back into the U.S. with these incredible heroin addictions. I mean incredible. Because they were getting stuff so cheap and so strong so easily over there that the, the VA hospitals were flooded with people to detox. And do you know that... A, a large percentage of those guys who, by every definition, would have, they were drug addicts, no doubt. A lot of those people, 35 years later, have been, now they've been detoxed, but they can go into a bar and have two beers and go home and they don't have to go do nothing. They're good. Their problem came in a substance. Mine comes within me. Alcoholism doesn't come in bags and bottles. It comes in people. It comes in me. There was a certain amount of those people that came back from Vietnam that had never had a problem with, with drugs until they went over there and they came back and to 35 years later they're drinking themselves in and out of Skid Row on cheap wine. And they can't stop. They have the definitive characteristic that makes the one group alcoholic and the other group just having a problem with some drug or substance is the allergic reaction to alcohol. When Silkworth looked for years for the litmus test, that's what he found. And if, you, if you're an alcoholic, you can't safely, Silkworth says you can't safely use it in any form at all. There's never, there's never been a case of a chronic alcoholic that can use cocaine, heroin, or pills socially. There's been hundreds and thousands of cases of people addicted to a certain substance that can stop that substance and do and drink and smoke a little pot. But if you have al alcohol, encompasses everything. Because anything that will do something for me will do that thing to me. Where I, now it's set in motion something I can't stop. If I'm an if you're an alcoholic of my type and you pick up a drink, it's like having sex with a gorilla. You ain't done till the gorilla's done. It's just the way it is. You can you can dream all all day long about how me and the gorilla are just going to have a dance tonight. No, you're not. No, you're not. And your experience should tell you the last time, the and the time before that, how bad it was. But the gorilla had such big brown eyes. It looked lonely. You ain't done till the grill is done. And that, that is the crux of the problem. How do you stop from starting? Let's take a, uh, a short break. Morning tea time. I'm Bob Darrell. I'm an alcoholic. Welcome back. So I'm in this trap. 
that I cannot spring and I can't get out of it. I yearn obsessively for the effect of alcohol and I can't obtain the effect. And when I start to, when I seek it, all I get is a phenomenon of craving. I'm compelled by a physiological reaction to alcohol to burn my life to the ground every time I start drinking. And I have a mental obsession and a yearning inside me to go back to it. And I return to it like a moth to a flame. Time and time again. And there seems to be no way to change that. And, and, and I think, I mean, when you think of it objectively, I mean, I mean, we are the market. We, if, if alcoholics and family members of alcoholics who are tortured by alcoholism would stop reading self-help books, the self-help industry would implode. <laughs> I mean, we're the guy, we're the people who buy that stuff. We're, I mean, the pharmaceutical companies would go out of business if we, if we all got lit up spiritually and didn't need what they were selling. Uh, we are the people. We've tried everything. Uh, not out. We're just those kind of people. I mean, we're so so. I'm, I, if you're, I speak for myself. I'm so desperate and wrapped up in making me feel better and making me okay that I'll try anything that comes up. Anything that looks like it, I get hope that this is going to make a difference. Count me in. I sign me up. I'm there. I tried some crazy things. I primal screamed. I went to a primal therapist. I, I'm embarrassed to tell you. At one point. I was laying on the floor of the therapist's office, kicking my hands and feet and screaming at the top of my lungs, Mommy, Daddy. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, it's hard for me even to tell you I did that. Uh, I, I was hypnotized. I, 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 uh, I did a lot of work with Gestalt therapists and transcend, uh, uh, transactional analysis. And I, uh, I, spent, I was in therapy with Albert Ellis, the founder of... Rational Motive Therapy in New York City for quite some time. Uh, Dr. Silverman, who, who Silverman uh, studied with Fritz Perls and, and Alan Watts. I mean, Silverman was an amazing, brilliant, brilliant, top of the food chain kind of guy with therapy. But no human power. You know, isn't it odd that we, we seek, we seek so much, we seek to be different, we seek for relief and and momentarily, if you're like me, momentarily I would find things that would seem to create sort of, sort of an epiphany or a thing like, ah, oh, this is it. This is it. And then it just, it would just wear off. And, and I'd always be back to being me again. And that's the bad, and that's the bad news. I'm back to being me again. And the bottom of page 25, talks about the dilemma. It says, if you are seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle of the road solution. There, maybe you've had the same experience when you come to AA. They just seem like extreme fanatics, don't they? There's people in AA. I mean, they want you to, they, they talk about things like absolute abstinence. What do they mean by that? I mean, not everything. 
I, I need something. It's, you know, God's either everything or He's nothing. Uh, why do you have to be like that? Can't you just kind of be in the middle somewhere? Um, there is no middle of the road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. I'm just curious, how many people in this room, if you've never tried to kill yourself, at least have had those moments where you wished you were dead or you thought about it? Anybody? Right. Life was becoming impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. <laughs> I, I, I'm a funny kind of guy. I, I just, I could sit, I remember being in a treatment center and listening to a speaker in AA tell their story, and I was starting to identify. I'm starting to feel like a connection. I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm kind of nodding my head. I'm thinking, wow, man, I, I might have drank with this guy. Yeah. He's cool. He's pretty good. Man, I... And then he, ta- he talked about coming into AA and finding God. And the minute he said that, it was like this door closed. And I thought, I remember sitting there going, oh, what have they done to him? Oh. <laughs> He's a frickin' sunbeam for Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, I felt sorry for him. I mean, I was saying, and I'm dying, and he's a free man. And I'm feeling sorry for him. Right? Uh, so it was hard for guys like me to accept spiritual help. I, I, have, I have a lot of prejudices about God. From my childhood. And, and that's not uncommon. I think Alcoholics Anonymous is full of people that have been emotionally, sometimes physically abused by well-intentioned people under the flag of some religion. There, there may be people in this room that were sexually abused by members of the cloth. Um, it's unfortunate. So what do we do is we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but, but I'm always like that. You know, when I get a resentment towards someone, it just, the next thing I know, I resent everybody in their family. Now, I've never met half their family, but if they're connected, they're related, I don't like you either. I'll resent their friends. I can have a best friend, and the, my best friend will say to me, oh, I really like so-and-so. No, I don't like him. You know, I mean, this is, I, I will not, I'll, eventually I won't like everybody in your religion. I won't like people that live, I, I could even go, I'd start hating your country, uh, your race, your, whatever. Um, it's, it's, I, I resent by association. And so, uh, I had a hard time with God, just accepting spiritual help with, and you know what's really going on? Is this tremendous fear that I have of, of God? Now I don't. I'm not aware of it, but I I have this tremendous fear, and and I'm the kind of guy by nature that if I just suspect that you might not like me, I'm going to not like you first. 
Do you know what I mean? I, I, I bet you you've had. To, I bet, I'm not. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had that experience. Do you ever go? You go. You're the new person at an AA group, and someone doesn't say hi to you, and you just, oh, it's one of those kind of people. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, it, it just starts. It just, you know. And, and, and maybe they're having a bad day, and it's nothing to do with me, but I will build a case against them. And I did the same thing with God, because I some very well-intentioned people trying to, because I was a problem kid, trying to get and help me to straighten out, told me some things about God that just were horrific to me. They, they told me about a God who, who could see in the dark. Oh, that's bad. I do my best work in the dark. That's, I mean, that's not good. I mean, you can see in the dark. Oh, God. Oh, my God. He could read my mind. Oh, my God. He judged me for my thoughts. That's hard. I got two movies. One's sex and one's violence. I mean, I, you know, I drive down the road going... I'll kill him. I'll do her. I'll kill, you know, I mean, like I, I'm going to hell and I'm not doing nothing except thinking, you know, I'm just, oh. and he just, I felt so stained. I felt so flawed. I, I remember I grew up a Catholic. I remember, i tell you a funny little story. We had this time of the year where the whole class would go to confession. Some of you, if you don't know what that is, talk to one of the Catholics. I'll tell you, it's a, it, you go and you're supposed to clean yourself, clean the slate so you can go the next day to receive communion. And if you really want to piss God off, go get communion with sin. I mean, it's a bad deal. So the whole whole class we go in, we go in these booths and we clean the slate. Now you got to go until the next morning without thinking nothing. <laughs> I couldn't get out of the box and I'm thinking stuff. You know what I mean? And I'd go, I just, I'd go in that line with all those other little kids and I just feel like a lightning bolt was going to hit me because I was receiving communion and I was stained. And I just started to know that I'm never going to measure up here. And it's a better proposition that there's not a God because I feel so. I rejected. Now, I don't understand that I am the rejector and the rejectee. I'm imagining that God's rejecting me, so I'm rejecting Him. But really, all the separation occurs within me, based on my prejudices and my fears. So, accept spiritual help. No, I can't do it. So, what's the other alternative? It says... To go on to the bitter end. Blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. And I tried that. I think I, I wanted to drink. I became the last few years I drank for oblivion. I, I drank to just blot me out. I, I just, uh, I wanted to drink myself to death. But it's a long, and tedious process. And it's very brutal. And it takes so long that some of us, we start thinking about killing ourselves because we can't hang. 
Drinking yourself to death is like being kicked to death by rabbits. It just goes on and on. And by the time it, it finally does kill you, you've wished you were dead for a long time. By the time it finally kills you, all the people that you love so much and you wanted their approval so much hate you. I know, I know people. I run into a kid on the street. He's not a kid anymore. He's, he's about 38 years old, I guess. His dad and I were in detox together in 1978. His father, all, he, all his dad could talk about was his son. He loved his son. But over the next couple of years, he never stayed sober. And even the violence and the, the pathetic stuff. And, and eventually drank himself to death. Thirty-some years later, you mention this guy's, you mention to the kid the dad's name. And he'll go off on a rant about that. I hate him. Thirty years later, he still hates his father. His father loved him. But that's what alcoholism does to us. You know, it's it's a brutal disease. Because it, it, it strips... It, it, the worst thing about alcoholism is it, it gradually strips away everything of value in your life. And then it lets you linger on in the sameness of it. Day after day for a while. I heard this story many years ago, and it was a, what a great description of the progressive nature of alcoholism. This friend of mine was talking about one of his best friends had been diagnosed as terminally ill with stomach cancer. And everybody was very sad. And I know what that's like. My mother was diagnosed as terminally ill, and the, the doctors pretty much are just saying to you, look, there's nothing we can do. Put your house in order. And... uh about three months later, my, my buddy hears that, that there's a, they're going to have surgery on his friend. And he got excited. He thought, oh, my God, they're, they're going to do surgery. They're going to cut the cancer out. He got very hopeful. Finally, they found a surgeon who knows what he's doing. And he calls over there, and the guy's mom answers the phone. He says, hey, I hear that they're going to do surgery and take the cancer out. And, the, and this guy's mom says, well, you know, not actually. They're going to do the surgery, but they're not going to take the cancer out. And he says, what do you mean they're going to do surgery and not take the cancer out? And he says, what are they doing the surgery for? He said, well, they're going to cut out sections of his stomach and intestines and pieces of his liver and internal organs to make room for the growth of the tumor so his last days on earth are not excruciatingly painful. And alcoholism is very much like that. If your if your parents get in the way of the progression of the disease, this disease will cut them out of your life. If your career gets in the way of, of alcoholism, alcoholism will cut your career out of your life. If your self-respect or self-esteem or principles or morals get in the way, alcoholism will cut them out of your life. How many of us crossed those lines at one time we said, we'd, I'd never do that. And then you look back and you've done it a few times. Even your children, who you may love more than anything in the world, in time alcoholism will cut them out of your life. I've seen countless men and women who have lost their rights to even see their kids through the courts. They've been taken away from them. And they live in the shame of that and the remorse and I've also seen those same men and women, if they're willing to roll up their sleeves and do all the work, they get their kids back and they have sweet relationships with them as a result of step eight and nine. 
Alcoholism will take away from the alcoholic more than any human being should ever, ever have to lose. And Alcoholics Anonymous will give you more than any human being ever has a right to have. It's, a, it's almost the mirror image of the, of, the, of the debacle. It's a beautiful thing. But some of us choose to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we can. And some of us do it and we're sober. What do you do if you... What happens to guys like me if I am absolutely convinced that I can't drink and I draw a hard line in the sand and I reinforce it by going to an AA meeting every day, I am not going to drink. Well, I will be forced to try other means to blot out my intolerable situation as best I can. Maybe sex, maybe pornography, maybe shopping, maybe gambling, maybe eating, maybe medications. But I will have to do something to blot out my intolerable situation. Because alcoholism demands treatment. That's the problem. It demands it. And I'm going to treat it one way or the other. It is an itch I must scratch. One way or the other. And why do, why would we choose all these, this bitter, and, and, and I know some people, I, I, I know, I know people who have stayed physically sober in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for decades and refused to buy the whole package here because of belligerent denial or ego or various reasons. And they are bitter, bitter people. They're angry, bitter people who battle with depression. Some of them eventually are forced into, into drinking again or committing suicide or, or getting on medication. Because alcoholism demands treatment. One of the guys I sponsored today, he's got 30, almost 35 years, and he's, he's a delight to sponsor. His name is, his name is Jer, and Jer, Jer loves me to tell this story. I met Jerry when he was 23 years sober. When he was 23 years sober with the benefit of step none, he has made the decision that he's, he can't, he's tired. He's going to kill himself. He's totally alone. He, uh, nobody in his family will now have anything to do with him. He's built cases against every one of them, and he's right and they're wrong. You know how that is, right? Uh, there's nobody in Alcoholics Anonymous that he has a fr- he's not, has no friends. Um, he's got a pension that supports him because he was a, he'd been a Navy chief from the uh, he was in the U.S. Navy and he has money coming in for that. So he did, so because he couldn't hold a job if he didn't have that he'd been homeless because he's too angry to hold a job. He can't get along with people because he's right about everything. And he's been that way so long now, he can't take it anymore. And he's made the decision to kill himself. Well, when he made the the decision to commit suicide, he got a little relief. And then right behind the relief, the obsession to drink returned. Because he figured if I'm going to die, I should have a little anesthetic right before I 
cross over. You know what I mean? I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, if I'm going to kill myself, it might hurt something. I might, you know, I need a little anesthetic. It makes perfect sense. Well, the idea of him drinking is, hor- is horrid to him because he doesn't mind that he's going to be dead. He just doesn't want everybody in AA to realize he no longer had 23 years. You know, so, so even, even the ego sometimes can be used by God to help us. So it pushed him into, into coming and getting me, asking me to sponsor him. And I said, I'd be glad to work with you. And I got to watch a, a man that was, was dying of this disease. I got to watch the lights come on with him. I got to watch him push himself aside and all the people he thought were wrong and he was right to push that all aside and watch him go make amends to all those people. And I watched people start to love him again. I watched the restoration. Uh, he is a member of, he's, he's 30, almost 35 years sober, over 34 years sober now, and he's a member of my home group. In 20, when he was 23 years sober, nobody in AA would have anything to do with him. They were tired of him. They call him Sweet Jerry. You gotta stand in line to hug this guy. I mean, he's so, he's like, everybody loves Jerry. Uh, how did that happen? Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous changed him. And he was going on, and he was bitter, and he was going to the end. I know why some of us commit suicide sober. Because we can't wait till the end anymore. We're too bitter. So we accelerate it. We push ourselves to the end. So I have this, I am in this trap I can't spring. I, uh, there is no way to change the phenomenon of craving. I've watched a man uh, with that had had 45 years sober drink. drink. He, he he went back to drinking, and and that phenomenon of craving just waited for him. You can't be sober long enough to overcome that. You can't be emotionally well enough, spiritually well enough. It is in your cells. So the only thing that Alcoholics Anonymous can offer a guy like me is to change my spiritual nature, my very being. So alcohol is no longer on the radar for me. It no longer has the hook. So that I can easily, as, as it says in our 10-step promises, just automatically recoil from it as from a hot flame. When somebody, There's a transformation that must occur in my very being that will take a guy like me, that if you offer me a drink and, 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 I'm, and I'm able to use enough willpower to, re, to refuse it, I'll refuse it with still with the yearning, like, oh my God, I'd sure like to have had that. And then years later, after the steps, having a, walking into a, a suite on a cruise ship, and there's a complimentary bottle of a hundred dollar champagne there. I I pick it up as if it was cat urine. And carried it to the guy who works there and said, Would you find somebody that might like this? And there's no hook. There's no power in that. That's not, that's, wow, come on. There's no power. Because the power in the alcohol is tied to the need for the medicine. Need for relief. 
But if you already got the relief, if your if your spirit is already okay, then there's nothing there. And I, I've had the experience of being sober many many years and and uh, doing some things that were, that were compromising my spirit, and all of a sudden bottles started talking to me again. Um, it happens. So, so what's the problem? On page forty-five. It says something that's very interesting. It says lack of power. That was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live. And it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Obviously. But where and how are we to find that power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power... (coughs) greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. The power to live. It's more, it's much, much more than the power to resist a drink. As a matter of fact, we don't even get that, really. I I think that that's what I thought AA was going to give. It was going to make me strong enough that I could resist temptation. But it's not that at all. There is no temptation. The problem has been removed. It, it's a it's a major transformation in here. And I, I when I was when I was new, now I, this is after relapsing time and time and time again. And I fought the bottle with everything in me. I I, I mean, I, well, there were times when I meant it when I said to myself, "I'm never touching that again." And I heard this speaker when I was new, and he said, he said, "Yeah," he said, "You know." I quit drinking seriously over 50 times. He said, every time I quit drinking, I got drunker in hell. He said, I think that quitting drinking was killing me. And I started, I almost fell out of my chair. I thought, that's exactly right. If I quit I really quit drinking. And every time I quit drinking, it's almost as if it, it's the willful resistance of alcohol gives it torque. It almost it like it, it it gives it power and more energy, and some of the worst drunks I've ever been on have been after after months and months of suppressed willful abstinence. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm, and it's it's like a a slingshot. I'm not going to drink. 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 And by the time you you eventually run out of power, you've got so much torque on that sucker. You, I went on going the worst drunk I ever went on, and you know end up oh just end up somewhere just despicable. Um, so willpower really it doesn't work. Something has to happen to us. Something has to happen. Something has to happen to you that will make the tenth step promises come true. That you could have alcohol in your home. And it would mean no more to you than the furniture. That you could work around it every day and it wouldn't call to you at all. I worked around alcohol for 25 years of my sobriety. I had alcohol in my home for on and off for 20 years, I suppose, in some form or other. Sometimes it, uh, for uh, just different. I don't. Sounds bizarre, but I, I had actually had a for investment. I created a wine cellar, and I actually made a lot of money buying wines and holding them for three years and selling them. I had a wine cellar in my house. 
which I would forget was there. Uh, when the, the new, I have a meeting every Tuesday night in my house, I, in, in the living room, and newcomers knew it was there. They, they knew it was there. They could see it through the wall. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, in the in the room where the meeting was, up until I sold it, I saw I had a, I had a, co- a collection of these seventy-five and hundred-year-old cognacs. There was eight bottles in the set. They were all hand painted by the artist Erte, and I bought them many years ago for investment. And I just recently sold them this last year, and I never knew they were there. I forgot they were in a display case, just you know, like a lot of. I have a whole bunch of artwork and knickknacks and stuff in my house. I, it's just there. It's just stuff. I never even. I forget they're there. New guys would come into the meeting and go boing. <laughs> you'd hear them. They go. Because I mean, it has power to them. But see, it doesn't have power to us. And in that meeting, there's, there's a ton of people sober over 20 years. This guy, I have meetings, people come to that meeting, sober. we have guys over 50 years sober come there. And they don't even know, they don't know it's there either. It's right there out in the open, but they don't even see it. It's just, it's, they see it any more than they see the vases and the other knickknacks and stuff. It doesn't mean anything to them. That has to happen. Otherwise, what are we going to do? Are we going to hide ourselves away somewhere where there's no temptation? It's kind of pointless, isn't it? We live in a world full of alcohol. The problem is not alcohol. The problem is the alcoholism. If I treat the alcoholism, the alcohol is not a problem. If I don't treat the alcoholism, i got a problem. So lack of power, the power to live. I, I don't, and it's more than that because I don't know how sober, I don't know how to free myself. I, I get sober, I get stuck up in me and my emotions. I get locked up up in here and I don't, I don't have the power to come out and play. You ever been at a social event sober and you get that loneliness that comes over you, man? You're sitting in the corner and it's all of them and then there's you. And there's, you can't will yourself to fit. Something has to happen to me so I can come out and play with these people. And I can't manufacture that. Lack of power really is my dilemma. I, I'm a depressive alcoholic. I've been diagnosed as clinically depressed. I don't have the power to free myself from depression. I don't have the power to disconnect myself from this insanity, this mind that, that waits for me. I wake, I wake up in the morning afraid. I, I wake up in the morning having conversations with people I will see later that day. <laughs> I, I drive in my car having conversations with people that aren't in the car. I don't have the power to free myself of the fear. I don't have the power to overcome the loneliness or the power to change my interaction with people so I can have relationships and intimacies like I see others have so easily. On page 52, it really talks about what it's like to get sober without power. What it's like to have basically what I've come to believe is think of as untreated alcoholism. Right square in the middle of the page in the third line in the middle paragraph, it says, we were having trouble with personal relationships. Now, 
That's probably not the case in Adelaide. But in where I come from, it's a big deal. If you go to a discussion meeting and, and half the time the problem is some relationship with somebody. I couldn't control my emotional nature. I'm, I'm a nutcase. I go, I'm on this emotional roller coaster. I'm a prey to misery and depression. Depression is symptomatic of not drinking and not working the steps. It says it time and time again in our literature. Bill Wilson was the greatest example. We couldn't make a living. What is it about guys like me? I can work hard, work like hell. My boss will pat me on the back and say, you're a hard worker. And then eventually, I'm the guy they're letting go. They say, they say things to me like, you're a hard worker, but you're not a team player. What does that mean? You know what it means. They never did like you, did they? And I don't even see it. I don't know what I'm doing here. Why, why I don't fit. Why they don't like me. Had a feeling of uselessness all my life. Like, what's life about? What's the meaning of all this? What am I going to be when I grow up, if I ever grow up? What's it all about? Useless. We were full of fear. We were unhappy, and we couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. That's a pretty good description of me when I get sober. Now, I may, I may hide it and keep it in the shade to the best of my ability, but that's me. I ain't right when I quit drinking. And something's got to change. So lack of power, the power to live. So there's a, the promise here is that this book has a process in it that when I implement the process, I will acquire power. And here's, here's a point, this is a point where we lose a lot of people in AA because they misinterpret what they hear in the meetings. You know, if you go to a bunch of meetings, you eventually start hearing this message that God changed these people's lives. You go, okay. And what some of us at that point, we've, we eventually surrender to the, the God idea. And we think we've arrived somewhere. That's not the, that's, that's the beginning of the road. That's not the end of the road. That's the beginning of the road. Step two is the beginning of the road. It's not the end of the road. And we lose people at this point because they, they never go through the rest of the steps. They think, okay, I get me and God now. We're good. We're good. And, and they'll often go join a church or something. Which, there's nothing wrong with church. There's nothing wrong with going to the gym. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But none of it has ever been a substitute for, al- for, for Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a good addition, but it's not a substitute. I, I've had the, 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 cause the problem is not lack of religion. It's not even lack of faith. It looks like it, doesn't it? You go to meetings, you think the problem is I don't have faith. I don't believe. It's not that. There, there have been men and women with tremendous faith in God, drinking themselves to death over the years. Tremendous. I, I, had, the, I had the occasion to sponsor uh, over the years, uh, four different occasions, four different members of the cloth, clergy. Uh, two of them drank themselves to death. 
I remember I, I wasn't sober that long, and there was a, this this priest Frank. He was a good guy. He's not a cra- he's not a deviant priest. He's a good guy, but he had alcoholism, and he had a, a bad case of alcoholism. And I was one of a bunch of guys that got to, tried to work with Frank, and and he called me up one day, and uh, he was he, he was drinking again, and he was full of self pity. He he's sobbing uncontrollably into the phone because he felt so lost and so decrepit. And he can't understand why here he is, a man of the cloth who's devoted his whole life to his church and to God. A man who who prays more in one day than most AA members will pray in a week. Who reads more spiritual literature in one day than most of us will pray in a week? Why he would ask God to keep him sober and he's drinking again? And in AA, there's there's drug dealers and prostitutes and robbers and I mean the dregs of the earth. Or God's keeping them sober and he he must have felt like cheated or something. Like what's wrong with me? I mean I'm a priest for God's sakes. I should have you know. And I thought the same thing. I thought, oh my God. I'm sober through God's grace. I knew that. And if, if that's true, I would think that this guy, this priest would have a leg up on a bum like me. But lack of faith was not his problem. It was lack of power. I live in the desert in Las Vegas. And if you were to come and visit me in this time of year, which is the the, the peak of our summer, there are days when it'll get 115 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that translates out into centigrade, but I think it's something like, oh my God. <laughs> it's hot. I mean, it's really hot. And uh, on one of those days, I could take you in my car, drive you 45 minutes outside of town to one of the largest lakes and bodies of fresh water in the western United States, Lake Mead. It's a huge lake. Um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of shoreline. Take you to that lake, drive you up right up to the edge of the lake, let you get out of the car. So how do we, how do you actualize the juice? How do you get the power to live? The power to change your own life? The power to become different? The power to free you from resentment and overwhelming paralyzing fear? the power to come out and play and be free. And consequently, the power not to to be placed in a position of neutrality from alcohol, safe and protected. Um, the problem that I face, and, and most of us face, is, is, is a problem of, of too much of me. When I was brand new... Uh, I just I just started praying to God, but I don't really believe in God yet. This had to, I had to pray in God to pray, I had to pray for consistently for a period of time and then observe what was happening in my life till I eventually developed some kind of faith. And it was a process. But I'm new and I'm just starting to pray and I'm going to I'm going to meetings and uh, I have a sponsor and I'm doing what my sponsor asked me to do. And, and I go to this meeting one day, and a guy corners me, this guy named Joe, and he's an old-timer in AA. And he, Joe says to me, he says, I heard what you shared in the meeting, and he said, kid, you need to take step three. 
And I, you know, this, they have the 12 steps on the wall, on the wall of the meeting hall, and I look at, I read step three, and we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him, and I'm not, I not only don't I understand God, I'm not even sure if I believe in God yet. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't have a God. I don't have none of that. Um, and I told Joe that, I said, Joe, I can't take step three, I don't, I don't really believe in God. And Joe said, you don't have to believe in God to take step three. And I said, well, that's kind of what it says. And he said, no, no, kiss. He says, listen, kid, trust me. If you'll turn your will and your life over to this chair, and he points to a chair in the Alano Club, he says, I guarantee you an instant miracle. So I thought, what the hell? Okay, I turn my will and my life over to the chair. What's the miracle? And he says, oh, the miracle would be your life's no longer in the hands of an idiot. And, and I didn't get mad. I guess I was surrendered enough and demoralized enough that I just thought, yeah, that would be right. Because I got it. I knew that I'd been destroying myself. I, I, and if you're anything like me, whoever's watched you, and the worst decisions you will make are sober. Whoever has watched you the last year or so, would easily come to the, if you're running your life on self-will, drunk or sober, and, and people are observing you, it would be easy to come to the conclusion whoever's making decisions for this person is out to destroy them. And yet, from inside me, it never looks that way because of my ability to justify and rationalize it. I've had some great mentors over the years. There was a guy named Dale who was an old-timer, when I got sober, and he eventually died of cancer, but he was a great member of AA. And Dale cornered me one time after a meeting, and he says, listen, and he liked me. He was kind of a gruff old guy, but he kind of he really liked me because I did a lot of service, and he really respected that. And he came up to me, he says, listen, kid, I'm going to tell you some stuff. If you'll buy this, it's going to save you a lot of pain and a lot of grief. He says, kid, I want you to know that if you're explaining something, if you're defending something, if you're justifying something or rationalizing some kid, I want you to know you're wrong. Because you never have to defend, explain, justify, or rationalize what's right. And he told me that. That's been 30-some years ago that he told me that. And I've never found an exception to that yet. It's the chattering. It's, it's when I'm doing something that is is out of line, that is against what I should really be doing, that i got to have the conversations have to start coming in my head to defend my position and explain it to myself. You never have to explain what's right, but you will always have to defend and justify and explain anything that's contrary to your very nature. And this thing we talk about really... It's God's will is simply to align myself to be doing what I should have been doing all along, rather than being in conflict with life itself. On page 60, it starts this section on, on step three. And my sponsor, my first sponsor was like a fanatic about this section of the book. I mean, he was not big on on much else, but he's big on this. 60 through 63 had me read it over and over and over again. And I start, you know, I'd read it and I don't really get it. I mean, I don't, I don't see it. And I'm going to read some of it and see what, we'll talk a little bit about my the things that handicapped me. 
It says our description, middle of the page, our description of the alcoholic, which we touched on a little bit, page 20 and 21, the, the chapter more about alcoholism, the doctor's opinion, they could all be part and parcel of the descriptive, the several descriptions of alcoholism. The chapter to the agnostic, which we just touched on a little bit. And our personal adventures, our experience, before and after. Before and after what? Before and after drinking? I don't think so. Um, I don't think, my experience at times after, with just not drinking, wasn't a, wasn't that good. I think it's before and after having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. On our personal adventures, before and after, make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that I was alcoholic and I could not manage my own life, period. No exceptions, no no afterthoughts or caveats. It doesn't say anything. And, and I think... I think a lot of us, I know I did, I, I think I unconsciously thought that my life was only unmanageable as a result of my drinking. That surely sober, going to meetings with a clear mind, I'll be able to manage my own life. I mean, why not? And I think uh, a lot of us, I know this was my experience, I had to have that second uh, and more than one, but at least the major second surrender where, you know, I, I get broken by my absolute failure controlling and enjoying my drinking, and it brings me to my knees, and I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm surrendered by the bottle, and then in abstinence, years into sobriety, going to a meeting every day, I'm surrendered by life itself. At my absolute failure, to make things okay no matter how much effort I put into them. That I could not manage my own life, period. Not just, my, my life, truthfully, is more unmanageable sober. Because it's sober when I start having the problems with the emotions and all the crazy thoughts and the jobs and the relationships. and It's sober where my life is the most unmanageable. Because I don't have the benefit of anesthetic. Two, that probably no human power could have relieved my alcoholism. You didn't have to sell me on that. I had tried everything that came up on the radar. And three, that God could and would if he were sought. Well, I don't know. I don't think most of us know that until we seek him for a while. I think that is the, I think the, the proof is found in the actions. And then it says, being convinced of those three propositions, we were at step three. What are those three propositions? Aren't they really the essence of step one and step two? In, in, in my experience with all the guys I sponsor who have difficulty with step three, they don't really have difficulty with step three. Their difficulty is in step one and step two. If you fully concede your innermost self and you get the ABCs, you get step one and two. Step three is automatic. In, in step three, it says we made a decision. Decision comes from a Latin word, scissere, meaning to cut. It's the same root word as the word scissors, or the word incision, when a surgeon will cut into a patient. When you make a decision, you have 
literally cut away the alternatives. And if you're alcoholic, which means you have a terminal illness, you're going to relapse yourself to death or maybe in abstinence blow your brains out. And you can't manage your own life. In other words, you can't fix yourself. You can't arrange your life enough to make you happy and okay sober. And no human power. You've done everything. You've gone to the doctors, the psychiatrists, the hospitals, the treatment centers. You changed jobs and relationships and towns and did everything that was possible. And no human power could relieve your alcoholism. Well, then there is either a power greater than you and all of that that's going to solve your problem or you're screwed. You're basically, you're you're back to the other choice, going on to the bitter end, just trying to blot out the pain of your intolerable situation with, with relationships and sex and medications and anything you can get your hand on to, to blunt the emotions until you eventually die. So effectively, all the, all the, all the alternatives have been cut away. I am at step three. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go, even if you're like me and you're an atheist. It's, it's, and it's not so much, I, I may not even believe in God, but I believe in the idiot that's been running my life. I believe I gotta get away from him. And it's, and it's odd, I think that most of us move closer to God by moving away from ourselves. It's, 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 it's like everything we're going to talk about in the next couple pages that's designed to bring me to, to the step, to step three is not about God. It's about how messed up I am. Um, because if you're desperate enough and out of alternatives enough, you'll try God. <laughs> I mean, where else are you going to go? So being convinced, and this is back to our innermost self. Because the word convinced is a very strong word. This is not can you kind of intellectually see. This is deep down in you. Being convinced we were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood. And just what do we mean by that? And just what do we do? Great question. I thought it meant maybe I should go to church. I thought maybe, well, it means I guess I should pray. It's so much more than that. Well, the book says, okay, here's where we're going to start talking about it. The first requirement is that I be convinced, there's that convinced word again deep down in me, convinced that any life or that my life in particular run on self-will can hardly be a success. Is that true? Is that true? On that basis... What basis? The basis of me running my life on self-will. On that basis, I am almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though my motives are good. Um, my motives are always good. And yet I'm always the guy that's having the internal conflict with life itself. I'm the guy having the, the, the arguments in my head with people that aren't in the room. I'm the guy that's in that's in conflict with life itself. Each person, most people try to live by self-propulsion. 
It's in that kind of, I love that, 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 the picture in my mind that comes about when I think about that. It was almost as if I would get sober. And while I was in treatment, I was like, I was like a balloon that somebody's blowing up until it's blown up really well. And then I get out of treatment. It's like letting the balloon go. And so in the, in the propulsion, I would just. And I'd run out of gas. It's time to drink. You know, when you get to the point that everything you've just crazily brought into your life and done it. And the shines were off all of it. Self-propulsion. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. And this is a beautiful analogy Bill creates. He says we're, we're like an actor who wants to run the whole show. Now, it doesn't say he's not the director. It's an actor. It's not the leading character. Matter of fact, it doesn't even say the guy has a speaking part. It's just, he's just, just one of the guys in the, in the deal. Just one of the guys. But yet this, this guy who just has a little bit part in this play, he's trying to tell the other people what to do. He's trying to forever arrange the lights. You know, he's telling the spotlight guy, hey, you know, you should put the lights more on me, maybe. <laughs> That's what I would say. I mean, you know, I wouldn't why wouldn't be telling him to put him more on you? I mean, why would you do that when the when you when you know where the real center of the universe is? <laughs> My mother one time told me I wasn't the center of the universe. I was just a little kid, and I just I placated her. Yeah, mom. But then I thought I looked around and I turned around in a full circle and I thought, but I am. Trying forever to arrange the lights, the ballet, you want the dancers dance more around me, the dance, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in my own way. If only my arrangements would stay put, if only people would do as I wished, oh my God, the show would be great, wouldn't it? It'd be great. Everybody, including myself, of course, would be pleased and life would be wonderful. Well, I'm reading this. My sponsor's got me reading this part of the book over and over again. And it's written in the third person. Now, I tell the guys I sponsor to, to read it in the first person, to change it to I instead of we. Because I'd read it, and it's written in the third person, and I thought they were talking about some kind of people out here somewhere. And I couldn't see that it was me. I couldn't see that I was the actor trying to run the whole show. Now, I could go to AA meetings and see that there were people in AA doing that. I could go to the business meetings of my home group and see there was a lot of people trying to run the whole show and tell people what to do there. There's people at work doing that. But I legitimately can't see that it's me. I can't see it. And isn't it odd? I could be doing the exact same controlling, manipulative actions as these people are doing where I can see obviously that they're trying to run the show yet when I'm doing it it doesn't look to me like I'm running the show because this is the right way I'm not running the show I'm just trying to make things nice here for everybody I mean because I'm I'm that kind of I'm always thinking of others 
just trying to make things it'd be better for everybody. Everybody, including myself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. Don't you see? This is better for you too. It's good. It's good. And I can't see it. I can't see that I'm running the show because I think I'm right. And I had one of those days that often we have. Just do you ever have one of those days you just wake up with a little angst? You just wake up like on edge, sort of. You don't know why. You just wake up and you just have that feeling like there's some crap going to happen today. And you got to watch for it. you got to watch. And if you watch for it, you, it's odd how you find it. And I went to work with just kind of a little edge, a little, little uptight, little angst. And got to work and we had this, I'm working as a cashier in this store and we've got a whole truckload of merchandise in that all had to be priced and put on the shelves. Well, I'm over there busting my ass, put price in this stuff and put it up on the shelf. The other two guys are just, they're sitting behind, standing behind the register drinking coffee and telling jokes and stuff. And I'm just glaring at them, putting up that stuff, you know. And the customers are coming in, and they're coming over and interrupting me as I'm working. These customers, they all want help. They want attention. I got crap. I'm nice. I'm pricing this stuff up. I'm like like there's a spring in the pit of my stomach, and it's just getting tighter and tighter and tighter. The boss comes through. Doesn't he, He hangs out with the two idiots that are doing nothing. And doesn't even notice what I'm doing over here. Doesn't even appreciate that they're using me. I know it. Pissed. Getting angst up. At the end of the day, I'm just uptight. I get off work and I'm kind of in a hurry because I'm, I'm the secretary of this rush hour group and I gotta stop and get some styrofoam cups for the meeting. And I'm meeting a new guy there, so I'm and I don't want the new guy to get there before me, because they'll never sit in the right place. And I got to get there before him. And I and I'm kind of on this mission from God, you know, to get there before the new guy and get everything set up. And I stop at the grocery store and I get in that 12 items or less express line with the styrofoam cups. And I'm in line and I'm behind a woman that's got 15 items. I've counted them twice. What I really wanted to do, I wanted to go back to the office and I wanted to bring the manager. I wanted to bring him right here. I wanted to make him count the 15 items underneath the 12 items or less line so he could see the travesty that was going on in his store. But it would slow me down and I'm in a hurry, so I just tighten that spring up a little bit more. I get out in traffic. Now I'm in a hurry. I'm afraid that new guy's going to beat me there. Now I'm angst up pretty good. I get, I get in this heavy traffic behind this woman and there's a big gap between her and the cars in front of her because she's going five miles an hour below the speed limit and I feel like my head's going to blow up and I, 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 I she must be deaf because I'm hitting the horn she didn't even hear it there's a one point in there I just I thought this insane thought thank God I just think insane things and don't do them all the time the thought was I should floor it I'll push us both into oncoming traffic. We'd be killed, but she'd see. But I don't do nothing. I just angst up a little more. I get to the meeting, and the guy's there. He beat me. The new guy beat me there. And you know where he's sitting? He's sitting in the back of the room. I just, get up here. Sit up here. Right up. Right in the front. Right in the front. 
Got him sitting right in the front. Laid out all the literature. I mean, I I can lay out some literature too, I'm telling you. <laughs> I waited patiently for the perfect two people to chair this meeting. It was one of those meetings where they had a chairman and a co-chairman. The chairman took the first half of the meeting and the co-chairman took the second half. And I wanted to get the right two guys that are going to lay the message of Alcoholics Anonymous out for my new guy. Told the one guy, I said, uh, we're not gonna, we got a new guy here. We're not gonna read chapter five. We're gonna read chapter three. And he said, yeah, cool, cool. And it's all in place. It's gonna be good. I can picture this new guy getting his year mentioning my name. <laughs> they started the meeting off. They read chapter three. The chairman says, anybody have anything they want to kick us off with? And some guy starts talking about shooting heroin. Well, he's not even done talking. Another guy jumps in, and some old guy, and cuts him off, says, you can't talk about that here. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, somebody else jumps in and tells that guy, he can talk about whatever he wants to talk about here. And it's like the meeting from hell. I mean, it's like, and, and all, the whole the whole fantasy of, of the new guy getting the chip and mentioning my name is just like, just dissipating like smoke in the wind. And now I'm pissed. I'm the only one. I'm the only one here that gets it. I'm the only one here. All these other people are assholes. They don't know what they're doing. And I'm. I tell you, I'm fed up. I, I'm tired. I'm tired about being the only one that cares. And I'm. I'm ready to. I'm going to quit Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to quit these stupid people. And I go home. And I. And I've been conditioned like Pavlov's dog to call my sponsor before I go to call my sponsor and he says, well, read page 60 through 63. And I get to the bottom of page 60 and it says, we're like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, the rest of the players, the other employees, the customers, the people in the grocery store, the people in traffic, the people sharing in the meeting in his own way. If only my arrangements would stay put, if only people would do as I wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including myself, would be pleased. And it was like a veil lifted, and I just sat there and I thought, oh my God, that's me. That's exactly what I've been doing all day long. Now, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that I could go through life being that guy, causing myself problems, quitting jobs, alienating myself from people, ruining relationships, doing, being that guy and never know it. And I never, until that moment, I never even peeped it. And not because I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a dumb guy. It's just the, the greatest trick the ego ever does is to convince us it doesn't exist. It hides behind a smokescreen of justification and chatter that the way it talks to me in my head. I'm not running the show. I'm, this is going to be good for everybody. Do you, do you ever notice you get, when you get resentments, do you ever try? I have this thing inside me. I, I don't want to just get a resentment just because the person hurt my feelings. I have to take it to a global level. I, I mean, I, you know, I'll resent somebody in AA because they're doing something's out of line, and, and I'll take it in my mind to the level where they're going to destroy Alcoholics Anonymous. Where it's like now it's not, it's a crusade. I mean, it's, you know, I, I got to make it global. 
the amazing ability to justify stuff is amazing in the alcoholic mind. The book says, in trying to make these arrangements, our actor may be sometimes quite virtuous. In the in this desperate need to arrange life so I'll be better, in this def, desperate attempt to play God, I may be quite seemingly virtuous. I may do it in a manner that's kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. I can do it all that way. But if that doesn't work, I can be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. I, I, it doesn't, because don't, don't screw with me here. This is important. This is important. You don't see it, but this is, you don't get it. You're stupid. You're stupid. You don't get it. This is important. And I always try the first approach. The, the, I always try the kind, considered, patient, generous. And to get my way, I'll try a little, little sugar. Little sugar, get my way. Because if you get your way being kind, patient, considerate, Oh my God, you got your way and you kind of looked almost humble doing it. It's, that's a hat trick. That's beautiful. That's like a win-win. I got my way and I looked good getting it. Wow. Does it get any better than that? But don't screw with me. Cause I'll go and I'll talk crap about you behind your back until I'll get everybody on the same page and they'll be against you because you're against me. I'll turn, I'll just, I'll go out of my way to turn people against you. Because isn't it all about me and this obsessiveness for me to get what I believe secretly is going to make me different and me happy and me better. So what the book says, what usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. And I'm not, it's not like I ain't trying. I think, I begin to think life doesn't treat me right. I decide to exert myself more. When all else fails, get a hammer. It's the only tool in my toolkit prior to Alcoholics Anonymous. I become on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be, whatever will work, because I just need to get my way. Still the play does not suit me. Admitting I may be somewhat kind of at fault, I am sure other people are more to blame. As a matter of fact, if you ever hear a person with untreated alcoholism say that, well, I might be wrong, it's only because they're absolutely sure they're not. And they're just trying to look humble. I'm sure other, I'm sure that if you just, if you would only, if you would, life would be great. I'm convinced of it. Why is that? The book says he becomes angry, indignant, and self-pitying. What is my basic trouble? That is a brilliant question. I'd never stop to ask myself. I think my trouble's you. What is my basic trouble? And then here's the third delusion that the book talks about. The first two delusions keep me from staying sober. And this one will keep me in a state of emotional angst and depression and unhappiness for sometimes for decades. Sober until I can't take it anymore. And then what? I drink again, get on medication or blow my brains up. Or surrender and do this. 
Am I not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Am I not a victim of the delusion that I can rest with a W like in wrestle? Rest, satisfaction, and happiness out of this world if I only manage well. That delusion in some of us runs deep into our consciousness. The idea that if I just get all my ducks lined up in a row, if I got everybody kind of looking the right way at life, if I got the right people loving me the right way, not like those other people who screwed it up, if I got the right job, the right house, the right prestige, the right notoriety, surely, surely then... I will have rested satisfaction and happiness out of this world through all this management and effort on my part. The problem with that, and the reason that that's a delusion, if we could be objective about ourselves, and we could step back from ourselves as a demographic, and looked at ourselves in almost a scientific way, view. I don't think that you could find a demographic on the planet of people that have ever spent more money, more time, more effort, or obsessive energy on trying to make themselves satisfied and happy as we have. And the end result is I'm saying to someone, would you please sponsor me? absolute failure at let me tell you something if I could rest satisfaction and happiness out of this world I'd have done it and I'm not talking about some of you are thinking well the drinking got in the way the best way to understand the second half of step one is to manage your own life for about five years without drinking if you don't go insane and you don't ruin your life, you will come to that second collapse that involves the second half of step one. I came to that, I came to it incrementally, but I came to it at great depth when I was a little over four years sober. When I was, uh, by the time I was four years sober, I, I'd never worked the steps out of the book. And the, here's the, the dangerous part. I thought I had. I did two inventories. The first one was the, the common inventory of its time, where you, you just write about 30 or 40 pages of all your secrets and everything you're ashamed of, and you dump it on somebody. I did that, and i got to tell you, nothing changed. I did a second one where I didn't know what else to do, and I... I, I did. I answered the 30-some questions in the chapter 4 in the book 12 Steps and 12 Traditions and wrote about a page on each of the seven deadly sins. And I tell you, nothing changed. And then at four years sober, I'm suffering from untreated alcoholism. I, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to 15 meetings a week. I got, I'm a DCM, I'm on two convention committees, I got two hospital and institution commitments every week, I'm sponsoring guys, I have a commitment at my home group, 
I mean, you couldn't get any more involved in activity in Alcoholics Anonymous than I was, and I'm dying here. I can't outrun myself anymore. And I'm at that place where the Chuck Chamberlain talks about where you, you get to a place where you can no longer put anything between you and you. And there you are. And I can't outrun myself anymore. And, and thank God, I, I'd been to a Joe and Charlie weekend. And one of the, one of the things that aggravated me about that weekend is when they were talking about step four, they were saying things and I thought, and I'd sit there and I'd go, Oh, I didn't do that. Oh, that's not what I did. And I started defending myself. Well, what I did was actually better than that. I, mean, I did that, that. and But I knew inside me that I hadn't really done it. I knew it. And one of the hardest things to do is, is when you have the kind of ego I have, even though you're dying and you're fighting depression. And, and by the time I was four years sober, I'd already been through nine jobs in four years. That speaks volumes of untreated alcoholism. Because I'm always the guy that's leaving. I'm the guy who's always alone. And I can't run anymore. And I, and I knew it. I knew I hadn't really done Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had a guy that I sponsored who, right about this time, he asked me, he said, would you help me do a fourth step? And I'd just been through the Joe and Charlie thing, and I I sat down with him, and, and we went through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we did line by line, and just when it said, write something, list something, pray something, realize something, we just did everything it said. And I got to watch that guy change. And it was perfect because right after that, it was going to be my turn. I helped a guy, a sponsor that was sober, newer than I was, do this before I ever did it. And it was brilliant because the Hindus have a saying that the student doesn't learn the lesson until he becomes the teacher. I learned how to do a four-step, helping this idiot learn how to do a four-step. And I learned it in a way I couldn't have learned it if I was trying to figure it out for me. But it's odd when you're looking because you care about somebody else, you see it differently, don't you? And I, was, I learned how to do a four-step by helping a guy do a four-step. Um, when I was about a year sober, I got down on my knees. and I, I, You know, the book says we thought well before taking the third step. I said before saying this third-step prayer, and I think I thought well. But the truth was I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even under... I'd read this part of the book dozens of times. I don't even think I understood the words really and what they meant to me personally. I don't think I got it. Isn't that odd that you could say a prayer over and over again and not really even understand it? And I got down on my knees and I said the third step prayer on page 63. And I'm going to read it. If you want to say it along with me, feel free. You don't have to. These are the formal terms of surrender. God... I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do Thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of Thy power, Thy love, and Thy way of life. May I do Thy will always. Well, I didn't do what it said after that, which is we started once on this house cleaning. Not too long after that, I wrote the I wrote the thirty some page, the almost forty pages of crap. Um, 
But at the ten months after I said the third step prayer were very painful. I, I'll tell you, there were times in, in that next ten months where I thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown. It was horrible. Within no time at all after taking this prayer, saying this prayer on my knees with another member of AA, I lost my job. And this this was the job that I thought I was going to have all my life. It was a, To me, it was a career. And not only did I lose this job, and I'd lost jobs before, but this job was important to me. And I lost this job, and then I put out resumes, and I could not get a job anywhere in this venue. And I even stretched it out to sort of related fields. Could not, every door was closed, every single door. Now I'm getting scared because I don't have any savings, really. And I, I, I'm a pretty much a paycheck-to-paycheck paycheck kind of guy, and now I don't have a job, and I can't get one. And I'm scared. At the same, right after that, my roommate moves out. Now, I'm living in a two-bedroom apartment, which I'm only paying half the rent and half the utilities with a roommate and a job. Now i got no roommate and no job. i got homelessness coming at me. And I don't know if I can weather homeless sober. I, I got this girl I'd been dating, and she dumped me. Went and dated, started dating somebody else. I started going through these emotional roller coasters that were just bizarre, I mean, very erratic, where I could just be sitting having a cup of coffee. Nobody said nothing to me. Nobody's done nothing. Nothing's happening. And all of a sudden, this ball of emotion would just rise up, and I'd just sit there, and I'd just start sobbing. And I don't even know why. And I felt like I was losing it. I felt like I'm having a nervous breakdown here. i got to tell you something. There's a thin line between nervous breakdown and surrender. It, they're almost identical. God's trying to move me into a collapse that will change my life. And I don't know what's going on. I went to my sponsor and I told him all. I said, I can't, I'm, I'm getting worse. And he said, you know what he said to me? He says that crazy stuff. People say, he said, oh, you're right on course. <laughs> For what? A train wreck? What are you talking about? Right on course. My life's falling apart. The wheels have come off. I'm dying here. I'm going to be living in, this, in, the, in an alley somewhere and within two weeks. And she just smiles. Oh, you're going to be okay. What's making me so sick I feel like I'm losing my mind? What's threatening my very abstinence? Public service announcement. If you have cell phones, turn them so they don't ring. And I'll tell you why. I, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. This is a public service announcement. I'll tell you why we say that here. Because we know how God works. He, God sometimes has, gets out the bozo, the clown nose, and just screws with us. And he's got a great sense of humor. If you leave your cell phone on, you can bet in the middle of the meeting it will go off. Everybody sitting around you will turn and stare at you. You'll spend the rest of the day having conversations in your head with the people that stared at you. And why do you have your phone on? I know, I know you secretly suspect that your ex is going to come to their senses in the middle of this meeting and realize how wrong they were and call you. But it's not going to happen during the meeting. Trust me, it ain't going to happen. So you might as well just self, save your, if you have, a, if you have some serious thing, somebody going into surgery or something, keep it on silent, watch it. But 
Try to. They used to tell me when I was new, try to keep your mind where your butt is, right here. So what, this fourth step is 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 so simple in the book, but it's not simple into the in the book until after you do it. It's one of the most misunderstood uh, steps in in the in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm a literalist. I'm going to go through this exactly as it talks about in the book. I, I don't have. I don't. You won't see me add stuff that's not there, and you're not going to see me leave out stuff that's in there. We're going to go through it. I learned how to to help guys with the steps by sitting down with the book and literally just doing everything that it says to do. And what's it start out? It starts out on page 64. It says. We had to get down to causes and conditions. Therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Now, check these implications. This Bill's trying to paint a picture of what we're going to do here. He says taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding. In other words, you're going to find some facts about yourself. The implication is that maybe you didn't know. And a fact Facing, and you're going to face some things about yourself you never faced before. Process. It's an effort to discover the truth about stock and trade. When I did the two previous fourth steps, and I wrote my whole life story and everything I was ashamed of. I mean, I, I shared some secrets with another person, but honest to God, there was nothing on there I didn't know. I didn't find and, and face any facts about myself I didn't know. I didn't discover any truth. I shared some secrets with someone else when I did the one out of the 12 steps and 12 traditions. Same thing. It was, it was an interesting prospect. But there was no new information. There was no, as my sponsor talks about this being a disease of perception, there was no shift in my perception. The, the goal is I, I should come out of this thing different. And let's see what happens if we do this. You might, some of you, if you've never done it out of the book, you're going to be amazed. And some of you would have, you have done it, maybe you'll find little ways to make it more effective with the people you sponsor. One object is disclosed, damaged, or unsaleable goods to get rid of them promptly and without regret. This is, this is a process of getting rid of. This is not learning or getting knowledge about yourself. This is getting rid of crap. We, we approach God, this is not by, by self-reduction and subtraction, not by acquisition. This is about getting rid of stuff. If the owner of a business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. Oh, if you're like me, I found I fooled myself about so much. I listened to all these little stories in my head about my life, and they weren't even true. These cases I'd build against people. So it says we do exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup, which caused our failure. Being convinced that self, manifested in various ways was what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. The book said earlier in the chapter that the real root of the trouble was selfishness and self-centeredness. 
So we're looking, we're going to start looking for the manifestations of the enemy, of self, the thing that we're in the bondage of, that we're, that we're hostage to, to see where this stuff has, has defeated us. So we considered its common manifestations. And here's the first one is resentment. The inventory is in three parts. Resentments, fears, and sex conduct. And oddly enough, those three areas will crisscross across our entire lives and our entire being and our entire approach to the world. We will uncover, discover, and discard all the calamity and the sources of it, the pomp and the sources of it, and the things that we worship or became obsessed with. We are going to, as my grand sponsor used to say, enter this process of uncovering discovering and discarding. We're removing the blockage between me and God and me and others and and me and my ability to carry out the decision in step three. Resentment is the number one offender. I didn't know what resentment was. I thought it was anger because it kind of looks like anger, but it's, it's not really anger. It comes from a Latin word, resentire, meaning to resensitize, to refeel, to replay. I don't know if you guys have, I don't watch much, you guys have football and soccer here. I think it's a little different than we have it in the States, but it may be viewed on TV the same. Do you guys have the instant replays? Right, okay, we got that. And that's what a resentment is. A resentment is, there's there's somebody is is smashed up pretty good, and then they replay it with a commentary, who just, the commentator will tell you about what a real, oh, this, that must have really hurt. You know, I mean, he'll, he'll say those things and he, and what the, you zoom, you zoom the camera on the guy's leg getting snapped. And you kind of fade out the other stuff till you just really get it, right? Oh my God, look at that. Oh. And that's what a resentment is, is, is we, I replay this stuff in my mind and, but I replay it with the mind of a chronic alcoholic, a mind that is just is ego-driven and self-serving and wants to be right and wants them to be wrong. So if you're like me, every time I replay it, I zoom the camera of my mind a little more on what they did and I kind of shade out anything that I, that's really not important. I know I did that. Let's look here, right here, right here. Look what they did. Look what they did, my God. And I'll replay it, and every time I replay it, I make them a little worse, and me a little better, and uh, them a little worse, and me a little better, until by the time most of us get to Alcoholics Anonymous, we're just, oh my God, no one's ever done so much for so many so often, for so little. We end up, we end up feeling like victims, right? And who's, we're the victimizers. So resentment's the number one offender. And it, you know, when I was new, I wouldn't have thought that. I, I, I would have thought it should have been guilt or remorse because I was plagued with it. But in actuality, guilt uh, and remorse just ends up being a little bit of, of, st- of the sphere inventory. Resentment really is the number one offender because it, it, nothing will alter your perception and your relationship to life more than a resentment. Think about it. If you're like me, from the moment you get a resentment, someone hurts you deeply. From the moment they hurt you, 
Did you ever notice how your shift, the shift in your perception from that moment on, they can't do anything right, can they? They can't. It's, it's like what happened? It's, they could, it's as if these are always, all the time, 24-7 bad people. Now, well, nobody's like that. I mean, we're silly in the way we th- in our perceptions. Kind of silly, isn't it? But yet, from the moment you hurt me, you'll never do anything right again. I will only a- be, be able to observe what you do wrong. And I'll keep score. Oh, I'll keep a little book. And I'll just watch you. I'll watch you closely sometimes because I need, I need more evidence. I need more in the book here. Right? I'll just build these cases on you because I want to be right. And then maybe years later, what if maybe you get sober before I do and you come make an amends to me or maybe you do something nice and altruistic and giving. What's the ego say? It goes, don't trust them. They're just showing off. Because my ego wants to be right about you. It doesn't care if I'm alone, if I'm miserable. It doesn't care. It just wants me to be, it wants to be right. I don't think my ego cares if it kills me as long as after I'm dead everybody realizes how right I was. (laughs) And so resentment will alter my very perception of reality. It keeps me hostage. It keeps me locked up in here. And everybody, everybody I've ever known that's ever had a deep resentment. You're, it, it owns you. It's got you right up in here, grinding away with the, the scenarios of I should say this to them, and they'll say that, and I'll say this, and they'll say that. It owns you. It's, it's got you hostage. So it is the number one offender. The book says it destroys more alcoholics than anything else. Wow, really? More than alcohol? I think so. I think so. I know that when Tim, at 31 and a half years of sobriety, put the pistol to his head sober, he had about, he had about 10 years of undealt with resentments that he accumulated. And he thought he was right about all of them. When Richie, with a little over 20 years, killed himself, he never could, he never could or would work the steps. And he, I, I, when he was 10 years sober, I, he went through a terrible breakup and his, his wife ended up, ended up going with some old timer in AA and he could not let go of it. He asked me to sponsor him. We got him right up to step four. And we, when he got to the part where it says, we look at these from an entirely different angle, he ain't coming. He don't. He wants to be right. He will not back off of it. And it killed him. He took his own life at 20 years, a little over 20 years sober. He, he could he just he'd grind away. He, people wouldn't have anything. By the time he killed himself, people wouldn't even have anything to do with him. They wouldn't even call on him on meetings because he's still talking about the crap from, from years before. They're tired of it. He's bad rapping people now that are very well respected in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not perfect people, people that make mistakes, but he won't let go of it. It's, it killed him. Destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual dis-ease. For we've not only been mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. And this next line, I think, is one of the most Beautiful and dynamic promises of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. You know, when I was in my, you know, by the time I was 24 years old, I felt like I was 80 years old. I felt I was like dying from this disease. And I, I was sick all the time. I, could, I was weak all the time. I, I couldn't even hold a job. I was so debilitated by my physical, emotional, and spiritual condition. I was a mess. I, the vitality, the physical vitality that has come to me as a result of working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is amazing. And the mental, I, I spent years with psychiatrists dying, being diagnosed as all kinds of stuff, and I haven't, I'm, alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous has come true for me. When the spiritual malady is overcome, you will, you will, everything that you couldn't do in therapy will happen for you. If you'll just do it. If you'll just do it. It almost seems like, how could this, how could this simple process do for me what these learned psychiatrists couldn't do and all those medications and all that therapy? The proof's in the pudding. I, I, of the guys I sponsor, I bet you there's close to 20 of them that had been hostage of the mental health system for years. Psychiatrists and therapists and medications and all kinds of in and out of mental hospitals. And, and these are free men today. These are, I mean, free men. Unbelievable. It's hard to believe when, when you don't really trust God, it's hard to believe God could do that for you, isn't it? But He can. Sometimes our God's not big enough. Sometimes our fear is a lot bigger than our God. So what do we do? Okay, here's, here's the nuts and bolts of it. The book's asking us to do six things in the resentment section. Six things. First, number one, it corresponds to the column number one on, on the left on page 65. It says, we listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. Can you see that in the book? Four lines up from the bottom on page 64, if those of you are following it. First thing we do, we listed people, institutions, or principles. Now, in my experience over the years, 95 to 98% of it's people. Um, but you might have some institutions. There's, there's one institution in the, in the United States that comes up on almost every inventory, and that's the IRS, the tax people. They come up on almost every single... Some, the police are there quite a bit. Um, but often, uh, when you look more specifically, it really wasn't the police. It was that one cop. The one cop that beat the crap out of me. And then we find out later, why did he beat the crap out of you? Well, I was... Tendency to counsel policemen when I'm drunk. They don't like that. Uh, so, first thing I do is listed the people, institutions, or principles with whom I are angry. Number two, the second thing, I ask myself why. And that's column number two on page 65, why. So I got who, column number one, why, column number two. And if you notice on page 65 in column number two, very small bullet points. Not a lot of, not a lot of talk here, not a lot of verbiage, 
because we're not, we do not want to go into building the case to make the person you're reading this to understand that this person deserved to be resented. You know, you know, this is just the facts, just the facts. Brief to the point. Second grade teacher, why? Embarrassed me in front of the class for not doing my homework. I don't have to go into the fact that she was a nun and her vow of Chastity made her hate boys, and I don't have to get into all that. I don't have to tell you what she did to the other kids in the class to justify my hating her. I don't have to tell you about her bad attitude about the sports team I really liked and or how she disrespected people. I don't have to. What's what actually happened? My ego got got. I got humiliated because I was embarrassed in front of the class. And I hated her from that moment on. She couldn't do anything right. The third thing, the third column, talks has a little more verbiage to describe what we do in, in column number three, because this is where we're starting to look for the first time, for the manifestations of self. And the, the way you can tell that is if you change the pronoun at the bottom of the page. Now, this the book was written in the third person because it's writ, written about a group of people called alcoholics. But if you're going to personalize it, let's make it about us and see how it fits. On the bottom of the page, it says, we ask ourselves why we were angry. In most cases, it was found that my, first person, self-esteem, my pocketbook, my ambitions, my personal relationships, including sex, and then here's some of the words that we're going to look at, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. So, so far we got three, we got three words that are describing what we're looking for. We're looking for what was hurt. We're looking for what was threatened. And we're looking for our injuries or what was injured. And then it goes on with two more. It says, was it our self-esteem? Was it my security? Was it my ambitions, which is a great way of saying my way, me getting my way, my ambitions. Was it my way? Was it my personal or sex relationships, which had been interfered with? So we're looking for what was hurt, aspects of self that were hurt, that were threatened, that were injured, that were interfered with. And then the top of the third column says affected or what was affected. And... Bill, Bill has tremendous economy in his wordsmithing. And he doesn't waste words. And I, I, I've been, I'm a, I, I've read everything I can get my hands on written by Bill Wilson, and he's a remarkable writer. Um, by a lot of standards in English literature, his, it would be, they could easily critique him, but he is, he has economy of scale. And when he mentions something, he mentions it for a reason. Um, so when I ask myself uh, of these things that it lists, rela- sex relations, self-esteem, ambitions, pride, security, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, what was affected? In some resentments, I don't, I don't get it. I'm affected. I don't know. I don't really see it. And then I have to ask myself, well, okay, what was interfered with? Eh. I'm still not really getting it either. What was injured? I'm getting closer. What was threatened? 
You threatened my pride. You threatened my relationship here. You threatened my job. Or maybe what was hurt. Oh, you hurt my pride. You hurt my my security. And every word, it's like looking at something from different angles, and you pick, and then you finally, I use the one that goes, oh, that's it was it was pride. Oh, it was self-esteem. And a lot of a lot of the resentments, especially the long-term ones, the deep ones, it's almost everything was hurt, threatened, affected, injured, or interfered with. So we got these three columns. Okay, this is not the end. This is just this is this a horrid format a victimization that we actually have to put on paper in order to do the real work of setting ourselves free, which occurs on the next two pages. And on the bottom of page 65, after making the list of the three columns, who, why, and what was affected, threatened, etc., it says we went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we were finished, the first three columns, when we were finished, we considered these three columns carefully. The first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. Very apparent to me. Oh, yeah. They're really wrong. Isn't that what we're doing here? The first three columns, isn't it really a list of people that are wrong? People that if there was any justice, they would owe you an amends, wouldn't they? They'd owe the world an amends, probably. These are the out-of-line people. These are the stupid people. These are the wrong people. Let's see. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. Well, how'd that work out? Well, the book says the usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. So you can change towns. Do you ever notice, do you ever change towns? And you're away from those assholes. And their cousins show up in the new town. Oh my God, they're growing them out in the desert somewhere. They're the same people, different faces, same people. It's the same conflict. Now here I am, angst up again, locked in that pissed off position. Because when nothing changes in here, nothing changes out here. I will duplicate and replicate the same crap no matter where I go. Because wherever I go, there I am. That's the problem. I take me with me. So, people continued to wrong me, and I stayed store. Sometimes it was remorse. And it was remorse a lot for me. I would attack, I would do all this stuff, I'd try to manage and arrange, and then i just implode. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters. God, as in war, the only the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. Now the next two paragraphs, I'm not going to read them, but the book is is heavy-handed here. It's it's there's seven death threats in the next two paragraphs. <laughs> I mean, it's brutal. It just these resentments lead to futility and unhappiness. Uh, they, they're fatal. They're infinitely grave. They shut us off from the sunlight of the Spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink and we die. We die. We die. You know, they're poison. It's just like, okay, all right, stop it. I get it. They're fatal. All right, all right, all right, all right. 
I get it. And then it says something very, very important. The second line in the second, in the last full paragraph says we are prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. And this is the introduction to a change of perception that the book's going to facilitate in the next couple paragraphs. But objectively, what would that look like? An entirely, looking at them from an entirely different angle. Well, I think uh, reasonably, in order to see what 180 degrees is from one point, I have to kind of see the point that I'm starting from in order to measure a hundred and in order to see an entirely different angle, I have to kind of be very genuine about how I'm looking at this to begin with in order to see it from an entirely different angle. So how are, how are you looking at these resentments? Would it be fair to say that you're looking at them from the perspective of a prosecuting attorney? You got column one, you got the perpetrator. Column number two, the heinous acts. Column number three, the damage that was done. And you got your cases built pretty good here. So if you got to look at this from an, if if you got to be prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle, wouldn't that be to get up and cross the courtroom and sit down on the defense table and start pleading their case? Start looking at it through their eyes. Start seeing at the way they saw it. Start having dialogue about what it looked like to them. Now, I don't know anything about the the particulars of your particular resentments, but I can bet one thing. I bet you that the person you hate, if they they were explaining what happened between you and them, their version of it would be different than yours. Now, the ego rears up automatically. Well, of course it was, because they're stupid, and my version is right. Well, eh, maybe, maybe not. Are you prepared to look at this from an entirely different angle? Do you want to be free or do you want to be right? It's your choice. Every every alcoholic says, well, I want to be both. Well, it, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you can't be both. You can't, it, wouldn't it be nice? It'd be great if I could be free and right. But I got a choice here. What do I want to be? Do, what do I, do I value my peace of mind and my freedom more than I value this case I've built against these people? Am I willing to entertain a possibility that my perception might not have been right? Is it possible? Is it possible that my memory of what happened between me and them might be tainted a little bit by years of tweaking and and replaying? You ever sat down with a sibling, someone raised in the same house you were in, and talk about your childhood? I did that with my sister. It drove me crazy. She kept saying things. I kept thinking, oh, it didn't happen like that. No. I almost said something to her. I was sober several years. And she's telling stories about stuff in our childhood. And I remember completely, and I almost said something, and I thought, I think this was God. The idea came to my mind, well, Bob, if one of the two perceptions here is wrong, what are the, your, with your track record, Bob, what are the chances of it being her? 
And I did, I tell you to this day, there's some things she thinks happened. When we were kids. I don't remember. I remember it completely different. But I'm willing to consider that maybe she was right. I, I just had a thing happen to me not too long ago. I was in the middle of talking about a story of something that happened to me 35 years ago, over 35 years ago. And in the middle of the story, it was like this veil lifted and I, I stopped and I thought, oh, that didn't even happen. <laughs> oh my God, it didn't even, I'd been telling that story to make myself look good for th- over 35, it was like that didn't even happen. I've been, I created that lie, that story, it, it was like a little tiny element of truth and then they built it up into this thing that made me look very tough and very cool and everything. It didn't even happen. That's amazing, isn't it? And I told it so many times to you and told it to myself that I believed it. I believed it. So we're prepared to look at these from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominate us. In that state, the wrongdoings of others, fancied or real, had the power to actually kill Some alcoholics die over imagined wrongs. I could take you to prisons in the United States where I've taken meetings and introduce you to people who are going to be there for the rest of their life because they killed someone based on something they thought the person did and found out later it was the wrong person. That that person didn't even do that. And they played the game of let's bet your life. The ego wants to be right so much it doesn't care if it ruins you. It wants to be right. This idea that that my perception could be fancied, that my resentments in these cases I build against people could be partially fantasy is, is a hard thing to swallow if you've been entrenched in being right all your life. I had something happen to me in my first couple of years that really affected me. And I'll tell you this story. And Maybe you've had something happen to you like this. There was a guy named Billy Taylor. Billy was one of the old timers in AA. And he's a good guy. He used to like to go out to coffee with newer people and talk about AA and coffee shops. I, I got a lot of my early AA and coffee shops. And one night after a late night meeting, I was in this coffee shop with Billy. It was just him and I in this booth. A couple other guys had left. and He's an easy guy to talk to. And because he was an easy guy to talk to, I found myself sharing a couple deep, dark secrets with him. You know those things that you come in that you're really, really ashamed of? You don't want anybody to know. The things you want to take to the grave kind of things. And I, I shared those things with Billy because he's easy to talk to and and he seemed to take it pretty well. I gotta, I gotta tell you though, he never said, yeah, me too. That would have helped. He never said that. And instead, instead he gave me something that I remember in the back of my mind felt a little bit like the AA party line. Like he said, well, I'm sure you're not the only one that's ever done that. And someday that might help somebody, you know, that kind of thing. But he didn't reject me. He took it well. He didn't, he, you know, he didn't seem to have any disdain or, uh, and I, I went home that night and I got my shift changed at work. 
Well, all of a sudden, my whole meeting schedule is upside down, and now I'm not going to late night meetings anymore. I'm going to noon meetings, and I'm going to midnight meetings because I don't. I work. I'm working till midnight every night. So I'm going. I, we had these new twelve fifteen meetings at night. I went to. So a good part of a year went by, and I didn't see this guy Billy for anywhere because I don't go where he goes anymore. And then I was working six days a week. I only had one night off, and on my one night off, I I went to a meeting I normally wouldn't go to, and. The meeting's getting ready to start, and I look across the room, and Billy's there. And I was very delighted to see him, as we all are with people in our early sobriety that it affected us. He was one of the guys. He was one of my go-to guys. And I, I said, hey, Billy, Billy, hey, how you doing? And he looked at me with this pained look on his face, and he doesn't even say hi to me. And he just turns away, as if, as if his whole demeanor and body language was saying, oh, you, ugh. And just turned away and he sat down and the meeting starts and I'm sitting there and I can't hear what's going on in the meeting because I'm having a conversation with him in my head. And I know what's going on. I know this guy's judging me for that crap. And there's a part of me that doesn't blame him, really. I, You know, God knows I've, I've surely judged myself harshly for that stuff all my life and I... I guess I always secretly believed that if you knew those things about me that I know about me, you'd feel about me the way I feel about me, and that's not good. And I, I thought that he was condemning me and judging me for that stuff, and I, I, I sat there and I was very hurt by it. And, but I don't stay hurt. I get these, these hardwired defects or defense mechanisms that, like anger. You hurt me, I just, I, I snap into anger, and I start getting pissed. I'm sitting there. Build my case, I'm thinking, that hypocritical, phony, son of a, you know, saying it was all right, that crap. And then I had this epiphany, it was like, wait a minute. The reason he can't even look me in the eye and say, oh my God, he's been telling people that crap. And it became so clear to me. I had just asked a girl out to coffee and she would not go out to coffee with me and he's friends with her. I knew he told her that disgusting stuff I'd told him. Oh my God. And then that, now I think about it, his buddy who he runs around with has been very distant to me. Oh my God. He's told, he's been telling it. And now I am so angst up by the end of the meeting, I'm going to go over and I'm going to beat the crap out of him. And he's going to deserve every single bit of it. Because if he's doing that to me, he's probably doing it to other new people. He's ruining Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) Somebody ought to beat the crap out of him. So I'm angst up and I'm ready to go. And they're getting to the end of the meeting. And the chairman says, before we close, does anybody have a burning desire? And Billy raises his hand and he tells everybody in the room that the, that the biopsy came back and the tumor is stage four and malignant and he has no very little time to live. And I remember sitting there hearing that and it was like, it was like I came out of a daydream. It was like, like somebody poured a bucket of water on me. I remember sinking down into my chair and just going, oh my God. What I saw in him that I thought was about me wasn't about me. On on the day he found out he was terminally ill, uh, 
He was so afraid, I'm sure, as I would be. He didn't even see me. The pain in his face was the fear he was feeling. It had nothing to do with me. I mean, oh my God, I remember sitting there just feeling like so, oh, horrible. It was like a, a postcard from God. Dear Bob, you don't know crap. Love God. Right. When it says in here that the wrongdoings of others fancied or real had the power to actually kill, oh my God, what would have become of me if I would have attacked a man who did nothing but love me and try to help me on the lowest day of his life and then found out later that I just, what I did, how could I have ever come back to Alcoholics Anonymous in rooms where he was so loved? I would have been condemned, it would have been a mortal blow to my soul. I would have gone and drank myself to death. I couldn't have faced it. And and I would have died a horrible, horrible alcoholic death over nothing. Over something that was imagined. And if that was true for Billy Taylor, when I time I got to my resentment list, is it possible that this kind of situation could be true to some degree for some of these other people. Is it possible? And the, towards the bottom of the page, it says, what do we do? It says, how can we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. Before I ever did the fourth step, I'm helping a guy do the fourth step, and we're going through every every line of the book, and we get to, and this guy's got a lot of resentments, and they're killing him. And we get to this line, you, they have to be mastered, but how you can't wish them away any more than alcohol. And this guy, Bill, looks at me and he goes, my God, what do I do? And Joe and Charlie never covered this. They never talked about it. They went right from the third column into the fourth column. They never talked about the stuff in between. And I didn't know what to tell him. I didn't know. I, I I have nothing here. I don't know. How do you get free of this? I don't know. Just look for your part. I mean, that doesn't seem this is hardly enough. How do you get free of this stuff that's killing you? This cancer inside you that's eating your, eating your heart out. How do you get free of it? And I don't know what to tell him. And I'm just looking down at the page, and I swear to God that it seemed like the next four words were in neon. And it says, I said to him, this was our course. As if I knew. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, re I'm ad-libbing here and reading. This was our course. And we started to, I started to read the next two lines and we started to talk about them. And the book's asking me innermost self stuff. It's asking me to make a realization that encompasses a tremendous shift in perception and consciousness. It's asking me to realize that the people on my resentment list that, that I have the cases built against, that these people who wronged me were perhaps spiritually sick. Well, that's easy enough. They're sick. They're assholes. I get it. Somebody should punish them. I understand. But it, it's the next line that, 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 that changed my world. And the next line says, though we do not like their symptoms. What symptoms? Column number two. 
if they weren't spiritually sick, if they were right with themselves and right with God, would they have done what they did in column number two? They couldn't have. Oh my God, look at all the stuff I did that hurt people as a result of how sick I was. So even though I did not like their symptoms, column number two, and the way these disturbed me, what's that about? Column number three, the pride, the self-esteem, the pocketbook, the ambitions. That even though I didn't like their symptoms and the way their symptoms disturbed me, and here's the kicker, I must realize that they, these people on my list, like myself, were sick too. Well, what does that mean? That means that I got to get off my high horse. I got to get off the throne of judgment and come down until I'm looking right across the table at these people eyeball to eyeball and understand the truth. The truth is, is that if I was afraid like they were afraid, if I'd been raised like they were raised, if I'd been hurt and abused, and scared like they were hurt and abused and scared. If I was drunk and frustrated and resentful the way they were. If I had everything going on within me that was going on within them, can I get it that I could have easily been driven by the sickness inside me to do to someone else what they did to me? Can I get that? Can I see that if I had the same stuff driving me inside insane that I could have done to someone else what they did to me? Or do I need to remain smugly superior? And I started to see something that was remarkable to me. I started to see myself in the people that I built these cases against. And it was a remarkable thing. There, there was a movie years ago that when I saw it, I thought, oh my God, that's exactly what's going on in the big book when it talks about this was our course. And the movie was The Bucket List. And if you saw The Bucket List, it was a remarkable movie. There was a beautiful scene in there where um, now Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson have been both diagnosed as terminally ill with cancer. And they're both being given this last ditch effort of extreme chemotherapy uh, to, is a, is a hope, just a shot in the dark trying to fix them. And they're not given the chemo on the same day. So what happens is the one guy is sick, sick, awful from the chemo. And the other guy's not doing so bad because it's been a couple days since he's had it. And then as the one guy gets over it, they give it to the other guy. And there's this one scene where the one guy's kind of recovered and bounced back a little bit. And he's not as sick from the chemo, but his roommate is in the grip of it. And he's throwing up and he's cursing and he's just irritable. And he's, just, he's like awful. He's really sick and driven by it. And his roommate is it's not looking at him like he's out of line. He's not looking at him like he's... He's, he's, he's like an idiot. He's looking at him with love and compassion because he gets it. He sees past the symptoms of the chemo to what's really going on and how that guy feels because it was him three days before. And so what the book's asking me to do here is to see past the facades. It's asking me to get people in a way I've never got them before. The, the Buddhists bow to each other and they say something. They say, Namaste, which one 
translation of that is, is that the God in me sees and recognizes the God in you. I think it's even more than that. I think it's that I see you. I get you. Because you're me. Some of you are me on a very bad day. (laughs) But you're me. You're me. You're me when I'm afraid. The guy that's giving you a hard time in, in traffic or in the grocery store, that's me when I'm scared. That's me when I've been hurt earlier in the day and I'm thrashing out at people. That's me when I'm too angry, hungry, lonely, tired. Isn't it odd when I'm having a bad day, I want the whole world to just line up with compassion and understanding. But yet I won't give it. And this is the part of this process where I where for, where we get forgiveness. Tolerance, acceptance, love, and understanding are for the giving. Forgiving. Resentment and judgment are for the takers. And this is where I get to forgive. This is where I get to understand. And forgiveness always seems to come through understanding. This is where I started to un- to develop something that a self-centered guy like me doesn't have at all. And that's compassion. It comes from two Latin words, com, meaning with, and passio, pain. In other words, I'm starting to be able to sit with your pain. I get you. I see you. Later, this would make me so effective with people I would sponsor because now I understand them at a level that nobody's ever understood them before. I understand what happened to you when you beat your kids. Your dad beat you, didn't he? I know. I know. I know how you feel about yourself from doing that. It's the same way that your dad felt about himself, isn't it? He covered it up with a facade of, of bravado because he didn't know how to handle it. We start to understand people at a level we'd never imagined before. We never imagined. Because we're starting to understand ourselves. It, it's, it's remarkable to me that I grow closer to God and closer to myself by growing closer to you. There was a poem in the grapevine years ago And it said that I sought myself and could not see. I sought my God, he eluded me. So I sought my brother and I found all three. It is in this part of this process that some of us start to realize that that we could be forgiven by God because we're starting to forgive and understand others. I'm starting to see these people I've hated the way God has seen them. With the compassion and the tolerance and the love, I'm starting to wake up. The veils of self are starting to come and fall away and I'm starting to see what what other people... And, 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 and when I started to look at a lot of things in my life uh, from other people's point of view, oh my God! You know, all of a sudden I understood why my parents would have, I just, how I burnt them out. They would have nothing to do with me. I resented them for cutting me off. I started seeing it through their eyes. I I remember thinking, oh my God, how did they, 
They loved me. Oh, they did all that for me for so many years. How did they last as long as they did? I started understanding why the bosses fired me. Because I'm looking at it through their eyes. I'd have fired me too. I'd have fired me quicker than they did. <laughs> One of the things that was kind of pathetic, I realized, is that people have had a lot more tolerance with me than I would have had with them if the tables were turned. The truth that truth. I understood why there were people I was in relationships would eventually leave me and dump me. My God, you look at it through their eyes. Oh my God. I think this is the, the beginning of a real awakening here. I think, I think real awakening is you just pull your head out of your butt and you see what everybody else has seen all along. It's just like, I get it, I get it. You know? There's Now I'm not a victim anymore. I see it. Now I know. And I tell the guys I sponsor, and they all say, you come back to me a year or two later, how true this is. If you really process this stuff in the book like this, you'll be able to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous anywhere in the world and talk to people or listen to them share and in a very short time. You'll know whether they've ever done this or not because it changes you. One of the things that will happen is you'll never, ever, ever, ever be able to sell yourself the crap that you're a victim again. You'll start to see the truth. You'll start to see how What's the book say earlier? We made decisions based on self, which later placed us in that position to be heard. We'll start seeing how selfishly we signed up for this stuff. And then there's the, the fifth thing we do is a prayer. After the fourth thing is the realization. The fifth thing is the prayer. And it's a call for action. It's a beautiful prayer. It's I'm asking God to help me to show them. Well, show them implies action that I'm going to demonstrate. I'm going to show them. I'm going to act towards them with the same tolerance, the same pity, and the same patience I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. Wouldn't it be true that if they hadn't done what they did in column number two, that they possibly could have been my friend? A lot of people on my resentment list, at one time I had loved them until they cheated on me or until they did this or they did that or they did is it is it is it true that i if i really understood that they were sick and i could see myself in them and see what drove them can i understand that they could no more help being as bad as they were when they were as bad as they were as i could help being as bad as i was when i was as bad as i was I, I had a long eight-step list of people I'd hurt. I, honest to God, there was not one person on that list that I set out intentionally to hurt, but I hurt them just the same. If that's true for me, couldn't that be true for them? Were they as asleep in their own life, driven by self and fear? as I was when I stepped on the toes of my fellows? In the Lord's Prayer, which we say in, in the U.S. at the end of meetings, it was the only prayer that Bill Wilson really thought lined up with the principles of the 12 steps. It's unlike the serenity prayer. The serenity prayer doesn't line up too much with step 11 because it's not only for knowledge of His will for us. Serenity prayer, you're giving God direction. You're telling Him what to do. 
But in the Lord's Prayer, not only does it say, Thy will be done, but it says, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You want to be free of depression? You want to be free of self-loathing? Self-pity? Take them off the hook. An amazing thing will happen. You'll end up off the hook. Forgive us our trespasses as. If you want forgiveness for others, you have, if you, for yourself, you have to forgive others. And I don't want to see the ego hates that. Here's what I want. I'd like to be able to forgive myself and feel really good about myself and still think you're all a bunch of jerks. But you can't do that. It doesn't work like that. Because we are connected. And so I'm asking God to help me to, to act towards these people, to show them the same tolerance, the same pity and patience that I would cheerfully grant a person who had a brain tumor and it made him act bad and he couldn't help it. Because I'm starting to see that they, the emotional deformities and the defects and the sickness within them, they could no more help be in the way they were than I could help be in the way I was. I'm starting to wake up. And then the last thing, the sixth thing, is where, this is really where I, I claim, I, I claim myself, I, I take the responsibility. And it's odd, in the, in the middle paragraph on 67, this is often referred to as the place where we look for our part. It doesn't say that. Here's what it says. Referring to our list, the first thing it says is putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done. Wow. A couple lines down, it says the same thing again. When Bill Wilson says the same thing twice in one paragraph, you know he's serious. And he always uses different words to say it because he wants to make sure you get it. So he comes at it from a couple different angles. He says it again. He says, though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Entirely is like more than half. I mean, entirely. So we're putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done, and we're disregarding what they did entirely. So this is not parts. Because if you, if you look for your part, there's an implication, unconscious implication. Okay, here's my part. What's the implication? There's another part, right? There's parts as parts. Which means I'm reserving the right to think that they're wrong. I'm not really taking them off the hook. I'm not disregarding them. And this is, the ego hates this. It, you know why? Because when you can't hide your own selfish, squirmy, self-serving, vengeful, vindictive behavior in the shadow of what they did wrong, and you've got to look at it square on, it's like, now what kind of, well, now Bob, can't look at what your parents did wrong. What kind of a son were you? Oh, God. I was horrid. I was a self-centered, selfish, oh, inconsiderate. Me, 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 lying, cheating little, tur- oh, little crap. I had to look at it. I couldn't use, and I hid it. I used to look at, I used to glare at the things that my, I found imperfect in my parents to hide my stuff. Now, if I have to look at what kind of a boyfriend I was or what kind of a husband I was, 
look at look dead on. I can't look at the imperfections of the other person. It's not too pretty. They say the truth will set you free, but I'll tell you, I think it ruins your day first. <laughs> I can't really, I can't really, it's, it's, I can't let God take me to becoming something different in the, in, in God's idea of Bob until I squarely look at Bob's idea of Bob. You can't, you can't change a problem that you don't know you have. There's nothing you can do with it. That's like so many of us, we couldn't get sober as long as we denied our alcoholism. And I can't change this stuff until I look square at it. And I can't change it anyway. It's going to have to be God. But I bring it out into the light of day. I bring it out, out of the darkness. I bring it out when even I can see it. And things look different now. Now when I ask myself the questions, where had I been selfish? Wow. Where had I been dishonest? I was so... I lived a whole lifestyle of dishonesty. Nobody ever even met me. They met the facade of Bob. And why would I be that dishonest? Because I'm a liar? It looks like it, doesn't it? No, I'm just afraid. I'm so afraid that you're not going to like me or you're not going to love me or you're not going to accept me that I misrepresent, I create a facade of me and I put it out there in the world and I and you hide behind that facade long enough, you don't even know who you are. We try to be so many things to so many people that we don't even know who we are anymore. I remember when I first got sober, people would ask me things like, what kind of music do you like? Well, what kind do you like? I mean, I don't know. I mean, the first time you ever got in a date with someone and sober, try to pick a restaurant. You have two people that don't know who they are. Well, what kind of food do you like? Oh, I don't know. What kind of food do you like? Well, I don't know. What kind of food do you... Well, where do you want to go eat? Oh, I don't know. Where do you want to go? It's like you just want to kill each other after about a, about 20 minutes. Because, but the, the reality is nobody knows. I don't know who I am. I don't even know what I like, really. Or I'm so adamantly about what I like. I'm one extreme to the other, but I don't really know who I am. How many things I thought I hated that I found out I liked, and how many things I thought I liked that I thought and after I was sober, well, I don't like that. I didn't even know who I was. This is this. It's so it's so amazing that as I I discover who you are, I discover who I am. As I see you and see the me that's in you, I see the me in me. It's 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 just beautiful. And that takes us to this to a break, to a five minute break. Screws with us. And he's got a great sense of humor. If you leave your cell phone on, you can bet in the middle of the meeting it will go off. Everybody sitting around you will turn and stare at you. You'll spend the rest of the day having conversations in your head with the people that stared at you. And why do you have your phone on? I know, I know you secretly suspect that your ex is going to come to their senses in the middle of this meeting and realize how wrong they were and call you. But it's not going to happen during the meeting. Trust me. It ain't going to happen. So you might as well just self, save yourself. If you have, if you have some serious thing, somebody going into surgery or something, keep it on silent. Watch it. But try to, 
they used to tell me when I was new, try to keep your mind where your butt is. Right here. So what, this fourth step is, is, is so simple in the book, but it's not simple into the, in the book until after you do it. It's one of the most misunderstood, uh, steps in, in the, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm a literalist. I'm going to go through this exactly as it talks about in the book. I, I don't have, I don't, you won't see me add stuff that's not there, and you're not going to see me leave out stuff that's in there. We're going to go through it. I learned how to, to help guys with the steps by sitting down with the book and literally just doing everything that it says to do. And what's it start out? It starts out on page 64. It says, we had to get down to causes and conditions. Therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Now, check these implications. This Bill's trying to paint a picture of what we're going to do here. He says, taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding. In other words, you're going to find some facts about yourself. The implication is that maybe you didn't know. And a fact-facing, and you're going to face some things about yourself you never faced before. Process. It's an effort to discover the truth about stock and trade. When I did the two previous fourth steps, and I wrote my whole life story and everything I was ashamed of, I mean, I, I shared some secrets with another person, but honest to God, there was nothing on there I didn't know. I didn't find and, and face any facts about myself I didn't know. I didn't discover any truth. I shared some secrets with someone else. When I did the one out of the 12 steps and 12 traditions, same thing. It was, it was an interesting prospect. But there was no new information. There was no, as my sponsor talks about this being a disease of perception, there was no shift in my perception. The the goal is, I, I should come out of this thing different. And let's see what happens if we do this. You might, Some of you, if you've never done it out of the book, you, you're going to be amazed. And some of you would have... you have done it, maybe you'll find little ways to make it more effective with the people you sponsor. One object is disclosed, damaged, or unsaleable goods to get rid of them promptly and without regret. This is, this is a process of getting rid of. This is not learning or getting knowledge about yourself. This is getting rid of crap. We, we approach God, this is not by, by self-reduction and subtraction, not by acquisition. This is about getting rid of stuff. If the owner of a business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. Oh, if you're like me, you're, I found I fooled myself about so much. I listened to all these little stories in my head about my life, and they weren't even true. These cases I'd build against people. So it says we do the, exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. The book said earlier in the chapter that the real root of the trouble was selfishness and self-centeredness. 
So we're looking, we're going to start looking for the manifestations of the enemy, of self, the thing that we're in the bondage of, that we're, that we're hostage to, to see where this stuff is, has defeated us. So we considered its common manifestations. And here's the first one is resentment. The inventory is in three parts. Resentments, fears, and sex conduct. And oddly enough, those three areas will crisscross across our entire lives and our entire being and our entire approach to the world. We will uncover, discover, and discard all the calamity and the sources of it, the pomp and the sources of it and the things that we worship or became obsessed with. We are going to, as my grand sponsor used to say, enter this process of uncovering, discovering, and discarding. We're removing the blockage between me and God and me and others and, my, my, and me and my ability to carry out the decision in step three. Resentment is the number one offender. I didn't know what resentment was. I thought it was anger. Because it kind of looks like anger, but it's it's not really anger. It comes from a Latin word, resentire, meaning to resensitize, to refeel, to replay. Uh, I don't know if you guys have, I, I don't watch much, you guys have football and soccer here. I think it's a little different than we have it in the States, but it may be viewed on TV the same. Do you guys have the instant replays? Right, okay, we got that. And that's what a resentment is. A resentment is there's there's somebody is is smashed up pretty good, and then they replay it with a commentary who just the commentator will tell you about what a real oh this that must have really hurt, you know. I mean he'll he'll say those things and he and what the, you zoom you zoom the camera on the guy's leg getting snapped, and you kind of fade out the other stuff till you just really get it, right? Oh my God, look at that. Oh. And that's what a resentment is, is, is we, I replay this stuff in my mind and, but I replay it with the mind of a chronic alcoholic, a mind that is just, is ego driven and self-serving and wants to be right and wants them to be wrong. So if you're like me, every time I replay it, I zoom the camera of my mind a little more on what they did, and I kind of shade out anything that I, that's really not important. I know I did that. It's like here, right here, right here. Look what they did. Look what they did. My God. And I'll replay it, and every time I replay it, I make them a little worse and me a little better, and. Uh, them a little worse and me a little better until by the time most of us get to Alcoholics Anonymous we're just oh my god no one's ever done so much for so many so often for so little we end up we end up feeling victims right and who's we're the victimizers so resentment's the number one offender and it, you know when I was new I wouldn't have thought that I, I I would have thought it should have been guilt or remorse because I was plagued with it but in actuality guilt uh, and remorse just ends up being a little bit of of st- of the sphere inventory resentment really is the number one offender because it, it, nothing will alter your perception and your relationship to life more than a resentment think about it if you're like me, from the moment you get a resentment, someone hurts you deeply. From the moment they hurt you, 
Did you ever notice how your shift, the shift in your perception from that moment on, they can't do anything right, can they? They can't. It's, it's like, what happened? It's, they could, it's as if these are always, all the time, 24-7 bad people. Now, well, nobody's like that. I mean, we're silly in the way we think, and our perception's kind of silly, isn't it? But yet, from the moment you hurt me, you'll never do anything right again. I will only be able to observe what you do wrong. And I'll keep score. Oh, I'll keep a little book. And I'll just watch you. I'll watch you closely sometimes because I need, I need more evidence. I need more in the book here. Right? I'll just build these cases on you because I want to be right. And then maybe years later, what if maybe you get sober before I do and you come make an amends to me or maybe you do something nice and altruistic and giving. What's the ego say? Because don't trust them. They're just showing off. Because my ego wants to be right about you. It doesn't care if I'm alone, if I'm miserable. It doesn't care. It just wants me to be, it wants to be right. I don't think my ego cares if it kills me as long as after I'm dead everybody realizes how right I was. (laughs) And so resentment will alter my very perception of reality. It keeps me hostage. It keeps me locked up in here. And everybody, everybody I've ever known that's ever had a deep resentment. You're, it, it owns you. It's got you right up in here, grinding away with the, the scenarios of I should say this to them, and they'll say that, and I'll say this, and they'll say that. It owns you. It's, it's got you hostage. So it is the number one offender. The book says it destroys more alcoholics than anything else. Wow, really? More than alcohol? I think so. I think so. I know that when Tim, at 31 and a half years of sobriety, put the pistol to his head sober, he had about, he had about 10 years of undealt with resentments that he accumulated. And he thought he was right about all of them. When Richie, with a little over 20 years, killed himself, he never could. He never could or would work the steps. And he, I, I, when he was ten years sober, I, he went through a terrible breakup, and his his wife ended up ended up going with some old timer in AA, and he could not let go of it. He asked me to sponsor him. We got him right up to step four. And we, when he got to the part where it says we look at these from an entirely different angle, he ain't coming. He don't. He wants to be right. He will not back off of it. And it killed him. He took his own life at 20 years, a little over 20 years sober. He, he could, he just, he'd grind away. He, people wouldn't have anything, by the time he killed himself, people wouldn't even have anything to do with him. They wouldn't even call on him on meetings because he's still talking about the crap from, from years before. They're tired of it. He's bad rapping people now that are very well respected in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not perfect people, people that make mistakes, but he won't let go of it. It's, it killed him. Destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual dis-ease. For we've not only been mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. And this next line, I think, is one of the most beautiful and dynamic promises of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. You know, when I was in my, you know, by the time I was 24 years old, I felt like I was 80 years old. I felt I was like dying from this disease. And I, I was sick all the time. I, could, I was weak all the time. I, I couldn't even hold a job. I was so debilitated by my physical, emotional, and spiritual condition. I was a mess. I, the vitality, the physical vitality that has come to me as a result of working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is amazing. And the mental, I, I spent years with psychiatrists di- being diagnosed as all kinds of stuff, and I haven't, I'm, Alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous has come true for me. When the spiritual malady is overcome, you will, you will, everything that you couldn't do in therapy will happen for you. If you'll just do it. If you'll just do it. It almost seems like, how could this, how could this simple process do for me what these learned psychiatrists couldn't do and all those medications and all that therapy? The proof's in the pudding. I, I, of the guys I sponsor, I bet you there's close to 20 of them that had been hostage in the mental health system for years. Psychiatrists and therapists and medications and all kinds of, in and out of mental hospitals. And, and these are free men today. These are, I mean, free men. Unbelievable. It's hard to believe when, when you don't really trust God, it's hard to believe God could do that for you, isn't it? But He can. Sometimes our God's not big enough. Sometimes our fear is a lot bigger than our God. So what do we do? Okay, here's, here's the nuts and bolts of it. The book's asking us to do six things in the resentment section. Six things. First, number one, it corresponds to the column number one on on the left on page 65. It says, we listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. Can you see that in the book? Four lines up from the bottom on page 64, if those of you are following it. First thing we do, we listed people, institutions, or principles. Now, in my experience over the years, 95 to 98% of it's people. Um but you might have some institutions. There's, there's one institution in the, in the United States that comes up on almost every inventory, and that's the IRS, the tax people. They come up on almost every single... Some, the police are there quite a bit. Um, but often, uh, when you look more specifically, it really wasn't the police. It was that one cop. The one cop that beat the crap out of me. And then we find out later, why did he beat the crap out of you? Well, I was tendency to counsel policemen when I'm drunk. They don't like that. Uh, so, first thing I do is listed the people, institutions, or principles with whom I are angry. Number two, the second thing, I ask myself why. And that's column number two on page 65, why. So I got who, column number one, why, column number two. And if you notice on page 65 in column number two, very small bullet points. Not a lot of, not a lot of talk here, not a lot of verbiage, 
because we're not, we do not want to go into building the case to make the person you're reading this to understand that this person deserved to be resented. You know, you know, this is just the facts, just the facts. Brief to the point. Second grade teacher, why? Embarrassed me in front of the class for not doing my homework. I don't have to go into the fact that she was a nun and her vow of Chastity made her hate boys, and I don't have to get into all that. I don't have to tell you what she did to the other kids in the class to justify my hating her. I don't have to tell you about her bad attitude about the sports team I really liked and or how she disrespected people. I don't have to. What's what actually happened? My ego got got. I got humiliated because I was embarrassed in front of the class. And I hated her from that moment on. She couldn't do anything right. The third thing, the third column, talks has a little more verbiage to describe what we do in, in column number three, because this is where we're starting to look for the first time, for the manifestations of self. And the, the way you can tell that is if you change the pronoun at the bottom of the page. Now, this the book was written in the third person because it's writ, written about a group of people called alcoholics. But if you're going to personalize it, let's make it about us and see how it fits. On the bottom of the page, it says, We ask ourselves why we were angry. In most cases, it was found that my, first person, self-esteem, my pocketbook, my ambitions, my personal relationships, including sex, and then here's some of the words that we're going to look at, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. So, so far we got three, we got three words that are describing what we're looking for. We're looking for what was hurt. We're looking for what was threatened. And we're looking for our injuries or what was injured. And then it goes on with two more. It says, was it our self-esteem? Was it my security? Was it my ambitions, which is a great way of saying my way, me getting my way, my ambitions. Was it my way? Was it my personal or sex relationships, which had been interfered with? So we're looking for what was hurt, aspects of self that were hurt, that were threatened, that were injured, that were interfered with. And then the top of the third column says affected or what was affected. And... Bill, Bill has tremendous economy in his wordsmithing. And he doesn't waste words. And I, I, I've been, I'm a, I, I've read everything I can get my hands on written by Bill Wilson, and he's a remarkable writer. Um, by a lot of standards in English literature, he's, it would be, they could easily critique him, but he is, he has economy of scale. And when he mentions something, he mentions it for a reason. Um, so when I ask myself uh, of these things that it lists, rela- sex relations, self-esteem, ambitions, pride, security, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, what was affected? In some resentments, I don't, I don't get it. I'm affected. I don't know. I don't really see it. And then I have to ask myself, well, okay, what was interfered with? Eh. I'm still not really getting it either. What was injured? I'm getting closer. What was threatened? 
You threatened my pride. You threatened my relationship here. You threatened my job. Or maybe what was hurt. Oh, you hurt my pride. You hurt my my security. And every word, it's like looking at something from different angles, and you pick, and then you finally, I use the one that goes, oh, that's it was it was pride. Oh, it was self-esteem. And a lot of a lot of the resentments, especially the long-term ones, the deep ones, it's almost everything was hurt, threatened, affected, injured, or interfered with. So we got these three columns. Okay, this is not the end. This is just this is this a horrid format a victimization that we actually have to put on paper in order to do the real work of setting ourselves free, which occurs on the next two pages. And on the bottom of page 65, after making the list of the three columns, who, why, and what was affected, threatened, etc., it says we went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we were finished, the first three columns, when we were finished, we considered these three columns carefully. The first thing, apparent, was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. Very apparent to me. Oh yeah. They're really wrong. Isn't that what we're doing here? The first three columns, isn't it really a list of people that are wrong? People that if there was any justice, they would owe you an amends, wouldn't they? They'd owe the world an amends, probably. These are the out-of-line people. These are the stupid people. These are the wrong people. Let's see. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. Well, how'd that work out? Well, the book says the usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. So you can change towns. Do you ever notice? Do you ever change towns? And you're away from those assholes. And their cousins show up in the new town. Oh, my God, they're growing them out in the desert somewhere. They're the same people, different faces, same people. It's the same conflict. Now, here I am, angst up again, locked in that pissed off position. Because when nothing changes in here, nothing changes out here. I will duplicate and replicate the same crap no matter where I go. Because wherever I go, there I am. That's the problem. I take me with me. So, people continued to wrong me, and I stayed store. Sometimes it was remorse. And it was remorse a lot for me. I would attack, I would do all this stuff, I'd try to manage and arrange, and then i just implode. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters. God, as in war, the only, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. Now the next two paragraphs, I'm not going to read them, but the book is, is heavy-handed here. It's, it's, there's seven death threats in the next two paragraphs. I mean, it's brutal. It's just, resentments lead to futility and unhappiness. Uh, They're fatal. They're infinitely grave. They shut us off from the sunlight of the Spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink and we die. We die. We die. They're poison. It's just like, okay, all right, stop it. I get it. They're fatal. All right, all right, all right. right. 
I get it. And then it says something very, very important. The second line in the second, in the last full paragraph says we are prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. And this is the introduction to a change of perception that the book's going to facilitate in the next couple paragraphs. But objectively, what would that look like? An entirely, looking at them from an entirely different angle. Well, I think uh, reasonably, in order to see what 180 degrees is from one point, I have to kind of see the point that I'm starting from in order to measure a hundred and in order to see an entirely different angle, I have to kind of be very genuine about how I'm looking at this to begin with in order to see it from an entirely different angle. So how are how are you looking at these resentments? Would it be fair to say that you're looking at them from the perspective of a prosecuting attorney? You got column one, you got the perpetrator. Column number two, the heinous acts. Column number three, the damage that was done. And you got your cases built pretty good here. So if you got to look at this from an, if if you got to be prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle, wouldn't that be to get up and cross the courtroom and sit down on the defense table and start pleading their case? Start looking at it through their eyes. Start seeing at the way they saw it. Start having dialogue about what it looked like to them. Now, I don't know anything about the the particulars of your particular resentments, but I can bet one thing. I bet you that the person you hate, if they they were explaining what happened between you and them, their version of it would be different than yours. Now, the ego rears up automatically. Well, of course it was because they're stupid and my version's right. Well, eh, maybe, maybe not. Are you prepared to look at this from an entirely different angle? Do you want to be free or do you want to be right? It's your choice. Every every alcoholic says, well, I want to be both. Well, it, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you can't be both. You can't, it, wouldn't it be nice? It'd be great if I could be free and right. But I got a choice here. What do I want to be? Do, what do I, do I value my peace of mind and my freedom more than I value this case I've built against these people? Am I willing to entertain a possibility that my perception might not have been right? Is it possible? Is it possible that my memory of what happened between me and them might be tainted a little bit by years of tweaking and and replaying? You ever sat down with a sibling, someone raised in the same house you were in, and talk about your childhood? I did that with my sister. It drove me crazy. She kept saying things. I kept thinking, oh, it didn't happen like that. No. I almost said something to her. I was sober several years. And she's telling stories about stuff in our childhood. And I remember complete, and I almost said something, and I thought, I think this was God. The idea came to my mind, well, Bob, if one of the two perceptions here is wrong, what are the, in your, with your track record, Bob, what are the chances of it being her? 
And I did, I tell you to this day, there's some things she thinks happened. We were kids. I don't remember. I remember it completely different. But I'm willing to consider that maybe she was right. I, I just had a thing happen to me not too long ago. I was in the middle of talking about a story of something that happened to me 35 years ago, over 35 years ago. And in the middle of the story, it was like this veil lifted and I, I stopped and I thought, oh, that didn't even happen. <laughs> oh my God, it didn't even, I'd been telling that story to make myself look good for th- over 35, it was like that didn't even happen. I've been, I created that lie, that story, there's like a little tiny element of truth and then I build it up into this thing that made me look very tough and very cool and everything. It didn't even happen. That's amazing, isn't it? And I told it so many times to you and told it to myself that I believed it. I believed it. So we're prepared to look at these from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominate us. In that state, the wrongdoings of others, fancied or real, had the power to actually kill Some alcoholics die over imagined wrongs. I could take you to prisons in the United States where I've taken meetings and introduce you to people who are going to be there for the rest of their life because they killed someone based on something they thought the person did and found out later it was the wrong person. That that person didn't even do that. And they played the game of let's bet your life. The ego wants to be right so much it doesn't care if it ruins you. It wants to be right. This idea that 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 my perception could be fancied, that my resentments in these cases I build against people could be partially fantasy is, is a hard thing to swallow if you've been entrenched in being right all your life. I had something happen to me in my first couple years that really affected me. And I'll tell you this story. And Maybe you've had something happen to you like this. There was a guy named Billy Taylor. Billy was one of the old timers in AA. And he's a good guy. He used to like to go out to coffee with newer people and talk about AA and coffee shops. I, I got a lot of my early AA and coffee shops. And one night after a late night meeting, I was in this coffee shop with Billy. It was just him and I in this booth. A couple other guys had left. and He's an easy guy to talk to. And because he was an easy guy to talk to, I found myself sharing a couple deep, dark secrets with him. You know those things that you come in that you're really, really ashamed of? You don't want anybody to know. The things you want to take to the grave kind of things. And I, I shared those things with Billy because he's easy to talk to and and he seemed to take it pretty well. I gotta, I gotta tell you though, he never said, yeah, me too. That would have helped. He never said that. And instead, instead he gave me something that I remember in the back of my mind felt a little bit like the AA party line. Like he said, well, I'm sure you're not the only one that's ever done that. And someday that might help somebody, you know, that kind of thing. But he didn't reject me. He took it well. He didn't, he, you know, he didn't seem to have any disdain or, uh, and I, I went home that night and I got my shift changed at work. 
well, all of a sudden my whole meeting schedule is upside down and now I'm not going to late night meetings anymore. I'm going to noon meetings and I'm going to midnight meetings because I don't, I work, I'm working till midnight every night. So I'm going, I, we had these new 12, 15 meetings at night I went to. So a good part of a year went by and I didn't see this guy, Billy, for anywhere because I don't go where he goes anymore. And then I was working six days a week. I only had one night off and on my one night off, I, I went to a meeting I normally wouldn't go to and the meeting's getting ready to start. And I look across the room and Billy's there. And I was very delighted to see him, as we all are with people in our early sobriety that it affected us. He was one of the guys. He was one of my go-to guys. And I, I said, hey, Billy, Billy, hey, how you doing? And he looked at me with this pained look on his face. And he doesn't even say hi to me. And he just turns away. As if, as if his whole demeanor and body language was saying, oh, you, ugh. And just turned away and he sat down and the meeting starts and I'm sitting there and I can't hear what's going on in the meeting because I'm having a conversation with him in my head. And I know what's going on. I know this guy's judging me for that crap. And there's a part of me that doesn't blame him, really. I, you know, God knows I've, I've surely judged myself harshly for that stuff all my life and I, I guess I always secretly believed that if you knew those things about me that I know about me, you'd feel about me the way I feel about me, and that's not good. And I, I thought that he was condemning me and judging me for that stuff. And I, I, I sat there and I was very hurt by it. And, but I don't stay hurt. I get these, these hardwired defects or defense mechanisms that, like anger. You hurt me. I just, I, I snap into anger and I start getting pissed. I'm sitting there. Build my case, I'm thinking, that hypocritical, phony, son of a, you know, saying it was all right, that crap. And then I had this epiphany, it was like, wait a minute. The reason he can't even look me in the eye and say, oh my God, he's been telling people that crap. And it became so clear to me. I had just asked a girl out to coffee and she would not go out to coffee with me and he's friends with her. I knew he told her that disgusting stuff I'd told him. Oh my God. And then that, now I think about it, his buddy who he runs around with has been very distant to me. Oh my God. He's told, he's been telling it. And now I am so angst up by the end of the meeting, I'm going to go over and I'm going to beat the crap out of him. And he's going to deserve every single bit of it. Because if he's doing that to me, he's probably doing it to other new people. He's ruining Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Somebody ought to beat the crap out of him. So I'm angst up and I'm ready to go. And the, the end, the, they're getting to the end of the meeting. And the chairman says, before we close, does anybody have a burning desire? And Billy raises his hand and he tells everybody in the room that the, that the biopsy came back and the tumor is stage four and malignant and he has no very little time to live. And I remember sitting there hearing that and it was like, it was like I came out of a daydream. It was like, like somebody poured a bucket of water on me. I remember sinking down into my chair and just going, oh my God. What I saw in him that I thought was about me wasn't about me. On, on the day he found out he was terminally ill, uh, 
He was so afraid, I'm sure, as I would be. He didn't even see me. The pain in his face was the fear he was feeling. It had nothing to do with me. I mean, oh my God, I remember sitting there just feeling like so, oh, horrible. It was like a a postcard from God. Dear Bob, you don't know crap. Love God. Right. When it says in here that the wrongdoings of others fancied or real had the power to actually kill, oh my God, what would have become of me if I would have attacked a man who did nothing but love me and try to help me on the lowest day of his life and then found out later that I just, what I did, how could I have ever come back to Alcoholics Anonymous in rooms where he was so loved? I would have been condemned, it would have been a mortal blow to my soul. I would have gone and drank myself to death. I couldn't have faced it. And and I would have died a horrible, horrible alcoholic death over nothing. Over something that was imagined. And if that was true for Billy Taylor, when I time I got to my resentment list, is it possible that this kind of situation could be true to some degree for some of these other people. Is it possible? And the, towards the bottom of the page, it says, what do we do? It says, how can we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. Before I ever did the fourth step, I'm helping a guy do the fourth step, and we're going through every every line of the book, and we get to, and this guy's got a lot of resentments, and they're killing him. And we get to this line, you, they have to be mastered, but how you can't wish them away any more than alcohol. And this guy, Bill, looks at me and he goes, my God, what do I do? And Joe and Charlie never covered this. They never talked about it. They went right from the third column into the fourth column. They never talked about the stuff in between. And I didn't know what to tell him. I didn't know. I, I I have nothing here. I don't know. How do you get free of this? I don't know. Just look for your part. I mean, that doesn't seem this is hardly enough. How do you get free of this stuff that's killing you? This cancer inside you that's eating your eating your heart out. How do you get free of it? And I don't know what to tell him. And I'm just looking down at the page, and I swear to God that it seemed like the next four words were in neon. And it says, I said to him, This was our course. As if I knew. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just, I'm ad-libbing here and reading. This was our course. And we started to, I started to read the next two lines and we started to talk about them. And the book's asking me innermost self stuff. It's asking me to make a realization that encompasses a tremendous shift in perception and consciousness. It's asking me to realize that the people on my resentment list that, that I have the cases built against, that these people who wronged me were perhaps spiritually sick. Well, that's easy enough. They're sick. They're assholes. I get it. Somebody should punish them. I understand. But it, it's the next line that, 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 that changed my world. And the next line says, though we do not like their symptoms. What symptoms? Column number two. 
if they weren't spiritually sick, if they were right with themselves and right with God, would they have done what they did in column number two? They couldn't have. Oh my God, look at all the stuff I did that hurt people as a result of how sick I was. So even though I did not like their symptoms, column number two, and the way these disturbed me, what's that about? Column number three, the pride, the self-esteem, the pocketbook, the ambitions. That even though I didn't like their symptoms, and the way their symptoms disturbed me, and here's the kicker, I must realize that they, these people on my list, like myself, were sick too. Well, what does that mean? That means that I gotta get off my high horse. I gotta get off the throne of judgment and come down until I'm looking right across the table at these people eyeball to eyeball and understand the truth. The truth is, is that if I was afraid like they were afraid, if I'd been raised like they were raised, if I'd been hurt and abused, and scared like they were hurt and abused and scared. If I was drunk and frustrated and resentful the way they were. If I had everything going on within me that was going on within them, can I get it that I could have easily been driven by the sickness inside me to do to someone else what they did to me? Can I get that? Can I see that if I had the same stuff driving me inside insane that I could have done to someone else what they did to me? Or do I need to remain smugly superior? And I started to see something that was remarkable to me. I started to see myself in the people that I built these cases against. And it was a remarkable thing. There, there was a movie years ago that when I saw it, I thought, oh my God, that's exactly what's going on in the big book when it talks about this was our course. And the movie was The Bucket List. And if you saw The Bucket List, it was a remarkable movie. There was a beautiful scene in there where um, now Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson have been both diagnosed as terminally ill with cancer. And they're both being given this last ditch effort of extreme chemotherapy. Uh, to, is a, is a hope, just a shot in the dark trying to fix them. And they're not given the chemo on the same day. So what happens is the one guy is sick, sick, awful from the chemo. And the other guy's not doing so bad because it's been a couple days since he's had it. And then as the one guy gets over it, they give it to the other guy. And there's this one scene where the one guy's kind of recovered and bounced back a little bit. And he's not as sick from the chemo. But his roommate is in the grip of it. And he's throwing up and he's cursing and he's just irritable. and He's, just, he's like awful. He's really sick and driven by it. And his roommate is it's not looking at him like he's out of line. He's not looking at him like he's... He's, he's, he's like an idiot. He's looking at him with love and compassion because he gets it. He sees past the symptoms of the chemo to what's really going on and how that guy feels because it was him three days before. And so what the book's asking me to do here is to see past the facades. It's asking me to get people in a way I've never got them before. The, the Buddhists bow to each other and they say something. They say, Namaste, which one 
translation of that is, is that the God in me sees and recognizes the God in you. I think it's even more than that. I think it's that I see you. I get you. Because you're me. Some of you are me on a very bad day. But you're me. You're me. You're me when I'm afraid. The guy that's giving you a hard time in in traffic or in the grocery store, that's me when I'm scared. That's me when I've been hurt earlier in the day and I'm thrashing out at people. That's me when I'm too angry, hungry, lonely, tired. Isn't it odd when I'm having a bad day, I want the whole world to just line up with compassion and understanding. But yet I won't give it. And this is the part of this process where I where for, where we get forgiveness. Tolerance, acceptance, love and understanding are for the giving. Forgiving. Resentment and judgment are for the takers. And this is where I get to forgive. This is where I get to understand. And forgiveness always seems to come through understanding. This is where I started to un- to develop something that a self-centered guy like me doesn't have at all. And that's compassion. It comes from two Latin words, com, meaning with, and passio, pain. In other words, I'm starting to be able to sit with your pain. I get you. I see you. Later, this would make me so effective with people I would sponsor because now I understand them at a level that nobody's ever understood them before. I understand what happened to you when you beat your kids. Your dad beat you, didn't he? I know. I know. I know how you feel about yourself from doing that. It's the same way that your dad felt about himself, isn't it? He covered it up with a facade of of bravado because he didn't know how to handle it. We start to understand people at a level we'd never imagined before. We never imagined. Because we're starting to understand ourselves. It's, it's, It's remarkable to me that I grow closer to God and closer to myself by growing closer to you. There was a poem in the grapevine years ago and it said that I sought myself and could not see. I sought my God, he eluded me. So I sought my brother and I found all three. It is in this part of this process that some of us start to realize that, that we could be forgiven by God because we're starting to forgive and understand others. We're st- I'm starting to see these people I've hated the way God has seen them. With the compassion and the tolerance and the love, I'm starting to wake up. The veils of self are starting to come and fall away and I'm starting to see what what other people... And, 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 and when I started to look at a lot of things in my life uh, from other people's point of view, oh my God! You know, all of a sudden I understood why my parents would have, I just, how I burnt them out. They would have nothing to do with me. I resented them for cutting me off. I started seeing it through their eyes. I I remember thinking, oh my God, how did they, 
They loved me. Oh, they did all that for me for so many years. How did they last as long as they did? I started understanding why the bosses fired me. Because I'm looking at it through their eyes. I'd have fired me too. I'd have fired me quicker than they did. One of the things that was kind of pathetic, I realized, is that people have had a lot more tolerance with me than I would have had with them if the tables were turned. The truth, that truth. I understood why there were people I was in relationships would eventually leave me and dump me. My God, you look at it through their eyes. Oh my God. I think this is the, the beginning of a real awakening here. I think, I think real awakenings is you just pull your head out of your butt and you see what everybody else has seen all along. It's just like, I get it, I get it. Yeah. There's Now I'm not a victim anymore. I see it. Now I know. And I tell the guys I sponsor, and they all say, you come back to me a year or two later, how true this is. If you really process this stuff in the book like this, you'll be able to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous anywhere in the world and talk to people or listen to them share and in a very short time. You'll know whether they've ever done this or not because it changes you. One of the things that will happen is you'll never, ever, ever, ever be able to sell yourself the crap that you're a victim again. You'll start to see the truth. You'll start to see how What's the book say earlier? We made decisions based on self, which later placed us in that position to be heard. We'll start seeing how selfishly we signed up for this stuff. And then there's the, the fifth thing we do is a prayer. After the fourth thing is the realization. The fifth thing is the prayer. And it's a call for action. It's a beautiful prayer. It's I'm asking God to help me to show them. Well, show them implies action that I'm going to demonstrate. I'm going to show them. I'm going to act towards them with the same tolerance, the same pity, and the same patience I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. Wouldn't it be true that if they hadn't done what they did in column number two, that they possibly could have been my friend? A lot of people on my resentment list, at one time I had loved them until they cheated on me or until they did this or they did that or they did is it is it is it true that i if i really understood that they were sick and i could see myself in them and see what drove them can i understand that they could no more help being as bad as they were when they were as bad as they were as i could help being as bad as i was when i was as bad as i was I, I had a long eight-step list of people I'd hurt. I, honest to God, there was not one person on that list that I set out intentionally to hurt, but I hurt them just the same. If that's true for me, couldn't that be true for them? Were they as asleep in their own life, driven by self and fear? as I was when I stepped on the toes of my fellows? In the Lord's Prayer, which we say in, in the U.S. at the end of meetings, it was the only prayer that Bill Wilson really thought lined up with the principles of the 12 steps. It's unlike the serenity prayer. The serenity prayer doesn't line up too much with step 11 because it's not only for knowledge of His will for us. Serenity prayer, you're giving God direction. You're telling Him what to do. 
But in the Lord's Prayer, not only does it say, Thy will be done, but it says, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You want to be free of depression? You want to free of of self-loathing? Self-pity? Take them off the hook. An amazing thing will happen. You'll end up off the hook. Forgive us our trespasses as. If you want forgiveness for others, you have, if you, for yourself, you have to forgive others. And I don't want to, see, the ego hates that. Here's what I want. I'd like to be able to forgive myself and feel really good about myself and still think you're all a bunch of jerks. But you can't do that. It doesn't work like that. Because we are connected. And so I'm asking God to help me to, to act towards these people, to show them the same tolerance, the same pity and patience that I would cheerfully grant a person who had a brain tumor and it made him act bad and he couldn't help it. Because I'm starting to see that they, the emotional deformities and the defects and the sickness within them, they could no more help be in the way they were than I could help be in the way I was. I'm starting to wake up. And then the last thing, the sixth thing, is where this is really where I, I claim, I, I claim myself. I, I take the responsibility. And it's odd in the, in the middle paragraph on sixty-seven. This is often referred to as the place where we look for our part. It doesn't say that. Here's what it says, referring to our list. The first thing it says is putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done. Wow. A couple lines down, it says the same thing again. When Bill Wilson says the same thing twice in one paragraph, you know he's serious. And he always uses different words to say it because he wants to make sure you get it. So he comes at it from a couple different angles. He says it again. He says, though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Entirely is like more than half. I mean, entirely. So we're putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, and we're disregarding what they did entirely. So this is not parts. Because if you, if you look for your part, there's an implication, unconscious implication. Okay, here's my part. What's the implication? There's another part, right? There's parts as parts. Which means I'm reserving the right to think that they're wrong. I'm not really taking them off the hook. I'm not disregarding them. And this is, the ego hates this. It, you know why? Because when you can't hide your own selfish, squirmy, self-serving, vengeful, vindictive behavior in the shadow of what they did wrong, and you've got to look at it square on, it's like, now what kind of, well, now Bob, can't look at what your parents did wrong. What kind of a son were you? Oh, God. I was horrid. I was a self-centered, selfish, oh, inconsiderate. Me, 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 lying, cheating little, tur- oh, little crap. I had to look at it. I couldn't use, and I hid it. I used to look at, I used to glare at the things that my, I found imperfect in my parents to hide my stuff. Now, if I have to look at what kind of a boyfriend I was or what kind of a husband I was, 
look at look dead on. I can't look at the imperfections of the other person. It's not too pretty. They say the truth will set you free, but I'll tell you, I think it ruins your day first. <laughs> I can't really, I can't really, it's, it's, I can't let God take me to becoming something different in the, in the, in God's idea of Bob until I squarely look at Bob's idea of Bob. You can't, you can't change a problem that you don't know you have. There's nothing you can do with it. That's like so many of us, we couldn't get sober as long as we denied our alcoholism. And I can't change this stuff until I look square at it. And I can't change it anyway. It's going to have to be God. But I bring it out into the light of day. I bring it out, out of the darkness. I bring it out when even I can see it. And things look different now. Now when I ask myself the questions, where had I been selfish? Wow. Where had I been dishonest? I was so... I lived a whole lifestyle of dishonesty. Nobody ever even met me. They met the facade of Bob. And why would I be that dishonest? Because I'm a liar? It looks like it, doesn't it? No, I'm just afraid. I'm so afraid that you're not going to like me or you're not going to love me or you're not going to accept me that I misrepresent, I create a facade of me and I put it out there in the world and I and you hide behind that facade long enough, you don't even know who you are. We try to be so many things to so many people that we don't even know who we are anymore. I remember when I first got sober, people would ask me things like, what kind of music do you like? Well, what kind do you like? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you, the first time you ever got in a date with someone and sober, try to pick a restaurant. You have two people that don't know who they are. Well, what kind of food do you like? Oh, I don't know. What kind of food do you like? Oh, I don't know. What kind of food do you... Where do you want to go eat? Oh, I don't know. Where do you want to go? It's like you just want to kill each other after about a, about 20 minutes. Because, but the, the reality is nobody knows. I don't know who I am. I don't even know what I like, really. Or I'm so adamantly about what I like. I'm one extreme to the other, but I don't really know who I am. How many things I thought I hated that I found out I liked, and how many things I thought I liked that I thought and after I was sober, well, I don't like that. I didn't even know who I was. This is this. It's so it's so amazing that as I I discover who you are, I discover who I am. As I see you and see the me that's in you, I see the me in me. It's it's this is beautiful. And that takes us to this to a break, to a five minute break. I'm Bob, an alcoholic. Before we go on to uh, fear and sex, or fear of sex, I don't know what the... I want to tell you a little story about the the resentment section of the uh, fourth step. There's a power in this shift in perception that is remarkable. Um, Maybe 15 years ago, I was uh, sponsoring a guy, and he he did just had just finished his fourth step, and he got together with me, and we were doing his fifth step, and we got about a third of the way through his resentment list, and 
buried in the middle was the worst resentment he had. And it was towards his father. And his father was a, a, a horrid, violent alcoholic. And his dad, throughout the kid's whole childhood, would get drunk and beat this poor kid within an inch of his life. And as a child, he ended up in the emergency room on several occasions of broken bones and contusions. And he he was so ashamed of what was going on at home, he would make up stories about he fell off his bike or he fell out of a tree. Or, and there there wasn't the, 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 the diligence about child abuse that is, happens today. And and nobody knew. Uh, he he had said at a couple occasions his dad was actually forced into uh, abstinence briefly because his dad would get in so much trouble that you know he'd, he'd get sober briefly. But he he said but it was even worse when his dad was sober because he'd be so irritable and so his abstinence would make him insane even worse. And he'd yell and he'd scream and get to your room and shut up and you're stupid. And, and this kid had a childhood of, of horror and abuse. He'd spent eight years in therapy trying to get free of it. He beat pillows. He did the gestalt chair. He did all that stuff trying to get free of this resentment towards his father. It affected his relationships. It affected his ability to work and be a team player. He had this thing with authority. He had a tough time. So he had to, consequently, he had a couple little businesses that he, that, that sometimes he'd do well, sometimes he wouldn't. He, he was better, he seemed better off working for himself rather than trying to work for somebody else. And it, this really owned him. And here it is. Here it is. Right in the middle of his fifth step. We start talking about it, and he uh, dumps it all out. And when I, I when he's done, I, I told him. I, I first I start. I read him a paragraph out of in in step ten in the twelve steps and twelve traditions. There's a paragraph in there where Bill really expands on the principle that we're supposed to adopt here in this, and this was our course. And he expands it out in step 10, because this is something we're going to do the rest of our life. And he says it beautifully in step 10. And this is not a direct quote, but it's something along the lines, as we approach true tolerance and see what real love actually means, it becomes more and more pointless to get angry uh, or, or we start to see how other people like ourselves are frequently wrong as well as emotionally ill, and it gets pointless to become angry at people who, like us, are suffering from the pains of growing up. And then I went back to the book and I, I, I read the paragraph on this was our course. And I said to him, I said, you have to realize how you were perhaps li- how you were like your dad, sick too. And when he heard me imply like my like your dad, he flipped out. And he got re- he was really aggravated that I would imply that he was like his father, who he hated. And he, he went on this rant and just cussing, and I like my goddamn all this venom's coming out of him. And if you've ever been around somebody that just all this venom, this anger's coming out of him, it's a very frightening thing. And I'm just sitting there and I'm just kind of backing away because the guy's exploding. 
And I don't know what to say to him. And he runs out of gas and he's sitting there. He's just kind of glaring. And all I can think of is this. Well, he's evidently not prepared to look at this from an entirely different angle, I guess. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, I got nothing here for you. And, um, what happened next, I believe, was the grace of God. When I, when I listen to a fifth step, before I listen to one, I ask the guy that's going to take it to get quiet and invite God in to what we're about to do. And then as he's doing that, I do a similar thing. I ask God to use me. Um, and I found myself, he was, I, he, I didn't know what to say, so I just like motioned him on. He started reading this next resentment. And he gets about halfway through this next resentment, and I stopped him because now something's hap- something's happening inside of me. And I said to him, I said, I want to go back to another resentment. And he thought, at first he thought I wanted him to talk more about his dad, and he got a little on the muscle with me. And I said, no, no, not about your dad. I want to go back to that resentment in the beginning. That, that woman that you lived with for all those years, and that uh, that she eventually threw you out and rejected you. And he said, yeah, what about it? He said, there, were there kids there, weren't there? He said, yeah, what of it? I said to him, I said, listen, I'm just wondering if in that in all those years you were in that relationship and you were with those kids, if there were, ever was a moment when you were drunk or stoned on drugs or hung over where you might have ever done anything to hurt those kids. And it looked like the blood ran out of his face. And he hung his head down, and I have no, I don't know what's going on with this guy. And he lifts his head up, and he, I just remember, there's just on one side, there was a tear coming down his cheek. And he, I remember the voice. It was, there was a lot of pain in this voice, as if it came from some tortured abyss within him. And he said, I'm just like my goddamn father. And I said to him, I said, uh, how did you feel about yourself when you hurt those kids? He said, I couldn't stay drunk enough. I said, how do you think your dad was? Do you think he might have been like that? And you know, he said, I don't know. I, I haven't talked to my dad. I've hated him for so long. I have nothing to do with him. But he's a bad alcoholic. And I don't know that he's ever been able to get sober. I, he said, my sister told me that uh, she's the only one that goes and sees him anymore. Nobody else in the family has anything to do with him. And he lives in a little trailer all by himself out in the middle of the California desert. And um his sister had told him that his dad had been forced to stop drinking because of liver and pancreas problems. And, you know, and he'd try to drink and he'd, he'd just be racked with pain. His body would not process alcohol anymore. And so he lived all alone in this trailer and his sister said that she was, he was the most negative, lonely, depressed person she'd ever known. And she would make herself go over there and it would be torturous just to be around him. But he was all alone. And I said to him at one point, I said, do you think you could be like that? And at one point he said to me, uh, he said, maybe without Alcoholics Anonymous, my father is a vision of my future. 
And we, we started doing the last part of this where it says putting out of your mind the wrongs his dad had did, disregarding his father entirely. What kind of a son were you? And he said, you know, I, if my dad was sick like I think he is, I, I, I never cared about that. All I cared about is me. He said, I borrowed, he said I was a terrible son. I borrowed thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars over the years off my father and never paid him back a dime because he's an asshole and justified every, every bit of it. I gossiped and slandered about him I, to the point where he said I, I, he turned most of the family against his father. But that wasn't a hard turn because his father irritated everybody until his dad was pretty much all alone except for the one sister who kept going over there. And uh, we talked about this amends process because what we're really doing is we're, it's, it's odd. They don't tell you this in the beginning, but you're, everybody on your resentment list ends up on your eight-step list. That's, isn't that horrid? Oh, my God. And um, we, we got to the amends part where he had to disregard his father entirely and he had to go face his dad. And he called me up. Um, he didn't have a cell phone. I don't think many, this was, it might have been even before cell phones. There weren't many cell phones in those days. He called me up from a pay phone outside this trailer park. And he, um, he told me he was scared. And we talked a little bit. And, um, I, we talked about, I said, you know, you got you're, you're going in there to clear up your side of the street. You're going in there to forgive your dad. You're going in there to, to be the son that you've never been able to be, regardless of how sick your father is. And he went, and he, I said, call me when you're done. And he called me up later, and I said, what happened? He said, well, you know, I went to the door of the trailer. I was scared to death. I, I, I felt like, I, and I, I felt like the, there was going to be a monster on the other side of that door, and I knocked on the door, and, and it wasn't a monster that opened up the door. It was this little old, shriveled-up old man. And he said, I, I looked at my dad and he was pathetic. He was lonely and depressed and and weak and shaky. And he said, at one point I looked in my father's eyes and I saw myself. And he made the amends to his father and, and he opened a door. And, and when he made the amends for how he reacted and what he did to his father, his father, it was like a dam broke. And his father was able to ask him to forgive him. You see, alone, his dad didn't have what it take, took to make the amends. He didn't have the tools. But once, once he opened the door and, and cleared up his side of the street, his father fell right in line. And, and he spent the, the, all that money he owed his dad, he used to take care of his father until his father died. And he started spending a lot of time with his dad. And they, they be, actually became very close. And he said one time, it, it, we had him speak at a little, be the 10 minute speaker at this little meeting and he, uh, he said that the greatest thing Alcoholics Anonymous had ever given him next to his sobriety is he got his daddy back. And he had, he'd been in therapy eight years trying to get that and he couldn't get free of it because there was too much of him blocking the grace of God that had to come in so he could forgive his father. Because he had to first understand his father, and to understand his father, he had to understand himself. See, what he saw dead on was he saw his dad's pain. He saw the insanity. 
He saw, he, t- he talked at one point, he was told me about his dad's childhood and how his dad had been so brutally ab- abused as a kid. Hurt people hurt people. We don't mean to. It's almost like sometimes I can't help it. This is a powerful thing. This is where we get restored. And that brings us to the the next section of the inventory on fear. You know, fear is a funny thing. It's... The book says that uh, it's an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. And that is so true. It's so true to the point where by the time I'm four years, over four years sober and I'm doing my first buy the book inventory, the resentment list was was easy. And and I'll tell you you a funny thing. Most of the resentments by the time I'm four years sober are people in AA. Well, that's it's where they have all the stupid people grouped, right? You know what I mean? I mean, but I, I think I'd resented all. I found something wrong with about everybody I knew in AA at some time or another, you know. And I got to the fear list. I finished the resentment list. And I got to the fear list. I'm sitting at the kitchen table in my apartment with this legal pad, and I wrote fear across the top of the page. And I'm sitting there, and I'm drawing a blank. I can't think of anything I'm afraid of. And I knew that when I first got sober, I, mean, I was facing the two years in prison. That haunted me. I was afraid of being home. But all the, it seemed to me that all the things that I got was afraid of, or I'm not longer, I'm no longer afraid of. And I, I felt as if maybe I don't have any fears. And so I went to this intergroup meeting, and there was a guy speaking from out of town, and him and my, spon- my sponsor and I and a bunch of people went out to a restaurant after the meeting. And I'm talking to these guys, and I said this old time, I said, you know, I'm writing a fear inventory, and I, I discovered I don't have any fears. And he said, really? I said, yeah, I can't think of anything I'm afraid of. Huh. He said, can I ask you some questions? I well, said, sure. He said, are you afraid of large, angry, barking dogs? Well, I mean, everybody. is. We're not talking about everybody. We're talking about you. Well, yeah. So they're afraid of rattlesnakes. Well, everybody, we're talking about, yeah, yeah, black widow spy, yeah, yeah. You're afraid of dying old and alone? Yeah, yeah. Are you afraid of what people think of you? All the time. Are you afraid of, he said, he said are you afraid of cancer? I my first four years of sobriety, I must have had cancer 50 times. I mean, I had, I had eloquent death rehearsed in my mind, deathbed speeches. I mean, I, that I never got to use. I, I mean, one time I, I woke up in the morning and I, I knew I had some kind of leukemia or bone cancer. So I could, something's wrong with my leg and I, oh my God, I could feel it in there. I went down to the hospital and $175 later, two hours later, I'm late for work to find out that I slept on my leg funny. You know, I'm in the hospital rehearsing the speech. I, I'm picturing, they'll probably ask me to talk at the convention before I die and I'll tell them all. You know, so when he says, you're afraid of cancer, I said, oh my, yeah. He said, are you afraid of rejection? Yeah. 
Are you afraid of uh, being sick, can't take care of yourself? Are you afraid of that nobody will ever love you? Are you afraid that maybe God doesn't really care about you the way he seems to care about these people in AA? Are you afraid of stuff out of your past catching up with you? Are you afraid you'll never really make all these things right? All this money you owe, you'll never make all your amends. Are you afraid of, are you afraid of, uh, if you said, are you afraid of homosexuality? And I, I'd spent time in jail where I was always worried about that, you know. And he went on and on and on and, and he finally said, so, is there anything you're not afraid of? <laughs> and I was like, how do you do that? How did he do that to me? It's like some kind of jujitsu. I mean, it's like a, you know, they just turn her. I mean, if you're new and you don't want to change and all you want is relief, stay away from the old timers. They just use that spiritual jujitsu stuff on you. Next thing you know, you're wrong. <laughs> How does that happen? How come I'm always the guy that's wrong? Well, that's the nature of the beast. And I started making my resentment list. In the book, it has some very specific things to say about it. It, it talks about, or not resentment, fears. It says that fear, and this is brilliant. Wilson was brilliant. He says, fear sets in motion trains of circumstances which brought me misfortune I felt I didn't deserve, but did not I myself start the ball rolling? Well, what does that mean? Well, psychiatrists refer to this as self-fulfilling prophecies. That I get a fear, and the fear drives me to change my, unconsciously, to change my position or angle of approach to life until I make the fear come true. I'll give, I'll give you a, an example. I'll give you a couple examples. One, one was a first relationship I ever got in, in sobriety. I got into this relationship, and I'm, I'm not sober very long. I don't have very much self-esteem, and I got a lot of fear. What's the fear? The fear is she's going to dump me. And I, don't, and I, like, I, don't want, I want to be hooked up with someone. I don't want to be dumped. So what happens? Well, the fear drives me. I don't know that it's driving me. It's shifting me, and my, it's controlling my actions. Fear is the muscle of the ego. You want to get me to act selfishly and crazy and nuts? Scare me. Scare me. And next thing I know, I'm driving by her apartment at 3 o'clock in the morning just making sure no guy's cars are there. You know, I used to, I'd watch people hug her at a meeting and I'd go up to her, hey, don't be hugging my girlfriend. People started thinking I was nuts. I went through her, she left the room one time, I went through her purse looking to see if there's any guy's cards in there, a phone number. I mean, it drove me to be smothering and controlling and possessive. And here's the sad part. I don't even know I'm doing that. My sponsor tried to tell me. He says, you're going to run her off. I don't know what he's talking about. She said to me one time, she says, I don't like to go to meetings with you. I said, why not? She says, because every time I look up, you're looking at me. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I didn't even know it. And what happened? I'm afraid she's going to leave me. What happened? The fear drove me to be so possessive and smothering. I literally drove her away out of, out of my I drove her out of my life. And I made the fear come true. I remember the day she left. It was 
she went, she ended up going with some other guy. And I just, I felt gut shot. And in the midst of this, this horrible feeling of desolation was this little voice, which is the voice of the enemy. And the little voice said to me, yeah, but you were right. I like being right. I'm dying here, but I'm right. I made it come true. Is it, could my ego be that strong that it would, that would destroy me to be right? That it would maneuver me around? I had, I had a job one time before I got sober and it was a tremendous opportunity for me. My father uh, was very politically connected and he threw a, he, one of his best friends had just started this environmental engineering outfit and it was back in the days when Water pollution and air pollution, everything, all this stuff was, was like cutting edge stuff and everybody's on the, on the bandwagon for, for water and, you know, and air pollution. All the, all the factories now are getting mandated to have it, their smokestacks tested and their water tested and everything. And this, this, this was a great opportunity. This guy gave me a job working at this company and he was going to pay for my schooling and teach me how the business so I could become an environmental engineer. A tremendous opportunity for me. But I went to work with a fear. And the fear, the, here's the fear is that the people that work there aren't going to accept me. That the people that are work there are probably saying things to each other like, you know that Bob. The only reason he's here is his dad's friends with the guy who owns the company. And I was afraid that they weren't going to accept me. So what happened? Well, the fear drove me to be defensive enough and on the muscle enough with those people. And like, what do you mean by that kind of thing? And that having walking around with that edge in me until one day they call me to the office and they say, Bob, you're a hard worker, but we're going to have to let you go because you just don't fit here. You're not a team player. And I made the I made the fear come true. And I don't even see the the sad thing about people that are asleep in their own lives is I don't even know I'm doing that because I don't I can't see past myself. I can't see me the way you see me. Now, if you like, my sponsor said you're going to drive her away. I can't see that. If I would have had a sponsor in those days, he would have said, you're going to lose that job if you keep acting like that. It worked. But I don't even know I'm doing it. It says, so these fear, they brought us misfortune. We felt we did not deserve, but did not we ourselves set the ball rolling. Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more harm. Nothing has ever robbed me of abundance and love. An opportunity, as fear has. How many opportunities come into our lives and, and your head says, oh, you, that you wouldn't like, oh, you can't do that again. And so I, my, my past is littered by un, unmet opportunities. By, peop, by opportunities to love people and have friends. In my, there's, there's people in my life today that I'm very, very close to. My, my, my sponsor is one of them. Where at one time... I kept them like this. Why do I keep them like this? Why do I have a little judgment? Why do I keep them at arm's length? Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid if I let them in, they're not going to like me. So I reject them first because I don't want to risk it. Right? 
And, and he's one of the great people. He's one of the, the, the central figures in my life today. I kept him like that for a long time. There's things in my life I've come to just really love that I was afraid to try. I remember when I first got sober, there were, there were people in AA that used to go on these ski trips. And, you know, they, they, they tried to talk, hey, why don't you come skiing with us? Oh, I don't like skiing. Well, you, have you ever been? No, but I know things. <laughs> why, I should stop once in a while and ask my head, what's your source of information here? Well, what's really going on? I'm afraid. I'm, af- I'm afraid of the learning curve in skiing. I'll, I'll start, I'll do it, I'll sign up for anything if I can start at the top. But I'm afraid of looking stupid. I'm afraid of falling down. And I didn't trust, I didn't feel good enough about myself or trust God or life itself enough to take risks yet. So I discounted and never went skiing for 10 years. And when I was 10 years sober, I finally, I'd grown enough spiritually to take some risks. I started skiing. I felt, I became a, within two years, I was an avid black diamond skier. I skied all, I skied all over the world. Um, People asked me, they knew that I was used to being, playing bands and stuff when I first got sober. They asked me, we're going to get a band together. Why don't you, uh, I was afraid. I was afraid because I associated it in my mind with the, the old life. And my, as a drunken music, drunken, drugged up musician, I couldn't do it because I didn't trust God enough. You know, I didn't realize that my life is actually on a different basis. I could, I can do these things now. A guy asked me to, if I wanted to go scuba diving with him and some guys that were going out to the lake. I, oh, I wouldn't like that because I was afraid. And all these things have become important things to me in my life. And, and I, I was robbed of the opportunity of having their experience for years in sobriety because I'm scared. I'm afraid. When it says it should be classed with stealing, I don't think I don't think that's an exaggeration. There was an, a friend of mine who died of cancer named Rusty. He was sober a long time. He's one of the old timers in my first home group. And I used to sit with Rusty when he was dying. And he said to me one day, something I'll never forget. He said, you know, kid, he said, when you get into the home stretch and you look back over your life, it's not really the mistakes you made that you that, that are bad. It's the things that you were too afraid to try that you regret. The people you were afraid to love or let in. The opportunities that life had presented that you were too afraid to try. I never forgot that. I I wanted I want to do it all. I'm I'm I trust I trust God to the point today I'm almost dangerous. I mean, no, really, it's like I'm leaping. I'm jumping here. I just There's no abyss. I'm jumping. I know he'll catch me. I'm take, I take a shot, just about anything. I, I'm in. Scott, that's one of the things Scott and I say to I, I him. I ran into him. We were, down, we were scuba diving down Turks and Caicos. And I told him, I said, I'm going to Australia. You know what he says to me? He says what I would say. He says, oh, I'm going to. I'm in. Uh, just hey, people call me up. Do you want to come over here and do this? Yep, I'm in. My my daughter thinks I'm crazy sometimes. She says, "Where are you going? Um, such and such a city in such and such a state." She says, "Oh, where are you staying? I don't know. You don't know. 
you have a place to stay there? Oh, I'm sure I do. But where, Dad? I don't know. How are you going to get there? I don't know. Somebody will pick me up. Who? I don't know. (laughs) You're going on an airplane. You're going to a city you've never been to before. You don't know where you're staying or who's picking up you up and you know no one there. Yeah, isn't that great? She thinks I'm nuts. But it, I've, I've been doing this for years and it always works out. It's always, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, I do trust God today. I, I know, I, I know that He'll take care of me. And that's what the book says. The, the answer is we list our fears. We ask ourselves why we have them because we're going to uncover an amend, unmade amends, unfinished business. With amends is just things that have to be mended. Amends are not a matter of right or wrong. That's the ego's territory. Amends is just mending separation. The spirit doesn't care about right or wrong. The spirit cares about unity. To become back one with. To mend. The mend the rip between me and this person, between me and life itself. So I asked myself why I had these fears. Sometimes I, I find out that I'm I've afraid I've fears underneath fears underneath fears. So I'm talking to this guy, and he's telling me about he doesn't want to go to this one meeting. And I know that there's something kind of fear underneath. That. I said, "What are you afraid of?" At that meeting, oh, I'm not afraid of anything. <laughs> Okay, well, how come the idea of going to that meeting creates a little anxiousness in you? A little anxiety, apprehension. Well, it's not that. It's just, I don't like the people at that meeting. Well, anybody in particular? Well, you know, Joe goes there. I don't like Joe. Not my kind of guy. Oh, really? What don't you like about Joe? Oh, I just don't like him. He's just, he's a... He's an egotistical guy. I don't like him. I said, is there any chance that you're afraid of going to that meeting because you talk crap about Joe everywhere else in Alcoholics Anonymous and you're afraid somebody else has gotten it back to him and now you're afraid to face him? And he looks at me like a deer in the headlights. And that's exactly what was going on. Why do you have the fears? Often you'll uncover some unfinished business. We run into people all the time. They're afraid of doing their taxes. Why? Because they cheat on their taxes. Years ago, we don't have this much anymore because you don't see too much of it. But 15 years ago, half the people, half the guys that got sober had a panic and fear of having AIDS. Why? Well, because they stuck needles in their arm and they had unprotected sex almost regularly. Why do you have the fear? It's something, it's either something you are doing that you shouldn't have done or something you haven't done that you should have done. It's unfinished business. I had a guy come up to me one time. You see, you're so funny. Is it this recovery house? And he says, can I talk to you? And he's sober four or five months, I guess. He said, I'm doing a four step and I'm stuck in the fear section. I have several fears, and I don't know why I have them. I said, well, let's talk about it. And he reaches in his pocket, he pulls out a cigarette, he lights it up, takes the hit off, and he says, well, I got this, you know, I got this fear of cancer. (laughs) And I don't know why I have it. You know, my parents didn't have cancer, and I've never traumatized by cancer as a child. I don't understand why I have a fear of cancer. 
And I'm looking at him like, he's looking for deep psychological reasons. I said to him, could it be because you smoke? And it was like, he looked at me like, oh, that's too simple. Uh, why do we have these fears? Why do we have them? The book says, what's the answer? Well, we got to rem- we have to remember we're on a different basis. What basis? Not the basis of living your life on self-will, but the basis of the third step decision. I'm on a different basis. The basis of trusting and relying upon God. I trust infinite God who can handle the load of my life rather than my finite selves. I don't know if anybody other than me has ever had the experience of being sober for a period of time and feeling like you're you're having a nervous breakdown because there's so much stuff to worry about. When, when I am the center of the universe and my life and everything around it is my responsibility, oh my God, there's stuff to worry about. There's a whole world out there full of people, and they're all thinking stuff. I don't know what they're thinking, but you suspect it's about you, don't you? So you have to always be guessing. Sometimes you have to accuse people of things just to see. You know what I mean? Just to see. Uh, you feel like you're, I felt. I remember one time I, I ended up in a psychiatrist's office. I was sober at my parents' house for several months, not drinking, just angst. And I, I had this like nervous breakdown. And he said, you got free-floating anxiety and a panic disorder. No, I had self-centered fear. I was trying to play God. I was the center of my life. I was trusting finite Bob rather than infinite God. It's almost, in the the U.S., we have, in, in the laundry rooms in our homes, we have this one electrical outlet that has 220 volts. It's for the dryer. Now, everything else in the house is 110. But if you go into the kitchen and get an appliance that's designed for 110 and you plugged it into the 220, it's going to overload and burn out because it does not have the capacity to handle that load. And that's what I am like when I am trying to handle my life. I don't have the capacity. I, I, I just, I will, I will either angst up and just am up terrible anxiety, and then implode into depression. I don't have the capacity to handle the load. That's why I need God. There's a a thing that that bleeds into AA every once in a while out of treatment centers and and out of psychology that might be be legitimate for non-alcoholics, but I don't think it's right for us. And it's a sentiment that these feelings of inadequacy, these feelings that you're not enough, that something we, we should strive to get over, is as if we need to become complete and whole. I think that's wrong. I think the best and the most precious thing I have within me and going for me is my sense of not enoughness. It's my inadequacy. Because from it, I will come to the table here. And I will come to God and I will come to you and I'll work these steps. Truthfully, if I could become enough, you'd never see me again. <laughs> Why would I come here and listen to all this stuff and put money in the basket and listen to fifth steps and go pick up these knucklehead newcomers and go down to the <laughs> detox and 
and pay back the money and oh my god but i i i've never i've been very lucky here i've never been able to become complete enough that i could leave you i think that's my greatest blessing the thing i tried to run away from the thing i tried to fix and cure is really my greatest blessing i am not enough it is who i am I yearn, I yearn from, for the power from which I came because I am not enough. So we trust infinite God rather than our finite self. And that's the trust seems to be the answer to fear. But trust is more than faith. I, I, I was a couple years sober and I was, you know, I had a lot of anxiety. I hadn't really done much on the steps yet. And, um, I was talking to an old timer and I was telling him, I said, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I get up in the morning, I get down on my knees, I pray, I say the third step prayer. And, and I'm just all day long, I got this edge in me, this anger. I worry about stuff all the time. And he said, well, you have faith and you pray. And I said, yeah. And he said, you know, it's really not enough. He said, alcoholics of our type uh, have been dying of alcoholism with lots of faith and lots of prayer. He said, we have to take it up a notch. You have to trust God. And he said, I'll tell you the difference between faith and trust. He said, if you went to a circus and you sat in the audience and you watched a tight wire act, and you watched a man come out to the edge of the wire on the platform and he's pushing a wheelbarrow, you could sit in the audience with all the faith in the world and think, this guy's a professional. I have absolute faith. He can walk across that tight wire pushing that wheelbarrow. I bet she's done it a thousand times. Professional. I know he can do it. And then he said to me, but if you trusted, you'd go up and get in the wheelbarrow. And when he said that, I got this sinking feeling. You know, because I knew what he meant. He, I, that I really had to let go of my life and stop maneuvering, worrying and manipulating and wondering. And that I had to get in the wheelbarrow. The problem is, I understand what he says. I understand the value of getting in the wheelbarrow. I think it's a good idea to get in the wheelbarrow. I like going to meetings where we read about getting in the wheelbarrow. I like going out to coffee with people where we philosophize at great depth about getting in the wheelbarrow. I just ain't getting in the wheelbarrow, you know. And why am I not? Because I'm afraid. I, I believe my head more than I trust God. I'm afraid if I ever became that vulnerable, if I ever gave it all and got in that wheelbarrow and dropped all my defense mechanisms and I stopped trying to do for me and just totally trusted and relied on God, I'd get in that wheelbarrow, I'd get halfway across that wire and I'd hear that voice. Is that Bob? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, because I don't really trust God. So what do you do? If you're like me, and you know, you know you should, you know you're burning, you keep hurting yourself based on self-will and self-reliance, you know it, you're causing problems, you know you need to get in the wheelbarrow and you can't, you're just emotionally handicapped, what do you do? Page 53, it, it talks about what happens to, I think, most of us at some point, and some of us it happens recurringly. In the very middle of the page, it says, We became alcoholics, 
And then it talks about a condition that happened to me in my sobriety on many occasions. It says crushed. That's a pretty good word. Crushed by a self-imposed, which means I did it. Didn't mean to, but I did it. Crushed by a self-imposed crisis I could not postpone or evade. Means there's no wiggle room here. I can't get out of it. The consequences of what I did are coming at me. And I don't know what to do here, and I am powerless. Crushed by a self-imposed crisis, I could not postpone or evade. I had to fearlessly face the proposition that God is either everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What's our choice to be? Out of absolute collapse comes faith and trust. When I was uh, just a few months sober, the first time I ever found myself in this place, I'd been sentenced to two years in a state penitentiary in the state of Pennsylvania. And now I'm sober and I knew the warrants were out. And I knew it was just a matter of time before they picked me up and I was going to be extradited back to Pennsylvania and do two years and possibly additional time for, I don't know, for crossing state lines and stuff. I don't know. I think I've heard rumors that they tack on time for that stuff, for for fleeing. And A man in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, who I respected, I went to him and I told him about the fear. And he said to me, he said, he said here's what you have to do, kid. You've got you to call your PO and talk to the courts and offer to go back there and turn yourself in and do the two years. And I thought, are you kidding me? Oh, man. I, 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 I don't know what the jails are like here, but I'll tell you, in America, they're brutal. They're bloodbaths. I still got scars, physical scars from fights I've gotten into with people in jail cell, in cell blocks. I don't want to do the two. I don't jail well. I do not jail well. And I, I didn't want to do it. I, he said to me, he said, what are you going to do, kid? He said, you, you're going, you can't stay sober looking over your shoulder. He said, how long is it going to be until the anxiety of looking over your shoulder just gets so intense within you? You can't even get a job and use your, use your social, your ID. You, you, every time a cop car goes down the street, you're going to be clutching up in your pit of your stomach because you're going to think he's got your picture on his dashboard. How long is it going to be before you're going to be compelled to pick up a drink or some kind of pills or something? How long is it going to be? And when he's nailing me, he's backing me right into a corner because I know what he's saying is right. I know I'm eventually going to, if I don't, if I don't get through this, this fear is going to drive me to, to get drunk again. So he walked me through the process. He told me what to do. He said, I, he said, well, he said, I think you should write your PO, your pro, your PO a letter. And he said, give him the address where you live in the halfway house, which I thought was a terrible idea. I said, no, if I give him the address, he'll know where, they'll know how to pick me up. And he said, good, yes, we want them to be able to pick you up if they want. And this guy, I'm thinking, why am I listening to this guy? And he, he says, give, tell him in the letter that you're willing to come back there and do the two years and anything they want you to do that all you care about is putting this behind you. Tell him you'll do anything. Tell him that in the letter, say, give him 10 days. Tell him you'll call him in 10 days. That'll give him time to get the letter. He can talk about, about, his, about it with his boss. And they can figure out what they're going to do with you. 
Give him a time and a day that you're going to call him. And then you have to call him on that time and day. I wrote the letter and I showed it to him and he, he said, that's good. He said, he did, actually did ask me to change one little thing, but he said, that's a good letter. I took, I remember taking it to the mailbox. I dropped it in the mailbox and almost instantly I'm trying to shove my arm in there to get it back. But in the U.S., the once you, once you can't get your arm in there. It's your stock. Once you drop it in the mailbox, it's gone. And, uh, I had 10 days. 10 days. I can't sleep for 10 days. I got 10 days worrying about this. 10 days wanting to bolt, wanting to run. But where am I going to go? They convinced me if I ran, I'd drink again. The 10th day came. I remember uh, I was so scared inside. I went to the phone and I called and this woman answered the phone. And she said, he's expecting you. And a man she put me through to a man who I didn't know very well. I, I sat in his office a couple times. A man who I, in my mind, had no reason to stand up for me. I'm the guy who bailed out on him. And he got on the phone and he said, we got your letter. And I took it to my supervisor and we took it to the courts. And you don't have to come back here and do the two years. He said, here's what we want you to do. He said, we're going to transfer your case to Nevada. He said, you're going to have to go to these DUI classes every week. You're going to have to report to another guy, and he may want you to do urinalysis tests every week. And you're going to have to pay us the restitution and the court costs. And we'll make a schedule with you you can afford. And if you do all that, you're free. And it's not a felony, and it's time served, and it's a misdemeanor, and you're done. And everything he told me I needed to do, I was delighted to do it. I remember hanging that phone up and I walked away from that and I didn't know if I wanted to laugh or cry. I felt a feeling that was remarkable. And it was like a postcard from a God that I don't even really believe in yet. And the postcard said, Dear Bob, trust us, we got your back. Love God. It was the first time in my life I ever took actions against what I wanted to do and felt like doing. It was the first time in my life I ever put myself at risk and, and followed someone else's directions. And isn't that the essence of surrender? If you watch a, a war movie on television and where they depict someone surrendering, what do they do? The first thing they do is they throw down and discard all their means of defending themselves. And they sit down defenseless and vulnerable and they wait for direction for somebody to tell them what to do. And I, I put down my stop defending myself and put down my guard and I did what this man asked me to do. And God worked through him. There's a covenant in alcoholic, in alcoholics anonymous and I think it's why sponsorship is so important. The argument that people who want to be self-directed and don't want sponsors is, well, he's just another drunk. How can he help me? Well, that's true. He is just another drunk. He can't manage his own life. But I bet you he could do a better job on yours than you can. And he can't manage his own life, but his sponsor can help him. And you can't manage yours, and your sponsor can help you. Because when two or more of us come together for the purpose of recovery, something appears in the midst. When, when I work with my sponsor, the sum of him and I together are greater than the parts. Something else happens there. I, I know it. I know God, I've heard God speak through my sponsor. 
I've, I've, he's given me advice. I later want to ask him. I said, did you ever tell anybody else that? He said, no, I never did. And it was perfect. It was perfect. So we walk through fear. And that takes us to the last, um, the last part of, uh, the inventory process, sex. Um, oddly enough, the sex inventory is not about sex. I mean, if it was, it, I think fifth steps would be more entertaining, I suppose. <laughs> but it's not about sex at all. It's about harm. It's about how in the selfish pursuit of my not wanting to be alone, the selfish pursuit of my own gratification, my own emotional security to be hooked up with someone or be have a position and look better as a couple or whatever the deal, whatever the drive is, how I step on the toes of other people, driven by self. The bottom of page 68 starts the section on, on the sex inventory, and the gist of it is on page 69. I tell you, if I get to die and go meet Bill Wilson in heaven, i got to ask him, did you plan that, Bill? Or was that God showing off? I mean, what, what's, I mean, what's that? What's that about? And inquiring minds want to know. Um, there's a couple things that it says before we go into the sex inventory it, it, that are very important. It says, uh, we do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. It's not about sex. And we don't care. We don't care who you have it with. We don't care how often you have it. We don't care what species you have it with. Or what we're looking for here is we're looking for selfishness, dishonesty, inconsideration, harm, how we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness in our partners because we're scared and we're trying to manipulate them. We're looking at what we, where we were at fault, and very importantly, what we should have done instead. And I, and that was such a, a crucial question for me. What should I have done instead? And the reason that's important is if I'm going to turn my sex life over to God, and I'm going to ask Him to give me a, a vision for my future sex life and my relationships. I I can't help but build that somewhat on the mistakes of the past. And if I don't learn, if I don't have a vision of what I could have done differently, what's going to happen is is I'm going to get a do-over. This is a very merciful, beautiful universe. It's full of do-overs. You screw up your first marriage, you're going to get another chance. You're going to get another chance. And if I don't know what I should have done different when it comes up again, what's going to happen? Well, I'm going to fall right back into the rut in the road and do the same thing. When my emotions are in play, I'll fall back into the same emotional reactions. That's why our sexual inventory so often is this a pathetic sameness about them. You know, it's like the same. And then, then I met her. and I was, uh, Oh, and then... Uh, it's like the same thing. It's, oh my God, I didn't learn nothing, did I? It was, I'm the same idiot here that I was over there. It's the same selfishness, the same dishonesty, the same inconsideration. And the dishonesty in, rela- in relationships I, is, is pathological for some of us. 
It's, it's a hideous type of dishonesty because we don't even get we're being dishonest. I'm so... I, I, oh God, I, I tell the guys I sponsor, just, just try to be honest. I mean, whatever you are, don't, don't, don't create a facade. Don't, don't misrepresent yourself. Don't write checks you can't cash emotionally. <laughs> if you're an idiot, tell them that on the first date. <laughs> I mean, just be, even if you're, be your most pathetic self, be it right up front, then there's no surprises. Even if you're, even if you're just so pathetic on the first date, you have to go, pull my finger. I mean, if that's you, be who you are, and at least you'll find out something. You'll find out that it's, that maybe, maybe the sweetest thing you could find out. Maybe that there's someone that would love you exactly as you are. See, I would rather be alone as who I am and maybe even rejected as who I am than loved for who I'm not. The book talks about how we create that, that double life and, and chapters in, into action. It says we create the facade that we want other people to, to think we are and, and we die behind it. We shrivel up and die. I have to be who I am. And that, that's, I am like most people here. I, I, I'm a person with, with some innate, uh, defects. I, I'm self-centered. I know that's a surprise in AA, but I'm, uh, I'm self-centered. I'm, I'm, I, you get me scared. I can act selfishly. I'll make amends later, but I can act selfishly. You get me frightened. I can be dishonest with you. I'll come back later and make amends. But I'm all of that. I'm inconsiderate at, at, a, at a hideous level. I, God, I've gotten so much better over the years, though. There were there was years of my sobriety when I was in, so inconsiderate. I didn't even know I was inconsiderate, and it's it's not it's not a conscious inconsideration. It's the inconsideration of a person who's so wrapped up in themselves they don't even see what how they're affecting someone else. I, I give you a couple examples. I, I, have, I have a guy a sponsor. He's been married a long time. He loves his wife. But they have, he's, he has a big life. And all this, he has to go to a lot of corporate functions. And it's very important for him to be on time because if he's not, he looks bad. And his wife is on pay. Oh, yeah, we've got to be early. I know. I, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what happens time and time and time again is they'll be getting ready to leave. And she'll, they're just ready to go out of the house so that it'll take them there right on time. And she'll go by the mirror and she'll go, no, not that dress. No. And she'll go back in and she'll start all over again. And she doesn't even see that she's making him crazy and making him. It's not a conscious inconsideration. She can't see past herself. That's the problem with. With, with guys like us, people like us. I, I had an incident. I, w- I wasn't sober a whole long time, about uh, less than, you know, a little over five years, less than, no, maybe closer to ten, I suppose. And I was dating a girl. She was sober about five years. And, and I took her, I took my date to an AA convention at the Las Vegas Roundup. A great convention. I'd, I'd been on, I just, I think I was on the advisory board that year. I'd, I'd been a chairman and a past co-chairman and a, I'd been on the committee for a lot of years. 
and I'm with my date in the hospitality room, and and some old friends that I hadn't seen for a while. And actually, I was sober. I was sober close to 15 years now because I remember the friends. It was one of the guys that came in and saved my butt when I was about 11 years sober. And they come walking into the other end of the hospitality room, and it lit me up. You know, that feeling when you see someone who's really meant a lot to you and you haven't seen them for a while, it was amazing. And I went running over to, to hug John and his wife, Mary Emma, and, and, and uh, Dick was there, and, and this other guy, Harold, and oh, man, this is great. Now, that's my reality. My date's reality is she just got left standing by herself in the corner of the room as her date just ran off and left her there. I, I didn't even know I did that. Later, I knew more about me doing that than I ever imagined I would need to know. <laughs> oh, I knew later. I'm telling you. I knew. But it's, it's the inconsideration of a person who can't see past themselves. See, because I'm asleep in my own life, I don't see what you see. To me, I don't know that I'm inconsiderate. I'm just, oh my God, look at this. To you, I'm inconsiderate. And my sponsor used to say to me something that's very true. He says, you know, he says you're not guilty for anything you've ever done, drunk or sober. But you are responsible because you're the guy who did it. It's your job to, to make it right, to go make the amends. It's your job to clean it up because you did it. Did you mean to do it? No. Did you do it? Yeah, I did. Was it intentional? No. Did it hurt them? Yeah, I guess it did. It's my job to clean it up. And to, to become awake and try to grow along spiritual lines. And, and over the years, it's just like, it's like peeling the layers of the onion or it's like veils that lift and I start to see myself more and more and more and more until I start to get what I, I start, at times I think I can almost see me the way you see me. Maybe not always. And maybe at times I even can see me the way God sees me. And even better, often at times and sometimes a lot, I can see you the way God sees you. And when I look at you the way God looks at you, you're spectacular. You're perfect as is. The great lie we tell ourselves is we're not. And that's where most of the dishonesty in relationships come from. Is we believe that old idea that unconsciously we, some of us think that if you really knew everything about me, the bad stuff as well as the good, you probably wouldn't love me. And so we hide the bad stuff. But it is us. Some of the people I love the most in my life, I, Matter of fact, it's it's the it's their defects that make me closer to them because I got you know I got some of that. I feel closer to them. I don't I don't judge them for that, no more than I want you to judge me for mine. Isn't it odd that the things we used to hide and and become a, we were I was so afraid that this would keep that I would be alone if you ever knew this stuff about me has actually brought me more into community. It's brought me out of the loneliness. But I had to trust God. And that's always the bottom line. We're on a different basis. The, the, 
we ask ourselves all these questions, and then on the the I'll, I'll talk about this one quick thing. We'll do some questions. To to sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal. This is really it has to be principles before personalities. For guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity. I love the definition of insanity in the big book. It says it's a it's a complete lack of proportion and an inability to think straight. When you're in heat, you have a complete lack of proportion and an inability to think straight. So I'm praying for sanity. For the strength to do the right thing. And then I love this. This is so true. If sex is very troublesome, if relationships are very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious surge when to yield would mean heartache. I've, I've never been able, I would have never survived um, the tough times in relationship breakups. I've, I've been married twice and divorced twice. And neither one of them was great. I, I gotta tell you, and I, I'm very, I feel so good about this. I'm very close to both my ex-wives today. Um, but what got me through that period, that rough patch of road, that dark night of the soul was helping others. It, it, when you're, when you're really in, in a bad place and you're sick spiritually, reading spiritual books doesn't help, does it? Because you can't, five seconds after you read it, you can't tell, you don't even remember what you read, because you're just, you're so up in here. Uh, listening in meetings doesn't help, because it's like, wah, 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 wah. Your sponsor doesn't, well, first of all, your sponsor doesn't understand. Um, <laughs> praying doesn't even help. You'd think that praying would help, and I think, I, that doesn't mean you shouldn't pray. But there is no conscious contact. There, the only thing that seems to help is I, I need to find a seeing-eye new guy to lead me out of the fog of myself, to lead me out of the darkness of me. And, and those, those things will, will save your life. And I am a big, big advocate of, of service and 12-step work and sponsoring people and stepping up. And don't wait for people to ask you. Go to places where newcomers go. Give them your number. Say, do you have a sponsor? If they say no, say, if you, I'm not imposing, but if, if you would like to be sponsored, it would be my privilege. You know, Bill Wilson didn't wait for Dr. Bob to ask for help. Bill Wilson sought out Dr. Bob, not because Dr. Bob was an alcoholic. Bill Wilson sought out Dr. Bob because Bill Wilson was an alcoholic. And this stuff, and, and throwing yourself in new, it's, it's like the, it balances everything within me. It's, it's the great adjustment. I'll tell you one little story and then we'll quit. Um, in my 11th year of sobriety, I went through one of the toughest, toughest patches of road in my life. Um, I'd been married, I'd been in a relationship for six years and uh, it went bad and I didn't understand what had gone on. I, I even, she, she came to me and wanted a divorce and I tried to talk her out of it. I said, let's try some marriage counseling and she agreed for about two months, and then she said, I don't want any more marriage counseling. I want out of the marriage. 
in Vegas, you can get divorced quick. It's so fast. You're, you're single three weeks and you haven't even paid the visa bill yet on the divorce. It's quick in Vegas, especially an uncontested divorce. I had a two-year-old daughter who I uh, just adored. I was the first human being to ever hold her. She cried her first tears in my arms in the delivery room. She stole my heart. And I get this divorce, and the day after the divorce is final, I discover that my wife, ex-wife of one day, of 12 hours, had been sleeping with one of my sponsees, who was my best friend and my confidant in all my marriage problems for the last year of my marriage. And my daughter, who I love more than life itself, and my ex-wife of 12 hours that morning moved in with my sponsee and my ex-best friend. And I was insane. I was insane. The story of how I got free of that is really contained within the resentment section of the book. But God saved me from myself by the, by service in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I missed my daughter terribly. And I had the rights, according to the divorce decree, to see her anytime I wanted. I, but I, in order to see her, I had to go over to where they were living together. And I remember I set it up for this, this day to, uh, to spend the whole day with her. And I went over there early in the morning to pick her up. And I drove up to in front of where they were all living together with this terrible, like a wind blowing through the pit of my stomach. It was a horrible feeling of anxiousness. And I walked up to the door and I knocked on the door and, and him and her, the happy couple, answered the door. They call my daughter Kate. She was Kate's about two years old. Kate, your dad's here. Kate came running out. Oh, she's the most cutest thing you'd ever seen. I took her by the hand, went and got in the car, had a whole day planned. First thing we went, did is went to a place called, you may not have these here, called Chuck E. Cheese. Do you know what that is? It's a place where you, you get the worst pizza in the world, and for about $90, you can win a kid a 10-cent ring in these games. <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's crazy. Like arcade games. It's it's crazy. We went there. For, and they have a, a five-foot mouse that walks around, which a friend of mine got ended up going through DTs in a Chuck E. Cheese one time. <laughs> it's a whole other story. And... Uh, we spent, we spent some time at Chuck E. Cheese. My daughter loves, my daughter loves playing those little games, rolling those balls up to try to win that 10 cent ring, you know. And, um, and we, I had it laid out to take her to a ranch for the day. And, and a friend of mine worked at the ranch and this ranch uh, had a lot of horses and it had rabbits and it had sheep and goats and cows and, and ponies. My daughter, the idea of ponies just lit her up. She had these little toy pony, plastic ponies and, and she just, oh, she, ponies, she was crazy about ponies. Well, we get over there and we're playing around with the animals. She got to hold a rabbit and then it started kicking and she panicked and dropped it. We had to chase it around the yard for a while, get it back in its hutch. And, uh, she got to pet a lot of the animals and feed a lot of the animals and got to ride the ponies. And she, it scared her a little bit. The ponies were bigger than she imagined. But we got to hold her on the pony and take her around the corral. She really loved it. It was very exciting. The pony would go a little faster and she'd get a little scared and a little excited. It was very cool. And we're done riding the ponies and next to the corral is a picnic bench. And we're sitting on the picnic bench. And Kate's thirsty. So she wanted something to drink. So across the yard next to the stables is a soda machine. 
And so I left her there with the woman who I knew that worked there. And I said, I'll be right back. I'll go get us all a can of soda. And I go across the yard to get the three cans of soda. And I'm coming back with the sodas. And I hear the woman say to my daughter, Kate, hey, Katie, here comes your daddy. And Katie looks up at me and looks at the woman and says, that's not my daddy. Craig's my daddy. And it felt like somebody stuck a knife in me. And I, I didn't, oh, man, I didn't say nothing. But I pushed those feelings down, put a smile on my face. I went back to, sat down at that table, and, and we drank those sodas and hung out for a while. We did a couple other things. Eventually that evening, I got to take her home. And we drive up to front in front of the place where they're all living together. And I take her by the hand, and we go up and ring the doorbell, and the happy couple answers the door, and she jumps into his arms. And I turn around and I walk back to my car and I get in my car. And I drive about a block away and I pull over to the side of the road and I just come apart at the seams. And I'm sitting in the car and I'm crying and I'm talking to God at the same time. And I'm saying to God, I, I love my daughter, but I can't do this. This hurts too much. I'm sorry. I can't see her anymore. And it was breaking my heart. But I couldn't do it. I'm not, I remember telling God, I'm not big enough for this. I look at the clock on the dashboard and it's, it's later than I thought. And, and I was supposed to meet this, this knucklehead newcomer at one of the AA clubs and I promised him I'd pick him up there and take him across town to a step study. And I don't want to meet this guy. I need to go home and think. I need to, I, that's what I want to do when I'm, I need to, I'm a thinker. I want to think. I need to go home and think. But, but you guys have brainwashed me into, into the, do what you say you're going to do. Show up where you say you're going to show up. Be early. You know, I'll do the right, oh, God, uh, I, racing across town to meet this idiot. I get there, he's outside the club, pacing back and forth on the sidewalk, and get in the car, get in the car, <laughs> driving across town. We're not even, not even a couple minutes in the car, and he starts, he starts crying as he's telling me that he'd been denied by the courts once again to see his kids. I'm looking at him and his tears and his pain, and he can't see his kids. And I'm thinking, you know, there's only one idiot that can keep you from seeing your daughter, Bob, that's you. I thought, oh, I'll see her again next week. And next week. And I've never missed. And she's 24 years old. And she's the light of my life. We've, we've traveled all over the world together. I mean, we've been on cruises. We've been all through Europe and Hawaii. She was down, she was in Australia with me two years ago. She came down here when I did a workshop in Sydney. And she's probably the most important relationship in my life. And I almost lost it. And that God worked through that newcomer to save me from me. And he thinks I'm helping him. <laughs> Not at all. It, isn't it the helpers that get the help here? So if you're, if you're not sponsoring anybody or if you're not doing service, I, I, I implore you to step up. I think you're tying God's hands if you don't. He will work through those people that you're going to help to help you. Um, I think 
we've got about 20 minutes left. I'm not going to do anything more on step forward. It's pretty much good. Do you have, you have something, George? Yeah, what's, what, do you have questions in the basket? How do you deal with fears about what people think that won't go away? You know, it's, it's odd about fears and resentments that won't go away. They usually don't go away until the amends are made. The unfinished business is dealt with. Sometimes it's walking through something. Sometimes it's hard because you have to trust God enough to face something you don't want to face. But fears and resentments are in, are not things to be ran away from. They're, thing, they're indicators of unfinished business. How often, especially resentments, where you can talk about it and write about it and inventory it and inventory it and pray about it, and nothing changes until you approach the person and make the amends. Because as long as I owe you, I'm vested in my judgment of you and it will reoccur. Because I will have to find something wrong with you as long as we're not even. And some of you may have had the experience of stealing from a place you worked. And that you're going to think the person you, that owns the business is a jerk until you pay him back. It's It's odd how... Amends sometimes is the final deal. Um, how do you personally... These are all in the same handwriting. George! <laughs> how do you personally sustain a positive attitude when alcohol is everywhere in life? I don't I I don't notice it. I I don't even I go out to dinner with my sister and my daughter sometimes and they have a drink. They're not alcoholic. I I don't even notice it really. You know that when I first started being around people drinking, I would I mean I wasn't tempted to drink, but I would really I'd be just you know watching them and trying to steal some vicarious pleasure out of their drinking. But any, you know, lately it's I don't even pay attention. The last time I was out to dinner with my sister, I, you know, now that I think about, it, I don't even remember if she had a drink. She might have. Isn't that isn't that odd? That that my relationship with alcohol could be that much changed that it's just a. Now, if you'd offer me a drink, I, it's I'll do what it says. I, it's automatic. It's a knee jerk reaction. I recoil from it as from a hot flame. It's like no, it's like cat urine. I don't want that. Um, but I don't, I, I don't, I'm not an intolerant, I'm, I'm not a reformed drinker. I don't mind people drinking. I, um, it's, I just got to keep treating my alcoholism. I, I think that alcohol will take care of itself. Can you tell the, the firehouse analogy again? Oh, fire hose. Oh, about trying to get advice in an AA meeting? Like trying to take a drink of water from a fire hose? Well, look who we are. You know, throw a question out for everybody. All of a sudden, all the light above every head's a light bulb. I mean, we all know. We all know what the person should do. Right, it's it's a crazy place to have. That's why sponsor. When when you when you try to get direction and advice from a meeting, what you're really saying is you want to be self-directed. 
and you don't want to take it, you don't want to use your sponsor. You're not, what you're really saying is I'm not sponsorable. I want to come to a meeting and I want to throw it out there and then I want to hear what I want to hear and pick what I want to pick and I don't want to follow directions. Um, I don't want to do what somebody else suggests. I want to be at the helm of my own ship. And let me tell you something. If that works well for you, I'm applauding you. When I was 15 years sober, I went and got a very tough man as a sponsor. And the reason I did that is I had, I'd been self, I had a sponsor, but he was my best friend and he didn't give me direction anymore. I was self-directed. Do that for 10 years. You'll want to be sponsored. That's all. I'm Bob, an alcoholic. Join me in a moment of silence and I want to open with a little meditation or prayer. I am the place where God shines through. Him and I are one, not two. I need not worry, fret, or plan. He wants me where and as I am. And if I can be relaxed and free, He'll carry out His plan through me. Amen. Uh, well, some of you came back. I don't know if I would have. But... <laughs> That's cool. Uh, if you have your cell phone on, turn it to silence, please. Because then, if, because you'll save yourself the grief of when it goes off in the meeting, everybody turning and staring at you. It's just, it's squirmy. Uh, <laughs> Just about three or four things are going through my head. I can't share any of them. Um, so, so we're we're in, we're we're engaged in this process of shrinking ourselves and clearing away the things of of and in ourselves that have been blocking us from other people, uh, from God, and from going with this flow in the universe that is really the essence of what we're trying to achieve in step three and then make in the decision in step three. Um, so we've, we've done, we, yesterday we, we, we talked about the house cleaning that we, we begin in step four and that's not the end in itself. The next thing that we have to do is, is probably the first thing in the process that has a little bit of personal risk. Um, not not nearly as much as step eight and nine, but and that's step five. Um, but the book says the book has a couple guidelines on on what to how to pick somebody to do step five with. It, it, it says in two different places. It says we want a, a, a closed mouthed understanding person, someone who can keep a confidence. So you know. If you go, you need to find someone who's not an avid gossip in AA. I ran into someone not a couple of years ago that was just whining in a meeting about how they shared, they took their fifth step with a certain person, 
And they, that person told somebody about something that was in their fifth step. And I, I pulled them aside. I said, but are you the only one in AA that doesn't know this person's like that? I mean, you all, it was almost like they set themselves up for that to happen so they could be angry about, about the whole deal. I mean, it was, everybody knew that this per, nice person, but they can't hold it. They, they leak like a sieve. I mean, it's not, it's not that they're, they're not mal, there's no malice behind it. They just do. And, and everybody knew that. And they picked that, of all the people they could have picked today, they picked the one person that leaked like a sieve. And so you really want to, you want to, Pick someone who's who, who's quiet enough within themselves that they're not they're not going around talking crap about people all the time. Um, and the other thing, it says someone who's not going to try to change your plan. Uh, when this book was written in 1939, the the population of Alcoholics Anonymous worldwide was somewhere between 76 and 83 people, depending upon the historian you talk to. Now, I know it says in the beginning of the book it was the first hundred. Well, you know, Bill's like all of us. He, it looks better to round up. You know, I mean, I, <laughs> I get that. Uh, but in actuality, he was he was guessing, I think, when he said that. But in actuality, it was somewhere 76, 70 to 83 so when they wrote the book, they made a suggestion in there because they were going to ship these books out all over the world. And the suggestion was if you're, and you're in Adelaide and you're, there's nobody sober in Adelaide yet, that you, uh, you may have to take this with your minister or your priest or your counselor. Uh, uh, it gives you a little warning. It says you don't, you don't want to take, especially you don't want to discuss your sexual inventory with your mate. That's not a good idea. Um, uh, and use some discretion. Uh, and that was probably a pretty valid thing to say in 1939. Uh, Fifteen years later, when Bill wrote the 12 Steps and the 12 Traditions in Step 5, he, he brings it a little more up to standards of what happened in the fellowship. And now he's suggesting, uh, because AA is, is in the thousands and it's spread all over the place, that... Um, that you might want to do it with someone who's been dry a, a, a while, someone who's familiar with your case, someone who's actually done this themselves. And he, and he recommends your sponsor might be good for this. I, I think your sponsor is ideal for this. And I'll tell you why. If you, if you take this, and I'm not to, if people that I sponsor come to me and they say, I would like to take my fifth step with a priest, I'll say, but you're going to take it with me too. And the reason you want to take it with your sponsor is you're going to run into some problems um, in the fifth step where you can't get free of certain resentments or or you'll get back into the eighth and ninth step and you're going to need some help on how not to shoot yourself in the foot in trying to make these amends. Uh, and you will need someone um, that, and the person that has listened to your fifth step is ideal to help you with your eighth and ninth. Uh, so I, I and, the, and that's what he says in that. He said that's that's the best. That's the optimum. Take it with someone. Uh, why do we take this though? Why? I mean, if the, you know, there's a place in the book. It says our real object is to enable you to connect with a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Okay, you can get a sense. Well, me and God are good now. So isn't isn't that enough? 
no, it's not. Because of the the uh, tenaciousness and insidiousness of the alcoholic ego, how it will creep in and, and it, it it masquerades itself. And we'll talk about that a little bit in step eleven as God's will. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room that just hasn't imagined some pretty bizarre stuff was God's will. It really, well, it was really your will, uh, but but you kind of fancy it could be God's will, maybe you know, hope. Um, so I will always need someone outside of this and outside of me to filter my. Uh, my vision of God's will. I tell the guys I sponsor, if you get inspired by God, call me. If it's a big inspiration, come on over to the house. <laughs> well, you know how, because you know how we are, right? And, and, and I do the same thing. And I'm, uh, there's a, there's a tremendous comfort in, in bouncing my vision and my, what I, the, the things I think I'm going to do or the decisions I'd like to make that I feel are right off my sponsor and and most nowadays most of the time and he's really very objective and very principle oriented and he's never never steered me wrong i told him many years ago i said i'll do everything he asked me to do you mess me up i'm gonna tell everybody and he's he laughed he thought that was funny uh, but i'll bounce things off of him today and and probably nine nine times out of ten He'll say to me, that's, that's, that's exactly right. That's right. That's, that's the right action to take. And every once in a while he'll go, are you out of your goddamn mind? (laughs) And when he says it, and he'll, and he'll start talking about it from a different perspective, it's like a veil lifts and I go, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's usually, he, he helps me to look at, at me and what I'm doing from a, from an objective outside of me point of view. And he's very, he's very big on, on trying to get me as a way of, of life and as a perspective to look at my actions on how they would speak to the newer people. Um, that's, and he's, 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 it's a big piece of business in our world. As, cause everything, you know, we only, all of us, no matter how long we're sober, even if you're sober 50 years, you only really get one vote here. And your vote is what you do. It's not what you say. Your, your actions will speak volumes. Your words mean very little. And so if you're, if you're the person who comes to meetings late, and some people have legitimate reasons to do that, but your actions is speaking something here. It's speaking an okayness about coming to meetings late. If you leave your phone on and the phone rings in the meeting and you answer it in the meeting, you're really saying to everybody, I think this is good. You're, it's almost like an encouragement. Because if you're sober more than a year or so, you may not want this to be true, but I'll tell you it is. The brand new people will look to you as an example on how to live your life, how to live their lives sober. And he, we have a lot of monkey see, monkey do here. Uh, I, I I went through a well. There there have been uh, there there are times in my sobriety where uh, you know I was where I was really uh, self-serving, 
periods of that. I know that some of you find that hard to believe. But, and I was taking actions that I don't think are hurting anybody. And, and this is not, there's nothing really wrong with this until I saw guys I sponsor emulate what I was doing. And then I was ashamed because I really didn't want them to emulate it. Not that it wasn't illegal or anything like that, but it's just, it was not the kind, I didn't want to be that kind of example to them in alcoholics because it was a self-serving example. And so my sponsor's been big on that. And so I, I, I encourage guys to take, and men and women to take their fifth step with their sponsor. This is a, a your sponsor grows maybe more from your fifth step than you do. And you don't know that until you've listened to about a dozen of them. And you realize that I, I've gotten more out of fifth steps that I've, from other people than I have. And stuff will cook, you, cook out of me. A lot of the things I've shared this weekend are, are things that I've gotten realizations and consciousness, uh, consciousnesses that I've uh, obtained by seeing myself in a way I've never seen myself through a guy I sponsor. It's a remarkable thing. You're listening to a fifth step and all of a sudden you go, oh my God, I did, and I never, oh, and I never made the amends. Oh man, I've been buried 30 years and here I am. It's just pot. This guy's cooked it out of me right here. And I think he thinks I'm helping him. So you do this with a sponsor and the, the book has a couple reasons why and I don't want to spend a lot of time on five at the bottom of uh, 72 it says the best reason first to do your fifth step to take this risk of looking bad so my 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 dear friend who passed away a few years ago Vince Show used to say sometimes you have to be willing to look bad in order to feel good and the best reason first if we skip this vital step we may not overcome drinking Remember drinking? Remember drinking? It's, it's easy to forget drinking. You can be sober five, ten years and sort of settle into, oh, of course I'm sober. And you forget. Forget that you have a disease that if it turns back on you, you don't have the power to get back. Uh, this is a hideous disease. The, the most, the most alcoholics that relapse themselves to death do it, and they don't have a clue how powerless they actually are. How this can get out from under you, and you can't, how you can't get the tiger back in the cage. And, and I, and, and people, uh, I see people for years, uh, come into Alcoholics Anonymous and with a cavalier attitude. Yeah, I know, it's bad, and you know, I'm gonna get sober, and, but they don't really put the energy in, and they relapse again. Well, and they come back, and they, they come back thinking, see, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. And, you know, they'll say things in meeting like, well, it's not like I'm really new, I had that time before, you know, that you can feel the ego right there, right? And, and, and they never buy the whole package, and then one time, they go out, and they can't get back. I think sometimes Alcoholics Anonymous is like, when you join AA, it's like joining the mafia. Nobody gets out of here alive. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean, right? I mean, it's, I mean, that's a pretty cold thing to say, but I don't know. If you're a real chronic alcoholic, it's probably true. So the best reason first, if we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. 
uh, we're, no matter how comfortable you are in abstinence, no matter how long it's been since you've even entertained every thought about drinking, you're never out of the woods. There's an old saying, that I think it's kind of funny, it says the monkey may be off, the ba- off your back, but the circus is still in town. And that's really true. And, and it talks on page 73 about why, why this is important. Um, well, actually, we'll start at the bottom of 72. It says, it says, time after time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts about their lives. Do you guys have that saying down here, you're as sick as your secrets? Yeah. Trying to avoid this humbling experience, they have turned to easier methods. Almost invariably, they got drunk. Oh my God, we got a society that's throwing easier methods at us. And, you know, I'll tell you one thing that being sober a while, you know, several decades will give you. It doesn't make you smarter, but it gives you perspective. You watch... You watch all the different methods and easier methods and easier ways to come and go, and they swagger and boast in AA for a number of years, and the body count starts to develop. And, you know, it's funny. I I came here in 1978, one of the most liberal, you know, minded. I thought everything's good. All the 12-step programs should be together, and, and, and all the therapy should be in AA, and it's all good, and we should... You know, it should be, we should do it all. And over the years, stuff, the body count just cuts away crap. Until what's left after three, almost three and a half decades is the only thing that works. You know, a guy doesn't go from a liberal anything goes attitude to a fundamentalist and alcoholics anonymous out of choice. It's out of pragmatism. It's because it's what's left, and that's the, isn't that that's it's really the thing here. You know, you can you can intellectual arguments about other methods can be very strong, but it's not a matter of who's right or wrong. It's a matter of who's left. It's not who's right. It's who's left. And if you if you had someone in your life that you really really loved. Your daughter, your son, your mate, your mother, your father, brother, sister. Wouldn't you want them to get on the road that would have the maximum potential to change their life? Would you want them, would you want them half measure and stuff? And yet, we will half measure for ourselves, but if it was somebody we really cared about, which is indicative, I think, of, of long lasting Feelings of low self-esteem that sometimes can go for decades and decades in sobriety. You, you get glimpses of it when you when you start to realize that you you want more for the people you love than you do for yourself. Right. How come I I'll, I'll go out of my way to help you quit smoking, but I won't do it for me? How come I'll go out of my way to help you go to a doctor when you're sick, but I'll resist going? How come I'll go out of my way to help you go back to school, but I won't? Right. And as if I care more about you than I care about me. And, and the great, one of the great blessings in Alcoholics Anonymous is we link ourselves to each other. Um, something happens that is greater than, than us individually. And it's, it's sponsoring people is, and having a sponsor is so uh, important. 
I, I was up in the Rocky Mountains in the United States uh, 20 some years ago at a little conference up there and these we had a day to kind of sightsee and they took me up to this place where there's this mountain lake and it was pristine it was so pristine and so clear and pure that you could see the rocks on the bottom of the of the lake that's how clear that water was and i realized why it was clear on one side of the lake, there was a rapid moving stream with water bubbling in, pouring in. And on the other side of the lake, there was a stream with water going out. And consequently, it could never become stagnant because it flowed. I need that in my life. I need a sponsor where I, stuff's coming into me and I need to sponsor people where stuff's going out. And, and if, if you're like me and you cut off either end of that, you start, what happens is the lake starts getting stagnant, which really means is it starts filling up with you, basically. And, and I, I need all of that. I need to be, as it talks about in this, in the 11th step St. Francis prayer, a channel where things flow through me. So the book says, invariably they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. We think the reason is they'd never completed their house cleaning. They took inventory, all right. This would have applied to me at, at, at three and a half, four years sober. I'd written two inventories, plus did some in treatment centers. They took inventory, all right, but they hung on to some of the worst items in stock. They only thought they had lost their egotism and fear. They only thought they'd humbled themselves. But they had not learned enough of humility, fearlessness, and honesty in the sense we find it necessary until they told someone else all their life story. One of the great things about Step 4 and 5 as it's outlined in the book. This is not to discover the things you already know. This is to discover some of the things you don't know. And there, there was a, a therapist... Uh, Many years ago, maybe 35, 40, maybe 12, probably 40 years ago, who invented a thing called the Jahari window. And it was, it was a, it was a remarkable intellectual exercise. It, and what it was is it was, it was the things about you as a person. And the Jahari window had four pains. The first pain was a pain that was crystal clear. You could see through it in both directions. And that was what I, I know I can see about me and what you can see about me. It's a clear pain. The second pain was like one of those pains with a reflective thing on one side where you can see through one way, but you can't see through the other. And that was the things I know about me, but I'm not going to let you see. I'm going to keep them in the shade. And then the third pain was, 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 the, the really insidious, one of the really insidious, beginning of the insidious pains, and that was things that you could see about me, but I don't see them. I can't see me the way you see me. And this is one of the pains that's clear, made clear, or should be partially made clear in step four and five. And then the last pain is the, is the pain of the things that I can't see about me, and you can't see about me. These are the things when it talks about in the 12 steps and 12 traditions that, that can bubble to the surface later and handicap you in relationships and other areas of your life. 
It's, it's sometimes it's the stuff I don't know about me that hurts me the most. So we have the things that, I, that come out in the open in step four and five that I, that my secrets come out, of course. And then I start to, as I start to shift in my perception, as it talks about on page 66 and 67, I start to make these realizations. I start to see the things about me that other people saw that I could never see. And, and what happens for some of us is we, uh, most of us is when you, when you uncover that stuff, it brings a little light and a little grace into your life and helps cook out the stuff from the fourth pain. The stuff that you don't know about yourself and nobody else knows about yourself. It starts to bubble out to the surface. And this is an ongoing process. When it says in, in the uh, vision for you that more will be disclosed, uh, it's because it has been closed to me. And it cooks out. And everybody that I know in sobriety is, has that as an ongoing experience. I know the stuff, it's, it's kind of funny really, but I know stuff about myself today that I can see very clearly that I could not see 10 years ago. And there was stuff 10 years ago that I could see that I couldn't see 10 years prior to that. Which means, if I'm objective, that there's some stuff about me today that I can't see that I think is a certain way that 10 years from now I'm going to think I'm an idiot today. Right? And, and when, when you get that, it, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to maintain this position where you know stuff. Because you, you get to know that you don't know. Right? And you don't. It's an illusion. It's, it's, it's an illusion of the ego that you know something. Uh, we have our experience, and that is changed by life itself continually. Um, and that's really all I have is the, of any value is my experience. That's the power of alcohol. It's not, it's not, what, not the things I know or the, my opinions, but my experience. And this starts to talk about this, this compartmentalization that, that seems to be driven by self-centered fear. It says more than most people, the alcoholic will lead double life, sometimes triple, sometimes quadruple lives. There, you might, some of you may have had the experience where you're one person to your minister, another one to your parents, another one to your wife or husband, another one at work, another one to your drug dealer, another one to your bartender. I mean, is it any wonder most of us come here, we don't even know who we are. I mean, I don't know who I am anymore. I mean, I've been so many things to so many people, who the hell am I? I mean, you know, I don't know. So, we live this double life. And why do I do that? Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what you'll think of me. When, when you walk, if you're like me and you go through life with a tremendous, overwhelming sense of not enoughness, a feeling of inadequacy, and you cover it up behind a facade because you, you so desperately want people to love you and accept you, and you're afraid they won't, then you, you're, you're, the fear pushes guys like me into a position of being something I'm not. Out of the fear of, of that you wouldn't love, if you knew me, you wouldn't love me. Cause you know, I don't. Not really. So I have to be something I'm not. And, and I think we die in, in that abyss. If, if there's a hell on earth, I, I think it, it must surely exist in, in the abyss that opens up between who I want the world to think I am and who I secretly know I am inside. 
And my grand sponsor said, used to say, you cannot compartmentalize your life. You have to be one person. And, and this is the beginning of unity. In ter- and this is the beginning of integrity. Integrity just means being of one mind. That means that I'm, I'm the same guy at work that I am in the grocery store, that I am in traffic, that I am in AA, that I am, I'm the same guy. Not perfect in any one of these, but the same guy. I am me in every one of these. But, and the, you know, one of the promises in step nine is that we will know a new freedom. I think a big piece of that freedom, it, the part of it is, is the freedom from fear because we're starting to trust God. But another piece of it is the freedom that comes when you just, when you don't have to do anything except be who you are. When you're trying to be something you're not, oh my God, you're, you're a hostage to that up here. Now I have to remember you, I have to remember the lies I told you last week. Right? I have to, you know, I'm a hostage to that. So, this is, uh, is an amazing thing. Uh, on page 75, it's, this is the part coming out of, um, out of the fifth step experience. And, uh, it says, re- bottom of the page, it says, returning home, we find a place where we can be Quiet for an hour. Carefully reviewing what we have done. So I come, I just finished my fifth step with my sponsor and I I was at his house or maybe I was in a park or maybe I was, took a drive in his car or whatever and I've come home. I found some place where I can be quiet for an hour. No telephone. I'm not texting anyone. I'm just, just me and my fourth step in God. Okay. Um, the first thing I do is I, I, after I look back over the fourth step, I review carefully what I've just done. And then after I do that, I say this prayer. I thank God from the bottom of my heart that I know Him better. Remember, we're entering into an, this is an exercise of uncovering, discovering, and discarding the things between me and God. Now, you may, because we're so, because self-centered people such as myself have a tendency to gauge everything on how I feel, I may not feel like saying this prayer that I think as I know him better. Because maybe I don't feel like I know him better. Maybe I just feel tired. I mean, I just sat and talked about my, my whole life for about four to six hours. Maybe I just feel washed out. And a guy asked me a few years ago, he said, well, what if you don't feel like that you know God better? What should you do? And I, and he stumped me. And I thought, I looked in the book and what's it? I said, you know, it doesn't say we thank from God from the bottom of our heart that we know Him better if we feel like it. So maybe I'm trusting in the process. And taking this book down from the shelf, I turn to the page which contains the 12 steps in chapter 5 carefully reading the first five steps. So not only have I looked over my fourth and fifth step, I'm looking over this preceding step one, two, and three. And there's another prayer here. And this is an important prayer. We ask. Anytime the book says we ask, I mean, they're, they're not saying you're asking your head. It's a prayer. We we ask if we have omitted anything, for we are building an arch through which we shall walk a free man at last. I, at least 15 times, I imagine, over the years, 
I've sent a guy home to do what it talks about on page 75 and 76, and 45 minutes later, I'll get a phone call. And because when you get alone with God and you ask that question, you're looking over your four-step, it's not unusual that something will just cook up to the surface. Do you, you ever see those eight balls where you shake them up, you ask it a question, shake it up, and you turn it upside and there's nothing there, and then all of a sudden an answer floats to the top? It's kind of like that. Um, and, and I've had guys call me 45 minutes later. I'll be sitting at home. Not unusual. guy calls me and says, Bob, I forgot to tell you about the sheep. Oh. <laughs> yep. We're going to want you to send a check to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals every month for a while and for your amends. No, I... Well, I, I, or you may, it could be something really crazy. We, we, stuff that's horrifying to us, we'll bury it very deeply. Uh, I, I had a guy call me up one time and he said, I forgot to tell you that I, I, I stole some money from where I work. I said, really? I said, how much? He said, uh, $450,000. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd, I'd forget that too, I think. <laughs> yeah, you're, your your ego's right ahead and knows about step eight and nine. I'd forget that one also, I think. Uh, all I can say to it is, is, oh, we're going to have some fun. <laughs> so, uh, um, it, it, the book says, the top of 76, if we can answer to our satisfaction all those questions on the bottom of 75, the mortar's in place. Uh, the first five steps are good. Not, not perfect. We're not talking perfect here. We're talking, is there anything left undone that I could do right now? So can I see anything that I could do? And if you go, no, I, I may not be perfect, but it's, I did the best I could. Good. Then you've, you've answered to your satisfaction. We then look at step six. We've emphasized willingness as being indispensable. And here is the question. Are you now ready? Ready's a big word. Are you now ready to let God remove from you all, I hate that word, all, the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Can He now take them all, every one? The, my capacity uh, for self-delusion is astonishing. I, I, I convinced myself that I was ready to, have, to let go of things that I wasn't really ready to let go of. In truth, um, I was ready to have God take away the consequences. But I wanted to hold on to the attitudes and the behaviors and the thing, and the, what these things really are are defective defense mechanisms that I've used to protect self and my ego for years. For years. And, and at one time, uh, possibly some of them worked. At one time, there was a, Maybe my anger did, and my rage did save me from getting in trouble and it backed somebody off. Maybe when I was a little kid, having a temper tantrum got my way with my parents. In your 20s, temper tantrums don't work anymore. And yet I'm still the guy ranting and raving and kicking stuff around when I don't get my way. Maybe... uh 
maybe at one time in my life, got being a gossip and tearing other people down gave me an illusion of being a little better than I was or of being okay. It's sort of that dumbwaiter effect. You know, I'll pull you down and maybe I come up, right? And maybe at one time... um there was that that might have got, I might have done some something or gave me the illusion it was I was a little better, but now years later it's just making me more and more alone. And and I you know what ha- you know what happens to every single one of us. This is an we it's so funny I go through my whole life caught in this cause and effect and I can't see it. That and the cause and effect is what. My action, I always end up unconsciously feeling about myself the way I would feel about someone else that was doing what I'm doing. So if I'm, I'm a gossip and I'm tearing down people, what happens is I end up feeling about myself the way I'd feel about someone who does that to everybody. And, you know, I never liked that in people. And, and I think it, it's as if the, the, my ego thinks it can escape the cause and effect. It's like my, my ego appreciates the laws of cause and effect. It just thinks it's above them. And it's like the speed limit. I think the speed limit's a good, good idea. I mean, it's really, that's important. But I'm in a hurry. You know, the handicapped parking, that's important. There are people who really need to get in those spaces. But I'm only going to be a minute. I think I'm a, the ego thinks it, it loves rules for, for others. <laughs> it just doesn't love them for me. And, and that's an immature consciousness that, that I'm so self-centered. I can't even see the cause and effect in my life. And then I wonder why I'm depressed. I wonder why I'm a depressive because I'm doing stuff that depresses me. I mean, I, I'm, why do, why do I have all this self-pity and self-loathing and I beat myself up? Because I'm acting like someone I'd like to beat the crap out of is what I am. It's, it's right. I, internally, I'm acting like the guy I don't like. Uh, so it's, it's an inescapable cause and effect. If, if someone would have done to my mother and father what I did to my mother and father, I think I would have killed them. Is it any wonder I was so self-destructive? So we're we're trying to to become entirely ready, and this is more than consequences. The ego is willing to have the consequences removed. B- Bill Wilson, in his story. So I heard just heard someone say this, and I very rarely ever hear people in AA mention this. But I was just in a meeting one night here, and I can't remember who some woman said. I can't now. I can't remember who it was. I was very impressed. She quoted the part from Bill's story, where he, where he says he asked his creator to take these things away, root and branch. Now, what does he mean by root? Like, is there two parts to a defect? I think so. I, I think there's the, the, the branch is the thing that's poking me in the eye, the thing that's the consequences, the thing that's obviously objectionable. But there's the root. And the root is that secret, illusional thing that provides value, security, comfort, or self-gratification or self-grandizement. 
And I want the branches to be taken, but I want to keep the root. But it is the root. And the problem is if you just keep cutting off the branches by making amends and you never change the root, it keeps growing back. Right? It keeps coming back. And, and that's why it's not unusual. You know, you're 10 years sober and you realize, I'm still doing stuff I did. I'm, I've changed the, the places and the faces, but it's kind of the same because the root hasn't changed. And this is this becoming entirely ready is is a big deal. I, I think I think the sixth step is really the story of my entire sobriety. One one of the guys I sponsor, he calls step six the Judas step. That means if you're ten years sober and something in your program has betrayed you, it's step six. You you think you did it and you haven't. I, I'm, I'm surprised how many times it, uh, I take guys, we go, they think they're some advanced step 10, 11, 12 program and how we have to come back to six, that there's some stuff here you're not entirely ready to have God remove. Um, you're not, you're not ready to give up yet. Because there's an illusion of value in them. Uh, and there's a lot of fear. My, my sponsor, he says, it's a great story. He says, you come to AA and you're beaten half to death by the bottle, so you throw the towel in. And then when you're a couple months sober, you have just enough self-esteem to be dangerous, you sneak the towel back. <laughs> and you'll spend the rest of your sobriety ripping off, when you have to, little pieces and throwing them into the abyss as, as like some kind of, uh, as you're, as you're tithing, you know. Uh, but nobody wants to throw the whole towel in. Uh, not once we get it back. And so how do how do guys like me become entirely ready? Well, in the twelve steps and twelve traditions, it, it sort of speculates. It asks that question: How come God never takes away any of all of our de- any for anyone all of our defects and renders us white as snow? And then it speculates. It says, "Isn't it possibly because we don't hit the same desperate bottom?" With, with lust, with anger, with judgment, with gossip, with all the other self-serving defense mechanisms that we had hit with alcohol. And alcohol really and truly was a defense mechanism in a sense. It secured me in the world. I, I gave, it was the, it gave me the power to live. It was a great thing when it worked. So I don't hit the same bottoms with uh, these defects. So what do you do? Well, there's a prayer here. I didn't see this prayer. When I, when I was a little over four years, between four and five years sober and I was going back through the steps, I, I skipped the six step prayer and I said the seven step prayer. I didn't see it because there wasn't anything in the margin with a big neon arrow that said prayer and I didn't see it. But it, it says if we still, the bottom, the, the last line in the first paragraph, if we still cling to something, we will not let go. If you're still continuing the same behavior and maybe you've altered it a little bit trying to control and enjoy your, your deal. I think what happens to some of us is we, we just, we get smart. We think we're smart. So I, I want to continue this, but I'm going to do it a little bit different. I, I'm not going to drink the vodka. I'm going to stick to rum with a little bit of amphetamine so I don't black out. This will work good. This is going to be good. This is going to be good. This is going to, 
you know, and you just, right, control and enjoy your sobriety. Uh, so, uh, we ask, we ask God to help us to be willing. I, I didn't say that prayer, and here's what happened to me from the time I was five years sober to, uh, well, it went, continued for a while, actually. I thought it was my job to rid myself of my character defects. I started willfully attacking them because I want to be good. I want I want to be able to go to the me it's it's I want to go to the meeting rights and have the I want to go to the meetings and have the bragging rights of having a guy who's spirit I want to be the guy who's spiritual but still be squirmy underneath you know that kind of thing. I want to uh, I want the reputation um but I don't want to change. I want the relief from not having the consequences, but I don't want to change. And I had a lot of tough, tough years. I, I discovered there's a line uh, later on in the book where it talks about a, a cause and effect. And it says it's, it's, it's referring to drinking. But I believe in my experience, the same thing's true of defects of character. It says that if we if we try to willfully do this stuff, what happens is we end up with a bigger explosion than ever. It's almost as if whatever I suppress gains torque. And it's like I'll be good for a while until I just kind of outgood myself or something. I you know, it's like a, it's like a slingshot effect. I'll go the other way because so, I put torque on it. It it's in what you become the reformed whatever. You know, you were the, you were the person who had all these terrible relationships. You were a serial monogamist, or you were you slept with a lot of people. And okay, never going to do that again. And now you go around and you're judging. You're the, the the intolerant, judgmental person of everyone else's sexual behavior. You're just as hostage to it as when you were doing it. In the Tao, it says the chains that bind us most closely are the ones we think we've broken. Or the reformed smoker who's always going, you know, you know, that's killing you. It's killing everybody. <laughs> Jumping in people's faces. He's as hostage to the cigarettes as the guy who still says when he was when he was still smoking. That's not freedom. Freedom is inside and it's independent. So I became that. I, I one of the things, I have to give you one example. This stuff is devious. It's it's tri- it's tricky. I, I looked I, I looked I sat there and I looked over my resentment list after I did uh, the fifth step, and it was pathetic. Now I'm sober a number of years in Alcoholics Anonymous, and most of the resentments are people in AA, and they didn't do anything. They're just being the. I mean, you know, I built cases on people based on it's just all. A, childish a view of her, of life, really. And, and I just remember thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm so pathetically judgmental. And I, I didn't like it. Now that I'm looking at it, I don't feel any... Be- I, I don't like that. I don't like it in other people, and I don't like it in me. And I made a decision to willfully never, not be that way anymore. And almost instantaneously, I started noticing... The, 
the judgmental people in AA. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm judgment, I'm judging the judgmental, which makes me exactly like them. It's just kind of, isn't that funny how it's just kind of, the, the ego's need to puff itself up by looking down on people, it just kind of, it didn't, it just took a different form. That's all. It just took a different form. I've sponsored guys that have had uh, terrible sex problems and they go from pornography and then, okay, I can't ever do that again. Then they go to hookers. And, oh, yeah, I can't hit a bottom on that. Can't do that anymore. I'll go to, you know, it's just, it's, it's changing deck chairs on the Titanic, you know, because that's not freedom. That's self. That's will. That's the will. God really has to do this. And, and, he, and the thing is, the reason that I have to be entirely ready is that it's a partnership. There's an old adage that without Him, I can't. I don't have the power. But without me, He won't. And it's, it's, it's I have to be willing and He provides the power. It's a partnership in this stuff. He will not, because He's first gifted me with free will, He won't take anything away from me that I'm holding on to. And I have to be honest and genuine about myself, about what I'm holding on to. If you're, if, if you in your mind think I'm really ready to, to, to get rid of this, and three years later you're still doing it, you better relook at how ready you really are. Right? Um, because the other other way to go is to blame God. Well, God, gee, God didn't like me, and He took it. You know, I don't believe that. I think the problem in the machine is always within me. And and it's a, there's a humanness about this. I mean, not I, I. One of the things that's such a saving grace for me that I don't have to go hang myself is what Bill wrote. In, in chapter 5, when he said, no one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. And that gives me the breathing room to be as flawed as I am. And to know, uh, to know that, you know, oh my God, Bob, you're 33 and a half years sober and you're still self-centered. Yes, I know. <laughs> I, I, people come up to me sometimes as, as if they're going to give me information that's new. They'll say, do you know you're self-centered? You just figured that out? I mean, I'm... God. <laughs> and isn't it funny how we start to wear who we are like a loose garment? It's a, it's a tattered sometimes loose garment. It's not a perfect loose garment. But it is our loose garment. One, one of the beautiful things that happens to, to most of us in AA is you get to a point where you, truthfully, you're not perfect. And you know, and you know there's some areas that would be really very cool if they would change. You'd like to be less selfish and more considerate. And you'd like to be a better listener. And you'd like to, you know, on and on and on and on. There's, you see all these areas where you could like to improve. But at the same time, in the imperfection, there's a very comfort because you really like who you are. Not perfect, but but I like who I am. Um, and that's that's kind of cool. And that's that's something that will allow you to put your head on the pillow at night and sleep. That's something that allows you to get up in the morning and feel free to walk through the day and Respond to life. 
That's the freedom I found in the bottle. And it's the freedom you can find in Alcoholics Anonymous. I saw a TV show when I was a little kid that really exemplified step six. And it was brilliant. It was, there was a, you may not, you probably didn't get this show here. Maybe you did, I don't know. It was called Rescue Eight. I don't know if you guys, it was put out by Universal Studios and it was a, a weekly half hour television show and it was about these two paramedics that worked out of a firehouse and they would go out on distress calls, people that were in trouble and they'd help those people. And, and this one particular episode, these two paramedics get to this site and there's this little cute little girl in distress and her arm is wedged into a vending machine and they try to get it out and it just is, it's hurting her. She's, it's really stuck in there and it's stuck. You can't get her out. And, and she's crying hysterically and her mother and father are there and they're very upset. And, um, the fire trucks start pulling up and off of the fire trucks, they're pulling like torches, gas torch, like acetylene torches and, and saws and stuff. And it's, flipping this little girl out. I mean, she's she's really getting scared now. And the one paramedic's just watching all this, and he's watching the little girl. He go, walks over and he kneels down next to her, so they're eyeball to eyeball, and he says to her, he says, Sweetheart, do you got something in your hand? She so goes, Uh-huh. What do you got in your hand? Uh, candy bar? Would you let go? No, it's my candy bar. It's my candy bar. It's my candy bar. I'm not, it's my candy bar. She, woo. He just realizes she, she ain't having none of it. He backs away. And he comes back a minute later and kneels down to her. He says, sweetheart, I'll make you promise. She said, what? If you'll let go of that candy bar, I'll get you two candy bars. She says, really? He says, I promise you, really? And because she trusts him, she lets go of the candy bar and her arm slides out of the vending machine. What is your candy bar? You're no, you don't hold on to destructive, objectionable behavior because you're obstruction, because you're destructive. There's a secret value or, or gratification or, or an illusion of, of, of illusion of self-grandizement or security in the behavior. And that's why I hang on to that stuff. Because maybe one time it worked. But when I can see the truth, and, and this is what happens to guys like me when I say this prayer, and I ask God to help me to be willing, is that I start to wake up. And sometimes waking up, to behavior and what this really means and waking up to and seeing through the delusion that this isn't helping. This is, this is making me more alone. This is making me more depressed. This is not enhancing my life. Even though you had a delusion that it was, you start to, you start to wake up to the cause and effect. It's like I went through a period, um, right after my first divorce from 11 years sober to probably 15 years sober. Where I, uh, I, I dated a lot of people. I was like a serial monogamist, and I, you know, I had all the trappings while I'm being honest, and all I told everybody I don't really want a relationship, you know, a bunch of crap. Uh, uh, 
Because self-gratification self, self through using another person, it, it's, it's what it's like. Do you guys know what Disneyland is? Disneyland in Orlando, Florida. If you were to go there on the 4th of July, which is the big summer holiday at Disneyland, and you went there to ride one of the most popular rides, say Space Mountain, on the 4th of July, first of all, it's, it's probably your equivalent of 40 degrees centigrade. It's probably a hundred, over a hundred degrees. The humidity in Orlando is about a hundred percent. I mean, it's brutal. You're in a steam room. Right? You're in line for four or five hours with 5,000 kids that have overdosed on sugar. <laughs> You're there for four or five hours. You think you are in hell. There are times in the line where you just think, I should just kill myself. <laughs> And you do all of that for 30 seconds of excitement on the ride. Now, self-gratification is the mirror image. We're going to give you the 30 seconds up front, and you're going to feel like crap for a long time. And the problem is, people like us don't see past the 30 seconds of fun. Right? We don't see... We, we, we have this major insanity. This The book talks about it in, re, in reference... To our drinking, it says it's a queer mental blank spot. It, it, it says insanity is, it, it, I love the definition, it says insanity is a complete lack of proportion and an inability to think straight. I can't see the consequences. All I can see is the fun. Right? And if you say this prayer, what, ha- what here's what happened to me. I just started waking up to some stuff. I started realizing this is, I started recoiling from certain things is from a hot flame because I don't just see the fun, I see the aftermath. I mean, I get it. I mean, I get it. I get that this is like paying money to feel bad. I get it that this is like going down a road that the end end of that road is nothing but depression. I get it. You know, you start seeing the cause and effect. Um... And that can be true from anything from gambling to sex to, to anger to gossip to um, anything that a guy like me will do to puff myself up. To, to fill up the, the, the squirmy little dark vacant spots in my life. And does it work? Isn't that the bottom line? Does it work? The, the great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is AA would never even propose to ask you to even consider giving something up that's really good. We're asking you to give up stuff that's defective. If this really did enhance you and fill your vacancies and make you closer to being complete and more loving and more, if it really enhanced your life, it would never show up on a fourth and fifth step. It would never show up. These are not the things that complete you. And we're cutting away everything that, that everything that, de- that decimates you is being cut away. Every, we're cutting away all the corruption, 
all everything that's that really and truly is not you anyway. You know, Michelangelo was asked one time how he did his great sculptures, the David, and there's I, some a very nice guy gave me a book of I love Michelangelo, and his response was brilliant. He says, I don't know. I just take a block of this white marble and I cut away everything that's not David. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is. What you're left with is, to your surprise, is what was been you all along. And one of my great friends used to, he died a few years ago, Don Pritz, used to say that we, the alcoholic is like a magnet that's drugged through the junkyard of life. We pick up all this crap that's not us anyway. It's not us. And we have it, and we, but we think it's, we're so scared because of all the crap. We think it is us. We hang on to this stuff. It's not us. It's not us. Never was. So God has His way with us. You ask Him to be willing, buckle in. Because stuff's going to start happening. You're going to start waking up this stuff. You keep this as a legitimate piece of business and things will change. And, it, and you can measure your willingness by how much of a piece of business your defects are with God. I, I, can, I can sit here, and this will sound bizarre, but I can guarantee you that if, you, if you're like me, and you put as much time and energy into with with AA and your sponsor and the steps and God and you make it as big a piece of business your this defective character that you're struggling with as you had with drinking when you got sober I'm telling you you'll get free of it but most of us don't want to don't want to bring it up to that level we don't want to take it to that level I I, I I've come I'll tell you I have this tremendous, I, I am, I have some areas in my life, I, the truth is I'm not quite ready to, I don't want to get too pure yet. I mean, someday you'll be able to touch the hem of my garment, but not yet, not yet. <laughs> and, and so, but, but there's, I, that's okay. And, and the, 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 in the, in the alkalogic, the, the discomfort from some of that stuff, it, it seems it's minimal and I, I can live with, it's not that big a deal to me. Um, but I know because I've experienced it. If if this gets if these things start to really bug me, if I make it a persistent piece of spiritual business every day with God, it'll go. Because I did I had I did it with gambling. I did it with the stock market where I I tell you I I got I hadn't placed a bet in 25 years and I retired and I had several million dollars to play around with and I I, I thought. This is the this is the voice of my enemy. It said to me, "Well, you should invest some of that in the market." Another little voice said, "Bob, but you know, Bob, you don't gamble. You can't gamble." Well, it's not gambling; it's investing. Well, it started out like that. You know, six months later, I'm on the computer six eight hours a day trading stocks. I got a million and a half on margin, which will make you crazy as you watch your portfolio jump a half million dollars a day up and down. Wee hoo! And I could. And here's the here's the the frightening thing. I was so addicted to it, I couldn't stop. I knew I should. I get it. This is making me sick. I had a guy sponsor bust me. Oh, it was it was humiliating. 
I'm, he calls me up and I got the phone. And I'm, I'm like, Trish, uh, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. He's telling me about something that's very important to him. And he says to me, and all of a sudden he stops and he goes, what's that noise? He said, You're, that's the keyboard, isn't it? I said, no, I, I, well, yeah, I'm just, I was looking at something while we're talking. He says, you're trading stocks, aren't you? Uh, well, yeah, a little bit, but I'm, I'm listening. He says, what did I just say? Oh, oh, I just, I had egg all over my face. It was horrible. It was, oh my God, I was just so ashamed of myself. I thought, oh my God, what have I become here? Right after that, I started asking God every morning, please take this from me. Take this from me. It took six months. Six months of having a conversation with God at least once a day and talking to my sponsor and telling him, i got to get free of this. He says, just keep praying about it. Keep praying about it. Six months. I'll tell you, it was amazing. I got up one morning and all my... It was like when I quit smoking. I woke up one day and you just know something's happened. I walked right over to the computer and I sold everything in my portfolio. Everything in my just... I don't even care if it's up, down. I, I sold it all. And it happened to be a day the market was up exceptionally, which was very... I would have sold it if it was down. Honest to God, I was ready. I, I really wanted to... I, honest to God, really, truly. I was done. I, you, I could feel it. It was like the day I quit... The day I had my, uh, I woke up, I had been asking God for six months maybe for, to, for the desire not to smoke. And I woke up one morning and I remember telling God, I said, I'm, I'm not going to have that first cigarette. I, I ain't quitting because I ain't going to do that to myself. But I don't really feel like the first one. And I thanked him. I said, thank you. And I haven't had a cigarette since. Uh, see, the power really is there. I, I think some of us don't go at it because we don't. Our God's too small. You, you, you believe the fear that you, you believe that I can't, and, and the truth is, you're right. I, I, some I, I often think my feelings of inadequacy are just good judgment because I can't. But there is a power. There is one who has all power. What a, what an amazing sense of security. To know that that power's there and that power loves me. And the only thing that will ever be in the way of my accessing it will be me. And I will be in the way. And I'll be in the way a lot. Doesn't make me a bad guy. God doesn't not, did not love me for it or anything. It's just, I, I get in the way. And what a, what a tremendous security to know that that's there. It, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like being Sent into a into a schoolyard where you're afraid of getting in fights with with the kids there, and right standing and right, right behind you at all times is Mike Tyson, and just whispering in your ear, one of those kids touches you, I'm cleaning his clock. You could walk around that schoolyard thinking, <laughs> you know, you wouldn't be afraid of nothing. I got the Creator of the universe. He's got my back. That's beautiful. That's, that's, it allows me to jump out in life. It allows me to take risks. It allows me to, to step out. Very much like alcohol used to allow me to do things. You know, it gave me a freedom. 
freedom to take risks. When you're when you're like me and, and you go through life and a lot of your life you're locked up in fear, you it's robs you from everything, doesn't it? It robs you from love, relationships. Well, what if it doesn't work? Who cares? Take a shot. Business opportunities. Well, what if it doesn't work? You'll learn something. It gives you it gives you a freedom that's a remarkable. Knowing that un, even if you that there is no failure, there's only next. There's no failure. There's just next. Right? It's beautiful. So we get to the seven step prayer. Let's say this, and then I think it'll be time for a break. Yeah. Yes. Okay. If you want to say this with me. My Creator, I am now willing that You should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that You now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to You and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do Your bidding. Amen. That is the first Amen in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Starting on page 63 was a prayer with no amen. And then throughout the whole fourth step is one prayer right after. If, if you were to follow the timeline in the big book, you're never very far away from you're, you're It's almost like you never really, really stop praying. You're carrying God right through this thing as you ask Him. And every part of the fourth step, there's a prayer. And this is the, the, the amen and one of the guys I sponsor, he tells a story. He said that most of you know. He said that in, when you make the decision in step three, it's like the old adage that there are three frogs sitting on a log. One of them makes a decision to jump in the water. How many are on the log? And the un, some new guys will go, well, two. And the old timer goes, no, 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 no. You, you silly thing, you. Still three because he only made the decision. Well, my, my, my sponsee Sheldon says, if you really became entirely ready and did step seven, that's where you hear the splash. That's where you hear the splash. What a beautiful prayer. I, I, I couldn't, I, I, sometimes I'm, Bill Wilson amazes me that he, he's, he's, a, he's an egomaniac like we all are. He's self-centered like we all are. And yet he has brilliant, insights into selflessness that run contrary to the alcoholic mind and they had to have come from God. Because I, I would have never written a prayer like this. I don't think most of you wouldn't. I mean, listen to this. Take away every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness. I wouldn't have said that. I would have said stands in the way of me being rich and famous or, or everybody realizing how what amazing guy Bob is or... Or that's at least, at the very least, wouldn't you say it stands in the way of my happiness? But the inspiration of, of God through Bill Wilson when he wrote this book, it was outside of him. That I'm asking to, to take away the things that stand in the way of my usefulness. And the, here's the beauty of that. I have known happiness. It is fleeting. Usefulness will carry you through. There's a, a usefulness 
will, will give you a feeling inside of you that you can walk the streets with where you know there's a rightness about you and a rightness about life because you're in usefulness, you're fulfilling the purpose you've been divinely created, created for. And that's to help other people. I would have, I, I would rather have, I would rather feel useful than happy because it's more concrete. You can walk with usefulness. Happiness is just comes and goes like a, like a butterfly. Let's take a break. I'm Bob, an alcoholic. I have a friend who says, when they speak in AA, they say, I'm here to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Uh, I'll tell you a little story before we're going to... I want to lighten this up because we're getting into a very heavy part of the program. Um, Step 8 and 9. A few years ago, I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous convention in Mississippi. Now, I don't know if you you realize this, but we have what we call the Bible Belt in alcohol in, in the U.S., right? And the town I was in is about where the, it buckles. Uh, and the nice people. I mean, really and truly nice people. And this couple picks me up at the airport and they're taking me to the hotel where the, where I'm going to be staying for the weekend. And, and they're a, they're what, what is known as a, they're Southern, Southern Baptists. Now there's Baptists, there's Southern Baptists, and there's Southern Southern Baptists. Now the Southern Southern Baptists can see the sins of the Southern Baptists and the regular Baptists. Right? These, these are Southern Southern Baptists. So uh, they take me to the hotel. We get to the hotel and <clears throat> I'm checking in. They're standing there with me. Couple, nice couple. And I, they were very nice to me. And there's a sign on the hotel registration desk that that says. Adult X-rated movies available in the rooms, and I could—I'm checking it out, and I know that this this couple is watch looking at the sign with this angst. So there's a bit of me that's like a people pleaser kind of, you know, I want to score points with people, right? So I, I watching them looking at the sign, and I call the manager over. Excuse me, sir, sir, sir. He says, what's the trouble? I said, I want all of the pornography in my hotel room to be disabled. And he said, disabled? You sicko, we only have regular pornography in this hotel. (laughs) Yep. Um, So, now we're approaching... What terrified me the most? The only really thing that scared me, to almost to the point of at times feeling so overwhelmed, I wanted to bolt out of Alcoholics Anonymous. The eighth to ninth step. Uh, and it's odd because I understand intellectually the significance of it. It's just it's too big. I... You know, I could I could listen to you tell your stories about amends, and I, you know, I, I thought, yeah, of course, if I was you, I could probably make the amends. But you don't understand. I live like an animal on the streets. I mean, I 
I stole as a way of life. I mean, I, re- I just every single there wasn't a day that went by that I didn't steal. I, I mean, if it, I, I, it was all petty stuff. I, I was the kind of guy at the at the pub that I'd be drinking and I'd run out of money. So when you went to the bathroom, I'd steal your change off the bar and drink your drink and move to a different part of the bar. And I'd get caught sometimes. And it was very embarrassing. Uh, or I, I, if you, I went down the street and your car was unlocked and there was something in there to steal, I would just take it. It's not personal. I need the medicine, right? I'm just down, I'm not working. I'm down and out, living on the streets. And there's a way of life. I, I, I can't tell you how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of packs of cigarettes I'd stolen. Uh, I supported my cigarette habit, basically. I did this thing twice a day at minimum. Where I'd walk into a gas station or a bar or a restaurant where they had a cigarette machine. And I'm, I'm unruly looking. I have hair down to about here that's kind of messed up and a long, unkept beard. I think I've fancy myself a ZZ top tryout or something, I don't know. And, and, I, and I, would, I, didn't, I was not the kind of person you wanted in your establishment. And so I'd go up to the cigarette machine and I'd pretend to put change in the machine and then go crazy and bang on the This machine ripped me until the manager would come out, open the machine up and give me a pack of cigarettes to get rid of me. Now, I did that twice a day. Now, I get sober and I go to meetings and people are talking about a man's. Remember one guy sitting in a meeting one time, and, and a guy said, and you have to pay back all the money. I remember sitting there going, are you kidding me? Oh, I started do, do, trying to do the math in my head. All the places I worked where I stole stuff. I, uh, not even counting the money, the thousands and thousands of dollars that my parents and, and people at law. Oh, I started doing the math and I thought, oh my God. It, it, if, if I got a good job, a good job, and I worked for 50 years and used all the money I made, I don't think I could pay it all back. It was, it was overwhelming to me. And I almost bolted. And I often would sit in meetings and feel like I was the only one that was like that here. The only one that was overwhelmed. Because nobody else looked like they were struggling with this stuff like I was. And the fear was on me. And this has been a condition uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous since the very beginning. In in a sense, AA was actually founded on one man's eighth step. Mother's Day weekend, 1935, a, a guy who was sober five months went to Akron on on his on a on a hope. He had, hadn't turned a tap, hadn't worked and made a dime for a long time. He was in trouble financially. And his wife, was, who'd been a debutante, came from a very wealthy, well-off family, was working uh, in, a, in a department store for very, very little money, just trying to keep food on the table and keep the lights on. And he, was, he hadn't made any money, and he felt guilty, and he went there to Akron and it was his big chance, uh, this proxy fight, that if he, if, they, if they went the way they'd hoped, that he was going to be set back on his feet financially. And the wheels came off. And it came off so bad that he, he 
ended up in this hotel lobby of the Mayflower Hotel, and I've stood in that hotel. I actually chaired a meeting in that hotel lobby not too long ago. It brought tears to my eyes as we read the part of the book where Bill's pacing in the lobby. And he's all alone. There's no sponsor. There's no one sober anywhere in the world. There's no one who believes what he believes except him. There's no book. There's nobody to call. There's no, there's no guidance here. There's nothing. Um, there's just a belief that came from a spiritual awakening that he had in Towns Hospital. And it's, I, I want to get off a little sidetrack. Most people think that, that the spiritual awakening that Bill had in the hospital was when he had his white light experience and the, and the, the wind from a halt. He says, I don't think that's it. Let's see if I can read this. Uh, after, after Bill had the epiphany experience, the, the, what was often touted as his spiritual experience in town hospital, something else happened to him that changed the world. A little minor thing he talks about in his story. And we are here as a result of it. See, people, the reason I believe this is that people for alcoholics of our type, if you ever read William James, have been having these kind of epiphany experiences for, for centuries and drinking again. And something will happen. And here Bill says, this is after his spiritual, supposed spiritual experience. He said, while I lay in the hospital, the thought came. Came from where? The thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what has been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They in turn might work with others. And an idea was implanted in Bill Wilson, uh, an idea that would change the world. See these epiphany experiences that alcoholics have, they're like, they're like hot coals, they're like embers. If you don't fan them by action, they never burst into flame. And Bill got into action the day he got out of Towns Hospital. The day, here's a guy, this is, uh, December 16th, 1934, a man checks out of a hospital and starts doing 12-step work. Um, most, most, uh, there's AA groups around the country won't let you do that. Oh, no, you got to be a year sober. Well, I, I'm sure glad they didn't tell Bill Wilson that. None of us would be here. And he believed, he something woke up inside of him and it was a desire. Almost, at one time, Bill referred to it as the magnificent obsession. The desire to help others. And here he is in this Akron hotel lobby and his, the wheels have come off his life. And he's scared and he, he, he even, he's, he's even thinking about drinking. He's watching and listening to the sounds flowing out of the, the cocktail lounge in that hotel lobby. And he's all alone and there's, there's laughter in there. There's none in him. And the, he remembered his commitment. And instead of going into the bar, he went to a, a phone. And he started calling people. And through a bizarre set of circumstances, when he was just almost out of change, uh, he, he got to the, this 
Reverend Tonks, who knew of a woman named Heber, um, Henrietta Cyberling, and when and he heard the Cyberling name, he kind of cringed a little bit because the Cyberlings were were heirs to this the rubber uh, tire uh, corporation. They were the people that owned the, all the the big deal that he was there and just lost out on was was a, from a company that was connected with the Cyberlings, and he. You know, he had all the inter- all the fear that you know maybe they know that what happened about the the proxy fight. I don't know, and he not the cyberlings, and, but he called Henrietta, and Henrietta was was amazed because she had this friend who was a a washed up proctologist who finally came out. Everybody else knew he was a drunk, except but he thought nobody knew, and he finally came out and admitted to everybody he was a drunk, and they all prayed for him. And, and and they prayed for help for Dr. Bob Smith. And, and all of a sudden, they, Henrietta gets a telephone call. And a guy on the other end says, I'm a rum hound from New York City. And I, I'm here because I need to talk to another alcoholic. And she thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And she said, wow, I'll call you right back. And she calls the Smith residence and and her and Ann, Bill, Dr. Bob's wife, are very close friends. And she says, Ann, our prayers have been answered. There's a guy from New York who's here who can help Bob. I know it. I know God sent him. And, and Ann said, well, that may be the case. But Bob can't see him right now. He's taking a nap under the dining room table. Um, uh, you gotta love a guy like that, don't you? I mean, I do. I mean, I'm a napper, you know. I don't. I'm a napper. I just drink and nap. I mean, I, yeah. So they made arrangements for the next day, and um, Smitty, Doctor Bob's son, drove them there with with Ann and Bob in the back, and Bob doesn't want to go. Oh my god! But he just ruined Mother's Day. I mean, you know, he just he was drunk on Mother. Oh, he came home with a pot. It, 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 I love the way they say it. He says, hey, Bob came home on Mother's Day with a potted plant, and he was potted as well. And um, and he was guilty. And when you're guilty, you'll 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 buckle under and do stuff you don't do. And he, but he, Smitty, his son, sat stayed at my house for a week and and just told us the story on several occasions. How you drove his dad, and he could hear his dad in the back seat saying to Ann, "Please don't, don't make me stay in there and listen to that Yankee talk about my drinking more. Fifteen minutes—that's all I can take. Fifteen minutes, please." And he meets Doctor Bob meets Bill Wilson, and they go into the library, little t- not a very big room at the Cyberling Gatehouse, and um, it was hours later. Bob didn't want to come out. Bob had never, Bob had been talked to about his drinking. He'd been prayed over. He'd been, oh my God. He'd, he'd taken various pledges and swore to himself he'd never drink. And, but he went in there and to his amazement, Bill Wilson never once mentioned Dr. Bob's drinking. Never talked about it at all. Bill Wilson had to unload the truth about Bill Wilson's drinking. And Dr. Bob sat there as some of us have sat in early AA meetings. And for the first time in your life, you're starting to make that connection. You're sitting there and you're nodding your head. And it's, it's, it's a refreshing in, in the dank 
darkness of alcoholism, it is a refreshing light. And uh, he came out with his arm around Bill, and he said to Ann, and he said to his son Smitty, he said, this guy knows what he's talking about. And he said, Did, he said, Bill, why don't you come and stay at our house? And Bill didn't have enough money to pay his hotel bill, so I'm sure he said, well, you know, if you insist, I... And he went over and he stayed at Ardmore House for se- the street on Ar- the house on Ardmore Street for several um, months. And uh, Doctor Bob, they sat there and they talked about spiritual principles and they talked about conversion. They talked about helping others and prayer and meditation. And Bill interject- tried to interject this part about amends. And Bob would dig, dig his, dug his heels in, and he said, "Oh, jeez, I'm not do. I can't do that, Bill. I'm, I'll do everything else. I'm not doing that. I've already damaged my reputation as a doctor in this community. Let's just let bygones be bygones, and I'll do everything else." And he, Bob wanted to go to a medical convention, an AMA convention in Atlantic City, and uh, went, and he didn't even get there. He never did attend the convention. He got so drunk on the train. And he stayed drunk. That kind of drunk that I do. Where you pass out, come to, drink, pass out, come to, drink, pass out, come. You know, and you do that for several days. And he doesn't even, he's in in and out of a blackout. He's almost comatose by the time. By the time he gets on the train to come back to Akron, when they get to Akron Station, they cannot wake him. He's so out of it. He's almost like in a, an alcoholic coma. And I've been that guy. Where you can't even wake me up. I'm just so so anesthetized by alcohol. that the, the conductor didn't know what to do, so they just carried him and they set him on the platform, the Akron station, and station master called his office secretary who came down there as she had come to rescue him on other occasions. And they eventually got him back to the house on Ardmore Street, put him to bed. He was a mess. It was a mess. He came to very early in the morning on what at one time was believed to be June 10th, 1935. Now historians are starting to think it might have actually been June 17th. But regardless, he came to sick, shaken, wanting to jump out of his skin as I come to after a long round-the-clock drunk for many days. Nerves are shot, full of remorse, self-loathing. And he says, what day is it? And they tell him, and he goes, oh my God, no, it can't, no. I'm scheduled to do a surgery this morning. And his hands are shaking like this. and He's a mess. And Bill, Bill didn't know what to do. He can't cancel. No, the guy that's been, we've been putting, no, we have to do this surgery. It's important. It's, it's urgent. So Bill takes him over to to uh, St. Thomas Hospital, and they, um, or, or some, we're not sure if it was St. Thomas Hospital, it might have been Akron City Hospital. They took him over to the hospital, wherever the surgery was to be, and Bill didn't know what to do, so Bill gave him a sedative and, a, and two bottles of beer, just to try to calm his nerves enough that he could actually go in there and perform the surgery. Imagine being the patient. <laughs> Laying, laying on the gurney, here comes your surgeon, reeking of beer with his hands shaking. Oh my God. We should build a statue of that guy somewhere. I mean, you know, jeez. All it's, we don't know what happened to the patient. I, I know two historians, 
that went and searched the records at Akron City Hospital and St. Thomas Hospital trying to find more information about this guy so they could track him down and, and, and or try to find out what happened to him. All it says in the book is that he lived. But no, and we don't know if he whistled when he walked or not. We don't know. And Dr. Bob was a proctologist, so you can just imagine what, all kinds of possibility. But the guy lived. And Dr. Bob had finished. It was a quick surgery, evidently, just a little uh, cancer surgery they had to remove. And, and he um, got out of that surgery. He was done early in the morning, still in the morning. And he disappeared. And Bill and his wife Ann uh, assumed that he went on a drunk, as I would have assumed. I mean, you, get, you had to give the guy a beer to steady his nerves. And, um, and he never came back that morning or that afternoon. His son told us that it was probably, he thought it might have been close to midnight when his dad came home. And he walked into the house, and he hadn't been drinking as everyone had feared. And he looked different. Something had happened to him. And they discovered that he'd been out searching out every person he was afraid to face. And one man finally became willing to go to any lengths. You know, there's a, when it says any lengths, there, that's what they're referring to. It's twice talked about in the section on step eight and nine. It, it's been, it's been misinterpreted over the years. And you go to some meetings, discussion meetings, you bring up the subject of willing to go to any lengths. You'll, you'll, you'll get a different view of it today. It's out of treatment centers. Now it, it starts to look like, well, it means to try not to drink and go to meetings. It was originally meant, are you willing to really, really do this? Are you willing to go out and face all the people, pay the money back? Are you willing to do all of that? I think, you know, Father Ed Dowling says that he, thunk, he thinks uh, step six separates the men from the boys. And I understand what he's talking about, but I think this one does really. This is where we get to see. Are you really willing to go? Or is it just fantasy? Are you willing to really push yourself aside to serve a way of life and a set of principles greater than you? Tough, tough stuff. Tough stuff. Dr. Bob did. He never took another drink again the rest of his natural life. He lived another 15 years. In those 15 years, Alcoholics Anonymous was cemented in place. In those 15 years, the estimates are that Dr. Bob personally helped over 5,000 alcoholics who helped alcoholics who helped alcoholics and instilled in them the ethic of helping alcoholics. And I would dare to say that in some form or other, we are all here indirectly as a result of Dr. Bob Smith in one way or another. As a result of one man's finally willing to walk through the fear. And and that was pretty much the situation I was in in 1978. And I had fell into the hands of people who, they, they weren't a, they weren't big book technicians by any means, but they were very big on amends, and they were very big on service, and they, the prayer, going to meetings, service, and pay the money back, face the people you don't want to face. And they started encouraging me to do this stuff, and it was, I didn't want to do it. I was afraid. 
but I did it. And it's okay to be afraid. It's even okay not to want to do it as long as you do it. It doesn't matter as long as you do it. There was a, a man who died a few years ago, Frank Honeycutt, and Frank was was such an amazing member of AA. He said something that I've carried all ever since. He said that Alcoholics Anonymous is not for those who need it. And we all kind of get that. I mean, I bet you everybody in this room knows someone who's drinking themselves to death who needs AA, but they're, they're not here. And he, Frank said something that was even more interesting. He said it's not even for those who want it. And I've thought about that over the years, and I've watched it. That's really true. If, if you were to come and visit me in Las Vegas, I go to a detox down on Skid Row twice a week. And this is the place you'll see the people who had been, who had the nice houses at one time, and now they're living on Skid Row. This is the place where the people with the 10 years sober that drink again end up. And outside the detox, there's this old oak tree. It's, it's about maybe four feet in diameter. It's a big old tree, and it used to have uh, these big rocks around the base of it that somebody put to make, and they were painted white, and it kind of looked nice to have rocks around the, the, the base of the tree. Um, and men and women would sit and lay against that tree because the, the detox is full, and there's no beds. And they would lay there and have seizures and they're, and go into convulsions and die. And there's been several people who have died. We, we, I eventually started calling it the dying tree. And when, when I go to the meetings in the detox and I see someone sitting against the tree, now they've taken the rocks out of there because there were, there was a guy who actually went into a convulsion and, and split his skull up open on the rocks and died. I'll go and I'll, I'll talk to these men and women sometimes and they're very, they're very pathetic and they're shaking and they're coming apart at the seams. And I've, I've seen men and women sobbing tears of sincerity tell me how much they want this and they never get sober because Frank said it's not for those who need it and it's not for those who want it. It's only for those who do it. And they don't do it. And we're big at that. We're, I'm big at... It's the line in the book that says, if you want what we have... Now, if it stopped there, it'd be great. Because, oh yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take two. I'll take two, yes. <laughs> but it could, And then it follows it up and says, and are willing to... <laughs> and are willing to go to any lengths to get it. Well, let's not overcorrect. I mean... <laughs> And they're a package. You can't have you can't have what we have unless you do what we do. And, by, and you can sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous with uh, untreated alcoholism for decades until you eventually drink again or or get so depressed you have to go to a doctor or as some people do commit suicide. And it's tragic. And the only thing the only difference between those of us that survive ourselves here. And, 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 and that eventually get free and have some reasonable comfort and happiness, not perfect, but reasonable, I mean, get really a pretty good life is not what we feel or not what we think or not what we, it's only what we do. It's only the actions that I take. And I am so grateful that it's designed that way because one of my great fears is, 
is that I was, I had to become good to get this. And I'm too stained to get it if that's the case. Um, all I had to do was do what you do. And, and I started, they started walking me through the fears of some amends. When I was brand new, I hadn't even done a fourth step yet, and they got me making amends. They had me turn myself into the, the courts back east, and it was a horrifying thing. I, we talked about that yesterday. And, and I tell you, when you join a home group and you get a sponsor, it's like you're opening the door. You're giving people in AA spiritual consent to butt into your business. And you don't even know you're doing it, but let me tell you, they butt into your business. They start asking you questions, uncomfortable questions. Like, so, where, where are your mother and father? Oh, they're back east. Oh, we talked to them lately. We don't talk at all. Oh, so you haven't made amends to them yet. Uh, it's not like that. It's just, I've heard, I've done a lot of stuff to them and they won't have anything to do with me and it's just the way it is. Oh, so, so I think you should start making amends to your parents. You don't understand. It's too late for that. Uh, maybe a couple years ago before I sold my, the, the silver that was my mother, the only thing she had left of her mother, before I pawned that, maybe before I, I smashed the chair over the kitchen counter, swinging it at my dad's head because he confronted me about something, and and I put that terror in him where he wasn't even comfortable around his. He was scared of his own son. Maybe before I'd embarrassed him as much as I did. Maybe then I could have made amends, but it's too late now. They've made it very clear that I, I'm not. They're not going to take my phone calls. I'm not welcome in their house. They don't want to have anything to do with me. And the, you know the people in AA, it, it's like they nod their head and smile and listen, and they didn't hear a word you said. They didn't hear anything. He said, well, that's nice. Well, here's what we want you to do. I just told you there's nothing to do. He said, no, we, we want you to start calling your mother every week. You don't, you don't understand. They won't take the calls. And you know what this guy said to me? It blew my mind. He said, don't call collect. That never would, I would have never occurred to me. I, I always called my mother collect and they'd always hang up. No, I'm not taking the charges. And I call them from jail. You know, collect, reverse the charges. They'd hang up. I remember the first time I ever called my mother and, and I pay in for the call. She answers the phone and the minute she hears my voice, you can hear the disdain and the fear, the, the adamacy. What do you want? And then, then she, there's a panic that creeps into her voice, and she goes, "Oh, you're, you're not back in Pennsylvania again, are you?" I said, "No, Mom, I'm in Nevada." Well, you're in Nevada. Well, the operator didn't ask me to pay for the call. I said, "No, Mom, I paid for the call." Her voice like broke and shot up an octave. She went, "You, you paid for the call?" <laughs> she couldn't believe it. Uh, isn't that funny? Self-centered people like me, would that, those kind of things never occurred. Little simple things in life never occurred to me. Too self-centered. And she did not, it was not a homecoming. She was very, wanted to get off the phone really quickly. And people in AA said, call her every week. Started calling her every week. They said, I want you to send her little notes, little, little cards and stuff in the mail. And they, they were very adamant about this. You must never miss one of their birthdays. Their anniversaries, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, 
you got to send them a little gift. Well, I don't have any money. You're, you're gonna, if you can afford cigarettes, you can afford a gift for your mother and your father. I remember the first Christmas. I, I'm working minimum wage. It was pathetic. I, I didn't know what to get him. I, so I, I got my dad a necktie. I think it was like six or eight dollars. Some cheap little necktie. Nothing necktie. It was pathetic. I don't want to send this to him. My God, I'm so far behind with my father. If I bought him a brand new Bentley, it wouldn't scratch the surface of how far behind I am with my dad. You know what I'm saying? I mean, a, a neck, this pathetic little necktie. People in AA, they don't listen to you. They just one, they one way, just, wow, good, that's, he'll like that. And I was like, all right. I sent it to my dad and it lit him up for a moment. And then the wall came back down. Of course it did. I used to get my feelings hurt because they're not opening their arms to me. Listen, listen to me. With what I put my parents through for all those years, if they would have welcomed me back into their life, there would have been something wrong with their mental health. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they shouldn't have welcomed me back. I broke their hearts over and over and over. I mean, this we're not talking once or twice. We're talking years of this to the point where they physically cut me out of their life, and I found out through my sister that I guess they couldn't completely cut me out of their heart because my mother had to see a therapist and take medication. And my father slept 15 hours a day. And I did that to them. They became recluses, hostages in their own home as a result of me. They had once had a tremendous social life. They they were They had a lot of friends, and they would have go to parties and all kinds. And the last several years, they just stayed home because they just were worn out answering the questions about me. Because everybody would ask, I hear hear Rob's in jail. I hear he's in another treatment. They just got tired of it. And so they became hostages to my bad behavior. And they became recluses and they lived a lonely, depressing life. And I was the catalyst of all of that. And I don't think there's an amends that could be made to them. And people in AA kept persisting. And after, it took a year of weekly actions and sending them gifts and cards and the telephone calls. A year. And they're still kind of holding me at arm's length. But when I was about a year sober, they decided to come out to Las Vegas and eyeball me. Because they, they don't think I'm, they think I'm conning them. They're very skeptical about what I'm telling them on the phone and in the cards and stuff. But they came out not, not for a family reunion. They came out with this attitude, well, we'll go and see. But I, I, he's probably still a bum who's trying to hustle us, trying to get back into the will, trying to whatever. But you know, even if he is a bum still, we've never been to Las Vegas. It will not be a complete loss. And they flew out to Las Vegas, and I met him at the airport. I took him out to dinner uh, with my sponsor and his wife, uh, his, past, his wife had passed away many years ago, wonderful woman. And uh, my, my sponsor said, he made a great suggestion. He said, uh, why don't you invite him to your home group? And my home group was an amazing group. It, was, it met in people's homes. And there were some members of the group that were very successful. So they had these huge houses, and there'd be like 60 people in a living room, you know. 
And, and they had people would come an hour before the meeting started. They'd socialize. There was a lot of camaraderie. And, and they had birthday cakes. Every week they had a cake. And, and, and it was great. And in my home group, I got to take my parents there. And they got to watch me and see me with you. And, you know, my sponsor knew this. I didn't know this. That I've never, ever been better than I am when I'm with you. They saw the, they saw the results of Alcoholics Anonymous in the interaction in my home group because it was like one of those kind of groups where there was a bunch of old timers and they laughed a lot and they picked on the newer people. I don't know if it is that way in AA where you come from, but it's like oh you know the newer person's having problems oh and they just think it's funnier than hell oh they just <laughs> oh lost your job did you oh this is going to be good you're going to help people with that one. Oh. <laughs> Gambled away your paycheck. Oh, getting this surrender, just beautiful. I mean, just, you know, they'd say crazy things to and, uh, and then they got to see me. I ran with a pack of guys that were all sober within about six months of each other. And we did a lot of service together. We all, we seemed like this pack of guys, and all of them stayed sober. Well, all the ones that continued to do it stayed sober. And we'd go to, you know, we'd go to two meetings a day. We'd do, we'd go to the detox. We'd go looking for newcomers. I mean, we were like Nazi 12 steppers. I mean, we'd go, you know, we're going to drag people into our home group, you know, that didn't want to be there. And, uh, but they got to see me running with the guys I ran. And then there were new, there were some new guys there. There was actually a guy there that I was trying to sponsor. And, and I was picking on him and making fun of him because AA functions on the first rule of plumbing. The crap runs downhill, right? <laughs> I, I remember uh, watching my mother and father in the meeting and, and watching them laugh. It's it stuff that we were laughing at. Uh, certain things that they, they didn't get. There were certain... We have a we have a bizarre kind of humor in AA where we laugh at stuff that normal some normal people go. <sighs> you you peed on the Christmas tree and you think that's funny? No, oh, but we think stuff like that's funny, right? But so some of the stuff, some of the humor they didn't get, but but they got some of it. And I remember watching my mother. There was someone in the meeting that was very emotionally moved because they had just they had just gotten their kids back. And I remember my, my mother leaned over to my dad, grabbed his hand and said, this is really good. And I don't know that they ever understood AA, but they felt something here. Before they left to go back to Pennsylvania, I was instructed to make my list of all the money and stuff I owed my dad. And oh, it was overwhelming. I, and I was supposed to come up with a payment plan and present it to him for, to see if he'd accept it. And it was going to be 12 and a half years of payments to make this right. When you're a year sober, 12 and a half years is a lifetime. It was unbelievable. And I, I wanted to do it. I didn't, I, you know, I wanted to pay him back, but I kind of wanted to do it by like hitting the lottery or something. You know what I mean? And then I'd, I could be the big grant. I'd come in on a limo and give him a check or something, you know. Like, <laughs> But the people in AA said, you sold your integrity a nickel and a dime at a time, and you'll buy it back a nickel and a dime at a time. You'll make the payments. You'll get more from the payment than the grandiose gesture. 
And I, I sat down with my parents in the coffee shop of the hotel they were staying at Stardust and presented my plan to them about the 12 and a half years of payments and asked my dad if there's other stuff that I don't know about that I can't remember, tell me. My dad uh, looked at me and, and said to me, he said, Robbie, we don't want you to pay back the money. We're, we are delighted that you seem to be on the right track. This is the first time in years that we really had any hope that maybe you were going to be okay. We just want you to keep doing this thing you're doing and just stay sober. And if you do that, forget about the money. Oh, man, I remember. I couldn't believe it. I just, I just hit the recovery lottery. I mean, I just got out of 12 and a half years of payments. That's like a free house or something. I mean, it was amazing to me. And I was so excited. I was, I was on my way. I left the Stardust and I was on my way to my sponsor's office to tell him the good news, man. I don't have to pay. This is amazing. And, and on the way over there, I'm, I'm thinking about other people I owe money to. I wonder if I could get them to see the light <laughs> like, like my dad did. And I walk into his office and I'm, I'm on this cl- pink cloud. This is amazing. And I told him, my dad said I don't have to pay him. And you know what he says to me? He says, it doesn't matter what your dad said. That's your debt. You've got to make that right. You know, there are just times you know you got the wrong sponsor. I mean, it's just... <laughs> I said, what are you talking you don't understand. He won't take the payments. How am I going to pay him? And you know what he said? He says this to this day. He's an old guy. I'm taking him with, I'm going to take him to the Hawaii conference in November. He's a dear man. He says, he's been saying this since I've been sober. He says, I don't know, but a way will be shown. I don't know, but a way will be shown. <laughs> What the hell does that mean? I don't know, you know. The way will be shown. What way? I mean, if I send my dad a little check, he ain't even going to cash it. You know, what, what are you talking about? And he was right. Now, I'm working as a, running a cash register for not much more than minimum wage in a, in a retail store. And it's the, it's the 19, late 1970s. My dad had a hobby. My dad used to collect... Um, all, the United States, all the coins were made of solid silver up until 1964. And then from 64 to uh, 69, they were made partially silver, certain coins. And then they cut it off. There was no silver. There's been no silver in a, in a U.S. coin since. And my dad collected those. And he also collected the old, the, the war nickels that were partially silver. And he collected the silver certificates and the gold certificates. And and in, 19, in 1978, 1979, there was a lot of that stuff still in circulation. And I'm running a cash register. It comes through the register every day. Every day. And I thought, oh, this would be very cool. I could Maybe I'll talk to my boss and I'll see if I can buy this stuff out of the register. And I'll put it aside thinking that, you know, one day I would have a nice little gift for my father. This would be very cool. Never, the thought never crossed my mind that I was going to pay the debt with this. That would be ludicrous. And I, I talked to my boss and he said, sure. And there's, there's something that happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. It is, it is the essence of God's grace. And it's a principle that Carl Jung first coined. It's called synchronicity. And what synchronicity is, is a picture of a universe that is the most loving, an accommodating universe you could ever imagine. 
that from the moment of commitment to doing the right thing, even though it may be impossible, the universe will start shifting subtly and incrementally to make the impossible of an eventuality. And we see that time and time and time again in Alcoholics Anonymous. Look at all the times you'll, you'll sit, if you sit meetings, you go to meetings for a couple of years, you'll see evidence of this time and again. You'll see people who have had their kids taken away from them. And they'll never get, they'll never see their kids. And all of a sudden they got their kids. You'll see people who have been in the mental health system for so long and on meds for so long that they're more, they're, they're, there's no light anymore in them. And you'll see them, they're, all of a sudden they're free of everything, two years sober, and they're laughing, they're sponsoring guys, and they're making fun of people, and they're having a good time. I mean, how does that happen? The best efforts of psychiatry and medicine couldn't help that guy. How does that happen? It would take a freaking miracle. And yet it happens. And the universe started massaging life itself to accommodate my efforts to do the right thing. It wouldn't do it to, to gratify, for me to gratify myself or do for me, but to do for others, you bet. And I, I found myself in no time at all, as I'm accumulating, I have, I'm starting to have bags of silver quarters and half dollars and silver dollars and dimes and war nickels. And I had a shoebox that filled up with some hundred dollar gold certificates. I had some of those. I had, my boss had to hold them for me for a month till I could get the money to buy them. And I started getting raises and bonuses and I started making more and more money. And there was a guy in AA who was a friend of mine who had a moving truck and he would, he and we were good friends. He would schedule his moving furniture around my times off or the, when I wasn't working and he'd give me, so I could make an extra hundred bucks a couple times a week helping him move furniture. And it was amazing. At four, a little over four years, I had accumulated at face value the total 12 and a half year debt. That shouldn't have happened. But God accelerated the process. It's almost, it, it, I've watched this a thousand times in people. When you start self-sacrificing and paying people back, it's like you get lucky. It's like you become a magnet for good stuff. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, just an unavoidable cause and effect. Does that mean you're going to get rich? Not necessarily. Does it mean that everything you need is going to happen? I believe so. Isn't that the covenant in step three and the third step promises? It says having a new employer, God, being all powerful, he'll provide what you need if you can do two things. Keep close to him and perform his work well. It won't, it won't, you, the power won't be there for you to be self-serving. But when you're trying to do the right thing, the power shows up. It's amazing. And I, at a little over four years sober, I went with the, the, the woman I was dating at the time was who was eventually be the uh, mother of my daughter. And we drove back to Pennsylvania with a back seat full of boxes and bags of coins and stuff. And I gave it to my dad. And now I want you to know that when I gave that to my father, I had made a lot of amends to him verbally, and we were pretty good. I mean, he'd forgiven me. I mean, he loved, I knew he loved me. There's no doubt. I mean, you know, we, we, we started to have a kind of pretty good relationship. Uh, I knew that I, he knew that I loved him, and it was, it was pretty good. 
But there was still something missing. And, and to this day, I don't know how much of this was in him and how much of it was in me. But there was still a little bit of something between us that I couldn't put my finger on. And it it appeared to me in my perception, and I, I, I'm suspect of my, my perception, but here's what it looked like to me. It looked like he loved me, but I was, I'm, I'm, I'm Bob. You know Bob. Our daughter went to a great university. Bob's in a 12-step program. I'm, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm like special bus Bob. You know what I mean? I, now, now, he never said that. But I always felt like he didn't, like he loved me, but it wasn't really like a respect thing. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, I'm, I'm, you gotta make allowances for Bob. You know, that kind of thing. That's the way it felt to me. And when I gave him that, 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 that money, it blew his mind. He never expected it. And I think that was the day I became a man in my father's eyes. And the, sh- the whole relationship shifted and, and I don't know how much of that was within me and how much of it that was within him. I don't know. But I tell you, in my experience, it changed and it became very sweet and we became very close. And I, I'm sad to tell you that I only had another year after that with my father and he died. And I was able to fly back to Pennsylvania and bury him. And, and we were even. There were no ghosts. See, I know about ghosts. I know about what happened after I got sober, the ghosts of the things I did to my grandfather who had already died before I got sober. You know, the things that haunt you, the little emptinesses that haunt you, the the, the, the thoughts that I wish I would have never done that, or I wish I would have told him how sorry I was, or I wish I would have made that right, or I wish I would have... I never even thanked him for the things he did for me as a kid. I... I don't even know that I ever told him I loved him. I know about those ghosts. And oddly enough, uh, there's a, a thing in the book where it, it talks about how to deal with the people that have died. It says some people can't be seen. So we write them an honest letter. And I've gone to the grave sites with my, with, in my own, I've gone to my family's grave sites. I, first I wrote the letter and took it in the desert. And then later, years later, I went to the grave sites and my family members and, had that talk, cried those tears. I've, I've taken people that I sponsor, I've sat with them in graveyards as they made a, amends to children that had died because of their neglect. Uh, parents that they had been at odds with. Brothers and sisters that had passed. Husbands and wives. And, and the spirit of my father is very much alive within me. And it's sweet. Uh, There have been times in my sobriety where I felt His presence. I know that sounds kind of voodoo-y, but I'll tell you, I felt it. When my daughter was born, uh, in the delivery room, I felt Him in there. When I sold, uh, ten years ago, I, I, I got tired of my business and I sold it and when I got the first uh, seven-figure check, I, I, I swear I could hear his voice say, Rob, you done good. And, and that is something I will carry to my grave, a joy and a gratitude. 
towards Alcoholics Anonymous for what you've given me and how you led me back to what to really to the restoration that I've always yearned for. See, all the years I was estranged from my parents, I it hurt me. It broke my heart. Because, you know, some people had terrible parents that they could, that they were alcoholic and they were abused and stuff. And, and I understand that. But I could never, I wish, I could never hang that on them. I always knew that they were good people and they loved me. I tried, I tried to blame them for stuff. I tried to pick them apart. You know how we do. You know, you try, you look for the stare at them until you find the faults. And, but the truth was I always knew that they were really good people and they loved me. And it broke my heart to be that strange from them. I'll tell you about one more amends. Um, I think the hardest amends we ever have to make are for things we do in our sobriety. You know, for the, for the stuff you do when you're drinking, you can kind of... There's, a, there's an unconscious self-exoneration where you say, you kind of tell yourself, well, I was drunk. For, you know, I wasn't sober. I mean, you know, I was messed up. Hey, I was messed up, you know. But what, you can't say that when you do stuff sober. Selfish, dishonest. When you, when you become a liar, a cheat, and a thief sober, well, it's hard. And I was working, as I said earlier, I was working as a cashier in a retail store, and and I had a, a horrid uh, a tobacco addiction back in those days. I was I would smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. I, I would I was the guy I'd light a cigarette off a cigarette often. I mean I smoked a lot, and back in those days you could smoke everywhere. Oh, I remember I remember being in AA meetings. By the end of the meeting, you couldn't even see the people in the back of the room. I mean. <laughs> I mean, about once a year, they have to repaint the walls white because they've become yellow and brown. I mean, that's how bad. But you get you get you get a hundred people in a room like this, so, and they just to try crazy things like say, "Now, would you please cut down on your cigarettes smoking in the room? It's too heavy." The minute they'd say that, everyone in the room would light one up. It was like, "Oh, I better get one in," you know. <laughs> and I had a terrible cigarette habit. And uh, I went to work one day. It was a Thursday, and I'm and I'm broke. You know, I live paycheck to paycheck m- many weeks, and I don't get paid till Friday. And I'm out of cigarettes. I ran out of cigarettes. Well, one of the things we sold in the store was cigarettes. So I thought to myself, and that's usually the way I do it. I thought to myself, well, I'll take a pack of those cigarettes. And then tomorrow when I get my paycheck, I'll cash the check out of the bank like we usually do, and I'll ring it up. I'll, it's reasonable. I'm not stealing anything. I'm just deferring the paying for it till tomorrow. That's all. And I took that pack of cigarettes. I smoked it. I went home that night, came to work the next morning, and cashed my paycheck. And, and part of me, the good part of me, says, Bob, you, you ring that up. And there was immediately another voice. This is the voice of my enemy. But it's a seductive voice, isn't it? And it starts saying things to me like, you know, you come, you come to work early and you stay late, Bob. You work harder than everybody else here. It's only a pack of cigarettes, for God's sakes. Don't be stupid. It's just a, 
I mean, everybody does some of this. It's Hey, it's probably factored into the cost of operation. And I never rang the cigarettes up, and I opened a door that I could not close. And I started supporting my three-pack-a-day habit by stealing cigarettes from where I worked. And my ability to sweep things under the rug is amazing. I'm doing this for months and months and then and stealing occasionally a six pack of Diet Coke and I'm doing it daily and 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 turning a blind eye to it. You know? Nothing wrong here. But in the in the realm of the spirit, there's a there's a bizarre cause and effect that happens to us. You do some stuff over here that's selfish and dishonest, and you the, the results don't immediately break out over there sometimes. Sometimes they break out over there and over there and over there. And I started having problems in different areas of my life that I don't connect to this fact I'm stealing every day. One of the things that started happening to me is, is I don't want to go to meetings anymore. It, it, here's, this is so bizarre. It appeared to me, now that I go to meetings, everybody that's sharing is a hypocrite. They're phony. You know, they talk about, oh, ah, they're not really like it. And I don't, what I found out later in hindsight that I was projecting my own belief and my own phoniness onto you. Because I'm going to meetings with a facade, living the double life as if I'm this honest, upright member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm a liar, a cheat, and a thief. I was in a relationship. I started to tear her apart. And eventually it came full circle back to, I'm leaving Alcoholics Anonymous. One judgment at a time. And my spirit's getting sick. I had been, I, one of the things we sold in the store that I worked in was alcohol. And what had happened to me was, was, uh, Exactly what it talks about in the book. I had been placed in a position of neutrality. Selling cases of beer and bottles of wine, it's like selling shoes. It had no pull, no pull at me. But now after I'm stealing for a while, it's starting to, they're starting to, to get, they're starting to become interesting. I remember a guy came in one time, some, some wacko guy who's stoned, he comes in, he says, he says, you got it in, didn't you? I said, what's that? He said, Jägermeister. I don't even know what Jägermeister is. He says, oh, give me a bottle of that. I said, oh, what's this? He said, oh, my God, it's like alcohol and cocaine and opium all put together. This stuff is amazing. And I went, really? And I went home thinking about Jägermeister. I had been working in that place for for a long time, and it never did that to me. But my spirit's starting to get sick again. And now it's starting to look like medicine. It's starting to look like relief to me. Right? Because I'm sick in here. But I don't know I'm sick. And that's the frightening part, is I can get that sick and not know I'm sick. I'm I'm on my way to another drink. And I don't even know it. And I don't even know it. And I got, after months of this, I'm getting wackier and wackier. And I'm, I'm on my way out. And I'm scared. And I get down on my knees one night in this little apartment and I just, I'm thanking, I'm doing this rote routine that means nothing because you say the same prayer over and over again every day, it means nothing after a while. And the routine is thanking, well, thank you for my day of sobriety and I go to bed. And I'm on my 
knees saying, thank you for the day. And I just yelled out. I said, God, what the hell's going on here? And the minute I asked the question, deep down in my innermost self, I knew what was going It was like the veil lifted, and all of a sudden I'm looking at myself stealing those cigarettes every day. And I knew. I didn't want to know. I didn't, because... Because I know what I got to do, and I started figuring it out. And you think of three packs of cigarettes a day is not that much. You do that for the good part of a year, it adds, it's 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 horrendous. And I don't have the money to make it right. And I know what I got to do. I got to go to my boss, who is going to fire me instantaneously. I know it. I've watched him. He has zero tolerance for employee theft. I watched him physically throw a guy out one time who he caught stealing. Now I'm going to have to go get another. I'm, now I'm, I, if I had the money, then I could say, oh, I'm sorry, here's the money, and maybe he wouldn't fire me. I don't have the money. He's going to fire me. I'm going to have to go get another job, and then I'm going to have to make payments to him. And how am I going to get another job? This is I, I don't have a good resume to begin with. This is another blank, unexplained section. You know, we all, most alcoholics who get sober, what would you do for those three years? Oh, self-employed. Uh, I sold blood and dealt drugs and stole is what I really did. I, um, and I, I'm, I'm just humiliated. I, I, it was one of those places that all great spiritual growth comes from. One of those places where you can't stand yourself. You know what I mean? You just, oh, I couldn't stand it. And you know, here's the hardest part. The guy I have to go and talk to has heard me on on a couple occasions prattle on about my rigorous program of honesty. <sighs> oh, God, I want to shoot myself. I'll tell you something. What I learned from that, I have never mis... I, don't repre- I try not to misrepresent myself. And I don't trust anybody who tells me how honest they are. Most of the really sincerely honest people I know will tell you the truth about themselves that if you, if you scare them, if they get financially insecure enough, they're capable of stealing. They may have to come back and make amends, but they, they, they don't delude themselves that they've risen above these things. And, and I tried to, represent myself. Isn't it funny, from the moment I started stealing, I started to talk about my honesty more and more. And I went to this man who I knew was going to fire me, and I started telling him, and he got pissed at me. He started yelling at me. I really hurt him, because he had been very nice to me. He had given me a break. He gave me a job when nobody else would give me a job. I mean, he had been very good to me. He treated me very well. And then when he was done yelling at me, I, I, I'm sitting there and he says, so you, and you better pay back every dime of it. And I, I was like, I, I came out of a fog. I said, you mean I'm, I still have the job? He said, yeah, you still have the job, but you better not steal anymore. And I'll, oh, never, never again, never again. And pay back every dime of it. And I, I, I sat down and I figured out the amount. And here's what I did. I, some of you think this is silly, but it, I tell you, it worked for me. I, I sat down and I figured on paper, the best of my ability, how much it was. And then I added on another 10% 
and then added on another $50. And I'll tell you why. Because if I'm going to estimate how much I owe this guy and it's a, and I misjudge it, it's probably not going to be misjudged in, in his favor. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> I know I am. I remember in the old days, we'd, I'd, like three of us, we'd all chip our money and, get, and buy a pound of pot. I'll divide. <laughs> you know, you know why I'm going to divide, because I'll get, you know, and this is yours. <laughs> So I know that, 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 I know that, and besides, there was a part of me that I would rather risk overpaying it a little bit and be free than stand any possibility that it might, I might have been just below the amount. I've, I've worked with a lot of guys over the years, and, and they, they, they'll tell me things. Well, I don't know how much I stole. You know what I say to them? Yes, you do. No, I really don't. Oh, no, I'll tell you exactly how I can figure it out. Well, what, I said, just give me a ballpark. Well, sometime, somewhere between three and $7,000. Okay, here's how we'll find out. Is, seven, is it $7,000? Oh, no, no, it's not $7,000. Is it $6,500? No, no, it's not $6,500. Is it $6,000? No, I don't think it's $6,000. Is it 5500 Well... Okay, we're going to go back up to six. Pay him six. Because the ego will balk when you're, but when you're starting to think it's right, it's a probably a little bit less. Right? And, and I, I, I made those payments to this guy, and I'll tell you what happened. Sometimes you, you don't under, I don't see this stuff until hindsight. What happens in my life is amazing. I pay this guy back within 30 days of paying the last payment. I'm very happy working there now. I mean, I'm very, I, I remember thinking, I, I think I'd like to work here the rest of my life. This is I like the people. I like the boss. I like the other employees. I really liked it. I felt like, like this is my place to work. A guy came to me. I was not looking for a job. He came to me out of nowhere and offered me a job that was, was basically had a chance of making about twice as much money plus a chance for advancement from then. And I thought, oh my God, that's amazing. I went to my boss and he said, hey, you, you need to take that. That's, I can't help you. I can't give you that much yet. I'm, you know, this is, this is good for you. Take it. And I gave him the notice and I went to work at this other guy and I, and I never, I never, never took a ballpoint pen out of that place. I never stole nothing from him. And I gave him 10 cents every day for his nickel. Because my grand sponsor had taught me how to go to work. He said, you go to work for one reason and one reason only, and that's to help God's kids. You forget about yourself and you go there to be of service. And I started doing that and I, I became, I started running that place and I, which facilitated more and more raises and bonuses, which chipping away at all my other amends at the same time. I'm in a restaurant, a Denny's restaurant one night and my, my guy, my ex boss who I'd robbed stolen from and paid back, was sitting in there with his wife. And I, I went up and started talking to him. How you doing? He said, I'm a little down. I said, really? What happened? He said, did you hear I was trying to sell my store? I said, you know, I did hear that. I, how's that going? He said, it fell apart. The wheels came off. I was selling it to this guy for Korea, from Korea, and because we have slot machines in the stores and a liquor license is part of the deal, he had to go for this intensive investigation that you have to go for him for the gaming control board and the liquor control board people, and he said the guy couldn't pass. There was too much stuff in his past that they couldn't clear up. 
and so um, it fell apart. I got the guy ran the business into the ground. He ran it for six months, and they took away his conditional license, and they refused him the, the permanent license. And I got the back in my lap, and he said, "I'm a little down." He said, "I, I thought I was going to retire. I was burnt out." And I, um, I guess it's not in the cards. And I stood there and I had an out-of-body experience. As I heard myself say words to him, as I listened to myself say them, I was embarrassed. I heard myself say to him, oh man, would I like to buy your store. And the minute I said it, I was embarrassed because I don't have any money. I said, oh, but you know, I don't have any money. Just, just kidding. Just a thought, you know. And I was embarrassed. And he, he sat there for a minute and then he said to me, he said, what's your day off? And I told him, he said, Maybe down here we'll have lunch. And I walked into that Denny's. He was sitting in a booth. I can remember it like it was yesterday. And he had these folder with some papers sitting there. And I sat down and he started to make me an offer. An offer. He said, "If you come back and you'll run this business for me, I, uh, uh, if you can get the numbers up, you got to get it. You're going to have to work hard because it's doing very poorly." You're going to have to get it back into the profitable range like it was at one time. But if you can do that, out of that profit, you'll gain a piece of the business every year. And at the end of five years, it's yours. And you'll still have to pay me some payments for a while out of the business on inventory and fixtures, but it'll be yours. And I, I couldn't believe what he was saying to me. I'm a guy with no education. I, I got a resume that, that's pathetic. I get, you know, I'm a cashier. I sell blood. I did telemarketing. I mean, it's, I, I am not a rocket to stardom here. And, uh, I said, oh my God, I'd love to do that. And I gave my notice and I came to work there and I did what Chuck Chamberlain told me to do and I rolled up my sleeves and went to work and it was hard. I worked, uh, I worked probably 16 hours a day for a while. Um, and the build, the business started to grow. When I took that store over, it was grossing about 600,000 a year. Right before, there was a little time before I sold it where we, we never broke 10 million, but we were close. And by that time, I had bought in huge tracts of commercial property and I would built more buildings and more stores and owned them, owned the real estate. And, and I never looked back. And I sat, I was on my knees in a little apartment that was like $250 a month at a turning point in my life. And that I was either going to make this right and walk through the fear and make the self-sacrifice and do this, or I wasn't. The book says we stood at the turning point. We ask his protection and care with complete abandon. And I, I went down a road that changed my life. And I never thought that that would happen. I, I never, I, I didn't think in, oh, you know, if I make this amends, maybe I'll own this business someday. And, and never occurred to me never occurred to me. Um, I sold that business uh, it's been I guess 10 years now. And I've had I've had such an amazing life. When I sold it I realized I don't have to worry about money ever again. And and I thought to myself how do I want to spend the best years of my life ahead? And I thought Oh my God, God's given me everything my heart desires because all I've ever wanted to do was help people. And I thought to myself, from now on, I don't, I'm not going to do anything unless it lights me up. And my spirit is going to be the guide 
of how it, what this I'm only going to do things that make my spirit feel good. And one of the great things I love to do is work with newcomers, and and I I got the time and I, and I come and share my experience on on what Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. Uh, there was a man uh, two thousand years ago who had died, and he died young, and he died in prematurely, and it was it was sad. And his name was Lazarus. And a man came along and brought him back to life. And he was so astounded that he had another chance, and he was brought back to life. He said, "What do I do?" And he's just, he said, just go tell people what happened to you. And so we go in Alcoholics Anonymous, we go and we tell people what happened to us. We share our experience, our strength, and our hope. Sometimes it's useful. Sometimes it's not. Um, but that's what we do here. We, we, pay, we pay it forward. You can't pay it back, so you pay it forward. And I've, I've walked a lot of guys through a lot of ninth step. I'm, I'm, I've gotten very good helping guys with their ninth step. Um, there's always a way to make things right. You just may not see it. There's always a way. Fear and, and pride sometimes will block you from seeing what the, what the course of action to take. You know what we are. I mean, we're, the, we're those people that when, you, when we're presented with some of this stuff, we go, yeah, well, that's all well and good, but oh my God, what about me? What about me? I'm, I mean, I need the money more than they do. What about me? And, and this is really a program of self-forgetting, self-abandonment, and service. Um, I'll, I'll tell you one or two little stories. I have guys uh, often. I end up, I spon- end up sponsoring a lot of guys that are in trouble, and they're sober a long time, over twenty years, and they're in trouble, and they've never really done all this stuff. And and often guys will come to me and ask me to sponsor them that are in financial difficulty. And they don't understand why they're in financial difficulty because they've had good jobs and they've made a lot of money. And it seems like the more money they make, the broker they get. And they they come for me to, to me sometimes because I, I live this bigger than life kind of lifestyle. I have this huge house up on a hill that looks down over the city of Las Vegas and I and I, I drive nice cars. I mean, I just, I just got turned, I just had a 12 cylinder bi-turbo Mercedes. I turned it in for the 750 BMW. You know, and I, and I, 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 I fly all over the world. I do anything I want to do. So people they come and they think, he's going to show me some tricks <laughs> on, on how to become rich or something, right? It's not about that. It, it's not even close to being about that. And every single case of these guys that are sober 25 years, 20 years, that are in financial difficulties, it's all, we always without fail discover unmade amends. And they're either unmade because the people weren't chasing them and they think they got away with it. No, or maybe they're, un, they're they've hurt some people financially and nobody knows it was them except one person. And it's the worst person that could ever know. It's the person that can sabotage your life. It's you. You know. That's the problem. The worst person that could ever know what you did knows what you did. There's a word uh, that I, I didn't understand for years. It's the word's karma. I, I thought that the word karma was the way the universe would spank you for being bad. And it's not that at all. The literal translation of the word karma out of the Hindi into the English would translate as the word doing. 
In other words, you, you hurt some people over here and you never made it right and now your life's turned to crap over here. It is your doing. But you don't know it, do you? You don't, you don't, you can't see it. I can't see how subtly the stuff inside of me changes my angle of approach to life in such a way that I become a bad luck magnet. Rather than when I'm spiritually fit, I become a good luck magnet. That it's all cause and effect. It's all cause and effect. And I get to work with these guys and I get to watch what happens when they roll up their sleeves and do the self-sacrifice and start paying back these people and facing. I, I've walked, oh God, I've sat with guys. I have a grand sponsee that me and his sponsor, we sat out, we sat out in their truck and waited and, and he was sober a number of years and he went and he had mugged a woman and, and, and messed her up pretty good. I mean, he didn't mess her up physically, but emotionally he messed her up and robbed her for, for a hundred and some dollars. And, and he had to go make it right. And it had been years. And people don't forget. And he went up and he knocked on, we're waiting in the, we're, for support, we're waiting in the truck. He goes up and knocks on the door and nobody answers. And we're watching, he's knocking and nobody's answering. He finally turns around, he starts walking down the steps and there's a woman walking a dog who tur- stops right at the end of the walk and she's staring at him. And it's her. And she comes up to him and says, what do you want? And now, I, we can't hear the conversation, but all of a sudden she just backs up like this. He told her who he was. And he, he and he's reaching out and he's got two $100 bills in his hand. And he says, please take this. I've been, this has been killing me, what I did to you. And she, you could watch as he talked to her, you could watch her whole, now, I don't hear the words, but I'm watching the physiological change. Her, her started, her shoulders started to, to relax a little bit. And she's, intermittently would get a little more guarded and then relax a little bit. And she, he told us later that she, she started crying and she had to tell him, you don't know what you did to me. You ruined my life. I was, I've been scared ever since. I'm afraid sometimes I lock, I put double locks on all the doors and windows. And he kept saying, I'm so sorry I did that to you. And he got to make that right. And I've watched his life change around now. He's got a, his own business and he's doing very well. He's made a lot of other amends. He's got a wife and kids and, his life has changed dramatically. Um, none of this stuff's easy. On page 127 is a statement of cause and effect. It, it, in an essence, I guess it could be one of the promises of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's so there's hundreds of them in this book, and this is really not only has this been true for me, I have observed this as a truth and and watched dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people experience this. Uh, The very middle of the page, the fourth line down in the middle paragraph, although, although financial recovery is on the way for many of us, we found we could not place money first. For us, Now, check the cause and effect here. For us, material well-being always followed spiritual progress. It never preceded. 
What does that mean? It means if you do all the right thing, make your man's going to get rich? No. But it does promise what it says in step nine. That your fear of financial insecurity will leave you. I know, I, I have a friend who makes um, several million dollars every year. And he has no, he has zero material well-being. I don't know anybody, I don't think I've ever known anybody that worries more about money and is more insecure and has more fear in that area. I know, I know someone, I know other people that have meager jobs as like school teachers, things that don't pay very much. And they have a tremendous sense of well-being because they are right with God. They know God's got their back. They're right with the people in their life. And they have to worry about, they know they don't have to worry about anything and they don't worry about anything and they have material well-being. They don't anguish over money. And they don't make very much at all. And then there's people who make tons of money and anguish over every dime. See, there's a delusion that it talked about. This delusion that we can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if we only manage well. And I think that often exemplifies itself in this, this, this headset that if I get the outsides good enough, that I'll feel good. But some of us know very painfully that no matter how good you get it out here, if it ain't no good in here, it ain't no good. That's why why alcoholics will drink themselves to death or commit suicide in $5 million homes. You, you would think that abundance, if you put the abundance first and you you could... The, the illusion is that you can fill up the empty spaces in your life with acquisition of stuff. But it doesn't. It, it actually does a hideous thing that's the reverse. Because if nothing changes on the inside and you've created, you've willfully, forcefully created this tremendous, materially abundant life. You, you, the, the fantasy is that the abundance will make the vacancy seem smaller when in actuality against the backdrop of what a, should be a tremendously amazing life, the, the backdrop of the abundance makes the vacancy stand out in harsher and more stark relief. Because now what? You know, it's it's odd. I I was thinking. I was talking with some friends of mine in Vegas too long ago. We were talking about all the people we've seen commit suicide over the years, and or the and some of the people that we drank themselves to death, and it started after 20 years of sobriety. And when it their demise started at a moment when materially they had almost everything that they would have put on a checklist when they first got sober. They had it all. Well, my friend Frank, uh, at 23 and a half years sober, put the plastic bag over his head, took the hand filled with pills and put the plastic bag with a rubber band and, and took his own life. I mean, he had everything. He, he, had a, he was married to this gal, Whitney, who was a model. She was gorgeous. She adored him. He had this huge house. He had, he'd become the, the top painting contractor in the whole city of Las Vegas and he had contracts for all kinds of everything from hotels to I mean he making he was making probably half a million dollars or more a year he had a one of the most beautiful uh custom candy apple red harleys i've ever seen he had one, the first year corvette completely restored it was beautiful had a custom truck he had everything out here 
on the day he pulled the plug. He had, he, and, and I knew him when he got sober. He got sober. Everything he owned was, he came out of prison. Everything he owned was in a paper sack. It was a, an extra pair of socks and an extra pair of underwear. If he would have sat down on the day he came to Alcoholics Anonymous and made a checklist of everything he'd like to see happen in his life over the next 20 years, when he pulled the plug, he'd, he'd fulfilled the checklist. But he'd put money first. He put the material before the spiritual. And, and that's what that's like. It's like deciding to build a 30-story uh, office building and you're making the, the ground floor and the foundation out of plywood. It will never, the first windstorm in the building crumbles. We lay a foundation here on spiritual actions that sustain us the rest of our lives. So when it says uh, for us, material well-being always followed spiritual progress. It never precedes it. We, you can't put, you can't put the material first. But everyone I've ever known that put it, puts the spiritual first and helping others first and the amends first, I don't know anybody that's bought this way of life 100% and lives it. Lives this altruistic lifestyle that needs or seems to want for anything. Some doesn't, and that's true of people in all different stratas of financial success. It doesn't, because it's not contingent on money, it's contingent on the inside stuff. And all of them have one thing in common. They know that life is on their side. They know that God's taking care of them. And so consequently, the hook has been removed from the money. It's nice, but it's not medicine anymore. When the hook's still in place, money looks like medicine. Money looks like a fix. And it's not. Ain't nothing wrong with it. I'll tell you, there's an old comedian used to say, well, you can be happy with money. You can be happy without money. I, you know, I'll take the with. <laughs> but the truth is, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I went through some big uh, financial res- uh, reversals uh, in some of the investments I made because of the U.S. economy. And I never threw any of it. I, I had a one, there was one point, it, it went down so low, I'd lost about $20,000 a month in income. I mean, it was very, a very significant drop. I never missed a meal. I never, I never, I still was able to do pretty much anything I wanted to do. I never worried about it. I, I was living at one point there just, just paying my bills, but everything got paid. Everything got taken care of. And I knew that it was fine and God wants me to, whatever level God wants me to be at, hey, I'm good. I'm good. I know you're going to take care of me. I don't have to worry about nothing. What a freedom that is to trust God enough to know that. You know, the the, the desperateness inside of me is gone. Uh, there would have been a time when, if I would have lost anything materially, I would have been in anxiety for weeks over it, not be able to sleep. I didn't miss one night's sleep, not one. Let's take a break. For lunch. I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, Indulge me in a moment of silence and hope with a prayer. Lord, help me to set aside everything I think I know about you 
everything I think I know about myself, everything I think I know about others, and everything I think I know about my own recovery, all for a new experience in You, Lord, a new experience in myself, a new experience in other people, and a much-needed new experience with this program of recovery. Amen. Uh, God, you know, I could go on about the amends thing. There's just so much to talk about, but it's such an important thing. But we're running out of time. And so I want to move on to step 10 and 11 and 12, but, uh, the steps that have seemed to sustain me um, the last all these decades. Uh, page 84 starts the section on, on step 10. And this is right after the, the results of step 9, which is often referred to as the ninth step promises. Uh, which, you know, it's, it's odd to me that we, and I kind of understand it, the fellowship worldwide has adopted the ninth step promises as the promises. When in actuality, there's promises after every action step. And the promises to me in step 10 are, are really what I come here for. I know why we, we, we tout the ninth step promises because they could fit on a Hallmark card in a recovery bookstore. I mean, you know, a new freedom and a new happiness, you know, it's, it's all very flowery, very cool. But if I don't get the 10-step promises, I'm going to probably, with a new freedom and a new happiness, drink myself to death. Um, because it's the only the 10-step the promises that save me. But we're going to work into that. In the middle of the 84, it says, this is coming out of the 9-step promises. This thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue. Now, it's going to use this word continue over and over and over again on this page. And then the next page. We continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We have vigorously commenced this way of living as we've cleaned up the past. We've entered the world of the Spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch. Almost as if they're really trying to make a point here. And I think... I think unconsciously when I was new after I did my fifth step and had made some amends and everything, I, I think I unconsciously thought that step 10 said, continued to take personal inventory and if you were ever, but I know it's not going to happen, but if, if I ever was wrong, that I promptly admitted, but it's not going to happen. Uh, and what, what it says, it doesn't say, it says when, when wrong, which implies that buckle in, you're going to be wrong a lot. Um, and yet how I, I, I delude myself at times, uh, no problem here. And yet I've been selfish, I've been dishonest, I've been resentful. I mean, I, I'm not just resentful for no reason. People I resent sort of deserve it. Um, but I'm resentful just the same. And so I, it's when I, I have to continue to watch for this. For what? For the manifestations of self. That really has always been the root of my problem. When it, when it talks in chapter 5, I, I really get this. I've, I've, it has pained me over the years uh, that selfishness and self-centeredness really and truly is the root 
of all my problems um, in its manifestations, self squirming for the spotlight, squirming for more material stuff, squirming for more attention, squirming for more prestige, notoriety. Uh, it just always is doing that. So I have to continue to watch for this stuff. Uh, and I love this this line. It says, we've entered the world of the Spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. And for some of us, the first just soiree into any kind of other-centeredness or understanding of anyone and being ultimately effective started uh, in a combination of this fourth step when we started to look at these things from an entirely different angle. And I start to understand the people that I resented. I start to put myself in their place and I get it. I get, I see it now. Now I'm looking at it from their point of view. Okay, I get it. And it, it's, for me, it was the beginning of the first time I ever got unself-centered enough to even start to understand someone else, to look past myself, to get you. And consequently, uh, through step nine, became very effective with some, some people, and in step twelve, become very effective. And it says that we have entered the world of the spirit. What, what's that? I noticed something all my life. I didn't understand it. I resented it at times. But there seemed to be people growing up in the neighborhood, in school, and in different jobs and places I went, even in Alcoholics Anonymous. These people that life just works for. These people that everything they touch turns to gold. Everybody loves them. Everything works for them. It's just amazing. And then there's me who's battling, breaking my back here, and I don't gag, and they just easily come to them what I am fighting and struggling to get and cannot get. And I thought, and, and some of the people that had it all, it's just everything they turned, touched to, touched turned to gold. Everybody loved them. Everything worked well for them. Their relationships are great. Their business, everything's great for them. I'm smarter than them. And I'm, my life's crap. And they got all that. It seemed very unfair to me. And I didn't, I think what, I think what it was is that they were not born with an exaggerated sense of themselves as I was. In the, in the third step, it said, it says something interesting. It says, first of all, we had to quit playing God. Now, when I was newly sober, my sponsor used to nail me with that. I would come to him with these, you know, I'd save up like all these little petty resentments that I don't even think are resentments because I'm right. And I would come to him and I'd start laying them on him. Like, you know, the, 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 guy, in, the guy in the AA meetings that's selling Amway in the parking lot after the meeting. That ain't right. The guy who, who drank four cups, I counted him, four cups of coffee and didn't put any money in the basket. The 13 steppers, oh my, I had this, I got on this tirade about 13 steppers. My sponsor said, you're just jealous they're getting more action than you are, that's all. <laughs> don't, don't confuse me with the truth. Um, you know, by people at work that, that were, that were, weren't doing half of it, and they were getting notoriety and the boss patting them on the back, and I'm doing the hard work here. 
And I dumped this all on him, and he's always said the same thing. You've got to quit playing God. I think, I'm not playing God. I'm reporting accurate information here. I'm not, and I didn't see that I, I climbed up onto some throne of judgment. And I was judge, jury, and executioner in my mind. And the problem is I was the guy that was alone in that state of separation from them through my judgment, through playing God. And some people never do that. They hardly... You know, one of the, the things that... When it says in chapter 3 that we're bodily and mentally different from our fellows, you know, it's the, the, the bodily different thing is, is an apparency. I mean, you pick up a, we pick up a drink. It's, it sets something in motion. We can't get back in the cage. But I am also mentally different. But the great promise of Alcoholics Anonymous is when the spiritual malady is overcome, I will straighten out mentally and physically. So, contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition, I'm not nuts anymore. But I could be. I could be easily left unchecked for me just to sink into me and make me the center of the universe. Again, I get very weird quick. Quick. I am not cured of alcoholism. Um, very quick. And what, what seems to happen in alcohol, what, what I believe these people that everything worked for, they were just in the zone of God's world. But the alcoholics are not one with God's world. We're like, imagine, imagine all the alcoholics in the world are are ants on this giant tree trunk going down a river, and every single ant is imagining he's steering. Right? Come on, guys, lean this way. You know, I mean, we all think we're we all think we're doing something here, and normal people. Uh, aren't trying to run the universe. No, it's not that they don't have a way occasionally and they get disappointed. But the book says that something interesting. It says that we are extreme examples of self-will run riot, though we usually don't think so. So matter of fact, if you're sitting here going, I'm not an extreme example. You just qualified for it. And yet, I don't think so. But I am. My my daughter, uh, and I love to use her as an example, she's one of the most spiritually, emotionally, and mentally focused, right-on, balanced people I've ever met. I, I don't know how. She's my daughter. I don't know how that happened. I'm telling you, I have no idea. It's just God's mercy. I, my big fear when she was growing up is she'd end up like I was, and I don't. It would have broke my heart. She's a very well balanced person. She does not react to life the way I react to life. She is not an extreme example. That doesn't mean that she doesn't get sad. It doesn't mean that she doesn't get angry and her feelings hurt from time to time. She's just a, not an extreme example of it, as I will tend to be. A while back, she ended a relationship. And I'm her dad. We're very close. And I, I got together with her, and she was telling me about it. I said, oh, Kate, I'm so sorry. And I'm trying to be, trying to say daddy things to her. Like, you know, well, you got to kiss a lot of frogs before you find your prince. Or something. I'm, you know, I'm trying to say daddy stuff. You know, I don't know what daddies say, but I'm trying to be that guy. I'm trying, I love my daughter. I love her. I'm trying to comfort her. And she's, she's got a pretty good attitude. Well, 
I get together with her almost a week later and we're having dinner. And I said, so, so Kate, how's it going? She said, that's going good, Dad. I said, no, I mean with the, the relationship breakout. Oh, she said, Dad. I said, you know, it's, it's yeah, you, you know, you can't just got to move on with this stuff. I got to actually going to go out on a date this next week and somebody. And she said, you know, you can't hang on to that stuff. I said, move on. Okay, you couldn't have possibly got enough mileage out of that just yet. I mean, I would have been taking that to meetings. I've been writing about it. I've been calling. I'd be ruining my... My sponsor would have cauliflower ear from me calling him on the phone. But see, she's not prepared to drink of those of that emotional track as I drink of it alcoholically. She's not an extreme example. She just goes on with her life. She doesn't want to, she doesn't have this need to stare at what's wrong. You know, maybe as if, as if she's Superman with laser vision is going to dissolve it if I stare at it long enough. Um, she just goes on. And my daughter lives in, in the zone. There, there was a great, a famous uh, basketball game in the U.S. years ago. It made sort of part of a big piece of basketball history now. And it was it was when Michael Jordan was at his peak. Now, some of you guys might not know who he was. He was one of the best basketball players in the U.S. Well, probably one of the top of all times. And there was a game, and it's it's right down to like the last minute of the game or so, or even less, like seconds. And they're tied. And Jordan, at about four, three or four seconds before the buzzer, before the end of the game of a tie game, where they're going to have to go into over, I don't, whatever, I'm not sure what was going to happen, but he takes a desperate half, almost half court shot at the basket, and it swishes in. And the crowd went berserk. They're on their, they're on their feet screaming and cheering and, and going, just going nuts. And there's a, a, a famous scene of Jordan kind of lightly jogging down the, the court, looking at all these people screaming and cheering and yelling his name. And he just went like this. He just shrugged his shoulders. And later they said, what was that about? And he said, well, I don't know how I did that. And he said, well, how'd you do it? And he said something that was classic. He said, well, he said, sometimes you just get in the zone. And when you're in the zone, you can't miss. And I think the realm of the Spirit's the zone. Where you're not trying to run the universe, you're going with the flow. You're awake enough to see how your actions are affecting other people. You're, you're other-centered enough to be one with and useful. And, and the thing about being of service and being useful in life, there's a cause and effect here. that the, the, the world and the life itself and the universe will return to you good stuff in almost direct proportion to how much you're, how helpful you are to people. It's, the universe is a funny place. If you attack it and try to control it, it resists and pushes back. But if you try to serve it and help God's kids, it will push the love back at you too. It's almost in life, there's this funny thing that, that self-serving Alcoholics of my type who want to play God never get. They were not awake to the reality of of we. You will get what you give. 
Alcoholics Anonymous introduced me to that when I was early. I, I remember I, I'm going to meetings and I don't feel like I fit. You know how that feeling, like it seems like everybody in this AA group knows everybody and then there's me. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm the odd guy. I'm the guy that doesn't belong. I'm the guy that doesn't feel right here. And this old timer grabbed me. And he said, I got a job for you. And I was just delighted. He's even talking to me. I'm just anybody talking to me. I was just delighted. He said, I need you to do something. It's very important. I said, well, well yeah, what? He said, I, I want you to, to watch for the people that are brand new. And he said, I want, when you see somebody that you know is new, as new as you are or around the same time or less, I want you to go over to them and try to make them feel welcome. And he said, the reason we want you to do this is that it's, it's fresh with you. You know what it feels like to get sober. You just did. You know how uncomfortable it feels to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and feel like it's all of them and there's only you. And you will be the guy who can really let this, this new person know that there legitimately is someone here that knows how they feel. And you can try to make them feel welcome. And I started doing that. And I, honest to God, I have no idea if I ever made anybody feel more welcome in AA except me. I felt, well, I started feeling like this is my home here because I'm getting what I'm trying to give. And you get what you give in life. And that's why it's so important to, 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 to claim the primary purpose of helping other alcoholics in this altruistic movement. Because if you come to Alcoholics Anonymous and you stay locked into the taker's position and you remain a taker, you, oh, you, there's nothing to get here. I mean, all we got is alcoholism. That's all you're going to get is alcoholism because that's what we got. You're here, you can have mine. You can, I don't want it. <laughs> I mean, if you're a taker, you're going to get alcohol. But if you become a giver, the givers get it all here. Look around, look around your home, the groups you know, and look at the people that laugh a lot and smile a lot. And if they're chronic alcoholics as you are, chances are they're help, they're sponsoring people and they're doing service and they're helping people and they're showing up early and helping with it. They're giving in to the process and consequently they're getting from it. So I think that that's the realm of the spirit. It's a realm that's often free from me. It's a realm where I've trans, I've made the transition. Maybe not permanently, maybe I'll regress back as we often do, but I've moved away from a life driven by fear to a life motivated more by love and service. I've moved away from a life of self-reliance to a life of God-reliance. I've moved away from a life of self-centered to now I'm becoming other-centered. And it's, it's beautiful. So we continue. It says, this is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When, not if, when these crop up, here's what we do. Four things. First, ask God at once to remove them. Two, discuss them with someone immediately. Three, Make amends quickly, which in some cases is three months. Um, I know, you know, I know how I am. I just, I want, I want to, I'm, a, I'm the kind of guy that will drive with a flat tire. I hope it goes away. You know what I mean? And I, I've done that. And I'll tell you something. When they say quickly, make it quickly. 
The longer you sit, the only person that suffers from your unmade amends is you. Quickly. Because I, I know I've, I've resisted it, I've put it off, and, and it's like a stone in your shoe. It doesn't go away. You're the one that pays the price. Right? Quickly. If we've harmed anyone. Then we, and then this is the new default position. My, my default position coming in here was me. And now the new default position. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. It says that over and over again in this book. Ask God to do this, blah, 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 and turn our thoughts to someone else. Blah, 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 and see who we can help. Ask God in our morning meditation how we can do for the man who's to... It just, it's like a theme through this altruistic program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I guess that's why they call it our primary number one purpose. Above everything. Above ourselves is to help others. To help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. There, I had a, a nun in school that I... I don't. I never. I never liked her much, but she was. She was actually pretty spiritual, which is probably why I didn't like her. And she used to say. So she used to say, uh, "God first, you second, me last." It seemed that seemed awful to me. Uh, and I think she's right. I think she's right. Love and tolerance of others is our code. If you're ever in a AA trivial contest that's to ask you what the, what's the code of Alcoholics Anonymous? Love and tolerance of others. Bill Wilson one time in a letter said that uh, he believed that honesty brought us to Alcoholics Anonymous, but it was only tolerance that would keep us here. And I must constant, in order to, to survive this giant dysfunctional family of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, look, look objectively what we are here. This is the world's largest outpatient clinic. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean when you, if you start coming here expecting people to be normal, you're going you're gonna to get your heart broke here, I'm telling you. Uh, this is, it is what it is. And I'm on a bad day. I'm one of the nuts here. Um, none of us ever rise above our disease. Permanently. We may, contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual conditions, seem to rise above it intermittently. And so, I have to, I have to constantly change my perception of you to allow you to be who you are so that I can be here without the friction. In, in mechanics, they often talk, in, in engines, and, and, um, they often talk about tolerances. Sometimes in an engine, because of a buildup of kinetic energy, it builds up so long over a period of time that the, 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 the energy, the heat, will actually start to warp the parts of the engine very slightly. And what happens is the tolerances get off. And when the tolerances get off, what starts to occur is now the moving parts are not moving freely of each other. They're starting to create friction. And if they create enough friction long enough, what happens? The engine blows up. So what happens when you get an engine that the tolerance is off a lot, you have to disassemble the engine and in a machine shop, sort of like what we do in step four, or in maybe the concentrated version of step ten, is you have to 
change the tolerances so that the parts can move freely of each other without causing so much friction that there's a blow-up. And that's what I have to do with you. I have to change my expectations, my perception of you, to allow you to, just like me, to be who you are. Because on a bad day, isn't it funny... When, I, when I'm out of line, I'm having a bad day and I'm, I'm just acting badly or childishly. I want everybody in the world to understand. But am I willing to do that for you? And that's the important thing. It's not, it's like it says in the prayer of St. Francis. It's not, it doesn't matter that you understand me. It only matters that I understand you. That I, this is the really our code of love and tolerance and I think I think sometimes I think all of Alcoholics Anonymous, all twelve steps are just they're just they're just tools to craft me into being a better lover of God's kids, crafting me into being other centered, to be God reliant, to be driven by love. And then here's the promises, and these are remarkable. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. That mean that edge that you walk around with where you're always kind of having a little bit of conflict with life, that maybe that will stop. Maybe you won't you won't fight anything anymore. Maybe you'll accept. For by this time sanity will have returned. We will be seldom interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude towards liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. Now, it's not... This has really come true for me, but it's not that I haven't had any effort or... On my part, I've had to do a lot of work to get to this point. I've had to do an inventory. I've had to make a lot of amends. I've had to do a lot of prayer, meditation. I've had to do a lot of service, sponsor guys, listen to the fifth steps. All of that is part of the package. It's just not an effort on fighting the bottle. See, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd been relapsing for a number of years, and I had fought the bottle. I gave it everything I had, and the more I fought it, the more I lost. And I didn't know that I'm fighting in the wrong arena. You guys showed me, you told me, stop fighting the bottle. We're going to show you how to fight the real problem called alcoholism. The condition of a sick, self, self-filled up spirit that starts to get depressed and, and you get full of yourself. We're going to show you how to, to, to fight in the right arena. And since I started fighting in the right arena, and, and my contest now is not with alcohol, it's with alcoholism, alcohol has not been a problem. But I'll tell you, just like that story I told when I started stealing from my boss, and all of a sudden alcohol starts coming back on the horizon again. Um, because alcohol... I, I stopped I stopped living in the solution and started becoming the problem again. And this is such this is I think one of the the great definitions of, of grace is it's an unmerited undeserved gift. And this really sounds like that that this is just 
that, then what must have happened? I'm the guy who would beg God in prison cells, don't ever let me drink again, and drank the day I got out because I could not access His grace. There was too much of me between me and God. And if this means that something has changed within me, now I, I, I must have been able to access the grace because God is now doing for me what I can't do for myself. Something has happened to me. I didn't do it. I can't take credit for it. If I could take credit for it, I'd put it in a book and sell it and become a millionaire. I can't take credit for it. I didn't do it. All I did was avail myself of what you showed me. What it said in this book and what my sponsor and the people I got sober with told me to do. I just did what you told me to do. And little did I know that I would be, I was, I was crafting myself to become a more adequate receiver of my own inheritance. God's grace. It had always been there. I was just blocked from it. I was, I was like a, a broken receiver that can't get the signal. Signal's still coming out. I just can't receive it. And you helped me to repair the receiver. To, and I, it, my sponsor has a great analogy. He says that, that we're like a, we're like an old battered TV set on the back of a pickup truck on a bumpy road. You've got to constantly turn in the knobs and fool with the antenna to keep the signal in because the minute you get it in, it goes out again. And then that, sometimes that's what it's like to have chronic alcoholism. I, I am like a, the back of a toilet. You flush it and it empties right out and then I just automatically fill up, start filling up with me again. You know what I mean? I just I'll flush it and I just start filling up with me again. So we are not, it just comes, we're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. That sounds almost bizarre, doesn't it? It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky, we're not cocky, nor are we afraid. We're not, we're not the intolerant, reformed drinker who's on the muscle about alcohol. We're not that at all. We react so long as we fit, remain in fit spiritual condition. In page 100 of the book, it, it expands on this whole view and it's it's kind of a dramatic thing. I, uh, I I I go to meetings sometimes, and people just say, "Well, you just don't drink, no matter what, and stay out of slippery places." And well, let's let's see what it says in the book. The bottom of page one hundred. Now, the first couple words are very very important. This is this is not for new people who are sixty days sober with the benefit of step none. This is for people who have gone through the steps. You're sponsoring people. You've made your amends. Okay, you're in what the book would refer to as fit spiritual condition. It says, assuming we are spiritual, spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things. Alcoholics are not supposed to do. People have said we must not go where liquor is served. We must not have it in our homes. We must shun friends who drink. We must avoid moving pictures where they show drinking scenes. Oh my God, it's a bottle of whiskey. I've got to go get drunk. I can't help it. I'm... We must not go into bars. Our friends must hide their bottles if we go to their houses. We mustn't think. How do you do that? You get a lobotomy? We mustn't think or be reminded about alcohol at all. Our experience shows 
that this is not necessarily so. We meet these conditions every every day. I, I worked around alcohol for 25 years in my sobriety. I had it in my home. Some people don't think that's a good idea. I I don't know. I know a lot of people that have it in their home. I had a wine cellar for investment. It never. I, it meant no more to me than the artwork in the house. I mean, it does, you know, it's just it's nothing. Because I was put in the position of neutrality. And then check this out: an alcoholic who cannot meet these conditions still has an alcoholic mind. There is something the matter with his spiritual status. His only chance for sobriety would be someplace like the Greenland ice cap, and even there an Eskimo might turn up with a bottle and ruin everything. I, when you think about it, if, if, you're, if you're sober ten years and you think you've, and you've worked the steps and you still can't be around alcohol, and it still looks like medicine and calls at you. I've got to tell you, in my in my view, you've missed something here. You missed something. It's either that or AA doesn't work, and I don't believe that. I've seen it work too much. So roll up your sleeves. Sometimes what you miss is step one. Did a oh you did the you you did the textbook example of four. Oh my God, we should frame it, put it on the wall, and GSO. But if you never got one in in your innermost self where you really live, if if the delusion that you somehow, someday, some way, you could still control and enjoy your drinking, that hasn't been smashed, you're not all the way in. You have a back door. And check this next line out, this next paragraph. In our belief, any scheme for combating alcoholism which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. It's almost like it gives it torque. We have tried these methods, these attempts to do the impossible, and they've always failed. Lack of power is my dilemma. Now, this is now, if you're new and you haven't worked the steps yet, you need to shield yourself from temptation for a time. But if you're 10 years sober and you're still staying sober by shielding yourself from temptation, you, you miss something here. Either that or maybe you don't believe this This will work for you. I don't know. It worked for me. There's a caution here. And this is very important. I, it, this ties in with the second delusion it talks about in, in chapter 3. And I, I, I've watched, you know, for twice a week now, um, for, for almost 34 years, I've gone to a skid row detox and watched men and women sober up again. Some of them sober many years. We had one guy 45 years ended up there. Bill, Bill Wilson was his sponsor. We, we tried to make a project out of him because he had all these great stories about Bill. And he drank himself to death in the, over the next seven, eight months, I guess. Because of his ego, how much it had progressed. Couldn't, 
He was just so full. He, could, he knew what was wrong with everybody in AA, and yet he was dying. Or dying of alcoholism. So it, what a tragedy. The book says it's easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. Oh my God, it's so easy. What what happens uh, to so many of us, this has happened to me, it happens to most people that I know at some point in their sobriety. And when it's happening to you, you don't know that it's happening to you. And what happens is we get comfortable here. And as I get comfortable, and I haven't thought about taking a drink for 20 years, I feel good. I got respect now. I made my amends. Everybody loves me again. It almost feels like I don't have a problem. Now, I know vaguely in an intellectual, abstract sense I still have alcoholism, but I don't really feel like it. And I think consequently some of us can easily be seduced by the fruits of our own program of recovery into a false sense of okayness and start to compromise the actions that put us in that place. And you don't you don't you don't un, you don't dismantle a program of recovery that has put you in that state of freedom and oneness with where your life is clicking where you're in the zone you're in the in, in the realm of the spirit. You don't dismantle that instantaneously. You take it down one action one brick at a time. Sometimes it takes you 25 years to build up this thing, and it might take you five to tear it down. And you, sometimes we tear it down one judgment at a time. Sometimes we tear it down by just compromising one little action in AA. You know, you hear I hear guys all the time say things. You know, they're sober 30 years, and you say, come on, I'm going to go on a 12-step call. You want to go with me? And they'll say the craziest thing you've ever heard. No, I've done a lot of that. Let some of the newer people do it. You've done a lot of it, have you? Any any this year? As if they're saying, I no longer have as much alcoholism as I had in the days when I needed to do that. As if as if they're now. You, if you ask them, do you still think you're alcoholic? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm definitely an alcoholic. Well, for God's sakes, your feet just made a liar out of you. You're acting like someone who's kind of gotten over it. I mean, your life's good, isn't it? And you're not doing this anymore. What the hell happened to you? If you were to go, we had a guy in our detox years ago. He was 17 years sober and he drank again. And he he was astounded that he drank because he had such a great life. And he says... he says, in detail, I don't know why I drank again. I have a big house, making a couple hundred thousand a year. I've made all my amends. I, my, my, my wife loves me. I have three kids that adore me. I have a great business. I have two paid-for cars in the garage. I don't know why I drank again. Everything was great. And as if he thinks that all of the success was his treatment for alcoholism. He got seduced. He hadn't been on he hadn't tried to work with a newcomer in five years. He called, he played golf once a month with his sponsor. 
That's from the chapter into golfing. I mean, you know, I mean, if you if you if you saw a diabetic in a hospital just coming out of a diabetic coma, and and he said, "I don't know why I went into the coma. I have a big house." I mean, that's crazy. That's nuts. But in alkalogic, that stuff makes sense to us. Makes sense. So it's easy. It's really, I've been seduced by my own life away from what I should be doing. I, I went into a, the first depression I, I'd gone into uh, in, in a long, long time. Since the, since the time I put the steps in my life, it was 19 years. And I, I sunk in 19 years, I sunk into a depression. And I didn't know what had happened to me. And this is exactly what had happened to me. And I didn't know it. And I don't know it because I'm still going to a meeting every day. And I'm sponsoring guys, and I'm running my mouth and talking in AA. But there was a shift inside of me that was subtle, and I didn't realize it. And a guy nailed me. I told him, I said, I, I can't shake this depression. And he said to me, he told me the truth. He said, yeah, he said, you go to meetings and you sponsor all these people and you run your mouth a lot in AA. He said, but I don't think your primary purpose is helping others. He says, I think your primary purpose is you. And it's just like, shut up. <laughs> oh, shut up. Will you? And he was right. I mean, he was right. My life had become, I still want, I wanted the bragging rights of a good AA member. So I did the, the, the trappings of alcoholic. But the truth was, all I really focused on and cared about, my primary purpose was my toys and my investments and my business and my sex life and what you think of me and me, 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 me. And that guy saved my ass, I'll tell you. I, within a week, I had new guys in my car and I'm, you know, I'm back to pushing myself aside and for a purpose greater than me. And here's the crazy thing is that I didn't know that that happened to me. I didn't know what was wrong. It's just, it's because it's not, you, you don't go from the guy connected, helping others, and this is really the center of your life, to the guy who's the, the center of your life is you. You don't make that transition overnight. It's, it's this incremental, slow, it's, the, it's they're boiling the frog. Slowly. You don't know it. You don't know it. I didn't know it. I think I'm a pretty bright guy. I didn't know it. Thank God for God's works through people. That's the great thing about you continue to go to meetings is that God will send you somebody. And you, you won't like them, but he'll send. But listen, listen, I hope you hear this. Don't shoot the messenger. You may not like him, but he's there. God sent him. And God sends people to us. It's, it seems to be the way of it. It says, so if we do rest on our laurels, and you know, you know, everybody know what a laurel is? You know about the laurel wreaths that they used, the Romans, when you became a citizen, you got this wreath and it gave you entitlement to property and slaves and everything. You got to wear this wreath of laurels on your head. Uh, means you've arrived. You don't have to do anything anymore. You're there. You're vested. You're vested. And you wear your laurels on your head, so, if you're resting on your laurels, that shows you where your head's at. 
Um, we are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. It's subtle. It's sneaky. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. This is the essence of one day at a time. One day at a time is so much more than you just don't drink, even though in the beginning it meant it, I hung on to that. I just don't drink today. But eventually, it's really talk, you really move into this is about my spiritual condition. That every day is the day that I have to show up for this. Every day is the day that I have to push myself aside and seek God's will. Every day is the day that I need to for, try to forget about myself and remember you. Every day is the day where I'm showing up for service. One of the, the prayers I say, a simple prayer, is just is simply use me. Use me. I, I sometimes, have, I've, over the years, have intermittently prayed, ask God to give me a servant's heart. Why? Because so I can be a noble, altruistic guy? No, because I don't want to be the other guy. Anything that will move me off of me is a good thing for me. Um, I would rather be a servant. I'd rather be useful. Because it, it's better. It really is better. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. Because of what goes with me constantly is me and thoughts of me. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. In the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, it, it talks about this same thing. It also talks about it two pages later in the book. This realignment of my will with God's. The proper use of the will. All my life, I've had this thing about me. I didn't understand it for a while. But I've had this part of me that just wants. Half the time you ask me, what do you want? I don't know, but I want something. I want more. I want. I, I heard a story years ago. With this, was, I said, oh my God, that's me. This, this very rich family had a little boy and they were, they just, they spoiled him. And the grandmother was telling the story how she was over there for Christmas. And they got this this little kid, 28 just amazing toys, all wrapped in beautiful wrapping under the Christmas tree. The kid Christmas morning goes down there and starts tearing through these presents. And, oh, this is great. And he pushes it aside and tears open. Oh, this is great. Pushes aside, oh, this is great. And he gets to the last one. He opens it up and pushes it aside and he starts to cry. I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't get what I wanted. His parents love him. And, oh, what do you want? We'll get whatever you want. What do you want? He goes, I don't know, but I didn't get what I wanted. Oh my God, I thought that's the story of my life. <laughs> what do you want? I don't know, but I don't got it. <laughs> and I've never, I've never been able to find the off switch for the wanter. I've looked. Sometimes I could get so drunk it seemed I like go away. I could reset. I could, I wasn't so wanted. I didn't want so much when I get high enough. 
but I could never turn it off. So what do you do if you can't stop wanting? You want what someone else wants. I align my will with God's. I can't stop wanting, so I want what he wants. And I start to say, it's a shift. And and when it says every day, we do this stuff every day, I need this realignment back to wanting what he wants rather than wanting what I want. Much has already been said about receiving strength and inspiration and direction from Him who has all knowledge and power. If we have carefully followed directions, we have begun to sense the flow. The flow of His Spirit. There's a unity in that. The feeling of never being alone. To some extent, we have become God conscious. It's not theoretical anymore. It's not, it's more than faith. It's a consciousness of the presence of God in our lives. We've begun to develop this vital sixth sense. It's just a magical thing. But we must go further and that means more action. Step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. We shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer. Better men than we are using it constantly. It works if we have the right proper attitude and work at it. It'd be easy to be vague about this matter, yet we believe we can make some definite and valuable suggestions. I remember I was fairly, I wasn't sober that long, and I was, I really wanted to get into the meditation thing because I grew up around meditation. I did a lot, I did when I was intermittently in times when I was drinking. I, I mean, it was in, I grew up in the time when yoga and meditation was hip. So I'm not against meditation. But I don't, I have preconceived ideas of what it is. And by the time I come at step 11, I, my, I got, I've developed enough self-esteem to be dangerous, which is really, I, that's what it's really is, is ego. I become the guy who thinks he knows stuff again. So I, I'm ready to start doing step, uh, step 11 and I start reading where these valuable suggestions about prayer meditation and it doesn't make sense to me. The first thing it talks about is self-examination. It says, here's, here's the valuable, definite valuable suggestions. When we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology if I kept something to myself, which should have been discussed with another? Was I kind and loving towards all? What should I have done better? Was I thinking of myself most of the time? And on and on. And I just think, that ain't right. That has nothing to do with prayer meditation. I go further on in the next paragraph. There's nothing. There's no mantras. There's no, you, it doesn't tell you how to sit and cross your legs. It's, there's not, I mean, there's no breathing exercises. There's no thing, there's no little exercise to focus on something like breathing God's grace and breathe out Bob. You know, there's nothing like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, and none of it. So I do what smart, egocentric people do. We don't follow directions that don't agree with what they, we think they should say. So I don't do any of this. And for the next 15 to 20 years, I did everything else. And I didn't do this. I, I, I had daily readers. I read. I still, to some time to this day, I, occasionally I do it. The 24-hour book, day by day, one day at a time. Um, I, I, start, I found the prayer of St. Francis in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. Beautiful prayer. 
use that sometime to this day. found a version I liked a little better, which is the one I use to this day. It's the one instead of make me a channel, it says make me an instrument. Some of you may have said that, seen that version of the St. Francis. I, somehow I like that better. That thing I opened with this morning about I am the place where God shines through, I found that and started using that. Um, I, I did a course in miracles. Um, I uh, went back to the church of my childhood. I said the rosary. I explored other churches. Um, I went back and I did some things with Buddhism. I, I went to SGI for a while and chanted in Namne Yoho Renge Kyo with the Buddhists. I got into some Zen stuff. I started uh, uh, doing, you know, reading re- reading stuff I'd read as a kid. Uh, Alan Watts and Jay Krishnamurti and um, Ram Das and a lot of that stuff. Good stuff. It's all good stuff. Church was good. It's all good. It's funny when you start working the steps, it all looks good. When you're not working the steps, it all looks hor- horrid. But it's like your prejudices and your old ideas have melted away, and now you see the God in every. You could go to any religion and see the God there. It's different because you know why you see it in any religion because you brought it in the door with you, right? Because it's in here. But I never did what they suggested in the book, and so I, I'm, I'm I'm developing spiritually, but I'm intermittently plagued by some resentments and conflicts and I still have a little bit of an emotional roller coaster from time to time. And I just I you know, as Dr. Silkworth says, to us our alcoholic life seems the only normal one, so I just kind of adjust to it, I guess. I you know, I get I think some of us have that ability to become like a mule in a hailstorm. We just hunker down and take it. As if it's as if I'm not really supposed to be happy, joyous, and free. I'm supposed to be a little bit wacky, right? As if being neurotic is normal, I guess. And I had a guy that I sponsor who was sober uh, a long time, close to, I think, almost 20 years, over 15. I was was about close to 20, I guess. He was probably sober 15. And he came to me and he... uh, asked me very specifically for direction. He wanted help. And he, he doesn't want theory. He wants, he wants me to tell him what to do in the morning for meditation. Well, the truth is, I don't know what to tell him. I've done so many different things. And the book says it's good. This isn't bad to do all that stuff. It's not as bad. It says be quick to see where religious people are right. It's good stuff. In addition to, but not in substitution for, see, I was never doing AA. There's nothing wrong with what I was doing, but I was never doing AA. And so this guy asked me, and I don't know what to tell him, so I just told him, I just just give him a throwaway line, one of those throwaway lines they tell you in sponsor school, you know, when you don't know what to tell somebody, you just... Just, go, uh, just, just pray about it. I don't know. Or I, I, I didn't tell him that. I said, well, just do what it says in the book. Well, this guy doesn't have the prejudices I have. He doesn't have the opinions and the ju- prejudgments. He just literally went to the book, and every night he started asking himself the questions, when do we retire at night? Every morning on awakening, he started considering the 24 hours ahead. He started saying the prayers. 
pondering his day, looking at what's on his plate, asking God to divorce his thinking from self-pity, dishonest, self-seeking motives, praying for especially for freedom from self-will. He just did everything that was on these pages. And in no time at all, apparently he seems to be doing better than I am. And I don't like that much. I hate that. And so I just thought, well, what the hell? I should do this stuff. And I started doing it. I had to watch him do it first. And I started doing it. And it didn't, I didn't, because it didn't make sense to me. This isn't meditation. I know what meditation is. No, I don't. I found a dictionary, one of my sponsees. It was written, a dictionary from 1913, English dictionary. And we looked up the definition of the word meditation, and I was astounded at what it said. It's, isn't it odd? I think I know what things mean, and I don't really. Uh, and I, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I suspect that the, the definition of the word meditation may have taken a subtle shift in the 1960s with the Beatles and the Maharishi and Alan Watts and Timothy Leary and all that stuff. But regardless, in this dictionary... It talked about a contemplated focusing exercise. And it used the example, and this, this hit me. And I really got it. I connected the dots. It said, a general will meditate a war. And I went back to the book thinking about, pick that picture in my mind of a general before a battle, getting up in the morning before the fight. And the night before, he's walked his army, as we do when we retire at night, constructively reviewing our day. And as he walked his army, he saw the cannons that were warped. He saw the horses that were lame. He saw the men that were wounded. And he got up the next morning and he considered his plans for the day. And we're asked to bring God in. But maybe the general brought his officers in. And he said, these horses can't go with us today. They're a liability. They're, they're lame. Those men are wounded. They're going to slow. They're going to be a liability in today's march. Those cannons are warped. They will hurt us today. We must pull them out of today's march. Only with me, it's self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. It's really self that will handicap me today in all its manifestations. And the book says there's a couple promises here that I think are remarkable. It says under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance. For after all, God gave us brains to use. I didn't know that. I, well, I I thought I was mentally ill when I got sober because of the, the raging insanity in my head, the conversations, the chatter that was just driving. I could, I tried, you ever tried to do meditation in early sobriety before you've cleaned your, the chair? Oh my God, it's like, you can't, man. If, if you're going to try it, don't have any sharp objects around. Oh my God. It's, it's brutal. Um. And I didn't know, I, I thought my head was my enemy. 
I thought it was my enemy. A guy when I was new, and I was crazy. You know, I, I, I was having all these in, insane thoughts about people and situations, and people that don't like me, and how things are turning to crap in my life. And now I probably have a brain tumor, and I'm going on and on and on. And this guy says to me, he says, you think that you are your mind, don't you? I said, well, yeah, it's my mind, it's my thoughts, and yeah. He said, you're not your mind. I'm not. He said, no, you're the idiot that listens to it. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, I'm the listener. I thought that was me. I thought it was me. My head would say, they don't like you, quit your job. Okay. Well, it was so. I mean, it was true. I mean, it was true. I mean, it said it to, it must, it was me. It must be true. That's not me. It just chatters. And, and isn't it odd in meditation if it, it, when you, when you get quiet in the morning, if you're like me, there's, it's just to, there's like a, a dis, a disconnection between the chattering. I am not the chatter. I'm the guy who listens to it. And on a good spiritual hair day, a day when I'm present and I'm right here, the chatter is like distant. I don't even hear it. It's there, I guess. It's just, you get me afraid, I get listen, start listening to it. But it's just kind of there. Contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. Contingent. And I, I think that, uh, we'll, and I'll say this and we'll take a break. I think that the in the 12 steps and 12 traditions in step 11, it explains why the first paragraph in, on page 86 is actually, it's not step 10. A lot of people think, oh, that's really part of step 10. It's actually part of step 11. It says that in the 12 by 12. There's a paragraph in there that says, self-examination, which is the first paragraph on 86, Meditation and prayer, which is the contemplative exercises and the prayers on the bottom of 86 and all of 87. It says, self-examination, meditation, and prayer, when taken separately, as if these are separate events, separate exercises, the book says, can bring about much benefit and relief. That's true. But I don't want relief. I've spent my whole life as a relief seeker. How's that work for you, Bob? I need freedom. I need intermittent freedom from the bondage of self. I need a connection with God. I don't need relief. Relief is the way to, to, to get to feel better, take the pressure off without having to surrender. I need freedom. And then it says, but when these things are logically, these three things, meditation, self-examination, prayer, when they're logically related and interwoven, they become an unshakable foundation for life. They're supposed to be all part of the process. And it's this is very much like what happens when a sailor wants to navigate the ocean. If you were to go down here to the harbor, wherever they keep the, 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 the boats, and you were to buy the best boat money could buy, cost, you just want the best. You want something really that could take you across the ocean. You want something really good. 
You get the best boat you can. And you went to the nautical library and you charted the first nine steps of navigation for the island of Bali. I'm going to go to Bali. And you do an impeccable job in that in that library and you set a perfect course out for the island of Bali. You're going to leave the harbor and every single day the winds and the tides and the currents are going to move you off course. It's not because your boat's bad. It's not because you're a bad guy. It's not because you played with your tiller too much. It's just the way it is. It's just the nature of the beast. Every single day you're going to get moved off course. And if you're going to be, if you're going to survive, you, you, you have to get, take an honest reckoning every single day of where you are. You can't fool yourself about values. You can't think you're you're spiritual and selfless when you're really self-centered and self-serving. You have to be honest with yourself. So why? So that you can recorrect your course back to the island of Bali. Only in our case, that, that we're not going to the island of Bali. We're going to carry out the decision we made in step three. The decision of to move towards self-abandonment and service. When I said to God, here God, here I am for you to build with me and you to do with me as you will, relieve me of the bondage of self so that I can better do thy will and do all of this. Take away all these difficulties with self for one reason and one reason only. So that victory over them would bear witness to those I would help. And I'm entering into a decision to head my life towards the island of self-abandonment and service. And every single day, the clamorings, the fears, the attraction of things that look self-gratifying, the resentments, the judgments, everything is going to just pull me off course and I have to recorrect and do it back to... And the problem is, if you don't do this, you can get so far out you can't get back. I've watched guys 15, 20 years sober that can't get back. They're too full. They're too full of themselves. It's brutal. And what the alcoholic mind is a shift changer. We'll start bending our view of reality to make what we think we're doing make sense to us. The next thing you know, you you you're just on the beach, or you're on the on the deck of the boat, rather trying to sun yourself, and it's getting a little cold. But I'm going to Bali. You start noticing that chunks of ice go by the boat with, <laughs> with, with penguins on them. There's penguins. And what do you say to yourself? Oh, you know, it's a new thing. They have penguins now on Bali. It's a new, it's a new thing. It's a new thing. Didn't know that. Just new. Peng, these are Balinese penguins. And then you get so far out, you can't get back. I, I, I've watched guys. I've got watched guys bolt out of meetings because they haven't been to a meeting, they haven't talked to their sponsor, they haven't helped anybody, they haven't done step 10 and 11. And you, there's a little bit of 10 and 11 that occur just by showing up in a meeting if you show up in the right frame of mind. I think it's enough to keep us... That's why I'm, there is a value in going to meetings because you can go to a meeting and, and maybe you're not doing that good of a job on step 10 and 11. And you're lazy, or you're, you don't really look well, as I don't from time to time. I, I do when I'm in a lot of trouble. But I go through periods where I don't really look that well. But you go to a meeting and you think you're doing fine. I'm on my way to Bali. And somebody will start sharing about their day and about how, 
how they became self-serving again and worried about themselves. And you sit there and you go, Oh, man. That's me. I thought I was going to Bali. I'm in Antarctica already. I don't know. How'd that happen? I mean, you know. The bottom of page 87. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated. I know for some of you, you attack when agitated. Um, I understand. I understand. Believe me. I I came here. That was the guy that came here. It was a a fire ready aim. Oh, you know, I mean, that was that guy. Uh, So we're trying to learn how to pause. And in the pause, we find the grace of God. I think some of us come here spring-loaded. Threaten me, will you? Spring-loaded. And we pause. And in the pause, we find God. I heard Sandy Beach say one time, he was about 40 years sober, and he said it. He said, I think you get... He says, it seemed to me like I got a second for every year I was sober in the pause before I reacted. He said, you can change your whole world in 40 seconds. You can change your whole world in 40 seconds. You can change your whole world in five if you pause. Don't react. We pause when agitated or doubtful. We ask for the right thought or action. And we find God's grace. And I love this line. This is a great line. We constantly remind ourselves we're no longer running the show. No, why don't we have to do this constantly? Oh, because I'm constantly trying to run the show. That's right. I forgot. Okay. All right. All right. I get it. There's a... There's a movie out, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't promote anything here except Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'll tell you a movie I saw that I liked and it affected me, because it lined up with some of the stuff I found in A. It was a movie uh, called What the Bleep Do We Know? And if you've never seen this movie, it's, 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 it's a remarkable movie. It's all these world-renowned, brilliant physicists talking about God and the universe. And it's remarkable. And it's talking about things like quantum mechanics, uh, about how we interact mysteriously with the, with the universe, that the, the thing you're observing is affected by the ob- observer. There's an interaction here that, that transcends material contact. It, it was an amazing movie. And the, what the bleep do we know? And, and there's a, a part in there where there was this Japanese scientist, Dr. Emoto. And Dr. Emoto, I went and I dug out, I fa- ordered a, a whole DVD of him. It's a little hard to watch because it's through an interpreter. But Dr. Emoto did some amazing, amazing experiments. He, he went, there's, there's this one glacier in Japan that is revered, is very, is very ancient and very spiritual. And he, he took bottles, liters of water from the glacier. And in each liter, he would label it with with a, a Buddhist prayer of love. And then he would say these loving incantations over the water and, and, and praise the water. And then he put the water under in a nitrogen bath that 
Flash froze the water into, and crystallized it instantaneously into crystals. And he put those crystals under an electron microscope. And the crystals that had been prayed about with love were spectacular. They were amazing. They were beautiful. They just looked like you wanted to frame them and put them on your wall. They were the most amazing, ethereal things you've ever seen. There was a beauty and a spirit in it. It was wonderful. And then he took some water and he, and, and he and this, took this one liter of water and he cursed it and he said, I hate you. I hate you. And he screamed and yelled at it and he flash froze it and he put the crystals and they looked horrid. They looked something out of a Tim Burton movie. I mean, it was like, it was freaky stuff. And then he said something that affected me. He said, if I am almost 90% water, and my thoughts can do that to water, what do they do to my life? What do they do to me? And so, the book says that God gave His brains to use. In this disconnecting ourselves from ourselves, now my mind is not my enemy anymore. It is a tool. The mind is a, is a tremendous tool. I remember my sponsor's phone number, good stuff like that. That's important. You, you could lose your cell. If you, only, if you don't remember your sponsor's phone number and you have to have your cell phone to call him, that, oh, that's a, remember your sponsor's phone number. It may save your life one day. I can remember commitments. I can remember my daughter's birthday. I can remember the birthdays of some of the people I sponsor. I can remember what time my home group starts and the address, and I can tell people where it is. I can remember things I've learned out of the book of Alcoholics Anonymous that couple with my experience that I can remember or become useful. The mind is an amazing tool. It's just a horrid master. And I'm moving my life to a different management system. And that's the essence of it. Let's take a break. I'm Bob, an alcoholic. So, why are we here? We're trying to work all these steps to hone ourselves into such a state of spiritual perfection we glow in the dark? Or are we here to do all of this so we can grow in understanding and effectiveness? that our real purpose is to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. To serve what Alcoholics Anonymous refers to as its primary, number one purpose. And if, if you've been diligent in this process by now, there's been a tremendous shift inside you. It's, in a, it's, it's, it's inevitable. And the shift is that you are probably no longer your primary purpose that your primary purpose in life is something greater than you. It's helping God's kids. And now your usefulness is, is based on the fact that everything about you becomes to bear here. Even the worst stuff about you becomes useful. The things that you've done in sobriety that you're ashamed of becomes helpful. Because you're gonna, you can, you can, you can bet whatever is you've done in your life that you regret and you're ashamed of, you're going to end up sponsoring someone just like that. And your experience is going to help them. 
And there's a rightness about it all. But yet at the same time, I come, I come here such a self-serving, I mean, my primary purpose was me, and I don't want to do 12-step work. And the book on page 89 says the practical experience, and this is the practical experience of a fellowship of people who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless condition of mind and body. The practical experience of Alcoholics Anonymous shows that nothing, nothing's like a big word, nothing, nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works where other activities fail. It works where everything else fails. When, when I was in moments in my sobriety where I was absolutely insane, uh, with resentment as I, as I found out my wife and daughter moved in with my friend or I found out that one of my employees just it, it ripped me off for a quarter million dollars or I, I found uh, I found out that somebody else had died. on and on. I can tell you, in those moments when I'm full of fear, this is what saves me. I'm a depressive alcoholic. I'm very much like Bill Wilson. I came cut out of a very similar cloth. Bill Wilson was a depressive alcoholic, also. Suffered from it. Uh, he found relief in it. In his story, he talked. I'll, I'll read this. It's, it's such a brilliant thing. It's and it, this is exactly my experience. It, this is and and I thank God I fell into the hands of people that just pushed me and kicked me and shoved me into service and alcohol. I didn't want to do it. People are telling me to go on twelve step calls, go out to the prison, go to detox and help others help others. I don't want to help others I, want to. I told this guy I said you know don't you think I should work on me for a while and he said work on you you've done quite enough of that stop it we'll help somebody Bill Bill says in his story I think it's on page 13 if I remember correctly no 15 15 um, the, the first full paragraph, um, five lines down. I was not too well at the time. Now, this is after Bill sober a little while, but not a long time, within his first year. Um, I was not too well at the time, and I was plagued as I was, by, by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink, but I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Many times I have gone to my old hospital in despair. On talking to a man there, I would be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It is a design for living that works in rough goings. That is exactly my experience. And I didn't understand for a long time why these old timers are, are pushing me to help others and do 12 step work. And I, I'm, you know, I didn't work the steps out of the book until I was over four years sober. So I wasn't really getting a lot of, the best I was getting was intermittent relief from me um, 
interspaced with just tremendous self-absorption and almost to the point of chronic depression and bouts of anxiety almost to the point of panic. And and I I was came I came home from work one day and I I I had gone to two meetings that day. I called my sponsor and I'm sitting on the sofa and I'm just thinking just sitting there thinking about my sex life and it's how do you ever think about it and have it look good it never looks good to me and I just whatever I look at I only see the glass half empty I don't look and I don't spiral thinking about me upward I always spiral down I'm thinking I'm spiraling into this abyss and the more I look at my life and the more I sit there and think that bleaker everything looks my financial future my job future just you know it's it's not good and I don't just get depressed. I drink of this and this emotional condition like I drank alcohol. I get in it so deeply at times where I physically can't, I, I get debilitated. I, I, and if you've never been to this kind of depression, you will not understand it. You get to a point where you weigh a thousand pounds and you can't get out of bed, you can't get off the sofa, you are debilitated that your emotions have become that dominant, that you're that self-centered that you can't even get up off the sofa. You're so consumed with yourself, and that's the way I was. And I was sitting on this sofa, and I just am sinking into this horrid, horrid, frightening depression because I know in, in moments of desperation for relief in the past, I have drunk or taken drugs at these moments, and it's scaring me. And I can't even get up off the kill. And I look at the clock and it's about 10 to 10 at night. And there's a meeting at, t- at a quarter past 10, not too far from my apartment up on the strip at a chapel called Duffy's. And, and I remember thinking if I could just get up there, maybe I'd hear something that would snap me out of this. And, but I can't get off the sofa. I weigh like a thousand pounds. I, I just, I, I like a debilitate. And I said a prayer and some, and I made up my mind that somehow, maybe through an effort on my part and maybe through God's grace, I don't know, but somehow I got up off that sofa and I shuffled out to my car like a mope. I, I, I walked depressed. You know, my, I think, I, I don't know what I look like in the mirror, but I bet you my hair looks depressed. I mean, I, I mean, I get depressed in every cell of my body. I mean, I get, I'm into it, man. I, I mean, it's, it's funny now talking about it, looking back, but I'll tell you, it's not funny when you're in the middle of that. It's horrid. And, and I, it was horrid. And I, and I get in my car and I drive up to the meeting and, and, and the meeting was right on the Las Vegas Strip. And there's a, it's this chapel, and right next to the entrance to the chapel, there's a billboard. You know how they, have, they advertise stuff? Well, there's a parking space underneath the billboard. Well, so I park right there, because that way I don't, I don't have to walk but a few feet to the door of the Duffy's. And I park under the billboard. Now, there's a hundred pigeons that sit on this billboard. Now, they're going to decorate my car to fit my mood, I'm sure. And, and, and so I, I park under the billboard and I go into the meeting and I'm sitting in the back of the meeting, but I can't, I can't even hear anything. I'm so into me that, that everything in the meeting is so distant and far away from me. It's, it's like, it's this way, it doesn't, it, nothing gets into me. Well, there's a guy 
sitting in the back of the room who's coming off a drunk. He's sitting right across from me, and he's in bad shape. He's sitting and he's grabbing himself and rocking back and forth like he wants to jump out of his skin. Intermittently, he can't sit very long, so he gets up and he's pacing back and forth in the back of the room like a caged animal. His nerves are so shot. You can hear him in the bathrooms right there. You can hear him going in there uh, a couple times during the meeting, and he's dry heaving in there, and he's a wreck. And, and I have a lot of problems. And I'm trying to figure them out. And this guy's annoying the crap out of me. Um, so by the end of the meeting, I, I'm not doing any better. It, I'm actually doing worse. Because here's what happens to me when I'm really depressed. I look out at the world, and I look out to see how everybody in the meeting's doing a lot better than I am. And I just, I'm the miserable one here. And... And, and nobody understands me, and, and I don't say anything, but because I don't want to bother anybody. And, and, but I just—it's it's like some people. There, there's writers who, 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 who there's their image of themselves is in the fact that that they're a great writer. There's athletes that their their self-image is in the fact that they're really very athletic. There's guys who are writer or musicians who because they're great guitar players. Well, I I'm a guy who suffers more than anybody else. And, oh, it's just but I'm the best worst. I am the best worst. I can tell I'm the best worst here. And I and it's, oh, it's horrible. And in the meeting, the subject in the meeting's gratitude. Oh. All of you have so much to be grateful for, and you don't understand my life. This is that uniqueness. Oh my God, that terminal uniqueness that comes with that. You know, I am the only one that really. And people, and your my ego is so intense. If you ever been in a bad, like a depression like that, and somebody tries to cheer you up, oh, they're stupid. Because your ego wants to be right about how miserable you are, and I'm 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 in this thing, and I, I, I by the end of the meeting I'm worse. I just I, I don't know what I want to do. I need to go, I'm going to go back home and think some more. I, well, I I don't know, you know, that's what I do. I so I stay after the meeting because you guys have told me you got to do service. I think I'll do some service, and at least I'll be a guy who. Suffers, but helped, you know. So I stayed and helped Charlie. Uh, Charlie Parker was a, the uh, secretary of the meeting, and we had to put the chairs back in order for the chapel, and we had to clean up the trash and make sure the bathrooms were were okay and everything. And Charlie and I are the last two guys to leave the meeting, and Charlie's locking up, and he's on his way to work. He works a graveyard shift at one of the casinos up on the strip, and. And Charlie and I are standing there, and we look out, and the guy coming off the drunk is laying on the ground in front of my car, curled up almost in a fetal position. Now, I'm going to have to step over him to go home and ponder my life more deeply, which which I would have done. I really, I, I'm pathetic, but I tell you, I would have done. I want to go home and think. I don't want to be bothered with nothing. And But Charlie's here, and Charlie has a big mouth, and he's, Charlie says, are you going to help this guy? i got to go to work. Are you going to help this guy? I don't want to help this guy, but Charlie has a big mouth. If I don't help this guy, Charlie's going to tell everybody in AA what a bad member I am. And he knows my sponsor. 
I go over to this guy, and he's pathetic. He's peed his pants. He stinks. He's shaking it out. He's afraid he's going to go into seizures. We don't have, at this time in Vegas, there is no free detox. If you don't have medical insurance or have money, you're, you're out of luck. And this guy is, and he's so inconsiderate, he didn't even keep medical insurance. Imagine that. And the inconsideration. Um, so there's nothing to do with him except one of two things, and I've done them both. One is to get find a partner and you sit with the guy. You give him a shot of vodka with a little bit of orange juice about every hour and a half, just hopefully so he doesn't go into seizures. Sometimes they still do. I've had guys go into seizures on my living room floor. Um, I'm so glad that I got to experience detoxing people in my apartment. But I couldn't do that. The only other alternative, there was a county hospital. And, and because they got some government funds, they were required to take a certain amount of indigent patients without money. But they didn't like it, and they did not like alcoholics because all the, all the drunks from the street ended up at the county hospital. And so they had this disdain towards alcoholics. And I had been down there before with guys, so I'm getting this, this guy in my car, he smells like... I'm driving down to the county hospital, and I know what's coming. I've been down there before. They'll make you sit in that waiting room, and they'll they'll take people that come in an hour after you because they would rather treat the what they consider the legitimately sick people than this self-induced guy who's sick who's probably going to be back here next month anyway. And they got that attitude. And I, I've been there before. And I know... I'm driving to this hospital. I know I'm going to be there all night. I got to go to work in the morning. I'm not going to get any sleep. I'm going to be tired. I'm going to have to go to that job. I'm probably going to get in a fight with my boss because I'll be irritable. He'll probably fire me, lose that job. That's a lousy job anyway. And I think to myself, isn't it bad enough that my life's crap? I'm saddled with this stuff too. Doesn't anybody else step up in the plate, to the plate in A except me? The key word's me. Me. And uh, I don't say say nothing to him. I'm just driving. Get down to the hospital. We park in the back and I take him in. We sign up on this uh, thing at the window and go into the waiting room sit there. This guy's coming apart at the seams. He's in really bad shape. And the nurses are just ignoring him. And so it's just me and him. And he starts to talk to me. And he starts to open up to me. There's one point he started to cry. Because he told me about the, um, the remorse and the shame that he felt for the things he did to the people who loved him. How he, could, he said he couldn't even drink it away anymore. He told me that for some time he'd been wishing he had the courage to kill himself. And then he really got me. He said to me, he said, I don't know why you're wasting time with me. See, I'm not like you people in AA. I always drink again. And he's telling me about me. And in the wee hours of the morning, I I started to fall in love with this guy. It was the most amazing experience all of a sudden, I don't, I don't even know what my, I don't have any problems. I just, all I want is what's best for him. I started, I wanted, I cared more about what was going on with him than I cared about what was going on with me. 
And uh, it was some time later that I realized what had just happened here. That I, what I had fallen in love with is I had fallen in love with the me that is in him. A part of me that needed to be loved but could not be loved directly by me. I had to love it through loving you. By loving the me that is in you. And you know, well, I know that I had a therapist one time that was very big on love yourself. She used to say, you gotta learn to love yourself. You gotta love yourself. She said, you know, the problem is you don't love yourself. She came to this. I want you to do this exercise every morning. I want you to stand in front of the mirror, look yourself in the eye, and I want you to say over and over again, God loves me. God forgives me. God accepts me. I love me. I forgive me. Ah, bullshit. I just... I could have stood there and said that until the planet blew up and it would not have changed how I felt about myself. Not one iota. And yet in caring about you, it came back on me. Just like making amends to you came back on me. I never imagined that. They checked the guy in. They gave him a bed. It was... I'm driving home and the sun's getting ready to come up. It's, it's early in the morning and I'm driving home and I'm crying. But I'm not crying because I'm depressed. I'm crying because I don't know in my whole life I ever felt more right about everything. It was like all the planets lined up. It's like everything is perfect. I know exactly what I need to do. I know exactly who I am. I know what, why, am I li- why I'm alive. I feel the presence of God in that car that you could cut it with a knife. And it wasn't through prayer and meditation. It was through exactly what Bill Wilson talks about. Through self-sacrifice and constant work with others. And as I'm going home that morning, I, I remember thinking to myself, I want to feel this way the rest of my life. It was very much the feeling, the sense I had the first time I ever really got high. You know that feeling when it really lights you up and you you think to yourself, oh, we are going to do this a lot. (laughs) We are going to do this a lot. And I want to do this a lot. And... That was the morning I claimed my primary purpose. And it was the morning I all of a sudden the veil lifted and I understood. I understood why these old timers were been hammering me. Help others, help others, help others. They knew something I didn't know until that moment. They knew that no matter how depressive I was, no matter how full of myself and my own fears and worries, no matter how narcissistically self-centered and self-involved I was, that if I stayed in that venue of service long enough, one day you'd hear a loud pop as my head came out of my butt and I would actually show up in God's world. And that was the day I got it. I got this is it. This is what Bill Wilson learned. Do you know when Bill Wilson at many years sober, went back into depression. You know what was going on in his life when that happened? I'll tell you, I think it's an interesting story. I sat in, in, in stepping stones, and I sat in meditation, and I thought about his life and what had happened, and what brought him there, and what happened to him once he moved there. Bill Wilson's li- he gets sober December 11, 1934. 
he spends his next several years every single day every single when he says in the book our very lives as ex problem drinkers depend upon our constant that's like constant's a lot constant thought of others their needs and how we work from bill wilson helped other tried to, tried to help other drunks every day he went to calvary mission towns hospital later he went to knickerbocker hospital and he'd go there every day every day this is really self-forgetting. And Bill was lit up. Bill was free from the depression. He's a depressive alcoholic. And he was amazing. And then, because he wasn't working and he had such bad luck in that area, they eventually lost the house on Clinton Street that was Lois's family's. I, I know that just took cut Bill's heart out to do that. She, he lost her family home. Because he couldn't pay the taxes or anything like that. And they spent the next quite some time, I think it was maybe two years or close to it, sleeping on people's back bedrooms and couches. And here's this debutante who the only thing she ever did was fall in love with this drunk. And she's following him into homelessness. And something miraculous happened. Lois said it was her godhouse where this woman stepped up and made them an opportunity, gave them an opportunity to have this amazing, it's a beautiful house out in Bedford Hills, which was way outside of New York City. Back in those days, before the freeways were in, it was quite a trek, actually. And so Bill went, Bill Wilson went from every single day of his life helping other drunks to living in this paradise out in the country. And he started to implode. He started to implode. But he couldn't say anything because after everything Lois has done for him, how could you say so? How could you say, I want to move back to the city and give this up? This is, she was in love with this house. She loved this house. And he owed her, and he owed her big time. And also at the same time, Alcoholics Anonymous is starting to have troubles, and now Bill's the figurehead. Bill's not at Towns Hospital every day. He's not at the Calvary Mission every day. When he does go into New York City, he goes to the office where he's plagued by problems. He's reading the letters of the groups that are falling apart around the country. He's reading the letters of the people that are angry at Alcoholics Anonymous and how they don't understand what happened, why A was doing so good, now it's falling apart. And Bill's whole task was no longer of a venue that would relieve him of the bondage of self. And he put his time and his effort because he cared about Alcoholics Anonymous. And Bill, Bill always saw into the future. People who knew him, and I've met quite a few people that knew him, they said that they never knew anybody that had a greater vision into the future than Bill Wilson. He could see farther down the road than anybody they've ever known. And Bill was always caring about the guys and the gals that were going to get sober 50, 60, 70 years later in places like Adelaide. He knew they were going to come. He knew. He knew you'd be here. So he suffered. He knew what the answer was. He suffered the, the, the depression, and he wrote the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he fought with the groups. They wouldn't accept them. He wrote them in the original form, which is now considered the long form, and he fought with them. And once Alcoholics Anonymous was, 
Once Alcoholics Anonymous was stable and the traditions were in place, Bill Wilson at one of the, at the conference turned Alcoholics Anonymous over to its members and he tried to go back to just being another drunk, helping other drunks. And the last years of his life were sweet because he got back to doing what he should have been doing all along. But Bill sacrificed himself for us. I remember sitting there and thinking about it. Thinking, I don't think I could have done it. I think I'd have died in the middle of this dream house. I would have just been so consumed with myself, I don't think I could have survived. And Bill suffered from Trudeau. There's letters in our archives where where friends of Bill wrote to other friends, and they were in their letters, they were afraid Bill might take his own life. There's there's letters in the archive where Bill was supposed to deliver to Tom Powers sections of the book, The Twelve Steps and the Twelve Traditions, and the letter says, we can't get it to you. Bill's sitting in his desk sobbing. He's so depressed. And he, he muscled through it, and he got that book together, The Twelve Steps and the Twelve Traditions. He got, the, he, he got us safe from ourselves. Oh, great death to Bill Wilson. A great death. He really gave his life for us. He never wanted credit. He never asked for credit. When Time Magazine wanted to put him on the cover, he turned it down. Lois, who was always... Lois is so... I, I, I met Lois. Lois was so funny. Years later, I wasn't there when she said this, but... She's at this some event, some A event, and somebody's saying, "Wow, Bill Wilson turned down the cover of Time magazine. He's the only one in history that ever did that." And Lois said, "Yeah, he did. That's true. He turned down the cover." Then she said, "You know, but I think he got more mileage." He said, "She said there have been hundreds of people on the cover. He's the only guy in history that ever turned it down. I think he got more mileage out of turning it down." She was very good for him. She was perfect. They were brought together by divine appointment. I don't think another woman could have could have bared with it. And we owe her a great debt. And out of this, we came an altruistic movement. I am a big proponent, and I, I run into people in AA that are that are doing emotionally not doing very well and I always and I always try to encourage them. I got guys I sponsor that now sponsor seven and eight people that at one time were on lots of medications and very depressed and they were they were basket cases emotionally and they're free men and you would not know them today if you saw them because of the way they laugh and carry on. I, I think Scott met met Neil, we call him the Admiral of our group uh, five years ago, he was so entrenched in the mental health system, he could, you don't even, there was nobody home here. He was so medicated. He hasn't taken anything in years. You should see him. He's the funniest guy you'll ever meet. He's just hilarious. And he's, he sponsors guys. He does service. He always, he has new guys in his car a lot. Comes to detox. He's, he's alive. He's free. I, the the Buddhist tells a story about a man who tries to ride two horses. 
in how you can't. And you can't serve a power greater than yourself and serve yourself. You gotta pick your horse. And you gotta ride that horse. If serving yourself has worked well for you, I would encourage you to do that. But if you're like me, it hasn't worked out very well. So I would encourage you to ride this horse. It's this, it's the horse of self-forgetting. And nothing will ensure immunity from drinking his intensive work with other alcoholics. Do you know, in, in AA, I heard this, I heard this years ago, and I don't know, I don't know if these are accurate statistics, but they feel pretty close to me. Like they're not, I don't think if they're not, maybe not accurate, they're not far off. This trustee said at a service conference that 5% of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous does 95% of the service. And of that 5% that does 95% of the service, that that 5% has almost a perfect recovery rate as long as they stay part of the 5%. When it says in the book, nothing so much ensure immunity from drinking is intensive work with other alcoholics that are a kid, and it's really true. Um, so I try to stay on the lines. I try to stay in the trenches. It's not convenient. Uh, I've had times where I... I could have done some amazing stuff. But I have a commitment to do this. It's it's easy to it's easy to say that you really have surrendered yourself completely to the simple program that your primary purpose is helping others. It's it's a little more difficult to live that. It's actually day in and day out. You know, the book suggests that we ask God in our morning meditation each day how we can help the man who's still sick each day. Then we forget. In the in the chapter working with others is 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 a blow by blow description on how to do a twelve step call, how to sponsor someone. This is a lost art. I think if we followed this chapter more, we'd have more success in Alcoholics Anonymous. And we would also, we wouldn't be trying to recruit people into AA that really shouldn't even be here. There's a, we'll get into that. Page 90, top of the page. Okay, let's let's say you're buying this. You're, you're going to go help people. Remember that the first, remember Bill Wilson worked with 96 People who drank again before he met Dr. Bob. 96. So if the first person you, you, you try to help drinks again, you got, you got 95 more to go through just to be up to his level. I mean, you keep pitching. There's a spiritual principle. You throw enough shit up against the wall, some of it'll stick. Just keep throwing crap. Just keep throwing it, flinging it. Just keep flinging it. So you find somebody. You get your first 12-step call. Top of page 90. When you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about him. Which means you're going to listen to him. You're going to ask him some questions. You're going to, you're going to seem like you're really interested in him and his life. If he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. That's a very, do you want to stop drinking? No, I know you think you should. 
do you want to stop? Well, I know your wife wants you to. Do you want to stop? I know the judge wants you to. I know your boss. I know, I know, I know. But do you want to stop drinking? And it says, don't waste time trying to persuade him. You might spoil a later opportunity. I, you know, I'm an idiot. I start doing 12-step work when I'm new, but I never read this book. If you don't read the book and you don't have the principles in place, then all I got to come with is my own personality. Right? So I'm coming to 12-step work with ego. I, I get a 12-step. Oh, there, we had this answering service in Vegas back in the late 70s, early 80s. It was a professional answering service that went on like at night. And during the, the we the like from midnight to 8 a.m., it was a professional service and answered the phone. You call Alcoholics Anonymous, get a professional service. They have a list of phone numbers. They call a member of AA that was willing to answer, take a call in the middle of the night. Well, what this service did is they don't call varied people. They find one or two people they know are going to take calls, and they just call them. So I went through a period where I was getting calls every night. And I'd get calls 3 o'clock in the morning. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you want, this is Bob. Do you want to stop drinking? Well, I'll be right there. I put on my cape. <laughs> I get in my car. I put in the, the, my favorite soundtrack to the, to Mighty Mouse. Here we come to save the day. And I zoom over there because I'm going to get this guy sober because I need to bring him back to my home group. To show the old timers. It's, 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 I'm almost, I'm almost like, you know, when your cat brings your mouse and shows it to you. You know, I'm like, I want to show, I want to bring this, I want to bring this guy and dump him at the feet of my, of the old timers and my sponsor. Cause it's about me. It's all about me. This guy, and I get these guys, well, at three o'clock in the morning, alcoholics will call alcoholics. Sometimes I should know that. I used to do that. I don't want to get sober. It's three o'clock in the morning. There's nobody to talk to and I've run out of vodka. I mean, I just, I'm calling ex-girlfriends for God's sakes. I'm calling suicide prevention. I mean, I'm calling anybody. These guys don't want to get sober, but I don't ask them because they called. So I get the guy in my car. I, I've, I've done horrid things. I went one, me and some gal went to some gal's house one time and she asked for a 12-step call. I, I, I held her in the one room, wouldn't let her out of the one room while well, no, the, the, the gal held her in the one room, and I went in the bathroom and dumped out all her pills. And she's looking in her bottle of vodka. She's looking at me like, oh, no. You know, like, what are you guys, oh, what a horrid thing to do to somebody. I'm dumping out their vodka and pills. What a horrid, but, but I don't know any better, right? I'm not, I'm not carrying the message. I'm carrying the disease. I'm, I'm contagious. Oh, God. I get these guys, and I'm, I tell you, they're going to get sober, or I'm going to kill them. Because if they don't stay sober, I'm going to look bad, right? And once you take them to a home group, and some old timer seen you with them, now, now they can't drink again, because I'm going to look bad. And oh my God, I, the book says don't, don't chase a guy that doesn't want to stop drinking. You'll spoil a later opportunity. And I did that, and I gotta tell you, I, I never, I didn't do it out of malice. I did it out of ignorance. But when it comes to alcoholism, ignorance is as deadly as malice. And there's a lot of people, I, I got a lot of things I wish I could undone. I, I, there's a lot of people that I 12 stepped back in those days that may never come to Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Because I was the first view of AA they'd ever see. There might have been some of those people that maybe maybe were this close to hitting the bottom and being ready for us. Maybe. And now they may never be ready because they had to run into Bob. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, so I'm coming from ego. It's all ego. That's all. There's an old Persian proverb that it talks about this. Why we don't do this? Why you don't try to get somebody to stop drinking that doesn't want to stop drinking? Why you don't want to change somebody that doesn't want to change? It says it's like trying to teach a pig to sing. Not only doesn't it work, it annoys the pig. I annoyed a lot of pigs, man. I didn't mean to, but I did. Okay, so what do you do if the guy wants to stop drinking? Good question. If there's any indication that he wants to stop, a good talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife. It, it, that seems so bizarre to me. That might be true, though. I, I'm Outside of his wife, there's nobody more interested in him than him. Um, but that's what Al-Anon's, we, we marry. You know why alcoholics marry Al-Anon's? We finally find someone who thinks about us as much as we do. I mean... So you, you talk to his family members if you can. If he doesn't have any family members, you talk to him. You, and here's, this is very important. He says, get an idea of his behavior, his problems, his background, and the seriousness of his condition and his religious leanings. Why? To do the most important thing you will do. And the next line is the essence of what we do here. I think if you can do what it talks about in the next line, it will make the difference between success and failure. You need this information to, to put yourself in His place. To see how you would like Him to approach you if the tables were turned. One of the most powerful things in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's given to us. It's not given to the psychiatrists and the clergy. It's not given to the doctors. It's given to us. Is this ability to do something that a man with five doctorate degrees cannot do and never will be able to do. And that is, if you're clear with yourself and you've worked the steps, if you're properly armed with information about yourself, if you get your disease and get the self-centeredness and you get it all, that you can go inside yourself to a place where you will get this new guy in a way that nobody's ever understood him before. Because it's you. You are intimately familiar with his state of mind and emotion because it's you. And you can come at him in a way that will blow his mind because you're just talking to yourself. I think a good 12-step call is I'm just talking to me. I'm talking to the me that I was, that I'm seeing in you that I was 34 years ago. That's what I'm doing. I'm talking to me. And, and, and the old timers were masters of that when I got sober. Oh my God, they'd say things to me that you, you just think they're psychic. How do you know that? And we kind of, because if you know yourself, we kind of have an unfair advantage, really. I mean, an alcoholic properly armed with information about himself not only can help another alcoholic, he can scare the crap out of one too. I mean, 
When you think about it, you take somebody's brand new, sober three days. You can walk up to them and say things because they're true. And you'll know. Just go things like, you've been worrying about yourself a lot, haven't you? How do you know that? Because we know ourselves. We know that. Um, that's why in Alcoholics Anonymous we have singleness of purpose is so important. You don't have to come to AA and describe all your other problems. We know. You don't have to. You, you don't have to tell us you had a hard time with drugs. We know. We don't know anybody here that's had a good time with them. <laughs> you don't have to say you're an alcoholic and uh you don't we don't need you don't have to say you're an and. We know you've had a problem with relationships. Yeah, we know that. We know you think about yourself obsessively. We understand. We worry about stuff. We know. You don't have to say you're an alcoholic and a neurotic. We know. We understand. You're alcoholic and you don't fit anywhere. You don't have to say you're an alcoholic and I'm lonely. We know. We understand. We get you. Because you're us. We get you. We have alcoholism. Because when I say, my name's Bob Darrell and I'm an alcoholic, and if you're an alcoholic who's properly armed with information about yourself, at that moment you know more about me than any member of my family has ever known. You know me. Because you know you. Powerful stuff. So if we can, if I can put, if I can get clear enough of myself, and, and you know, the things that stand in the way of our usefulness, the stuff I talk to God about in step seven is this, is all the self crap. Like all of a sudden, uh, I got a relationship on my mind, so I'm not really there for you. So now I'm blocked. Now I can't come into myself and go to that place where I get you because I go inside myself and all I see is the relationship or the finances or the things I'm afraid of or the resentments. So it's, it's, it's optimum that I stay clear of me so I can help you. And sometimes the one facilitates the other. It's, 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 I've been, the, just the, the very action of my, and the very desire, and the word desire, oddly enough, comes from the old English. It's two words, D meaning of and sire meaning father. The moment that I have a desire to be helpful, it's almost like that in, uh, in and of itself can relieve me of the, enough of the bondage of self to become a channel again. So that I can go inside and, and do that thing that we do so well. Uh, that nobody else can do. So, we're, we're giving, we're interviewing this guy. We're trying to find out, first of all, is he a real alcoholic? And does he know it? And we're going to have a conversation with him about drinking. About the queer mental twists. We're going to, have to talk to him about the, all this stuff. We're going to talk to him about it. And he knows he's an alcoholic. He wants to quit drinking. And on page 92, after the interviewing process. Now, we're not taking him to a meeting yet. He doesn't have a right to come to a meeting yet. Matter of fact, we don't want him to come to a meeting. He'll just, what's he going to share at a meeting? Tell, uh, he's, what's he going to do? He's got nothing for us yet. He's got nothing for himself. So in the first paragraph 92, it says, after you interviewed him, it says, if you are satisfied that he is a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Show how from your experience, how the queer mental condition surrounding the first drink prevents normal functioning of the will. We talk about those times we swore to ourselves we'd never drink again, and we did. Talk about our failures. 
We talk about our hopelessness, our powerlessness. We tell him. We don't at this stage refer to this book unless he has seen it and wishes to discuss it. The book hasn't entered into the deal just yet. It will quickly. Let him draw his own conclusions. Don't brand him an alcoholic. But insist that if he is severely afflicted, there may be little chance, there's little chance you're going to recover by yourself. This is not kind of good news for the guy. You know that? Um, it goes on down a little further. It says, explain that many are doomed who, who never realize their predicament. Uh, and not only are you hopeless and you're not going to recover by yourself, you're doomed pretty much. And more good news coming up here. Um, I'm supposed to tell you about the hopelessness of alcoholism. Oh, I just, I'm a fount of good news for you. We don't, this is a lost art. We don't do that much anymore, do we? What do we do? We try to pat, we try to pat him on the back and tell him, oh, it's going to be good. Just don't drink. Your life's going to get wonderful. Oh, I, I watch this in meetings. Somebody will come back from a relapse. They've been relapsing for five years. And they've really broken down in the meeting. And, they, and they're sharing. They're saying, I, I don't, I, I just don't have what it takes to stay sober. I'm sorry. I, I, there's something really wrong with me. I feel I'm so decrepit. I feel so hopeless. And people in the meeting will share at him to tell him he's wrong. You're not hopeless. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You just don't drink no matter what. You got, what do you mean you don't? You have what it takes. We all have what it takes. We cannot drink here. That's a bunch of crap. Tell him the truth. The book says, hey, tell him the truth. You feel like you don't have what it takes to stay sober. You're right, you don't. You feel hopeless and like you're going to die. Oh, yeah, right again. Oh, yeah, you're good here. You're hitting 100 here. Good, good, good for you. You feel hopeless. Oh, you're hopeless. Yeah, you're just, uh, yeah, you're, that's, Tell them the truth. And you know why we can tell them the truth? Here's what the book says. We can talk to him about the hopelessness of alcoholism because we offer a solution. If we didn't have a solution, it would be, it would be, it'd be torture to tell a guy that. He'd just go blow. If all Alcoholics Anonymous had to offer was step one, we'd have a higher suicide rate than Jonestown. I mean, we'd all, we'd all just inflict each other with the truth and go kill ourselves. I mean, but we can, we can inflict each other with the truth about our condition of mind and body because we got a way out. We can tell you the truth. And you know, you need to know the truth because the solution is so drastic, it doesn't look, it's not appealing until there's no option. Right? That's the problem. If you, if you placate the guy and you give him a false sense of okayness, you've just taken away his desperation. Explain that many are doomed. There, there's there's a a thing that I, happened to me that I never I didn't understand for a while. There's amazing people in AA. I mean, amazing people who they know they know how to love the unlovable. Guys that are, are, are have no self worth that are actually have self loathing from everything I've done. And yet at the same time, have these tremendous egos that make it very difficult to help us. And men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous knew how to love the unlovable. Guys like me. Uh, they used to do things to, all, all the time for me. That, uh, 
they'd give me, I remember one time I was in this, I was in the halfway house. I was fairly, I just got out of the detox. I was staying in this halfway house and it's kind of a down and out place. And there was, there was men in an alcoholic psalmist that would come over there and pick me up almost every day for a meeting. And they would take me every day to this men's luncheon, stag meeting, men's AA stag meeting. And it was at a restaurant. And I don't have any money. I don't have any cigarettes. Guys would give me cigarettes. That was back in the days when you smoking the meat. They'd give me a pack. Some guys come and give me a pack of cigarettes. I'd feel embarrassed. They'd buy me lunch. Sometimes anonymously, sometimes I'd see who did it. Sometimes a waitress, waitress would just bring me a cheeseburger and french fries. Who paid? Don't worry, it's been paid for. Well, who? We don't know. We can't tell you. It's took care of. I'm, I'm getting a ride I'm back to the Samaritan house one day, and a guy, this guy come over and picked me up. He gave me a pack of cigarettes, and he bought me lunch. And, you know, it's a, I'm a funny kind of guy. I need the help, but I'm always ashamed to have to take it. The, the, I, I was in Japan years ago, and I, this, somebody, this Japanese person told me that, that in the Japanese language or culture, they have several different statements that they use to express gratitude to someone who helps them out of a bad situation. And every one of them, in a sense, would translate into the English as a type of resentment. Because if you bailed me out of jail, if you fed me when I needed to be fed, if you gave me a ride when I needed a ride, I lost face because I should have done that for myself. And I understand that. And I'm getting this ride back to the halfway house, and this guy, I feel ashamed of myself. I mean, I, I'm grateful for the lunch, and I'm grateful for the ride, and I'm grateful for the cigarettes, and yet ashamed of myself at the same time that I, you had to help me. And, and he said, and I told him, I said, listen, I'm going to get a job, and I'm going to pay you back. And, and he said, whoa, whoa, no, 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 we don't do that here. But I'll pay you. No, I really, I'll pay you back. And he says, listen, listen to me. He says, you don't pay back nobody here. He said, what we want you to do is to stay sober long enough that you can do the same thing for somebody else that I just did for you. And I remember thinking to myself, well, yeah, okay, if I ever I ever got a good job, God, if I ever got a driver's license again, I don't think that's going to, that may never happen. If I ever got a driver's license, I ever got a car, how am I ever going to get a car? I'll never have a down payment for a car. I can't ever get a car. But if I ever got a car, and I ever had a few dollars in my pocket, I would give some guy a ride to back a pack of cigarettes and a ride to a meeting. And and I can say that with, with pretty ease because I don't think it's ever going to happen. It happened quicker than I would have ever imagined. And here's the amazing thing. I remembered the debt and I paid it forward. I don't think, you, I don't think you can keep this stuff unless you pay it back or pay it forward. One or the other. You gotta do something with it. Because what, see my, my judgment of not deserving what he was doing for me was actually accurate. I didn't deserve it. And if you receive a gift you don't deserve, what do you got to do? You have to either pay it back or pay it forward. So in Alcoholics Anonymous, we pay it forward. So I started helping people. And there's a funny dynamic in the universe. There's, it, this is a, a crazy thing. The universe will reward you with abundance in direct proportion to how much you help others. 
And it's, it's a bad deal. It's, it's kind of a bad deal because, okay, I don't deserve what you've given me. So I gotta do service and I gotta pay it forward. So okay, I'm gonna help these people over here. Okay, I'm trying to get even. It's, I'm not gonna get even, but I'm gonna try to get even. I don't deserve what I got, so I'm gonna help these people over here. Well, the universe doesn't care what my motives are. I'm doing service. I'm helping God's kids. So it rewards me with abundance. Well, I didn't deserve the abundance. I didn't even reserve what I, deserve what I already had. Now I owe more. Okay, so I owe more. So I gotta do more service. Okay, I'm gonna do more service. Now the rewards, the universe rewards me with more of a good life, which I don't deserve. And now I owe more. It's like I'm locked into the worst loan shark in the universe. I mean, the interest, the vig on this stuff is very high. And you'll never get out. And you'll owe all, you'll all owe the rest of your life. And you'll live the rest of your life. You will live the rest of your life. Some of us didn't live any of our life when we got here. We were more dead than alive. My grand sponsor says we do it for fun and for free. In the 12 steps and 12 traditions, they, they refer to the 12th step as the joy of living step. There's nothing that lights me up more. It's one of the guys I sponsor, when he talks about 12 step work, he says, he'll say, he gets in a, a whisper and he'll go, oh, 12 step work? That's the good dope. I always liked the good dope, didn't you? That's the good dope. It really is. It really is. Um, the book cautions us. If he's not interested and expects you to only act as his banker, or a nurse for his sprees, you may have to drop him. Some people in AA, they don't really want help. They want relief. They don't want a sponsor. They want a fireman. Somebody's going to come in and when they're, when they burnt their house to the ground, it's going to put the fire out for them so that they can go back to running the universe again. Uh, and sometimes you got to stop, you got to say, no, I, my, my sponsor has a great line. If he, if he has, somebody asks him to sponsor him and the guy won't follow directions and he only wants him there to use him to his own relief, he'll say, he'll say, I, I can't sponsor you anymore. Why not? Well, because you're not sponsorable. What, what do you, you don't want me to sponsor you. You, you want a witness to your own demise. You don't need that. Um, and, Sometimes I, we do guys a disservice by allowing them the delusion that they're sponsorable when the truth is they're not. And I'll tell you why that's a dangerous delusion. And I, and I sponsor some guys that aren't sponsorable, but I'll tell you something. I tell them. I tell them they're not sponsorable. I got a guy right now that I, as soon as I get back, we're going to have this conversation. Because he's self-directed. And that's fine. I'm not. I, I'm not in the job of of trying to change people, but I'm in the job of being honest with him, and he needs to know. And the reason he needs to know is if he drinks again, I don't want him to drink again thinking that Alcoholics Anonymous didn't work. I want him to know the truth. Hey, you never did this. You never did your finished your amends. You never say you never made your service commitments. You never did what we did. Of course it failed. It didn't fail. You did. Because I want him to have the option of coming back and trying this again. If, if I allow him the delusion that he did AA when he really didn't do AA, what I'm really allowing him to think that AA, maybe AA doesn't work. 
No, A didn't fail. You did. I want him to know the truth. So I tell him. Truth that people, we don't like, they don't like hearing it. None of us like, well, I've been told that stuff by people, by old timers in my sponsor and Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not like hearing it. But I know something. I know that these men love me enough that they care more about my life than my feelings. And I give them spiritual permission. Hurt my feelings. Save my life. Hurt my feelings. Save my life. And it's only when you're un, you know, it's only when you're unsurrendered that your feelings can be hurt. You, you, you don't suppose that your spirit ever gets offended, do you? It's your ego that gets offended. It's not your spirit. Your spirit never can get offended, but your ego can. Um, I'm going to read a couple things. I'll tell you something they didn't tell me. I wish, I'm, and I'm glad they didn't tell me. I might have deterred me from doing some of this, but it's something happens to you when you do this. You start sponsoring guys. You start sa- staying sober year after year. You start being uh, looked at as, an, as as one of the leaders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe you don't feel like you're a leader. Maybe you feel like you're just trying to get by like everybody else. But the newer people are going to start looking at you like that. And what happens when you're someone who sponsors people and does service in Alcoholics Anonymous? It's like you get a target painted right on your forehead. And people start sh- taking shots at you. They don't tell you that. I'm telling you that it happens. Because there's two types of people in alcohol. It's not as there's the doers and the judgers. The doers are pretty much too lit up and on fire with life doing that they don't have a lot of time to judge much. And the judgers are too busy judging to do anything. And the judgers will always tear down the doers. It's just the way it is. I worked on a, on a lobster boat up in Maine. One of my, one of my geographics. I was up there and I was working in this lobster. It's hard work. I was a stern man. I had to pull these traps. It's really a lot of hard work. And we get to pull the traps on board and you pull these lobster traps out and often there's a bunch of crabs in the lobster traps. Now these are not great crabs. These are not like Alaskan king crabs. These are just nothing kind of crabs. But they're in the lobster traps. And the lobster guys don't want them. They don't, they don't save them. So there's a bucket on the deck of the ship that's about maybe uh, two feet high or so and maybe about four or five feet in diameter, maybe four and a half feet in diameter. And you get the, when you pull the traps, you pull the lobsters out and you put the lobsters in the bins and the crabs you throw in the crab bucket. And after a while, the crab bucket fills up with crabs. There's a lot of crabs in there. And I'm pulling traps and I'm looking over and now there's, we're on the verge of having this huge deluge of crabs spilling onto the deck of the boat. They're climbing up the side of the crab bucket. There's no lid on it. And I said to the guy working there, now I'm a new guy on the boat. I don't really know that much, but I'm, I know, I see what, I know what I see. I said to the guy, hey, you gotta put a cover on that. And he said, no, you don't. I said, listen, you, you don't see the, the, this, look at that one right there. He's ready to get out. He's almost over the lip of the deal. You gotta, he said, you gotta put a, no, you don't. He says, watch. I'm watching and this crab's just about ready to get free. 
and the other crabs around him freak out and pull him back down. And no crabs ever get out. Very seldom do any crab get out of the bucket. And alcohol, you start to pull your head above the crowd and other people are going to try to pull you down. But we do this anyway, don't we? This is attributed, this was actually written by a, a guy that's attributed to Mother Teresa. It says, people are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. But succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. But be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. But build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they might be jealous. But be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. But do good today anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. But give the best, the world the best you have anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. That we do these things for the joy of doing them. Not for return, not for notoriety. We do them because they light our spirit. There was a guy um, who was Bill Wilson's spiritual advisor in New York. He, he was the head of the Oxford Group Church there. His name was Sam Shoemaker. And Sam, unlike a lot of the members of the Oxford Group, Sam loved the alcoholics, the drunk squad. A lot of people in the Oxford Group didn't. I mean, there was a little bit of a, a spiritual up up you know, like superiority in some of the Oxford group. They looked, they didn't want, you know, Buckman, Frank Buckman, the founder of Moral Realmer, the, the Oxford group, was always at odds with Bill Wilson. Frank Buckman was always pushing Bill Wilson to go down to his, the captains of industry in Wall Street and try to bring them and testify to them, bring them into the Oxford group that would swell his power base in his coffers. And Wilson didn't want to do it. Wilson wanted to go down and Work with the, the, the homeless guys, the guys at the Calvary Mission, the guys in Towns Hospital, the dregs of the earth. And a lot of the Oxford group didn't. They wanted, they thought that, they thought that spirituality should come with abundance. And Bill Wilson didn't care about any of that. He cared about alcoholics. He cared about guys like you and me. And so he went down into the trenches and he self he did the self-sacrifice. He did it all. And Sam watched him for years. And Sam wrote this poem, I, I suspect, because of what he saw Bill and the early members of AA do. And it's, I, most of you have been, have heard it. I've been, been reading this now for 25 years. It, because I, it's one of the most beautiful things I've, uh, I think I've ever seen written. It, it describes us. It describes what we do here. It's called, I Stand by the Door. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. 
There's no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside, and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched, groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, that door to God. The most important thing any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that clicks and opens only to that man's touch. Men die outside the door, as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter. They die for want of what is within their grasp. They live on the outside of it. They live there because they have not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them to find it and open it and walk in and find Him. So I stand by the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down into the cavernous cellars and way up into the spacious attics. It is a vast, roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deepest of hidden casements of withdrawal of silence of sainthood. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the depths and heights of God and call outside to the rest of us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in. Sometimes I'll venture in a little further, but my place seems closer to the opening, so I stand by the door. There's another reason I stand there. Some people get partway in and they become afraid, lest God and the zeal of His house devour them. For God is so very great, and He calls all of us. And these people feel a cosmic claustrophobia, and they want out. Let me out, they cry, and the people way inside only terrify them more. Somebody must be by the door to tell them that they are spoiled for the old life. You see, they have seen too much. For once you taste God, then nothing but God will do any more. Somebody must be watching for the frightened who seek to sneak out just when they came in to tell them how much better it is inside. The people too far in do not see how near these are to leaving, for they're so preoccupied with the wonder of it all. Somebody must watch for those who have entered the door but would like to run away. So for them too, I stand by the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not yet even found the door, or the people who want to run away from God. You can go in too deeply and stay too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place near enough to God to hear Him and know that he is there, but not so far from men as to not hear them, and remember that they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them. Millions of them. But more important for me, one of them, two of them, perhaps ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch, so I shall stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper, so I stand by the door. Samuel Moore Shoemaker. That is what we do here, isn't it? Uh, men and women 
who are awake, properly armed with information about themselves, have their eyes and ears open and they look for guys like us as we walk into our first meeting. They give them, they're given their time and their energy and they come into detoxes and they go to jails because that is more important than their very lives. They know. They know. And I will owe my life to those men and women who came into the detoxes in the county jails when I was there. And I wasn't ready to hear you. And they didn't care. They just knew that if they kept coming to places like that, one day they would catch a guy like me. And in 1978, they did. And what would have happened to me if they'd stopped coming? What would happen to you? What would happen to your children's children if people stopped stepping up? So we step up here. We do it for the freedom. We do it for the fun. And we do it for the joy. We do it for the love. We do it because it's the best thing we've ever known. Alcoholics Anonymous will always be an altruistic movement. In the northwestern part of the United States, uh, I was up for a conference many years ago at a place called Eureka. Actually, I'm going up there again next year. It's been quite a few years. And, and I was, I'd never been up in that part of the country before. And this guy was my host, and he was very kind. He wanted to show me around. And he took me to this place called the Avenue of the Giants. And it, they had these trees there that were like, it was like something out of Jurassic Park. Huge. I mean, these trees were 20, 25 feet in diameter, 250 to 300 feet high. I mean, they were spectacular. I'd, I had never seen anything like that. And, and I, we're spending some time there, and I'm walking around this... Uh, Forest and it had a feeling about it, almost like it had, like it was had a, a presence about it. It was very amazing. We're done. The guy says, "Come on, get in the truck," and he wanted to take me down to the the ocean where there's these cliffs and these these really re- remarkable rock monoliths that come out of the ocean. These towering rocks that just shoot straight up. He wanted to show me that, but we had a little bit of a drive, and so we're driving across country down to the ocean from the forest. And we're going by these meadows and fields. And he says to me, do you notice how you don't see a 250-foot tree standing alone all by itself in a field? And I said, yeah. He said, do you know why that is? I said, no, I don't. He said, well, uh, this particular type of tree, God has designed it in such a manner that it aspires naturally to grow to such magnificent heights that alone it literally outgrows its root capacity to support itself and hold itself up and it will eventually grow to a point where it will topple over on its own aspired magnificence it can't stand it will fall I grow until it falls and he said and then it dies he said what must happen in god's plan is that these trees must grow up in community and they literally will intertwine their roots into a net below the floor of the forest, and that allows them to hold each other up and grow into their aspiration. And, it, and I thought to myself, that's, that's exactly what Alcoholics Anonymous... Alone, I, I've come, I just become so full of myself, I implode and fall over. I mean, I just, I'm no good. But if I come here 
and I intertwine my life with yours and I get a home group and I get a sponsor and I start sponsoring people, um, you will allow me to grow into Bob, into God's image of Bob. And God's image of Bob is much better than my image of Bob. Um, and you guys have allowed me to do that. Um, and that's, that, George, that's all you get. Um, <laughs> all right. Don't, don't encourage him. Um, <laughs> if I haven't at least made my, if I haven't poked fun at my host one time during the weekend, I haven't done my job. Um, Okay, so I'm going to try to do some of these questions. I, I may not have answers to these things. I don't, I don't know. If I have some experience, good. It says a long question. Along with the allergy to alcohol that chronic alcoholics have in more about alcoholism, they go into great detail about the peculiar mental twist prior to the first drink, the insidious insanity if there is time, can you say anything about this queer mental condition that convinces us that we can drink like normal people with impunity? Well, I can tell you what it appears to be to me. This queer mental blank spot, Silkworth refers to it as an inability to differentiate the true from the false. And the book refers to us as people being driven by self-delusion. So here's what I think it is. I think that I'm not drinking, and I ain't doing very well. I don't like the way I feel. I'm not happy about my sobriety. I don't fit like I used to fit when I was drunk. And, and what happens is I start to yearn for the connectedness that I felt when I was 18, 20 years old and alcohol worked. And I yearn for it to such a degree that I start believing it's obtainable again, even though it's not. And I, the blank spot is my inability to bring into my consciousness the memory of the suffering, to see the truth. It, when, 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 when all you, all you can see is your own yearning and need for relief, you can't see consequences, you can't see the last five times you drank and how it wasn't fun anymore and how horrible it was and how you swore to yourself you'd never do it again. It's a blank spot. You can't see it. Because all you can see, what's right here is the need for relief. For right here is the fantasy, the, the psychotic, wishful thinking that I'm going to party. And it's against the backdrop of, of, of this lonely abstinence, this restless, irritable, discontent abstinence, this depressing feeling of useless abstinence. Abstinence. And all I see is the need for relief. And I don't see. I don't see the truth. I can't differentiate truth from the false. I, I can't see anything except that. Um, treatment centers tell you weird things. Like if, first of all, they'll tell you stuff like, if you think about, if you think about drinking, obsession to drink returns, call somebody. Who the hell's gonna do that? I'm not. It's too late. It's way too late. 
it, this is that's the philosophy of a guy who says I'm not going to put oil in my car until the engine seizes up first. I mean, it's too late. By the time the obsession to drink is on me, I'm I'm not going to call anybody to get in my way. It's too late. Uh, I have to treat my spiritual condition so I don't yearn for the because once once if I get spiritually sick enough, I start seeing hope. In the bottle. Hope of freedom, hope of relief. Doesn't matter that it hasn't been that way for a while. I can't see that. The book says we have this seeming inability to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. I can't see the truth at that point. All I can see is, man, I got, I, I, I'm gonna have fun. Anyway. It's, it's my view of it. I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody. That's, that's just based on my experience. And it's, it is a blank spot. You can't see it. It's a blind eye towards the truth. Based on this psychotic, wishful thinking. Is there any significant difference between how women and men approach the 12 steps and recovery? No. Well, listen, I, I, I want to tell you something that I believe really strongly. Alcoholism is across the board here. And I think it's a dangerous proposition to single yourself out as a special. I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a male alcoholic. I'm a, I used to be able to say before Mother Nature got her paintbrush up, I'm a redheaded alcoholic. I'm, or, or to say, if you if you're you're a Catholic alcoholic, or you're a, a gay alcoholic, or you're a heterosexual alcoholic, or you're a young pre person in alcoholics, and I, we we survive in a herd. And if you want to get yourself a little group out of the edges of Alcoholics Anonymous, you ever watch those those animal documentaries? Who gets picked off? It's it's the it's the three little it's the three little wildebeests that think they're a little different from the rest of the herd. They're out here. They're out here saying, you know, let's, we, our case is different, and it is. They're 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 dinner. <laughs> Just be a drunk here. My. My sponsor, my first sponsor's departed wife used to say, we share our similarities and we ignore our differences. How do you use the program to help with comparing yourself with others in detrimental ways? How do you use the program to help with comparing? I don't need any help with comparing myself to others. I, I've had that. That's an art form with me. I, I need help to not do that. I need to help to stop it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that'd be an interesting program. Um, um, you know, to see the truth. You know, you work the steps, and the step four did so much for me as I started to really honestly and genuinely see myself in other people, even even especially the people I hated. It returned me to community. And my case isn't different. My, my sponsor says that he has, a, he has a banner in his garage that somebody made him because they heard him say this in a talk. He says, if there was a flag 
that alcoholics could rally around and feel like it would unite us all. The flag would say, you don't understand my case is different. We are pathetically common in our feelings of uniqueness. <laughs> and we all feel that way, don't we? God, I get, you get to alcoholics sometimes. Well, well-meaning people come up and they, oh, well, you know how you feel. No, you don't. No, you don't. Ah, you're a do-gooder. I know, I know. You say that. You say it to everybody. But you don't really know how I feel. Nobody knows. And we just wall ourselves off with this uniqueness. I'm... And what do you do? And we, from deep within inside of me, I'll compare these unique, squirmy, hard feelings and look out from deep within my self-centeredness to what I see on the outside in you. And I always, if I do that and compare how I feel to how you look, I'm doomed to be depressive. Because it always comes up short. Because what am I doing? It's not legit. I'm comparing my my magnified because I have my mind magnifies stuff. Did you ever stare at one of your feelings and have it get smaller? It never does that. It gets bigger. I, I, I magnify my emotions and blow them up until they consume me and then compare how I feel in the consumed state of emotions to how you way out there look. Oh yeah, I don't know. I don't. Nobody feels like I feel. Well, you know, it's not a legitimate deal here. It's a, it's, a, it's it's not legitimate. Although I am developing a relationship with God, I do not believe there is a devil. Hell is when we make what we make of ourselves on earth. What do you think? Well. I I think very similar thoughts. Um, I I'm not a I'm not a religious guy, but yet I, yet I can see tremendous uh, truth in most religions today, but sometimes not not literal in in in, in analogies and things. Um, if you were to take if you were to go through everything in Christianity that talks and refers to even letters and stuff outside the Bible, outside the Bible, and you were to, to lay down all the traits and descriptions and everything that were attributed to, to Satan, the devil, or Lucifer. And then you were to honestly put on paper all the things that have happened as a result of your ego and the harm that's been done and the damage that's been done I think you would find that there was a match. I think from the beginning of time, and this is just my view, a religious, more religious person would probably think what I'm saying is heresy. But it's just my view based on my experience. And I might be wrong. But I think from the beginning of time, from the beginning of recorded history, there's been an, a knowing from experientially, from our experience, that there's some force of love or good within me and there's some force of negative in this, and it hurts people and hurts myself. And so what is, it's natural to personify stuff. But I think it's just me. I, I, I was sponsoring a, a, a very involved born again Christian guy. And 
we, he would not do his fourth step because he didn't need to because he was forgiven. I said, yeah, but you're not going to feel that until after you make the amends. He says, no, you don't understand. I didn't, it was not me that did all that stuff. Satan made me do it. I said, you know, everything you're attributing to Satan looks a lot like you to me. <laughs> and he just, he, he, he fired me. You don't believe in Satan, he fired me. And he, uh, he was dead in six months from a drug overdose. I think we have to uh, look dead on at who we are. It's not pretty. It's not comfortable. It's not gratifying. But you can't, you, you know your enemy. Know your enemy. I'll tell you two things that have happened to me in, in 33 and a half years. One is I have developed a tremendous sense of God, and yet I've never seen God eyeball to eyeball. I've seen his hand in my life and in your life. I've seen, I've felt his presence at times, but I've never sat and looked him right in the eye. Never seen him. And on the same hand, I've never seen my ego. Oh my God, I felt it driving me. I've seen the destruction in my life, drunk and sober as a result of it. I've seen how it's, it's pushed me to make decisions based on self and ego that have hurt other people, but I've never seen it directly. And yet, through all these years, I've been looking every, almost every day at the, at the creation of my ego. And I've also been looking at the creation that have, comes about in my life is from the hand of God. And over the years, I, I got a pretty good sense of God and a pretty good, pretty good sense of the enemy. Um, it's, it's like anything else. You can, if you, you can learn and get a tremendous sense of a creator by its creation. There are writers who I've never met, but I've read everything they've ever written to the point where if, if I were to run into them in a, in a plane somewhere or an airport, I think I could have a conversation with this guy. I feel like I know him. I've never met him. But I've read, I've, I've looked at everything he's ever created. And I've looked at everything my ego's created. And I've looked at everything God's done in my life. And I feel close to both. I understand them. You, you never get rid of your ego. But you better get to know it. And what do you do? And how could you not get to know it if every single day you do the daily review and you look for its hand, you look for its manifestations in your life? Eventually, it starts, you start getting it. And there's a beauty in that because you start laughing at it. It's like, oh, they're back. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, you get it's, it's, it's silly. That's that silly thing in me. Um, Bob, how long have you been... Down in periods of depression, one month, three months, six months, has work with newcomers always worked? Yes, it has. Um, not immediately. It doesn't work as fast as a pint of 151 rum. Um, and then sometimes it has worked that quick, some, in that immediate. Uh, in the years that I wouldn't do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous except come here and whine and, and think about myself, uh, I would stay in depressions. Uh, I've been in depressions that were horrid for... It's funny, my time sense is weird. I was about to say for years, but I suspect it was only months. It just felt like years. Um, and then I would drink again. 
and I've been in depression where they gave me medications. And the medications would help uh, for a short period of time. But eventually I'd start sinking back into the depression again. Um, it was almost like it wore off. And, and I would always seem to seek harder drugs or seek uh, alcohol again. Because I'm a funny kind of guy, and I don't know if this is true for... And I'm not... If, if there's peop, if people have, have legitimate mental health diagnosis, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not trying to tell anybody anything about it. I'm not a doctor. I, all I got is my experience here. But I am one of those kind of guys that if, if I'm emotionally distraught and I'm depressed or angst up to the point of like I'm losing my mind from fear and anxiety, and you give me a little bit of relief from my emotions, it's a slow burn for me. It's not the phenomenon of craving, but there always comes a time that whatever relief you've given me isn't enough anymore. I mean, I'm not the kind of guy who gets, you can't give me enough relief. You know what I mean? It's always, I, there's a part of me that just yearns for more. And and that, I think that's part of why I would always return to either alcohol or something harder, which eventually would lead to alcohol. You know, I... Uh, it's I, it, I, every time I smoke pot, I end up drunk. Every time I do heroin, I end up drunk. Every time I do, I end up drunk. It's like you can start out, you can say, "Well, I'm not going to drink, but I'm going to do this." And my my sponsor told me, my, my the sponsor I have now, I heard him say this before you sponsored me. He says our only hope is is what Silkworth says is absolute abstinence. Oh well, that's not good. I don't like absolute abstinence because of the way I'm squirmy inside. I'm not a good. I, I'm emotionally pretty. I'm I'm really messed up here. Um, well, I found a way to go here. I'm free. I don't know if that's that can be happen to everybody. It's happened to a lot of guys I sponsor. I don't know if it can happen to everybody. It's happened to everybody I've seen that's thrown themselves 100% into it. With a few exceptions, I have some friends that have legitimate mental health issues, and they—it's fun. I'll tell you, there's another question here about medication. This is a weird thing. I asked a psychiatrist about that. I have a lot of respect for about this, and he didn't—he noticed it to some degree, but he didn't understand it either, really. But the the people like me who really don't need medication—I need action in my life. My natural inclination is to want to take the medication. People who have legitimate mental illnesses who really need medication for some crazy reason don't want to take it. I have several friends in Alcoholics Anonymous that really and true, they have legitimate mental illness. They need medication. Mary Lou, 52 years sober. She, I, God, I remember her before they got her meds right. She, she, and she would, God, she was what? I, or she 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 would stop taking it, and I couldn't understand why would you stop when you you're, when you take it you're fine. You stop taking it, and you come to meetings and you start telling us about how they're tunneling into your house and soiling your underwear. So, take your pills. Stop it. She got she got arrested running down the street naked because she imagined her hair her clothing was on fire. Why do you stop taking it? My friend Dino, I've known Dino, and I got sober 
And he got sober six months before I do, so he's sober thirty over thirty four years. We were Dino was a member of my first home group, and Dino takes his medication. He's a good guy. He functions very well. He helps people. He's great. But Dino, just like Mary Lou, will about once a year or every year and a half will start planning on getting off his medication. He'll do it like I'll plan, like I'm when I'm in a halfway house planning on going on a drunk. He'll get everything lined up so he can go out of his goddamn mind and just and he'll get off his medication. And for he usually does it around the time of the AA conventions. And he'll he'll quit his medication a day before the medica- before the convention. He'll be at the convention. He won't sleep all day. He'll, he'll be up every night hugging everybody in the hospitality room, talking about oh, he's on fire. He's loving that. This is great. Oh, let me show you this. Let me show you, let me show you this. Oh, this is great. Great. And then a week later, he's he's in he's strapped down in in a, in, a, in the mental hospital. And I said, I said to Dino, I said to Mary Lou, why don't you take your medication for God's sakes? And you know what they said to me? It blew my mind. Both of them said different words, the same thing. They said, you don't understand. When I take the medication, even though I do better, I feel like someone smothered me and I feel, I don't like the feeling. And I thought to myself, my God, that's how I felt. Every time I stopped taking stuff with untreated alcoholism, I felt like somebody was smothering me. I don't understand. I talked to the psychiatrist about it. I said, what is that? And he said, you know, I've observed a very similar thing, and I don't understand it either. But I don't know. Um, There's a great doctor in, in Kentucky who's been working, he's, a, he's an addictionologist and a psychologist and a, and a medical doctor, and he's been working with a treatment center there for, for 40 years, almost for 35 years. And he has an odd approach. Um, and if you don't have, if, if you're just a little depressed or you have depression and anxiety, we're not talking about extreme mental illness here, he will... He and you want to go on medication. He'll put you on medication, but first he wants to sit down with you and your sponsor and your spouse in a room, and they want to go through a checklist of Alcoholics Anonymous to see if you're doing it all and you've been doing it all for a while. And if you've been doing it all and you're sponsoring guys and you've really done, and he goes through these points to find out if you've really done the four steps as outlined in the book and if you made all your amends and every, and the sponsor has to be on board saying, yes, he's done all that. And the wife has to be, yeah, he's, he's cleaned up all the record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at that point, you're still overwhelmed with stuff. He'll give you medication. But what he's really saying is, let's see if AA was enough for you. Let's see if God's big enough. Let's try this first. And if, it, if this doesn't work, well, you know, well, here, it's nothing. We're not saying there's anything wrong with the medication, but let's try it first. Because if you're given, if you could get free and not take stuff, wouldn't that be a better thing than, I mean, some people have to take medication. There's no doubt about it. I, I don't argue that point. But wouldn't it be a little optimum to be free of it if you could? And I don't know if you can or not. 
I don't know. There's a book I, I give to guys. I, I've given this book to probably 25 people. I gave it to Tom Ivester and I gave it to my sponsor and they loved it. They thought it was one of the best things they ever read. And it's written by a, a, I think, one of the great psychiatrists of our era. His name is Dr. Peter Bregan. And Dr. Bregan was the founder of the Institute for Ethics in Psychiatry and Medicine in the U.S. He was, a, a, I think, a four or five time past president of the National Psychiatric Institute. He is a chair at Harvard University in psychiatry. He's written about eight or nine books. And he, he did private research years ago at Harvard University on antidepressants because he started to, to observe something in his practice that what the, the, the marketing brochures that are supposed to be case studies that are being put out by the pharmaceutical companies that the doctors get to tell them what the medication's about, he's starting to suspect that there's some stuff in here that ain't right. These have been doctored. And through discovery, he found out, he found it, he went to Eli Lilly and found through their R&D, found, uncovered some stuff that he showed evidence that, they, that they've been doctoring these case studies and convincing the medical profession of stuff that's not true. And he did a, an in-depth research on the actual interaction of the brain chemistry when you take antidepressants and what happens in short term and how, it, how the benefits short term and then what happens in long term. And it's a great book. Uh, almost about nine out of ten people on antidepressants that have read that book have made the decision on their own to go to their doctor and ask their doctor if they could be weaned off the stuff and they're free of it today. Uh, now, I'm not telling anybody to do that, but I really, if this guy has probably done more private research than anyone alive today in, that's a, a legitimate doctor and psychiatrist, and he's the guy that's become the expert in the world on this stuff, I think it would benefit you if you're thinking about taking it or if you're taking it and thinking about getting off to read what he says. A little bit more information is not all bad. And so I suggest to guys, I don't tell people, I'm not a doctor, I will not play doctor, I have no opinion on this stuff, I have some experience, but experience doesn't necessarily mean it's right for you. And so I'll say, I just say, why don't you read this book, see what happens. It's called The Antidepressant Fact Book by Dr. Peter Bregan. He's written a whole bunch of books, I mean some great stuff. I just got his new one, it's, his new one's a little hard to read, it's very clinical, it's written for psychiatrists. And it's written for doctors. He does a lot of seminars teaching doctors and psychiatrists how to, how to deal with stuff. You know, I'll tell you one thing he says that makes perfect sense to me. He says that he believes it's malpractice for a general practitioner with no psychiatric training to give out psych meds. He said they're as qualified to do that as your taxi driver with no psychiatric evaluation. He says that's malpractice. He said, you want, he said, he said there's legitimate reasons for this stuff. But, but, you know, that's what Bregan says. There's a lot of doctors don't like Bregan. <laughs> what is your view on, on the 10-step inventory? Should it be done as spot check or at the end of the day? <clears throat> I think it's, it's right now. Spot check. Um, and the reason I think the end of the day is, is to me, and the way I, re I see it in the book, it's part of step 11. 
It's, it's continue to watch. And when these, and when these come up, it's, it's, it's immediate right now. And one of the great things about the 11 step self-examination is that most of us, we're so, we get so wrapped up in our lives and we're just rolling. We roll right over stuff that we should have stopped and dealt with that. I should have stopped and made amends. I should have stopped, paused and talked to God and my sponsor about that. But I'm busy, 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 busy. And I roll over it. And what happens is it builds up. It builds up. And if I catch it at the end of the day, um, I have a chance of not filling up with me to the point where I'm, I'm wacky again. Step four, can you speak a little on that? I really want to be honest. Whoever wrote that probably wasn't here yesterday. I don't know. Um, well, follow the book. I, I, I've, I've done different formats in the fourth step. I've used the 12 by 12. I've used the life story stuff. The book is what helped me the most. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.